Why do you fight? Oromus's timepiece buzzed like a giant hornet, blaring in Aragon's ears until he retrieved the bauble and wound the mechanism. His bashed knee had turned purple. He was sore, both from his attack and the elves' dance of snake and crane, and he could do no more than croak with his ragged throat. The worst injury, though, was his sense of foreboding that this would not be the last time Durza's wound would trouble him. The prospect sickened him, draining his strength and will. So many weeks passed between attacks, he said. I began to hope that maybe, just maybe, I was healed. I suppose sheer luck is the only reason I was spared that long. Extending her neck, Safira nuzzled him on the arm. You know you aren't alone, little one. I'll do everything I can to help. He responded with a weak smile. Then she licked his face and added, You should get ready to leave. I know. He stared at the floor, unwilling to move, then dragged himself to the wash closet where he scrubbed himself clean and used magic to shave. He was in the middle of drying himself when he felt a presence touch his mind. Without pausing to think, Aragon began to fortify his mind, concentrating on an image of his big toe to the exclusion of all else. Then he heard Oromis say, Admirable, but unnecessary. Bring Zarok with you today. The presence vanished. Aragon released a shaky breath. I need to be more alert, he told Sephira. I would have been at his mercy if he were an enemy. Not with me around. When his ablutions were complete, Aragon unhooked the membrane from the wall and mounted Sephira, cradling Zarok in the crook of his arm. Sephira took flight with a rush of air, angling toward the crags of Telnair. From their high vantage point they could see the damage the storm had wreaked on Duweldenvarden. No trees had fallen in Elismira, but farther away where the elves' magic was weaker, numerous pines had been knocked over. The remaining wind made the crossed branches and trees rub together, producing a brittle chorus of creaks and groans. Clouds of golden pollen as thick as dust streamed out from the trees and flowers. While they flew, Aragon and Sephira exchanged memories of their separate lessons from the day before. He told her what he had learned about ants and the ancient language, and she told him about downdrafts and other dangerous weather patterns and how to avoid them. Thus, when they landed, and Oromis interrogated Aragon about Sephira's lessons, and Glader interrogated Sephira about Aragon's, they were able to answer every question. Very good, Aragon Vodor. Aye, well played. Piatschkuller, added Glader to Sephira. As before, Sephira was sent off with Glader while Aragon remained on the cliffs. Although this time he and Sephira were careful to maintain their link so as to absorb each other's instruction. As the dragons departed, Oromis observed, Your voice is rougher today, Aragon. Are you sick? My back hurt again this morning. Ah, you have my sympathy. He motioned with one finger. Wait here. Eragon watched as Oromis strode into his hut, and then reappeared, looking fierce and warlike, with his silver mane rippling in the wind, and his bronze sword in hand. Today, he said, we shall forego the Rimgar, and instead cross our two blades, Nagling and Zarok. Draw thy sword and guard its edge as your first master taught you. Aragon wanted nothing more than to refuse. 
However, he had no intention of breaking his vow or letting his resolve waver in front of Oromis. He swallowed his trepidation. This is what it means to be a rider, he thought. Drawing upon his reserves, he located the nub deep within his mind that connected him to the wild flow of magic. He delved into it, and the energy suffused him. Geoloth Dunifer, he said, and a winking blue star popped into existence between his thumb and forefinger, jumping from one to the next as he ran it down Zarok's perilous length. The instant their swords met, Eragon knew that he was as outmatched by Oromis as by Durza and Arya. Eragon was an exemplary human swordsman, but he could not compete with warriors whose blood ran thick with magic. His arm was too weak and his reflexes too slow. Still, that did not stop him from trying to win. He fought to the limits of his abilities, even if in the end it was a futile prospect. Oromis tested him in every conceivable manner, forcing Eragon to utilize his entire arsenal of blows, counterblows, and underhand tricks. It was all for naught. He could not touch the elf. As a last resort, he tried altering his style of fighting, which could unsettle even the most hardened veteran. All it got him was a welt on his thigh. Move your feet faster, cried Oromis. He who stands like a pillar dies in battle. He who bends like a reed is triumphant. The elf was glorious in action, a perfect blend of control and untamed violence. He pounced like a cat, struck like a heron, and bobbed and wove with the grace of a weasel. They had been sparring for almost twenty minutes when Oromis faltered. His narrow features clamped in a brief grimace. Eragon recognized the symptoms of Oromis's mysterious illness and lashed out with Zarok. It was a low thing to do, but Eragon was so frustrated he was willing to take advantage of any opening, no matter how unfair, just to have the satisfaction of marking Oromis at least once. Zarok never reached its target. As Eragon twisted, he overextended and strained his back. The pain was upon him without warning. The last thing he heard was Sephira shouting, Eragon! Despite the intensity of the fit, Eragon remained conscious throughout his ordeal. Not that he was aware of his surroundings, only the fire that burned in his flesh and prolonged each second into an eternity. The worst part was that he could do nothing to end his suffering but wait and wait. Eragon lay panting in the cold mud. He blinked as his vision came into focus and he saw Oromis sitting on a stool next to him. Pushing himself onto his knees, Eragon surveyed his new tunic with a mixture of regret and disgust. The fine russet cloth was caked with dirt from his convulsions on the ground. Muck filled his hair as well. He could sense Sephira in his mind, radiating concern as she waited for him to notice her. How can you continue like this? she fretted. It'll destroy you. Her misgivings undermined Eragon's remaining fortitude. Sephira had never before expressed doubt that he would prevail, not at Drasleona, Gilead, or Fardandur, nor with any of the dangers they had encountered. Her confidence had given him courage. Without it, he was truly afraid. You should concentrate on your lesson, he said. I should concentrate on you. Leave me alone, he snapped at her like a wounded animal that wants to nurse its injuries in silence and in dark. She fell silent, leaving just enough of their connection intact 
so that he was vaguely aware of Glader teaching her about fireweed, which she could chew to help her digestion. Eragon combed the mud from his hair with his fingers, then spat out a globule of blood. Bit my tongue. Oromis nodded, as if it were to be expected. Do you require healing? No. Very well. Tend to your sword. Then bathe and go to the stump in the glade and listen to the thoughts of the forest. Listen, and when you hear no more, come tell me what you have learned. Yes, master. As he sat on the stump, Aragon found that his turbulent thoughts and emotions prevented him from mustering the concentration to open his mind and sense the creatures in the hollow, nor was he interested in doing so. Still, the peaceful quality of his surroundings gradually ameliorated his resentment, confusion, and stubborn anger. It did not make him happy, but it did bring him a certain fatalistic acceptance. This is my lot in life, and I'd better get used to it, because it's not about to improve in the foreseeable future. After a quarter of an hour, his faculties had regained their usual acuity, so he resumed studying the colony of red ants that he had discovered the day before. He also tried to be aware of everything else that was happening in the glade, as Oromus had instructed. Aragon met with limited success. If he relaxed and allowed himself to absorb input from all the consciousnesses nearby, thousands of images and feelings rushed into his head, piling on top of one another in quick flashes of sound and colour, touch and smell, pain and pleasure. The amount of information was overwhelming. Out of pure habit, his mind would snatch one subject or another from the torrent, excluding all the rest, before he noticed his lapse and wrenched himself back into a state of passive receptivity. The cycle repeated itself every few seconds. Despite that, he was able to improve his understanding of the ants' world. He got his first clue as to their genders when he deduced that the huge ant in the heart of their underground lair was laying eggs, one every minute or so which made it, her, a female, and when he accompanied a group of red ants up the stem of their rosebush, he got a vivid demonstration of the kind of enemies they faced. Some thing darted out from underneath a leaf and killed one of the ants he was bound to. It was hard for him to guess exactly what the creature was, since the ants only saw fragments of it, and in any case they placed more emphasis on smell than vision. If they had been people, he would have said that they were attacked by a terrifying monster the size of a dragon, which had jaws as powerful as the spiked portcullis at Tyrm and could move with whiplash speed. The ants ringed in the monster like grooms working to capture a runaway horse. They darted at it with a total lack of fear, nipping at its knobbed legs and withdrawing an instant before they were caught in the monster's iron pincers. More and more ants joined the throng. They worked together to overpower the intruder, never faltering, even when two were caught and killed and when several of their brethren fell off the stem to the ground below. It was a desperate battle, with neither side willing to give quarter. Only escape or victory would save the combatants from a horrible death. Aragon followed the fray with breathless anticipation, awed by the ants' bravery and how they continued to fight in spite of injuries that would incapacitate a human. Their feats were heroic enough to be sung about by bards throughout the land. Eragon was so engrossed by the contest that when the ants finally prevailed, he loosed an elated cry so loud it roused the birds from their roosts among the trees. Out of curiosity, he returned his attention to his own body, 
then walked to the rosebush to view the dead monster for himself. What he saw was an ordinary brown spider, with its legs curled into a fist, being transported by the ants down to their nest for food. Amazing! He started to leave, but then realized that once again he had neglected to keep watch over the myriad other insects and animals in the glade. He closed his eyes and whirled through the minds of several dozen beings, doing his best to memorize as many interesting details as he could. It was a poor substitute for prolonged observation, but he was hungry, and he had already exhausted his assigned hour. When Aragon rejoined Oromus in his hut, the elf asked, How went it? Master, I could listen night and day for the next twenty years, and still not know everything that goes on in the forest. Oromus raised an eyebrow. You have made progress. After Aragon described what he had witnessed, Oromus said, But still not enough, I fear. You must work harder, Aragon. I know you can. You are intelligent and persistent, and you have the potential to be a great writer. As difficult as it is, you have to learn to put aside your troubles and concentrate entirely on the task at hand. Find peace within yourself and let your actions flow from there. I'm doing my best. No, this isn't your best. We shall recognize your best when it appears. He paused thoughtfully. Perhaps it would help if you had a fellow student to compete with. Then we might see your best. I will think on the matter. From his cupboards, Oromis produced a loaf of freshly baked bread, a wood jar of hazelnut butter, which the elves used in place of actual butter, and a pair of bowls that he ladled full of a vegetable stew that had been simmering in a pot hung over a bed of coals in the corner fireplace. Eragon looked at the stew with distaste. He was sick of the elves' fare. He longed for meat, fish or fowl, something hearty that he could sink his teeth into, not this endless parade of plants. Master, he asked to distract himself, why do you have me meditate? Is it so that I will understand the doings of the animals and insects, or is there more to it than that? Can you think of no other motive? Oromis sighed when Aragon shook his head. Always it is thus with my new students, and especially with the human ones. The mind is the last muscle they train or use, and the one that they regard the least. Ask them about swordplay, and they can list every blow from a duel a month old. But ask them to solve a problem or make a coherent statement, and, well, I would be lucky to get more than a blank stare in return. You are still new to the world of grammary, as magic is properly called but you must begin to consider its full implications. How so? Imagine for a moment that you are Galbatorix, with all of his vast resources at your command. The Varden have destroyed your Urgal army with the help of a rival dragon rider, who you know was educated, at least in part, by one of your most dangerous and implacable foes, Brom. You are also aware that your enemies are massing in Surda for a possible invasion. Given that... What would be the easiest way to deal with these various threats, short of flying into battle yourself? Aragon stirred his stew to cool it while he examined the issue. It seems to me, he said slowly, that the easiest thing would be to train a corps of magicians. They wouldn't even have to be that powerful. 
force them to swear loyalty to me in the ancient language, then have them infiltrate Surda to sabotage the Varden's efforts, poison wells, and assassinate Nasuada, King Orin, and other key members of the resistance. And why hasn't Galbatorix done this yet? Because, until now, Surda was of negligible interest to him, and because the Varden have dwelled in Fardendur for decades, where they were able to examine every newcomer's mind for duplicity, which they can't do in Surda, since its border and population are so large. Those are my very conclusions, said Oromis. Unless Galbatorix forsakes his lair in Urubain, the greatest danger you are likely to encounter during the Varden's campaign will come from fellow magicians. You know as well as I how difficult it is to guard against magic, especially if your opponent has sworn in the ancient language to kill you, no matter the cost. Instead of attempting to first conquer your mind, such a foe will simply cast a spell to obliterate you, even though in the instant before you are destroyed you will still be free to retaliate. However, you cannot fell your murderer if you don't know who or where he is. So sometimes you don't have to bother taking control of your opponent's mind. Sometimes, but it's a risk to avoid. Oromis paused to consume a few spoonfuls of stew. Now, to address the heart of this issue, how do you defend yourself against anonymous enemies who can contravene any physical precautions and slay with a muttered word? I don't see how. Unless... Aragon hesitated, then smiled. Unless I was aware of the consciousnesses of all the people around me, then I could sense if they meant me harm. Oromis appeared pleased by his answer. Even so, Eragon Finierel, and that's the answer to your question. Your meditations condition your mind to find and exploit flaws in your enemy's mental armor, no matter how small. But won't another magic user know if I touch their mind? Aye, they will know, but most people won't. And as for the magicians, they will know, they will be afraid and they will shield their minds from you out of their fear, and you will know them because of it. Isn't it dangerous to leave your consciousness unguarded? If you're attacked mentally, you could easily be overwhelmed. It is less dangerous than being blind to the world. Eragon nodded. He tapped his spoon against his bowl in a measured meter of time, engrossed in his thoughts, then said, It feels wrong. Oh? Explain yourself. What about people's privacy? Brom taught me to never intrude in someone's mind unless it was absolutely necessary. I guess I'm uncomfortable with the idea of prying into people's secrets, secrets that they have every right to keep to themselves. He cocked his head. Why didn't Brom tell me about this if it's so important? Why didn't he train me in it himself? Brom told you, said Oramis what was appropriate to tell you under the circumstances. Dipping into the pool of minds can prove addictive to those with a malicious personality or a taste for power. It was not taught to prospective riders, though we had them meditate as you do throughout their training, until we were convinced that they were mature enough to resist temptation. It is an invasion of privacy, and you will learn many things from it that you never wanted to. However, this is for your own good and the good of the Varden. 
I can say from experience and from watching other riders experience the same that this above all else will help you to understand what drives people. And understanding begets empathy and compassion, even for the meanest beggar in the meanest city of Alagasia. They were quiet for a while, eating. Then Oromis asked, Can you tell me, what is the most important mental tool a person can possess? It was a serious question, and Aragon considered it for a reasonable span before he ventured to say, Determination! Oromis tore the loaf in half with his long white fingers. I can understand why you arrived at that conclusion. Determination has served you well in your adventures. But no, I meant the tool most necessary to choose the best course of action in any given situation. Determination is as common among men who are dull and foolish as it is among those who are brilliant intellects. So no, determination cannot be what we're looking for. This time Aragon treated the question as he would a riddle, counting the number of words, whispering them out loud to establish whether they rhymed, and otherwise examining them for hidden meaning. The problem was he was no more than a mediocre riddler, and had never placed very high in Carvajal's annual riddle contest. He thought too literally to work out the answers to riddles that he had not heard before, a legacy of Garrow's practical upbringing. Wisdom, he finally said, wisdom is the most important tool for a person to possess. A fair guess, but again, no. The answer is logic, or to put it another way, the ability to reason analytically. Applied properly, it can overcome any lack of wisdom, which one only gains through age and experience. Aragon frowned. Yes, but isn't having a good heart more important than logic? Pure logic can lead you to conclusions that are ethically wrong, whereas if you are moral and righteous, that will ensure that you don't act shamefully. A razor-thin smile curled Oramis's lips. You confuse the issue. All I wanted to know was the most powerful tool a person can have, regardless of whether that person is good or evil. I agree that it's important to be of a virtuous nature, but I would also contend that if you had to choose between giving a man a noble disposition or teaching him to think clearly, you'd do better to teach him to think clearly. Too many problems in this world are caused by men with noble dispositions and clouded minds. History provides us with numerous examples of people who were convinced that they were doing the right thing and committed terrible crimes because of it. Keep in mind, Aragon, that no one thinks of himself as a villain, and few make decisions they think are wrong. A person may dislike his choice, but he will stand by it, because even in the worst circumstances he believes that it was the best option available to him at the time. On its own, being a decent person is no guarantee that you will act well, which brings us back to the one protection we have against demagogues, tricksters, and the madness of crowds, and our surest guide through the uncertain shoals of life. Clear and reasoned thinking. Logic will never fail you, unless you're unaware of, or deliberately ignore, the consequences of your deeds. If elves are so logical said Aragon. Then you must all agree on what to do. Hardly, averred Oromis. Like every race, we adhere to a wide range of tenets, and as a result we often arrive at differing conclusions, even in identical situations. 
conclusions, I might add, that make logical sense from each person's point of view. And although I wish it were otherwise, not all elves have trained their minds properly. How do you intend to teach me this logic? Oramis's smile broadened. By the oldest and most effective method, debating. I will ask you a question, then you will answer and defend your position. He waited while Aragon refilled his bowl with stew. For example, why do you fight the Empire? The sudden change of topic caught Aragon off guard. He had a feeling that Oramis had just reached the subject that he had been driving toward all along. As I said before, to help those who suffer from Galbatorix's rule, and to a lesser extent, for personal vengeance. Then you fight for humanitarian reasons? What do you mean? That you fight to help the people who Galbatorix has harmed and to stop him from hurting any more. Exactly, said Aragon. Ah, but answer me this, my young rider. Won't your war with Galbatorix cause more pain than it will ever prevent? The majority of people in the Empire live normal, productive lives, untouched by their king's madness. How can you justify invading their land, destroying their homes, and killing their sons and daughters? Aragon gaped, stunned that Oramis could ask such a question. Galbatorix was evil, and stunned because no easy reply presented itself. He knew that he was in the right, but how could he prove it? Don't you believe that Galbatorix should be overthrown? That is not the question. You must believe it, though, persisted Aragon. Look what he did to the riders. Dunking his bread in his stew, Oramis resumed eating letting Aragon fume in silence. When he finished, Oramis folded his hands in his lap and asked, Have I upset you? Yes, you have. I see. Well then, continue to ponder the matter until you find an answer. I expect it to be a convincing one. Black Morning Glory they cleared the table and took the dishes outside, where they cleaned them with sand. Oramis crumbled what remained of the bread around his house for the birds to eat, then they returned inside. Oramis brought out pens and ink for Aragon, and they resumed his education in the Liduan Cavedi, the written form of the ancient language, which was so much more elegant than the humans' or dwarves' runes. Aragon lost himself in the arcane glyphs, happy to have a task that required nothing more strenuous than rote memorization. After hours spent over the paper sheets, Oramis waved a hand and said, Enough. We will continue this tomorrow. Aragon leaned back and rolled his shoulders, while Oramis selected five scrolls from their nooks in the wall. Two of these are in the ancient language, three are in your native tongue. They will help you to master both alphabets, as well as give you valuable information that would be tedious for me to vocalize. Vocalize? With unerring accuracy, Oramis's hand darted out and plucked a massive sixth scroll from the wall, which he added to the pyramid in Aragon's arms. This is a dictionary. I doubt you can, but try to read it all. When the elf opened the door for him to leave, Aragon said, Master... Yes, Aragon. When will we start working with magic? Oramis leaned on one arm against the doorway, caving in on himself as if he no longer possessed the will to remain upright. 
Then he sighed and said, You must trust me to guide your training, Aragon. Still, I suppose it would be foolish of me to delay any longer. Come, leave the scrolls on the table, and let us go explore the mysteries of Grammarie. On the greensward before the hut, Oromus stood looking out over the crags of Telnir, his back to Aragon, his feet shoulder-width apart, and his hands clasped in the small of his back. Without turning around, he asked, What is magic? The manipulation of energy through the use of the ancient language. There was a pause before Oromus responded, Technically, you are correct, and many spellcasters never understand more than that. However, your description fails to capture the essence of magic. Magic is the art of thinking, not strength or language. You already know that a limited vocabulary is no obstacle to using magic. As with everything else you must master, magic relies on having a disciplined intellect. Rom bypassed the normal training regimen and ignored the subtleties of grammar to ensure that you had the skills you needed to remain alive. I too must distort the regimen in order to focus on the skills that you will likely require in the coming battles. However, whereas Brom taught you the crude mechanics of magic, I will teach you its finer applications, the secrets that were reserved for the wisest of the riders, how you can kill with no more energy than moving your finger, the method by which you can instantaneously transport an item from one point to another, a spell that will allow you to identify poisons in your food and drink, a variation on scrying that allows you to hear as well as to see, how you can draw energy from your surroundings and thus preserve your own strength, and how you can maximize your strength in every possible way. These techniques are so potent and dangerous they were never shared with novice riders such as yourself, but circumstances demand that I divulge them and trust that you won't abuse them. Raising his right arm to his side, his hand a hooked claw, Oromis proclaimed, Adurna. Aragon watched as a sphere of water coalesced from the brook by the hut and floated through the air until it hovered between Oromis's outstretched fingers. The brook was dark and brown under the branches of the forest, but the sphere removed from it was as colourless as glass. Flecks of moss, dirt and other bits of detritus floated inside the orb. Still gazing toward the horizon, Oromis said, Catch! He tossed the sphere back over his shoulder toward Aragon. Aragon tried to grab the ball, but as soon as it touched his skin, the water lost cohesion and splashed across his chest. Catch it with magic, said Oromis. Again, he cried, Adorna, and a sphere of water gathered itself from the surface of the brook and leaped into his hand like a trained hawk obeying its master. This time Oromis threw the ball without warning. Aragon was prepared, though, and said, Risa du Adurna, even as he reached for the ball. It slowed to a halt a hair's breadth from the skin of his palm. An awkward word choice, said Oromis, but workable nevertheless. Aragon grinned and whispered, Thrister. The ball reversed its course and sped toward the base of Oromis's silver head. However, the sphere did not land where Aragon had intended but rather shot past the elf, whipped around, and flew back at Aragon with increased velocity. The water remained as hard and solid as polished marble when it struck Aragon, producing a dull thunk as it collided with his skull. 
The blow knocked him sprawling on the turf, where he lay stunned, blinking as pulsing light swam across the sky. Yes, said Aramis. A better word might be letter, or codther. He finally turned to look at Aragon, and raised an eyebrow with apparent surprise. Whatever are you doing? Get up, we can't lay about all day. Yes, master, groaned Aragon. When Aragon got back on his feet, Oramis had him manipulate the water in various ways, shaping it into complex knots, changing the color of light that it absorbed or reflected, and freezing it in certain prescribed sequences, none of which proved difficult for him. The exercises continued for so long that Aragon's initial interest faded and was replaced by impatience and puzzlement. He was chary of offending Oramis, but he saw no point to what the elf was doing. It was as if Oramis were avoiding any spells that would require him to use more than a minimal amount of strength. I've already demonstrated the extent of my skills. Why does he persist in reviewing these fundamentals? He said, Master, I know all of this. Can we not move on? The muscles in Oramis's neck hardened, and his shoulders were like chiseled granite for all they moved. Even the elf's breathing halted before he said, Will you never learn respect, Aragon Vodar? So be it. Then he uttered four words from the ancient language in a voice so deep that their meaning escaped Aragon. Aragon yelped as he felt each of his legs enveloped by pressure up to the knee, squeezing and constricting his calves in such a way that made it impossible for him to walk. His thighs and upper body were free to move, but other than that, it was as if he had been cast in lime mortar. Free yourself, said Oramis. Here now was a challenge that Aragon had never dealt with before. How to counter someone else's spells? He could sever his invisible bonds using one of two different methods. The most effective would be if he knew how Oramis had immobilized him, whether by affecting his body directly or using an external source, for then he could redirect the element or force to disperse Oramis's power or he could use a generic, vague spell to block whatever Oramis was doing. The downside to this tactic was that it would lead to a direct contest of strength between them. It had to happen sometime, thought Aragon. He entertained no hope of prevailing against an elf. Assembling the required phrase, he said, Losna kalfia iept, release my calves. The surge of energy that deserted Aragon was greater than he had anticipated. He went from being moderately tired from the day's pains and exertions to feeling as if he had hiked over rough terrain since morn. Then the pressure vanished from his legs, causing him to stagger as he regained his balance. Oramis shook his head. Foolish, he said, very foolish. If I had committed more to maintaining my spell, that would have killed you. Never use absolutes. Absolutes? Never word your spells so that only two outcomes are possible, success or death. If an enemy had trapped your legs and if he was stronger than you, then you would have expended all of your energy trying to break his spell. You would have died with no chance to abort the attempt once you realized that it was futile. How do I avoid that? asked Aragorn. It's safer to make the spell a process that you can terminate at your discretion. 
Instead of saying "release my calves," which is an absolute, you could say "reduce the magic imprisoning my calves." A bit wordy, but you could then decide how much you wanted your opponent's spell decreased, and if it was safe to remove it entirely. We will try again. The pressure returned to Aragon's legs as soon as Oromus mouthed his inaudible invocation. Aragon was so tired he doubted he could provide much opposition. Nevertheless, he reached for the magic. Before the ancient language left Aragon's mouth, he became aware of a curious sensation, as the weight constraining his legs lessened at a steady rate. It tickled and felt like he was being pulled out of a mire of cold, slick mud. He glanced at Oromus and saw the elf's face scribed by passion, as if he clung to something precious that he could not bear to lose. A vein throbbed at one of Oromus's temples. When Aragon's arcane fetters ceased to exist, Oromus recoiled as if he had been pricked by a wasp, and stood with his gaze fixed on his two hands, his thin chest heaving. For perhaps a minute he remained thus. Then he drew himself upright and walked to the very edge of the crags of Tailnair, a lone figure outlined against the pale sky. Regret and sorrow welled in Aragon, the same emotions that had gripped him when he first saw Gleda's mutilated foreleg. He cursed himself for being so arrogant with Oromis, so oblivious to his infirmities, and for not placing more confidence in the elf's judgment. I'm not the only one who must deal with past injuries. Aragon had not fully comprehended what it meant when Oromis said that all but the slightest magic escaped his grasp. Now he appreciated the depths of Oromis's situation and the pain that it must cause him, especially for one of his race who was born and bred with magic. Aragon went to Oromis, knelt and bowed in the fashion of the dwarves, pressing his bruised forehead against the ground. Ebrithil, I beg your pardon. The elf gave no indication that he had heard. The two of them lingered in their respective positions while the sun declined before them. The birds sang their evening songs, and the air grew cool and moist. From the north came the faint, offbeat thumps of Sephira and Gleda's wing strokes as they returned for the day. In a low, distant voice, Oromis said, "We will begin anew tomorrow, with this and other subjects." From his profile, Aragon could tell that Oromis had regained his customary expression of impassive reserve. Is that agreeable to you? Yes, master," said Aragon, grateful for the question. I think it best if, from now on, you endeavour to speak only in the ancient language. We have little time at our disposal, and this is the fastest way for you to learn. Even when I talk to Sephira. Even then, adopting the elven tongue, Eragon vowed, "Then I will work ceaselessly until I not only think but dream in your language." If you achieve that," said Oromus, replying in kind, "our venture may yet succeed." He paused. Instead of flying directly here in the morning, you will accompany the elf I send to guide you. He will take you to where those of Elasmira practice swordplay. Stay for an hour, then continue on as normal. Won't you teach me yourself? Asked Aragon, feeling slighted. I have naught to teach. You are as good a swordsman as ever I have met. I know no more of fighting than you, 
and that which I possess and you do not, I cannot give you. All that remains for you is to preserve your current level of skill. Why can't I do that with you, Master? Because I do not appreciate beginning the day with alarm and conflict. He looked at Aragon, then relented, and added, And because it will be good for you to become acquainted with others who live here. I am not representative of my race. But enough of that. Look, they approach. The two dragons glided across the flat disk of the sun. First came Glader with a roar of wind, blotting out the sky with his massive bulk before he settled on the grass and folded his golden wings. Then Sephira, as quick and agile as a sparrow beside an eagle. As they had that morning, Oromis and Glader asked a number of questions to ensure that Aragon and Sephira had paid attention to each other's lessons. They had not always, but by cooperating and sharing information between themselves, they were able to answer all of the questions. Their only stumbling block was the foreign language they were required to communicate in. Better, rumbled Glader afterward. Much better. He bent his gaze toward Aragon. You and I will have to train together soon. Of course, Skulblaka. The old dragon snorted and crawled alongside Oromis, half hopping with his front leg to compensate for his missing limb. Darting forward, Sephira nipped at the end of Glader's tail, tossing it into the air with a flip of her head, like she would to break the neck of a deer. She recoiled as Glader twisted round and snapped at her neck, exposing his enormous fangs. Aragon winced and too late covered his ears to protect them from Glader's roar. The speed and intensity of Glader's response suggested to Aragon that this was not the first time Sephira had annoyed him throughout the day. Instead of remorse, Aragon detected an excited playfulness in her, like a child with a new toy, and a near-blind devotion to the other dragon. Contain yourself, Sephira, said Oromis. Sephira pranced backward and settled on her haunches, though nothing in her demeanour expressed contrition. Aragon muttered a feeble excuse and Oromis waved a hand and said, Be gone, both of you. Without arguing, Aragon scrambled onto Sephira. He had to urge her to take flight, and once she did, she insisted on circling over the clearing three times before he got her to angle toward Elismira. What possessed you to bite him? he demanded. He thought he knew, but he wanted her to confirm it. I was only playing. It was the truth since they spoke in the ancient language, yet he suspected that it was but a piece of a larger truth. Yes, and at what game? She tensed underneath him. You forget your duty. By... He searched for the right word. Unable to find it, he reverted to his native speech. By provoking Glader, you distract him, Oromis, and me, and hinder what we must accomplish. You've never been so thoughtless before. Do not presume to be my conscience. He laughed then, heedless for a moment of where he sat among the clouds, rolling to his side until he almost dropped from the peak of her shoulders. Oh, rich irony that, after the times you told me what to do. I am your conscience, Sephira, as much as you are mine. You've had good reason to chastise and warn me in the past, and now I must do the same for you. Stop pestering Glader with your attentions. She remained silent. Sephira? I hear you, 
I hope so. After a minute of peaceful flying, she said, Two seizures in one day. How are you now? Sore and ill, he grimaced. Some of it's from the rimgar and sparring, but mostly it's the after-effects of the pain. It's like a poison, weakening my muscles and clouding my mind. I just hope that I can remain sane long enough to reach the end of this training. Afterward, though, I don't know what I'll do. I certainly can't fight for the Varden like this. Don't think about it, she counselled. You can do nothing about your condition, and you'll only make yourself feel worse. Live in the present, remember the past, and fear not the future, for it doesn't exist and never shall. There is only now. He patted her shoulder and smiled with resigned gratitude. To their right, a goshawk rode a warm air current while it patrolled the broken forest for signs of furred or feathered quarry. Aragon watched it, pondering the question that Oramis had given him. How could he justify fighting the Empire when it would cause so much grief and agony? I have an answer, said Sephira. What is it? That Galbatorix has... She hesitated, then said, No, I won't tell you. You should figure this out for yourself. Sephira, be reasonable. I am. If you don't know why what we do is the right thing, you might as well surrender to Galbatorix for all the good you'll do. No matter how eloquent his pleas, he could extract nothing more from her, for she blocked him from that part of her mind. Back in their eyry, Aragon ate a light supper and was just about to open one of Oromus's scrolls when a knock on the screen door disturbed his quiet. Enter, he said, hoping that Arya had returned to see him. She had. Arya greeted Aragon and Sephira, then said, I thought that you might appreciate an opportunity to visit Tildari Hall and the adjacent gardens, since you expressed interest in them yesterday. That is, if you aren't too tired. She wore a flowing red kirtle, trimmed and decorated with intricate designs wrought in black thread. The colour scheme echoed the Queen's robes and emphasised the strong resemblance between mother and daughter. Aragon pushed aside the scrolls. I'd be delighted to see them. He means we'd be delighted, added Sephira. Arya looked surprised when both of them spoke in the ancient language, so Aragon explained Oromus's command. An excellent idea, said Arya, joining them in the same language. And it is more appropriate to speak thus while you stay here. When all three of them had descended from the tree, Arya directed them westward toward an unfamiliar quadrant of Elasmira. They encountered many elves on the path, all of whom stopped to bow to Sephira. Aragon noticed once again that no elf children were to be seen. He mentioned this to Arya, and she said, Aye, we have few children. Only two are in Elismira at the present, Dusan and Alana. We treasure children above all else because they are so rare. To have a child is the greatest honour and responsibility that can be bestowed upon any living being. At last they arrived at a ribbed lancet arch, grown between two trees which served as the entrance for a wide compound. Still in the ancient language, Arya chanted, Root of tree, fruit of vine, let me pass by this blood of mine. 
The two archway doors trembled, then swung outward, releasing five monarch butterflies that fluttered toward the dusky sky. Through the archway lay a vast flower garden, arranged to look as pristine and natural as a wild meadow. The one element that betrayed artifice was the sheer variety of plants. Many of the species were blooming out of season or came from hotter or colder climates and would never have flourished without the elves' magic. The scene was lit with the gem-like flameless lanterns, augmented by constellations of swirling fireflies. To Sephira, Arya said, Mind your tail, that it does not sweep across the beds. Advancing, they crossed the garden and pressed deep into a line of scattered trees. Before Aragon quite knew where he was, the trees became more numerous and then thickened into a wall. He found himself standing on the threshold of a burnished wood hall, without ever having been conscious of having gone inside. The hall was warm and homey, a place of peace, reflection, and comfort. Its shape was determined by the tree trunks, which on the inside of the hall had been stripped of their bark, polished, and rubbed with oil until the wood gleamed like amber. Regular gaps between the trunks acted as windows. The scent of crushed pine needles perfumed the air. A number of elves occupied the hall, reading, writing, and in one dark corner, playing a set of reed pipes. They all paused and inclined their heads to acknowledge Sophia's presence. Here you would stay, said Arya, were you not rider and dragon? It's magnificent, replied Aragon. Arya guided him and Sephira everywhere in the compound that was accessible to dragons. Each new room was a surprise, no two were alike, and each chamber found different ways to incorporate the forest in its construction. In one room a silver brook trickled down the gnarled wall and flowed across the floor on a vein of pebbles and back out under the sky. In another, creepers blanketed the entire room except for the floor in a leafy green pelt adorned with trumpet-shaped flowers with the most delicate pink and white colours. Arya called it the liana vine. They saw many great works of art, from ferths and paintings to sculptures and radiant mosaics of stained glass, all based on the curved shapes of plants and animals. Islanzadi met with them for a short time in an open pavilion, joined to two other buildings by covered pathways. She inquired about the progress of Aragon's training and the state of his back, both of which he described with brief, polite phrases. This seemed to satisfy the Queen, who exchanged a few words with Sephira and then departed. In the end they returned to the garden. Aragon walked beside Arya, Sephira trailing behind, entranced by the sound of her voice as she told him about the different varieties of flowers, where they originated, how they were maintained, and in many instances how they had been altered with magic. She also pointed out the flowers that only open their petals during the night, like a white datura. Which one is your favourite? he asked. Arya smiled and escorted him to a tree on the edge of the garden, by a pond lined with rushes. Around the tree's lowest branch coiled a morning glory, with three velvety black blossoms that were clenched shut. Blowing on them, Arya whispered, Open. The petals rustled as they unfurled, fanning their inky robes to expose the hoard of nectar in their centres. A starburst of royal blue filled the flowers' throats, diffusing into the sable corolla like the vestiges of day into night.
Is it not the most perfect and lovely flower? asked Aria. Aragon gazed at her, exquisitely aware of how close they were, and said, Yes, it is. Before his courage deserted him, he added, As are you. Aragon! exclaimed Sapphira. Aria fixed her eyes upon him, studying him until he was forced to look away. When he dared face her again, he was mortified to see her wearing a faint smile, as if amused by his reaction. You are too kind, she murmured. Reaching up, she touched the rim of a blossom and glanced from it to him. Phaelin created this especially for me, one summer solstice long ago. He shuffled his feet and responded with a few unintelligible words, hurt and offended that she did not take his compliment more seriously. He wished he could turn him visible, and even considered trying to cast a spell that would allow him to do just that. In the end, he drew himself upright and said, Please excuse us, Arius Fitcona, but it is late, and we must return to our tree. Her smile deepened. Of course, Aragon, I understand. She accompanied them to the main archway, opened the doors for them, and said, Good night, Sephira. Good night, Aragon. Good night, replied Sephira. Despite his embarrassment, Aragon could not help asking, Will we see you tomorrow? Arya tilted her head. I think I shall be busy tomorrow. Then the doors closed, cutting off his view of her as she returned to the main compound. Crouching low on the path, Sephira nudged Aragon in the side. Stop daydreaming and get on my back! Climbing up her left foreleg, he took his usual place, then clutched the neck spike in front of him as Sephira rose to her full height. After a few steps, How can you criticize my behavior with Glader and then go and do something like that? What were you thinking? You know how I feel about her, he grumbled. Pa, if you are my conscience and I am yours, then it's my duty to tell you when you're acting like a deluded popinjay. You're not using logic, like Oramis keeps telling us to. What do you really expect to happen between you and Arya? She's a princess. And I'm a rider. She's an elf. You're a human. I look more like an elf every day. Aragon, she's over a hundred years old. I'll live as long as her or any elf. Ah, but you haven't yet. And that's the problem. You can't overcome such a vast difference. She's a grown woman with a century of experience, while you're... What? What am I? he snarled. A child? Is that what you mean? No, not a child. Not after what you have seen and done since we were joined. But you are young, even by the reckoning of your short-lived race, much less by that of the dwarves, dragons and elves. As are you. His retort silenced her for a minute. Then, I'm just trying to protect you, Aragon. That's all. I want you to be happy, and I'm afraid you won't be if you insist on pursuing Arya. The two of them were about to retire when they heard the trapdoor in the vestibule bang open. 
and the jingle of mail as someone climbed inside. Zarok in hand, Aragon threw back the screen door, ready to confront the intruder. His hand dropped as he saw Oric on the floor. The dwarf took a hearty draught from the bottle he wielded in his left hand, then squinted at Aragon. Bricks and bones, where be you? Ah, oh, there you stand. I wondered where you were, couldn't find you, so I thought that given this fine dolorous night, I might go find you. And here you are. What shall we talk about, you and I, now that we're together in this delectable bird's nest? Taking hold of the dwarf's free arm, Aragon pulled him upright, surprised as he always was by how dense Oric was, like a miniature boulder. When Aragon removed his support, Oric swayed from one side to the other, achieving such precarious angles that he threatened to topple at the slightest provocation. Come on in said Aragon in his own language. He closed the trapdoor. You'll catch cold out here. Oric blinked his round, deep-set eyes at Aragon. I've not seen you round my leafy exile. No, I haven't. You've abandoned me to the company of elves, and miserable, dull company they are. Yes, indeed. A touch of guilt made Aragon disguise himself with an awkward smile. He had forgotten the dwarf amid the goings-on. I'm sorry I haven't visited you, Oric, but my studies have kept me busy. Here, give me your cloak. As he helped the dwarf out of his brown mantle, he asked, What are you drinking? Fail nerve, declared Oric. A most wonderful, ticklish potion. The best and greatest of the elves' tricksy inventions. It gives you the gift of loquation. Words float from your tongue like shoals of flapping minnows, like flocks of breathless hummingbirds, like rivers of writhing snakes. He paused, apparently taken by the unique magnificence of his similes. As Aragon ushered him into the bedroom, Oryx saluted Sephira with his bottle and said, Greetings, O Iron Tooth. May your scales shine as bright as the coals of Morgothol's forge. Greetings, Oryx, said Sephira, laying her head on the rim of her bed. What has put you in this state? It is not like you. Aragon repeated her question. What has put me in my state? repeated Oric. He dropped into the chair that Aragon provided, his feet dangling several inches above the ground, and began to shake his head. Red cap, green cap, elves here and elves there. I drown in elves and their thrice-damned courtesy. Bloodless they be, taciturn they are. Yes, sure, no, sure, three bags full, sure. Yet nary a pip more can I extract. He looked at Aragon with a mournful expression. What am I to do while you meander through your instruction? 
Am I to sit and twiddle mine thumbs while I turn to stone and join the spirits of mine ancestors? Tell me, O sagacious rider, have you no skills or hobbies that you might occupy yourself with? asked Sephira. Aye, said Oric. I am a fair enough smith by any who'd care to judge. But why should I craft bright arms and armor for those who treasure them not? I'm useless here, as useless as a three-legged feldenost. Aragon extended a hand toward the bottle. May I? Oric glanced between him and the bottle, then grimaced and gave it up. The fail nerve was cold as ice as it ran down Aragon's throat, stinging and smarting. He blinked as his eyes watered. After he indulged in a second quaff, he passed the bottle back to Oric, who seemed disappointed by how little of the concoction remained. And what mischief? asked Oric. Have you two managed to ferret out of Oromis and yon bucolic woods? The dwarf alternately chuckled and groaned as Aragon described his training, his misplaced blessing in Farthandur, the Manoa tree, his back, and all else that had filled the past few days. Aragon ended with the topic that was dearest to him at the moment, Arya. Emboldened by the liqueur, he confessed his affection for her and described how she had dismissed his advance. Wagging a finger, Oryx said, The rock beneath you is flawed, Aragon. Don't tempt fate. Arya... He stopped, then growled and took another gulp of failnerve. Oh, it's too late for this. Who am I to say what is wisdom and what isn't? Sephira had closed her eyes a while ago. Without opening them, she asked, Are you married, Oric? The question surprised Aragon. He had never stopped to wonder about Oric's personal life. Etta, said Oric, though I'm promised to fair Hvedra, daughter of Thorgard One-Eye and Himinglada, we were to be wed this spring until the Urgles attacked and Hrothgar sent me on this accursed trip. Is she of Durgrimstingetum? asked Aragon. Of course, roared Oric, pounding his fist on the side of the chair. Thinkest thou I would marry outside my clan? She's the granddaughter of mine aunt, Vardrun, Hrothgar's cousin twice removed, with white round calves as smooth as satin, cheeks as red as apples, and the prettiest dwarf maid who ever did exist. Undoubtedly, said Sephira. I'm sure it won't be long before you see her again, said Aragon. Humph, <laughs> Oryx squinted at Aragon. Do you believe in giants? Tall giants, strong giants, thick and bearded giants with fingers like spades. I've never seen nor heard of them, said Aragon, except in stories. If they do exist, it's not in Allegasia. Oh, but they do, they do, exclaimed Oric, waving the bottle about his head. Tell me, O oh rider, if a fearsome giant were to meet you on the garden path, what might he call you, if not dinner?
<laughs> Aragon, I would presume. No, no, he'd call you a dwarf. For dwarf, you'd be to him. <laughs> Oric guffawed and nudged Aragon in the ribs with his hard elbow. See you now. Humans and elves are the giants. The land's full of them, here, there, and everywhere, stomping about with their big feet and casting us in endless shadowses. He continued laughing, rocking back in his chair until it tipped over and he fell to the floor with a solid thump. Helping him upright, Aragon said, I think you'd better stay here for the night. You're in no condition to go down those stairs in the dark. Oric agreed with cheery indifference. He allowed Aragon to remove his mail and bundle him onto one side of the bed. Afterward, Aragon sighed, covered the lights, and lay on his side of the mattress. He fell asleep, hearing the dwarf mutter, Vedra, Vedra, Vedra. The Nature of Evil Bright morning arrived all too soon. Jolted to awareness by the buzz of the vibrating timepiece, Aragon grabbed his hunting knife and sprang out of bed, expecting an attack. He gasped as his body shrieked with protest from the abuse of the past two days. Blinking away tears, Aragon rewound the timepiece. Oric was gone. The dwarf must have slipped away in the wee hours of the morning. With a groan, Aragon hobbled to the wash-closet for his daily ablutions, like an old man afflicted by rheumatism. He and Sephira waited by the tree for ten minutes before they were met by a solemn black-haired elf. The elf bowed, touched two fingers to his lips which Aragon mirrored, and then preempted Aragon by saying, May good fortune rule over you. And may the stars watch over you, replied Aragon. Did Oramis send you? The elf ignored him and said to Sephira, Well met, dragon. I am Vanna of House Haldthin. Aragon scowled with annoyance. Well met, Vanna. Only then did the elf address Aragon. I will show you where you may practice with your blade. He strode away, not waiting for Aragon to catch up. The sparring yard was dotted with elves of both sexes, fighting in pairs and groups. Their extraordinary physical gifts resulted in flurries of blows so quick and fast they sounded like bursts of hail striking an iron bell. Under the trees that fringed the yard, individual elves performed the rimgar with more grace and flexibility than Aragon thought he would ever achieve. After everyone on the field stopped and bowed to Sephira, Vanna unsheathed his narrow blade. If you will guard your sword, silver hand, we can begin. Aragon eyed the inhuman swordsmanship of the other elves with trepidation. Why do I have to do this? he asked. I'll just be humiliated. You'll be fine, said Sephira, yet he could sense her concern for him. Right. As he prepared Zarok, Aragon's hands trembled with dread. Instead of throwing himself into the fray, he fought Vanna from a distance, dodging, sidestepping, and doing everything possible to avoid triggering another fit. Despite Aragon's evasions, Vanna touched him four times in rapid succession, once each on his ribs, shin, and both shoulders. 
Vanna's initial expression of stoic impassivity soon devolved into open contempt. Dancing forward, he slid his blade up Zarok's length, while at the same time twirling Zarok in a circle, wrenching Aragon's wrist. Aragon allowed Zarok to fly out of his hand rather than resist the elf's superior strength. Vanna dropped his sword onto Aragon's neck and said, Dead. Shrugging off the sword, Aragon trudged over to retrieve Zarok. Dead, said Vanna. How do you expect to defeat Galbatorix like this? I expected better, even from a weakling human. Then why don't you fight Galbatorix yourself instead of hiding in Duweldenvarden? Vanna stiffened with outrage. Because, he said, cool and haughty, I'm not a rider, and if I were, I would not be such a coward as you. No one moved or spoke on the field. His back to Vanna, Aragon leaned on Zarok and craned his neck toward the sky, snarling to himself, He knows nothing. This is just one more test to overcome. Coward, I say. Your blood is as thin as the rest of your races. I think that Sephira was confused by Galbatorix's wiles and made the wrong choice of Ryder. The spectating elves gasped at Vanna's words and muttered among themselves with open disapproval for his atrocious breach of etiquette. Aragon ground his teeth. He could stand insults to himself but not to Sephira. She was already moving when his pent-up frustration, fear and pain burst within him and he whirled around, the tip of Zarok whistling through the air. The blow would have killed Vanna had he not blocked it at the last second. He looked surprised by the ferocity of the attack. Holding nothing in reserve, Aragon drove Vanna to the centre of the field, jabbing and slashing like a madman, determined to hurt the elf however he could. He nicked Vanna on the hip with enough force to draw blood, even with Zarok's blunted edge. At that instant, Aragon's back ruptured in an explosion of agony so intense he experienced it with all five senses, as a deafening, crashing waterfall of sound, a metallic taste that coated his tongue, an acrid, eye-watering stench in his nostrils, redolent of vinegar, pulsing colours, and above all, the feeling that Durza had just laid open his back. He could see Vanna standing over him with a derisive sneer. It occurred to Aragon that Vanna was very young. After the seizure, Aragon wiped the blood from his mouth with his hand and showed it to Vanna, asking, Thin enough? Vanna did not deign to respond, but rather sheathed his sword and walked away. Where are you going? demanded Aragon. We have unfinished business, you and I. You are in no fit condition to spar, scoffed the elf. Try me. Aragon might be inferior to the elves, but he refused to give them the satisfaction of fulfilling their low expectations of him. He would earn their respect through sheer persistence, if nothing else. He insisted on completing Oromus's assigned hour, after which Sephira marched up to Vanna and touched him on the chest with the point of one of her ivory talons. Dead, she said. Vanna paled. The other elves edged away from him. Once they were in the air, Sephira said, Oramis was right. About what? You give more of yourself when you have an opponent. At Oramis's hut, the day resumed its usual pattern. Sephira accompanied Gleda for her instruction, 
while Aragon remained with Oromis. Aragon was horrified when he discovered that Oromis expected him to do the Rimgar in addition to his earlier exercises. It took all of his courage to obey. His apprehension proved groundless, though, for the dance of Snake and Crane was too gentle to injure him. That, coupled with his meditation in the secluded glade, provided Aragon with his first opportunity since the previous day to order his thoughts and consider the question that Oromis had posed him. While he did, he observed his red ants invade a smaller rival anthill, overrunning the inhabitants and stealing their resources. By the end of the massacre, only a handful of the rival ants were left alive, alone and purposeless in the vast and hostile pine-needle barrens. Like the dragons in Alagasia, thought Aragon. His connection to the ants vanished as he considered the dragon's unhappy fate. Bit by bit, an answer to his problem revealed itself to him an answer that he could live with and believe in. He finished his meditations and returned to the hut. This time Oromis seemed reasonably satisfied with what Aragon had accomplished. As Oromis served the midday meal, Aragon said, I know why fighting Galbatorix is worth it, though thousands of people may die. Oh? Oromis seated himself. Do tell me. Because Galbatorix has already caused more suffering over the past hundred years than we ever could in a single generation, and unlike a normal tyrant, we cannot wait for him to die. He could rule for centuries or millennia, persecuting and tormenting people the entire time unless we stop him. If he became strong enough, he would march on the dwarves and you here in Duweldenvarden and kill or enslave both races, and... Aragon rubbed the heel of his palm against the edge of the table. Because rescuing the two eggs from Galbatorix is the only way to save the dragons. The strident warble of Oromus's tea kettle intruded, escalating in volume until Aragon's ears rang. Standing, Oromus hooked the kettle off the cook fire and poured the water for blueberry tea. The creases around his eyes softened. Now, he said, you understand. I understand, but I take no pleasure in it. Nor should you. But now we can be confident that you won't shrink from the path when you are confronted by the injustices and atrocities that the Varden will inevitably commit. We cannot afford to have you consumed by doubts when your strength and focus are most needed. Oromis steepled his fingers and gazed into the dark mirror of his tea, contemplating whatever he saw in its tenebrous reflection. Do you believe that he considers himself evil? No, I doubt it. Oromis tapped his forefingers against each other. Then you must also believe that Durza was evil. The fragmented memories Aragon had gleaned from Durza when they fought in Trondheim returned to him now, reminding him how the young shade, Karsabe, then, had been enslaved by the wraiths he had summoned to avenge the death of his mentor, Haig. He wasn't evil himself, but the spirits that controlled him were. And what of the Urgles? asked Oromis, sipping his tea. Are they evil? Aragon's knuckles whitened as he gripped his spoon. When I think of death, I see an Urgle's face. They're worse than beasts, the things they have done. He shook his head, unable to continue. Aragon, what kind of opinion would you form of humans? if all you knew of them were the actions of your warriors on the field of battle. That's not, 
He took a deep breath. It's different. Urgles deserve to be wiped out, every last one of them. Even their females and children? The ones who haven't harmed you and likely never will? The innocents? Would you kill them and condemn an entire race to the void? They wouldn't spare us, given the chance. Aragon, exclaimed Oromus in biting tones, I never want to hear you use that excuse again. That because someone else has done or would do something means that you should too. It's lazy, repugnant, and indicative of an inferior mind. Am I clear? Yes, master. The elf raised his mug to his lips and drank, his bright eyes fixed on Aragon the entire time. What do you actually know of Urgles? I know their strengths, weaknesses, and how to kill them. It's all I need to know. Why do they hate and fight humans, though? What about their history and legends, or the way in which they live? Does it matter? Oromis sighed. Just remember, he said gently, that at a certain point your enemies may have to become your allies. Such is the nature of life. Aragon resisted the urge to argue. He swirled his own tea in its mug, accelerating the liquid into a black whirlpool with a white lens of foam at the bottom of the vortex. Is that why Galbatorix enlisted the Urgles? That is not an example I would have chosen, but yes. It seems strange that he befriended them. After all, they were the ones who killed his dragon. Look what he did to us, the riders, and we weren't even responsible for his loss. Ah, said Oromis, mad Galbatorix may be, but he's still as cunning as a fox. I guess that he intended to use the Urgles to destroy the Varden and the dwarves, and others if he had triumphed in Fardendur, thereby removing two of his enemies, while simultaneously weakening the Urgles, so that he could dispose of them at his leisure. Study of the ancient language devoured the afternoon whereupon they took up the practice of magic. Much of Oromus's lectures concerned the proper way in which to control various forms of energy, such as light, heat, electricity, and even gravity. He explained that since these forces consume strength faster than any other type of spell, it was safer to find them already in existence in nature and then shape them with grammary, instead of trying to create them from nothing. Abandoning the subject, Oromus asked, how would you kill with magic? I've done it many ways, said Aragon. I've hunted with a pebble, moving and aiming it with magic, as well as using the word Jirda to break Urgul's legs and necks. Once, with Thryster, I stopped a man's heart. There are more efficient methods, revealed Oromis. What does it take to kill a man, Aragon? A sword through the chest, a broken neck, the loss of blood? All it takes is for a single artery in the brain to be pinched off, or for certain nerves to be severed. With the right spell you could obliterate an army. I should have thought of that in Fardendur, said Aragon, disgusted with himself. Not just Fardendur either, but also when the cull chased us from the Hadarak desert. Again, why didn't Brom teach me this? because he did not expect you to face an army for months or years to come. It is not a tool given to untested riders. If it's so easy to kill people, though, what's the point of us or Galbatorix raising an army? To be succinct, 
tactics. Magicians are vulnerable to physical attack when they are embroiled in their mental struggles. Therefore, they need warriors to protect them, and the warriors must be shielded, at least in part, from magical attacks, else they would be slain within minutes. These limitations mean that when armies confront one another, their magicians are scattered throughout the bulk of their forces, close to the edge but not so close as to be in danger. The magicians on both sides open their minds and attempt to sense if anyone is using or is about to use magic. Since their enemies might be beyond their mental reach, magicians also erect wards around themselves and their warriors to stop or lessen long-range attacks, such as a pebble sent flying toward their head from a mile away. Surely one man can't defend an entire army, said Aragon. Not alone, but with enough magicians you can provide a reasonable amount of protection. The greatest danger in this sort of conflict is that a clever magician may think of a unique attack that can bypass your wards without tripping them. That itself could be enough to decide a battle. Also, said Oramis, you must keep in mind that the ability to use magic is exceedingly rare among the races. We elves are no exception. Although we have a greater allotment of spellweavers than most, as a result of oaths we bound ourselves with centuries ago, the majority of those blessed with magic have little or no appreciable talent. They struggle to heal even so much as a bruise. Eragon nodded. He had encountered magicians like that in the Varden. But it still takes the same amount of energy to accomplish a task. Energy, yes, but lesser magicians find it harder than you or I do to feel the flow of magic and immerse themselves in it. Few magicians are strong enough to pose a threat to an entire army, and those who are usually spend the bulk of their time during battles evading, tracking, or fighting their opposites, which is fortunate from the standpoint of ordinary warriors, else they would all soon be killed. Troubled, Aragon said, The Varden don't have many magicians. That is one reason why you are so important. A moment passed as Aragon reflected on what Oramis had told him. These wards, do they only drain energy from you when they are activated? Aye. Then given enough time, you could acquire countless layers of wards. You could make yourself... He struggled with the ancient language as he attempted to express himself. Untouchable? Impregnable? Impregnable to any assault, magical or physical. Wards, said Oramis, rely upon the strength of your body. If that strength is exceeded, you die. No matter how many wards you have, you will only be able to block attacks so long as your body can sustain the output of energy. And Galbatorix's strength has been increasing each year. How is that possible? It was a rhetorical question, yet when Oramis remained silent, his almond eyes fixed on a trio of swallows pirouetting overhead, Aragon realized that the elf was considering how best to answer him. The birds chased each other for several minutes. When they flitted from view, Oramis said, It is not appropriate to have this discussion at the present. Then you know? exclaimed Aragon, astonished. I do, 
but that information must wait until later in your training. You are not ready for it. Oromis looked at Eragon as if expecting him to object. Eragon bowed. As you wish, master. He could never prize the information out of Oromis until the elf was willing to share it, so why try? Still, he wondered what could be so dangerous that Oromis dared not tell him, and why the elves had kept it secret from the Varden. Another thought presented itself to him, and he said, If battles with magicians are conducted like you said, then why did Arjihad let me fight without wards in Fardandur? I didn't even know that I needed to keep my mind open for enemies. And why didn't Arya kill most or all of the Urgles? No magicians were there to oppose her except for Durza, and he couldn't have defended his troops when he was underground. Did not Arjihad have Arya or one of Duvrangargata set defences around you? demanded Oromis. No, master. And you fought thus? Yes, master. Oromis's eyes unfocused, withdrawing into himself as he stood motionless on the greensward. He spoke without warning. I have consulted Arya, and she says that the twins of the Varden were ordered to assess your abilities. They told Arjihad you were competent in all magic, including wards. Neither Arjihad nor Arya doubted their judgment on that matter. Those smooth-tongued, bald-pated, tig-infested, treacherous dogs, swore Aragon. They tried to get me killed. Reverting to his own language, he indulged in several more pungent oaths. Do not befoul the air, said Oromis mildly. It ill becomes you. In any case, I suspect the twins allowed you into battle unprotected, not so you would be killed, but so that Durza could capture you. What? By your own account, Arjihad suspected that the Varden had been betrayed when Galbatorix began persecuting their allies in the Empire with near-perfect accuracy. The twins were privy to the identities of the Varden's collaborators. Also, the twins lured you to the heart of Tronjim, thereby separating you from Sephira and placing you within Durza's reach. That they were traitors is the logical explanation. If they were traitors, said Aragon, it doesn't matter now. They're long dead. Oromis inclined his head. Even so, Arya said that the Urgles did have magicians in Fardandur, and that she fought many of them. None of them attacked you? No, master. More evidence that you and Sephira were left for Durza to capture and take to Galbatorix. The trap was well laid. Over the next hour, Oromis taught Aragon twelve methods to kill, none of which took more energy than lifting an ink-laden pen. As he finished memorizing the last one, a thought struck Aragon that caused him to grin. The Razak won't stand a chance the next time they cross my path. You must still be wary of them, cautioned Oromis. Why, three words and they'll be dead. What do ospreys eat? Aragon blinked. Fish, of course. And if a fish were slightly faster and more intelligent than its brethren, would it be able to escape a hunting osprey? I doubt it, said Aragon, at least not for very long. Just as ospreys are designed to be the best possible hunters of fish, wolves are designed to be the best hunters of deer and other large game, and every animal is gifted to best suit its purpose. So too are the Razak designed to prey upon humans. 
They are the monsters in the dark, the dripping nightmares that haunt your race. The back of Aragon's neck prickled with horror. What manner of creatures are they? Neither elf, man, dwarf, dragon, furred, finned, or feathered beast, reptile, insect, nor any other category of animal. Aragon forced a laugh. Are they plants, then? Nor that, either. They reproduce by laying eggs like dragons. When they hatch, the young, or pupae, grow black exoskeletons and mimic the human form. It's a grotesque imitation, but convincing enough to let the Razak approach their victims without undue alarm. All areas where humans are weak, the Razak are strong. They can see on a cloudy night, track a scent like a bloodhound, jump higher and move faster. However, bright light pains them, and they have a morbid fear of deep water, for they cannot swim. Their greatest weapon is their evil breath, which fogs the minds of humans, incapacitating many, though it is less potent on dwarves, and elves are immune altogether. Aragon shivered as he remembered his first sight of the Razak in Carvajal, and how he had been unable to flee once they noticed him. It felt like a dream where I wanted to run, but I couldn't move, no matter how hard I tried. As good a description as any, said Oramis. Though the Razak cannot use magic, they are not to be underestimated. If they know that you hunt them, they will not reveal themselves, but keep to the shadows where they are strong, and plot to ambush you as they did by Drasleona. Even Brom's experience could not protect him from them. Never grow overconfident, Aragon. Never grow arrogant. For then you will be careless, and your enemies will exploit your weakness. Yes, master. Oramis fixed Aragon with a steady gaze. The Razak remain pupae for twenty years while they mature. On the first full moon of their twentieth year, they shed their exoskeletons, spread their wings, and emerge as adults, ready to hunt all creatures, not just humans. Then the Razak's mounts, the ones they fly on, are really... Aye, their parents. Image of Perfection At last I understand the nature of my enemies, thought Aragon. He had feared the Razak ever since they first appeared in Carvajal, not only because of their villainous deeds, but because he knew so little about the creatures. In his ignorance, he credited the Razak with more powers than they actually possessed, and regarded them with an almost superstitious dread. Nightmares, indeed. But now that Oramus's explanation had stripped away the Razak's aura of mystery, they no longer seemed quite so formidable. The fact that they were vulnerable to light and water strengthened Aragon's conviction that when next they met, he would destroy the monsters that had killed Garrow and Brom. Are their parents called Razak as well? he asked. Oramis shook his head. Leatherblacker, we name them. And whereas their offspring are narrow-minded, if cunning, Leatherblacker have all the intelligence of a dragon, a cruel, vicious, and twisted dragon. Where do they come from? from whatever land your ancestors abandoned. Their depredations may have been what forced King Palancar to emigrate. When we, the riders, became aware of the Razak's foul presence in Alagazia, we did our best to eradicate them, 
as we would leaf blight. Unfortunately, we were only partially successful. Two leather blucker escaped, and they, along with their pupae, are the ones who have caused you so much grief. After he killed Vrail, Galbatorix sought them out and bargained for their services in return for his protection and a guaranteed amount of their favorite food. That is why Galbatorix allows them to live by Drasleona, one of the Empire's largest cities. Eragon's jaw tightened. They have much to answer for, and they will if I have my way. That they do, Oromis agreed. Returning to the hut, he stepped through the black shadow of the doorway, then reappeared, carrying a half-dozen slate tablets about a half-foot wide and a foot high. He presented one to Eragon. Let us abandon such unpleasant topics for a time. I thought you might enjoy learning how to make a ferth. It is an excellent device for focusing your thoughts. The slate is impregnated with enough ink to cover it with any combination of colors. All you need do is concentrate upon the image that you wish to capture, and then say, Let that which I see in my mind's eye be replicated on the surface of this tablet. As Aragon examined the clay-smooth slate, Oromis gestured at the clearing. Look about you, Aragon, and find something worth preserving. The first object that Aragon noticed seemed too obvious, too banal to him. A yellow lily by his feet, Oromis's overgrown hut, the white stream, and the landscape itself. None were unique. None would give an observer an insight into the subject of the Firth or he who had created it. Things that change and are lost, that is what's worth preserving, he thought. His eyes alighted upon the pale green nubs of spring growth at the tip of a tree's branches, and then the deep, narrow wound that seamed the trunk, where a storm had broken a bough, tearing off a rope of bark with it. Translucent orbs of sap encrusted the seam, catching and refracting the light. Aragon positioned himself alongside the trunk, so that the rotund galls of the tree's congealed blood bulged out in silhouette and were framed by a cluster of shiny new needles. Then he fixed the scene in his mind as best he could and uttered the spell. The surface of the grey tablet brightened as splashes of colour bloomed across it, blending and mixing to produce the proper array of hues. When the pigments at last stopped moving, Aragon found himself looking at a strange copy of what he had wanted to reproduce. The sap and needles were rendered with vibrant, razor-sharp detail, while all else was slurred and bleary, as if seen through half-opened eyes. It was far removed from the universal clarity of Oromus's Firth of Illyria. At a sign from Oromus, Eragon handed the tablet to him. The elf studied it for a minute, then said, You have an unusual way of thinking, Eragon Finierel. Most humans have difficulty achieving the proper concentration to create a recognizable image. You, on the other hand, seem to observe nearly everything about whatever interests you. It's a narrow focus, though. You have the same problem here that you do with your meditation. You must relax, broaden your field of vision, and allow yourself to absorb everything around you without judging what is important or not. Setting aside the picture... Orimus took a second blank tablet from the grass and gave it to Aragon. Try again, with what I... Hail, Rider! Startled, Aragon turned and saw Oric and Arya emerge side by side from the forest. The dwarf raised his arm in greeting. 
His beard was freshly trimmed and braided, his hair was pulled back into a neat ponytail, and he wore a new tunic, courtesy of the elves, that was red and brown and embroidered with gold thread. His appearance gave no indication of his condition the previous night. Eragon, Oromis, and Arya exchanged the traditional greeting. Then, abandoning the ancient language, Oromis asked, To what may I attribute this visit? You are both welcome to my hut, but as you can see, I am in the midst of working with Eragon, and that is of paramount importance. I apologize for disturbing you, Oromis Elder, said Arya. But the fault is mine, said Oric. He glanced at Eragon before continuing, I was sent here by Hrothgar to ensure that Eragon receives the instruction he is due. I have no doubt that he is, but I am obliged to see his training with my own eyes, so that when I return to Tronchim I may give my king a true account of events. Oromis said, That which I teach Eragon is not to be shared with anyone else. The secrets of the riders are for him alone. And I understand that, however, we live in uncertain times. The stone that once was fixed and solid is now unstable. We must adapt to survive. So much depends on Aragon. We dwarves have a right to verify that his training proceeds as promised. Do you believe our request is an unreasonable one? Well spoken, Master Dwarf, said Oromis. He tapped his fingers together, inscrutable as always. May I assume, then, that this is a matter of duty for you? Duty and honour! And neither will allow you to yield on this point? I fear not, Oromis Elder, said Oric. Very well. You may stay and watch for the duration of this lesson. Will that satisfy you? Oric frowned. Are you near the end of the lesson? We have just begun. Then, yes, I will be satisfied, for the moment at least. While they spoke, Aragon tried to catch Arya's eye, but she kept her attention centered on Oromis. Aragon! He blinked, jolted out of his reverie. Yes, master. Don't wander, Aragon. I want you to make another fairth. Keep your mind open, like I told you before. Yes, master. Aragon hefted the tablet, his hands slightly damp at the thought of having Oric and Arya there to judge his performance. He wanted to do well in order to prove that Oromis was a good teacher. Even so, he could not concentrate on the pine needles and sap. Arya tugged at him like a lodestone, drawing his attention back to her whenever he thought of something else. At last he realized that it was futile for him to resist the attraction. He composed an image of her in his head, which took but a heartbeat since he knew her features better than his own, and voiced the spell in the ancient language, pouring all of his adoration, love, and fear of her into the currents of fey magic. The result left him speechless. The fairth depicted Arya's head and shoulders against a dark, indistinct background. She was bathed in firelight on her right side, and gazed out at the viewer with knowing eyes, appearing not just as she was, but as he thought of her, mysterious, exotic, and the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. It was a flawed, imperfect picture, but it possessed such intensity and passion that it evoked a visceral response from Aragon.
Is this how I really see her? Whoever this woman was, she was so wise, so powerful, and so hypnotic, she could consume any lesser man. From a great distance, he heard Sephira whisper, Be careful. What have you wrought, Aragon? demanded Oramis. I... I don't know. Aragon hesitated, as Oramis extended his hand for the ferth, reluctant to let the others examine his work, especially Arya. After a long, terrifying pause, Aragon pried his fingers off the tablet and released it to Oramis. The elf's expression grew stern as he looked at the ferth, then back at Aragon, who quailed under the weight of his stare. Without a word, Oramis handed the tablet to Arya. Her hair obscured her face as she bowed over the tablet, but Aragon saw cords and veins ridge her hands as she clenched the slate. It shook in her grip. Well, what is it? asked Oric. Raising the ferth over her head, Arya hurled it against the ground, shattering the picture into a thousand pieces. Then she drew herself upright and with great dignity walked past Aragon, across the clearing, and into the tangled depths of Duweldenvarden. Oric picked up one of the fragments of slate. It was blank. The image had vanished when the tablet broke. He tugged his beard. In all the decades I've known her, Arya has never lost her temper like that, never. What did you do, Aragon? Dazed, Aragon said, A portrait of her. Oric frowned, obviously puzzled. A portrait? Why would that? I think it would be best if you left now, said Oramis. The lesson is over in any case. Come back tomorrow or the day after if you want a better idea of Aragon's progress. The dwarf squinted at Aragon, then nodded and brushed the dirt from his palms. Yes, I believe I'll do that. Thank you for your time, Oramis Elder. I appreciate it. As he headed back toward Elasmira, he said over his shoulder to Aragon, I'll be in the common room of Tildari Hall if you want to talk. When Oric was gone, Oramis lifted the hem of his tunic, knelt, and began to gather up the remains of the tablet. Aragon watched him, unable to move. Why? he asked in the ancient language. Perhaps, said Oramis. Arya was frightened by you. Frightened? She never gets frightened. Even as he said it, Aragon knew that it was not true. She just concealed her fear better than most. Dropping to one knee, he took a piece of the ferth and pressed it into Oramis's palm. Why would I frighten her? he asked. Please tell me. Oramis stood and walked to the edge of the stream where he scattered the fragments of slate over the bank letting the grey flakes trickle through his fingers. Theaths only show what you want them to. It's possible to lie with them, to create a false image, but to do so requires more skill than you yet have. Arya knows this. She also knows, then, that your faith was an accurate representation of your feelings for her. But why would that frighten her? Oramis smiled sadly. Because it revealed the depth of your infatuation. He pressed his fingertips together, forming a series of arches. Let us analyze the situation, Aragon. While you are old enough to be considered a man among your people, in our eyes you are no more than a child. 
Aragon frowned, hearing echoes of Sephira's words from the previous night. Normally I would not compare a human's age to an elf's, but since you share our longevity, you must also be judged by our standards. And you are a rider. We rely upon you to help us defeat Galbatorix. It could be disastrous for everyone in Alagasia if you are distracted from your studies. Now then, said Oromis, how should Arya have responded to your faith? It is clear that you see her in a romantic light, yet while I have no doubt Arya is fond of you, a union between the two of you is impossible due to your own youth, culture, race, and responsibilities. Your interest has placed Arya in an uncomfortable position. She dare not confront you for fear of disrupting your training. But as the Queen's daughter she cannot ignore you and risk offending a rider, especially one upon which so much depends. Even if you were a fit match, Arya would refrain from encouraging you, so that you could devote all of your energy to the task at hand. She would sacrifice her happiness for the greater good. Oromus's voice thickened. You must understand, Eragon, that slaying Galbatorix is more important than any one person. Nothing else matters. He paused, his gaze gentle, then added, Given the circumstances, is it so strange? Arya was frightened that your feelings for her could endanger everything we have worked for? Eragon shook his head. He was ashamed that his behavior had caused Arya distress, and dismayed by how reckless and juvenile he had been. I could have avoided this entire mess if I'd just kept better control of myself. Touching him on the shoulder, Oromis guided him back inside the hut. Think not that I am devoid of sympathy, Eragon. Everyone experiences ardor like yours at one point or another during their lives. It's part of growing up. I also know how hard it is for you to deny yourself the usual comforts of life, but it's necessary if we are to prevail. Yes, master. They sat at the kitchen table, and Oromis began to lay out writing materials for Aragon to practice the Liduan Kavedi. It would be unreasonable of me to expect you to forget your fascination with Arya, but I do expect you to prevent it from interfering with my instruction again. Can you promise me that? Yes, master, I promise. And Arya? What would be the honorable thing to do about her predicament? Eragon hesitated. I don't want to lose her friendship. No. Therefore, I will go to her, I will apologize, and I will reassure her that I never intend to cause her such hardship again. It was difficult for him to say, but once he did, he felt a sense of relief, as if acknowledging his mistake cleansed him of it. Oromis appeared pleased. By that alone you prove that you have matured. The sheets of paper were smooth underneath Aragon's hands as he pressed them flat against the tabletop. He stared at the blank, white expanse for a moment, then dipped a quill in ink and began to transcribe a column of glyphs. Each barbed line was like a streak of night against the paper, an abyss into which he could lose himself and try to forget his confused feelings. The Obliterator 
The following morn, Aragon went looking for Arya in order to apologize. He searched for over an hour without success. It seemed as if she had vanished among the many hidden nooks within Elismira. He caught a glimpse of her once as he paused by the entrance to Tildari Hall and called out to her, but she slipped away before he could reach her side. She's avoiding me, he finally realized. As the days rolled by, Aragon embraced Oromis's training with a zeal that the elder rider praised, devoting himself to his studies in order to distract himself from thoughts of Arya. Night and day Aragon strove to master his lessons. He memorized the words of making, binding, and summoning, learned the true names of plants and animals, and studied the perils of transmutation, how to call upon the wind and the sea, and the myriad skills needed to understand the forces of the world. At spells that dealt with the great energies, such as light, heat, and magnetism, he excelled, for he possessed the talent to judge nigh exactly how much strength the task required, and whether it would exceed that of his body. Occasionally, Oric would come and watch, standing without comment by the edge of the clearing while Oromis tutored Aragon, or while Aragon struggled alone with a particularly difficult spell. Oromis set many challenges before him. He had Aragon cook meals with magic in order to teach him finer control of his grammary. Aragon's first attempts resulted in a blackened mess. The elf showed Aragon how to detect and neutralize poisons of every sort, and from then on, Aragon had to inspect his food for the different venoms Oromis was liable to slip into it. More than once Aragon went hungry when he could not find the poison, or was unable to counteract it. Twice he became so sick Oromis had to heal him. And Oromis had Aragon cast multiple spells simultaneously, which required tremendous concentration to keep the spells directed at their intended targets and prevent them from shifting among the items Aragon wanted to affect. Oromis devoted long hours to the craft of imbuing matter with energy, either to be released at a later time or to give an object certain attributes. He said, This is how Runan charmed the riders' swords, so they never break or dull. How we sing plants into growing as we desire, how a trap might be set in a box, only to be triggered when the box is opened. How we and the dwarves make the Eristar, our lanterns, and how you may heal one who is injured, to name but a few uses. These are the most potent of spells, for they can lie dormant for a thousand years or more, and are difficult to perceive or avert. They permeate much of Alagasia, shaping the land and the destiny of those who live here. Aragon asked, You could use this technique to alter your body, couldn't you? Or is that too dangerous? Oromis's lips quirked in a faint smile. Alas, you have stumbled upon elves' greatest weakness, our vanity. We love beauty in all its forms, and we seek to represent that ideal in our appearance. That is why we are known as the fair folk. Every elf looks exactly as he or she wishes to. When elves learn the spells for growing and molding living things, they often choose to modify their appearance to better reflect their personalities. A few elves have gone beyond mere aesthetic changes and altered their anatomy to adapt to various environments as you will see during the Blood Oath celebration. Oftentimes they are more animal than elf. However, transferring power to a living creature is different from transferring power to an inanimate object. Very few materials are suitable for storing energy.
Most either allow it to dissipate or become so charged with force that when you touch the object a bolt of lightning drives through you. The best materials we have found for this purpose are gemstones. Quartz, agates, and other lesser stones are not as efficient as, say, a diamond, but any gem will suffice. That is why riders' swords always have a jewel set in their pommels. It is also why your dwarf necklace, which is entirely metal, must sap your strength to fuel its spell, since it can hold no energy of its own. When not with Oromis, Aragon supplemented his education by reading the many scrolls the elf gave him, a habit he soon became addicted to. Aragon's rearing, limited as it was by Garrow's scant tutelage, had exposed him only to the knowledge needed to run a farm. The information he discovered on the miles of paper flooded into him like rain on parched desert, sating a previously unknown thirst. He devoured texts on geography, biology, anatomy, philosophy, and mathematics, as well as memoirs, biographies, and histories. More important than mere facts was his introduction to alternative ways of thinking. They challenged his beliefs and forced him to re-examine his assumptions about everything, from the rights of an individual within society to what caused the sun to move across the sky. He noticed that a number of scrolls concerned Urgles and their culture. Aragon read them and made no mention of it, nor did Oromis broach the topic. From his studies, Aragon learned much about the elves, a subject that he avidly pursued, hoping that it would help him to better understand Arya. To his surprise, he discovered that the elves did not practice marriage, but rather took mates for however long they wanted, whether it be for a day or a century. Children were rare, and having a child was considered by the elves to be the ultimate vow of love. Aragon also learned that since their two races had first met, only a handful of elf-human couples had existed mainly human riders who found appropriate mates among the elves. However, as best he could tell from the cryptic records, most such relationships ended in tragedy, neither because the lovers were unable to relate to one another or because the humans aged and died, while the elves escaped the ravages of time. In addition to non-fiction, Oromis presented Aragon with copies of the elves' greatest songs, poems and epics, which captured Aragon's imagination, for the only stories he was familiar with were the ones Brom had recited in Carvajal. He savoured the epics as he might a well-cooked meal, lingering over the deed of Gaeda or the lay of Amhoden, so as to prolong his enjoyment of the tales. Saphira's own training proceeded apace. Linked as he was to her mind, Aragon got to watch as Gleda put her through an exercise regimen every bit as strenuous as his. She practiced hovering in the air while lifting boulders, as well as sprints, dives, and other acrobatics. To increase her endurance, Gleda had her breathe fire for hours upon a natural stone pillar in an attempt to melt it. At first, Saphira could only maintain the flames for a few minutes at a time. But before long, the blistering torch roared from her moor for over a half hour uninterrupted, heating the pillar white hot. Aragon was also privy to the dragon lore Glader imparted to Saphira, details about the dragon's lives and history that complemented her instinctual knowledge. Much of it was incomprehensible to Aragon, and he suspected that Saphira concealed even more from him, 
secrets of her race that dragons shared with no one but themselves. One thing he did glean, and that Sephira treasured, was the name of her sire, Eermunger, and her dam, Vavada, which meant storm-cleaver in the old speech. While Eormunger had been bound to a rider, Vavada was a wild dragon who had laid many eggs, but entrusted only one to the riders, Sephira. Both dragons perished in the fall. Some days Eragon and Sephira would fly with Oromis and Gleda, practicing aerial combat or visiting crumbling ruins hidden within Duweldenvarden. Other days they would reverse the usual order of things, and Eragon would accompany Gleda while Sephira remained on the crags of Telnair with Oromis. Each morning Eragon sparred with Vanna, which without exception ignited one or more of Eragon's seizures. To make matters worse, the elf continued to treat Eragon with haughty condescension. He delivered oblique slights that on the surface never exceeded the bounds of politeness, and he refused to be drawn to anger no matter how Eragon needled him. Eragon hated him and his cool, mannered bearing. It seemed as if Vanna was insulting him with every movement, and Vanna's companions, who as best Eragon could tell were of a younger generation of elves, shared his veiled distaste for Eragon, though they never displayed aught but respect for Sephira. Their rivalry came to a head, when after defeating Eragon six times in a row, Vanna lowered his sword and said, Dead yet again, Shadeslayer. How repetitive. Do you wish to continue? His tone indicated that he thought it would be pointless. Aye, grunted Eragon. He had already suffered an episode with his back, and was in no mood to bandy words. Still, when Vanna said, Tell me, as I am curious, how did you kill Durza when you are so slow? I cannot fathom how you managed it. Eragon felt compelled to reply, I caught him by surprise. Forgive me, I should have guessed trickery was involved. Eragon fought the impulse to grind his teeth. If I were an elf or you a human, you would not be able to match my blade. Perhaps, said Vanna. He assumed his ready position, and within the span of three seconds and two blows disarmed Eragon. But I think not. You should not boast to a better swordsman, else he may decide to punish your temerity. Eragon's temper broke then, and he reached deep within himself and into the torrent of magic. He released the pent-up energy with one of the twelve minor words of binding, crying, Malthinay! to chain Vanna's legs and arms in place and hold his jaw shut so that he could not utter a counterspell. The elf's eyes bulged with outrage. Eragon said, And you should not boast to one who is more skilled in magic than you. Vanna's dark eyebrows met. Without warning or a whisper of sound, an invisible force clouted Eragon on the chest and threw him ten yards across the grass where he landed upon his side, driving the wind from his lungs. The impact disrupted Eragon's control of the magic and freed Vanna. How did he do that? Advancing upon him, Vanna said, Your ignorance betrays you, human. You do not know whereof you speak. To think that you were chosen to succeed Vrail, 
that you were given his quarters, that you have had the honour to serve the morning sage. He shook his head. It sickens me that such gifts are bestowed upon one so unworthy. You do not even understand what magic is or how it works. Aragon's anger resurged like a crimson tide. What, he said, have I ever done to wrong you? Why do you despise me so? Would you prefer it if no rider existed to oppose Galbatorix? My opinions are of little consequence. I agree, but I would hear them. Listening, as Nuala wrote in Convocations, is the path to wisdom only when the result of a conscious decision, and not a void of perception. Straighten your tongue, Vanner, and give me an honest answer. Vanner smiled coldly. As you command, O Rider. Drawing near so that only Aragon could hear his soft voice, the elf said, For eighty years after the fall of the Riders we held no hope of victory. We survived by hiding ourselves through deceit and magic, which is but a temporary measure. For eventually, Galbatorix will be strong enough to march upon us and sweep aside our defences. Then, long after we had resigned ourselves to our fate, Brom and Jode rescued Zephira's egg, and once again a chance existed to defeat the foul usurper. Imagine our joy and celebration! We knew that in order to withstand Galbatorix, the new rider had to be more powerful than any of his predecessors, more powerful than even Vrail. Yet how was our patience rewarded? With another human like Galbatorix, worse, a cripple. You doomed us all, Aragon, the instant you touched Sephira's egg. Do not expect us to welcome your presence. Vanner touched his lips with his first and second finger, then sidestepped Aragon and walked off the sparring field, leaving Aragon rooted in place. He's right, thought Aragon. I'm ill-suited for this task. Any of these elves, even Vanner, would make a better rider than me. Emanating outrage, Sephira broadened the contact between them. Do you think so little of my judgment, Aragon? You forget that when I was in my egg, Arya exposed me to each and every one of these elves, as well as many of the Varden's children, and that I rejected them all. I wouldn't have chosen someone to be my rider unless they could help your race, mine, and the elves for the three of us share an intertwined fate. You were the right person at the right place at the right time. Never forget that. If ever that were true, he said, it was before Durza injured me. Now I see naught but darkness and evil in our future. I won't give up, but I despair that we may not prevail. Perhaps our task is not to overthrow Galbatorix, but to prepare the way for the next rider, chosen by the remaining eggs. At the crags of Telnair, Aragon found Oromis at the table in his hut, painting a landscape with black ink along the bottom edge of a scroll he had finished writing. Aragon bowed and knelt. Master! Fifteen minutes elapsed before Oromis finished limning the tufts of needles on a gnarled juniper tree laid aside his ink, cleaned his sable brush with water from a clay pot, and then addressed Aragon, 
saying, Why have you come so early? I apologize for disturbing you, but Vanna abandoned our contest part way through, and I did not know what to do with myself. Why did Vanna leave Eragon Voda? Oromis folded his hands in his lap while Eragon described the encounter, ending with, I should not have lost control, but I did, and I looked all the more foolish because of it. I have failed you, master. You have, agreed Oromis. Vanna may have goaded you, but that was no reason to respond in kind. You must keep a better hold over your emotions, Aragon. It could cost you your life if you allow your temper to sway your judgment during battle. Also, such childish displays do nothing but vindicate those elves who are opposed to you. Our machinations are subtle, and allow little room for such errors. I am sorry, Master. It won't happen again. As Oromis seemed content to wait in his chair until the time when they normally performed the Rimgar, Eragon seized the opportunity to ask— how could Vanna have worked magic without speaking? Did he? Perhaps another elf decided to assist him. Eragon shook his head. During my first day in Elasmira, I also saw Islanzadi summon a downpour of flowers by clapping her hands, nothing more. And Vanna said that I didn't understand how magic works. What did he mean? Once again said Oromis, resigned. You grasp at knowledge that you are not prepared for. Yet, because of our circumstances, I cannot deny it to you. Only know this. That which you ask for was not taught to riders, and is not taught to our magicians, until they had, and have, mastered every other aspect of magic. For this is the secret to the true nature of magic and the ancient language. Those who know it may acquire great power, yes, but at a terrible risk. He paused for a moment. How is the ancient language bound to magic, Eragon Voda? The words of the ancient language can release the energy stored within your body and thus activate a spell. Ah, then you mean that certain sounds, certain vibrations in the air, somehow tap into this energy? Sounds that might be produced at random by any creature or thing? Yes, master. Does not that seem absurd? Confused, Aragon said, It doesn't matter if it seems absurd, master. It just is. Should I think it absurd that the moon wanes and waxes, or that the seasons turn, or that birds fly south in the winter? Of course not. But how could mere sound do so much? Can particular patterns of pitch and volume really trigger reactions that allow us to manipulate energy? But they do! Sound has no control over magic. Saying a word or phrase in this language is not what's important. It's thinking them in this language. With a flick of his wrist, a golden flame appeared over Oromus's palm, then disappeared. However... Unless the need is dire, we still utter our spells out loud to prevent stray thoughts from disrupting them, which is a danger to even the most experienced magic user. The implications staggered Aragon. He thought back to when he almost drowned under the waterfall of the lake Kustamirna, and how he had been unable to access magic because of the water surrounding him. If I had known this, then I could have saved myself, 
he thought. Master, he said, if sound does not affect magic, why then do thoughts? Now Oramis smiled. Why indeed? I must point out that we ourselves are not the source of magic. Magic can exist on its own, independent of any spell, such as the weirlights in the bogs by arrows, the dream well in Mani's caves in the Beor Mountains, and the floating crystal on Eom. Wild magic such as this is treacherous, unpredictable, and often stronger than any we can cast. Eons ago all magic was thus. To use it required nothing but the ability to sense magic with your mind, which every magician must possess, and the desire and strength to use it. Without the structure of the ancient language, magicians could not govern their talent, and as a result loosed many evils upon the land, killing thousands. Over time they discovered that stating their intentions in their language helped them to order their thoughts and avoid costly errors. But it was no foolproof method. Eventually an accident occurred so horrific that it almost destroyed every living being in the world. We know of the event from fragments of manuscripts that survived the era, but who or what cast the fatal spell is hidden from us. The manuscripts say that afterward a race called the Grey Folk, not elves, for we were young then, gathered their resources and wrought an enchantment, perhaps the greatest that was or ever shall be. Together the Grey Folk changed the nature of magic itself. They made it so that their language, the ancient language, could control what a spell does, could actually limit the magic, so that if you said, burn that door, and by chance looked at me and thought of me, the magic would still burn the door, not me. And they gave the ancient language its two unique traits, the ability to prevent those who speak it from lying, and the ability to describe the true nature of things. How they did this remains a mystery. The manuscripts differ on what happened to the grey folk when they completed their work, but it seems that the enchantment drained them of their power, and left them but a shadow of themselves. They faded away, choosing to live in their cities until the stones crumbled to dust, or to take mates among the younger races, and so pass into darkness. Then said Aragon, it is still possible to use magic without the ancient language. How do you think Sephira breathes fire? And by your own account, she used no word when she turned Brom's tomb to diamond, nor when she blessed the child in Fardandur. Dragons' minds are different from ours. They need no protection from magic. They cannot use it consciously, aside from their fire, but when the gift touches them, their strength is unparalleled. You look troubled, Eragon. Why? Eragon stared down at his hands. What does this mean for me, master? It means that you will continue to study the ancient language, for you can accomplish much with it that would be too complex or too dangerous otherwise. It means that if you are captured and gagged, you can still call upon magic to free yourself as Vanna did. It means that if you are captured and drugged and cannot recall the ancient language, yes, even then, you may cast a spell, though only in the gravest circumstances. And it means that if you would cast a spell for that which has no name in the ancient language, you can. He paused. 
but beware the temptation to use these powers. Even the wisest among us hesitate to trifle with them for fear of death or worse. The next morning, and every morning thereafter, so long as he stayed in Elismira, Aragon dueled with Vanna, but he never lost his temper again, no matter what the elf did or said. Nor did Aragon feel like devoting energy to their rivalry. His back pained him more and more frequently, driving him to the limits of his endurance. The debilitating attacks sensitized him. Actions that previously had caused him no trouble could now leave him writhing on the ground. Even the Rimgar began to trigger the seizures as he advanced to more strenuous poses. It was not uncommon for him to suffer three or four such episodes in one day. Aragon's face grew haggard. He walked with a shuffle, his movements slow and careful, as he tried to preserve his strength. It became hard for him to think clearly or to pay attention to Oromus's lessons, and gaps began to appear in his memory that he could not account for. In his spare time he took up Oric's puzzle ring again, preferring to concentrate upon the baffling interlocked rings rather than his condition. When she was with him, Sophira insisted that he ride upon her back and did everything that she could to make him comfortable and to save him effort. One morning, as he clung to a spike on her neck, Eragon said, I have a new name for pain. What's that? The obliterator. Because when you're in pain, nothing else can exist. Not thought, not emotion. Only the drive to escape the pain. When it's strong enough, the obliterator strips us of everything that makes us who we are until we're reduced to creatures less than animals, creatures with a single desire and goal, escape. A good name, then. I'm falling apart, Sephira, like an old horse that's ploughed too many fields. Keep hold of me with your mind, or I may drift apart and forget who I am. I will never let go of you. Soon afterward, Aragon fell victim to three bouts of agony while fighting Vanna, and then two more during the Rimgar. As he uncurled from the clenched ball he had rolled into, Oromis said, Again, Aragon, you must perfect your balance. Aragon shook his head and growled in an undertone, No! He crossed his arms to hide his tremors. What? No! Get up, Aragon, and try again. No, do the pose yourself, I won't. Oromis knelt beside Aragon and placed a cool hand on his cheek. Holding it there, he gazed at Aragon with such kindness, Aragon understood the depth of the elf's compassion for him, and that if it were possible, Oromis would willingly assume Aragon's pain to relieve his suffering. Don't abandon hope, said Oromis, never that. A measure of strength seemed to flow from him to Aragon. We are the riders. We stand between the light and the dark, and keep the balance between the two. Ignorance, fear, hate, these are our enemies. Deny them with all your might, Aragon, or we will surely fail. He stood and extended a hand toward Aragon. Now rise, Shadeslayer, and prove you can conquer the instincts of your flesh. Aragon took a deep breath and pushed himself upright on one arm, wincing from the effort. He got his feet underneath himself, paused for a moment, then straightened to his full height and looked Oromis in the eye. The elf nodded with approval. 
Aragon remained silent until they finished the Rimgar and went to bathe in the stream, whereupon he said, Master, yes, Aragon, why must I endure this torture? You could use magic to give me the skills I need to shape my body as you do the trees and plants. I could, but if I did, you would not understand how you got the body you had, your own abilities, nor how to maintain them. No shortcuts exist for the path you walk, Eragon. Cold water rushed over the length of Eragon's body as he lowered himself into the stream. He ducked his head under the surface, holding a rock so that he would not float away, and lay stretched out along the stream bed, feeling like an arrow flying through the water. Narda Roran leaned on one knee, and scratched his new beard as he looked down at Narda. The small town was dark and compact, like a crust of rye bread tamped into a crevasse along the coast. Beyond it the wine-red sea glimmered with the last rays of the dying sunset. The water fascinated him. It was utterly different from the landscape he was accustomed to. We made it! Leaving the promontory, Roran walked back to his makeshift tent, enjoying deep breaths of the salty air. They had camped high in the foothills of the spine, in order to avoid detection by anyone who might alert the Empire as to their whereabouts. As he strode among the clumps of villagers huddled beneath the trees, Roran surveyed their condition with sorrow and anger. The trek from Palankar Valley had left people sick, battered, and exhausted, their faces gaunt from lack of food, their clothes tattered. Most everyone wore rags tied around their hands to ward off frostbite during the frigid mountain nights. Weeks of carrying heavy packs had bowed once proud shoulders. The worst sight was the children, thin and unnaturally still. They deserve better, thought Roran. I'd be in the clutches of the Razak right now if they hadn't protected me. Numerous people approached Roran, most of whom wanted nothing more than a touch on the shoulder or a word of comfort. Some offered him bits of food which he refused, or when they insisted gave to someone else. Those who remained at a distance watched with round, pale eyes. He knew what they said about him, that he was mad, that spirits possessed him, that not even the Razak could defeat him in battle. Crossing the spine had been even harder than Roran expected. The only paths in the forest were game trails, which were too narrow, steep, and meandering for their group. As a result, the villagers were often forced to chop their way through the trees and underbrush, a painstaking task that everyone despised, not least because it made it easy for the Empire to track them. The one advantage to the situation was that the exercise restored Roran's injured shoulder to its previous level of strength, although he still had trouble lifting his arm at certain angles. Other hardships took their toll. A sudden storm trapped them on a bare pass high above the timberline. Three people froze in the snow, Hyder, Brenner, and Nesbitt, all of whom were quite old. That night was the first time Roran was convinced that the entire village would die because they had followed him. Soon after, a boy broke his arm in a fall, and then Southwell drowned in a glacier stream. Wolves and bears preyed upon their livestock on a regular basis, ignoring the watchfires that the villagers lit once they were concealed from Palankar Valley and Galbatorix's hated soldiers. 
Hunger clung to them like a relentless parasite, gnawing at their bellies, devouring their strength, and sapping their will to continue. And yet they survived, displaying the same obstinacy and fortitude that kept their ancestors in Palankar Valley, despite famine, war, and pestilence. The people of Carvajal might take an age and a half to reach a decision, but once they did, nothing could deter them from their course. Now that they had reached Narda, a sense of hope and accomplishment permeated the camp. No one knew what would happen next, but the fact that they had gotten so far gave them confidence. We won't be safe until we leave the Empire, thought Roran, and it's up to me to ensure that we aren't caught. I've become responsible for everyone here. A responsibility that he had embraced wholeheartedly, because it allowed him to both protect the villagers from Galbatorix and pursue his goal of rescuing Katrina. It's been so long since she was captured. How can she still be alive? He shuddered and pushed the thoughts away. True madness awaited him if he allowed himself to brood over Katrina's fate. At dawn, Roran, Horst, Baldor, Loring's three sons, and Gertrude set out for Narda. They descended from the foothills to the town's main road, careful to stay hidden until they emerged onto the lane. Here in the lowlands, the air seemed thick to Roran. It felt as if he were trying to breathe under water. Roran gripped the hammer at his belt as they approached Narda's gate. Two soldiers guarded the opening. They examined Roran's group with hard eyes lingering on their ragged clothes, then lowered their pole-axes and barred the entrance. "'Where'd you be from?' asked the man on the right. He could not have been older than twenty-five, but his hair was already pure white. Swelling his chest, Horst crossed his arms and said, "'Roundabout Tirm, if it please you. "'What brings you here?' "'Trade. We were sent by shopkeepers who want to buy goods directly from Narda, instead of through the usual merchants.' "'That's so, eh? What goods?' When Horst faltered, Gertrude said, "'Herbs and medicine on my part. "'The plants I've received from here have either been too old or mouldy and spoiled. "'I have to procure a fresh supply.' And "'My brothers and I,' said Darman, "'came to bargain with your cobblers. "'Shoes made in the northern style are fashionable in Drasleona and Urubane.' "'He grimaced. "'At least they were when we set out.' Horst nodded with renewed confidence. Aye, and I'm here to collect a shipment of ironwork for my master. So you say? What about that one? What does he do? asked the soldier, motioning toward Roran with his axe. Pottery, said Roran. Pottery? Pottery? Why the hammer, then? How do you think the glaze on a bottle or jar gets cracked? It doesn't happen by itself, you know. You have to hit it. Roran returned the white-haired man's stare of disbelief with a blank expression, daring him to challenge the statement. The soldier grunted and ran his gaze over them again. "'Be as that may, you don't look like tradesmen to me. Starved alley-cats is more like it.' "'We had difficulty on the road,' said Gertrude. "'That I'd believe. If you came from Tirm, where be your horses?' We left them at our camp, supplied Hammond. He pointed south, opposite where the rest of the villages were actually hidden. Don't have the coin to stay in town, eh? 
With a scornful chuckle, the soldier raised his axe and gestured for his companion to do likewise. All right, you can pass, but don't cause trouble or you'll be off to the stocks, or worse. Once through the gate, Horst pulled Roran to the side of the street and growled in his ear. That was a fool thing to do, making up something as ridiculous as that. Cracking the glaze. Do you want to fight? We can't, he stopped as Gertrude plucked at his sleeve. Look, murmured the healer. To the left of the entrance stood a six-foot-wide message board with a narrow shingle roof to protect the yellowing parchment underneath. Half the board was devoted to official notices and proclamations. On the other half hung a block of posters displaying sketches of various criminals. Foremost among them was a drawing of Roran, without a beard. Startled, Roran glanced around to make sure that no one in the street was close enough to compare his face to the illustration, then devoted his attention to the poster. He had expected the Empire to pursue them, but it was still a shock to encounter proof of it. Galbatorix must be expending an enormous amount of resources trying to catch us. When they were in the spine, it was easy to forget that the outside world existed. I bet posters of me are nailed up throughout the Empire. He grinned, glad that he had stopped shaving, and that he and the others had agreed to use false names while in Nada. A reward was inked at the bottom of the poster. Garrow never taught Roran and Aragon to read, but he did teach them their figures, because, as he said, you have to know how much you own, what it's worth, and what you're paid for it, so you don't get rooked by some two-faced knave. Thus, Roran could see that the Empire had offered ten thousand crowns for him, enough to live in comfort for several decades. In a perverse way, the size of the reward pleased him, giving him a sense of importance. Then his gaze drifted to the next poster in line. It was Eragon! Roran's gut clenched as if he had been struck, and for a few seconds he forgot to breathe. He's alive! After his initial relief subsided, Roran felt his old anger about Eragon's role in Garrow's death and the destruction of their farm take its place, accompanied by a burning desire to know why the Empire was hunting Eragon. It must have something to do with that blue stone and the Razak's first visit to Carverhall. Once again, Roran wondered what kind of fiendish machinations he and the rest of Carvajal had become entangled in. Instead of a reward, Eragon's poster bore two lines of runes. What crime is he accused of? Roran asked Gertrude. The skin around Gertrude's eyes wrinkled as she squinted at the board. Treason, the both of you. It says Galbatorix will bestow an earldom on whoever captures Eragon, but that those who try should take care because he's extremely dangerous. Roran blinked with astonishment. Eragon? It seemed inconceivable, until Roran considered how he himself had changed in the past few weeks. The same blood runs in our veins. Who knows? Eragon may have accomplished as much or more than I have since he left. In a low voice, Baldor said, if killing Galbatorix's men and defying the Razak only earns you ten thousand crowns, large as that is, what makes you worth an earldom? Buggering the king himself, suggested Lan. That's enough of that, said Horst. Guard your tongue better, Baldor, or we'll end up in irons. And Roran, don't draw attention to yourself again. 
With a reward like that, people are bound to be watching strangers for anyone who matches your description. Running a hand through his hair, Horst pulled up his belt and said, Right, we all have jobs to do. Return here at noon to report on your progress. With that, their party split into three. Darman, Larn and Hammond set out together to purchase food for the villagers, both to meet present needs and to sustain them through the next stage of their journey. Gertrude, as she had told the guard, went to replenish her stock of herbs, unguents and tinctures, and Roran, Horst and Baldor headed down the sloping street to the docks, where they hoped to charter a ship that could transport the villagers to Surda, or at the very least, Tirm. When they reached the weathered boardwalk that covered the beach, Roran halted and stared out at the ocean, which was grey from low clouds and dotted with whitecaps from erratic wind. He had never imagined that the horizon could be so perfectly flat. The hollow boom of water knocking against the piles beneath his feet made it feel as if he stood upon the surface of a huge drum. The odour of fish, fresh, gutted and rotting, overwhelmed every other smell. Glancing from Roran to Baldor, who was likewise entranced, Horst said, Quite a sight, isn't it? Aye, said Roran. Makes you feel rather small, doesn't it? Aye, said Baldor. Horst nodded. I remember when I first saw the ocean. It had a similar effect on me. When was that? asked Roran. In addition to the flocks of seagulls whirling over the cove, he noticed an odd type of bird perched upon the piers. The animal had an ungainly body with a striped beak that it kept tucked against its breast like a pompous old man, a white head and neck, and a sooty torso. One of the birds lifted its beak, revealing a leathery pouch underneath. Bartram, the smith who came before me, said Horst, died when I was fifteen, a year before the end of my apprenticeship. I had to find a smith who was willing to finish another man's work, so I travelled to Siunon, which is built along the North Sea. There I met Kelton, a vile old man, but good at what he did. He agreed to teach me. Horst laughed. By the time we were done, I wasn't sure if I should thank him or curse him. Thank him, I should think, said Baldor. You never would have married mother otherwise. Roran scowled as he studied the waterfront. There aren't many ships, he observed. Two craft were berthed at the south end of the port, and a third at the opposite end, with nothing but fishing boats and dinghies in between. Of the southern pair, one had a broken mast. Roran had no experience with ships, but to him none of the vessels appeared large enough to carry almost three hundred passengers. Going from one ship to the next, Roran, Horst and Baldor soon discovered that they were all otherwise engaged. It would take a month or more to repair the ship with a broken mast. The vessel beside it, the Wave Runner, was rigged with leather sails and was about to venture north to the treacherous islands where the Seether plant grew. And the Albatross, the last ship, had just arrived from distant Feinster and was getting its seams recorked before departing with its cargo of wool. A dock worker laughed at Horst's questions. You're too late and too early at the same time. Most of the spring ships came and left, two, three weeks ago. And another month the Norwesters will start gusting, and then the seal and walrus hunters will return, and will get ships from Tyrm and the rest of the Empire to take the hides, meat and oil. Then you might have a chance of hiring a captain with an empty hold. 
Meanwhile, we don't see much more traffic than this. Desperate, Roran asked, Is there no other way to get goods from here to Tirm? It doesn't have to be fast or comfortable. Well, said the man, hefting the box on his shoulder, If it doesn't have to be fast and you're only going to Tirm, then you might try Clovis over there. He pointed to a line of sheds that floated between two piers where boats could be stored. He owns some barges that he ships grain on in the fall. The rest of the year Clovis fishes for a living, like most everybody in Narda. Then he frowned. What kind of goods do you have? The sheep have already been shorn, and no crops are in as of yet. This and that, said Horst. He tossed the man a copper. The dock worker pocketed it with a wink and a nudge. Right you are, sir, this and that. I know a dodge when I see one. But no need to fear old Ulrich. Mum's the word it is. Be seeing you then, sir. He strolled off, whistling. As it turned out, Clovis was absent from the docks. After getting directions, it took them a half hour to walk to his house on the other side of Narda, where they found Clovis planting iris bulbs along the path to his front door. He was a stout man with sunburned cheeks and a salt-and-pepper beard. An additional hour passed before they could convince the mariner that they really were interested in his barges, despite the season, and then trooped back to the sheds, which he unlocked to reveal three identical barges, the Merry Bell, Edeline, and Red Boar. Each barge was seventy-five feet long, twenty feet wide, and painted rust-red. They had open holes that could be covered with tarpaulins, a mast that could be erected in the centre for a single square sail, and a block of above-deck cabins at the rear, or aft, as Clovis called it, of the craft. "'Their draught be deeper than that of an inland scow,' explained Clovis. "'So you needn't fear them capsizing in rough weather, though you'd do well to avoid being caught in a real tempest. These barges aren't men for the open sea.' They're meant to stay within sight of land, and now be the worst time to launch them. By my honour, we've had nothing but thunderstorms every afternoon for a month. Do you have crews for all three? asked Roran. Well, now, see, there's a problem. Most of the men I employ left weeks ago to hunt seals, as they're wont to do. Since I need them only after the harvest, they're free to come and go as they please for the rest of the year. I'm sure you fine gentlemen understand my position. Clovis tried to smile, then glanced between Roran, Horst, and Baldor, as if uncertain whom to address. Roran walked the length of the Edeline, examining it for damage. The barge looked old, but the wood was sound and the paint was fresh. If we replace the missing men in your cruise, how much would it cost to go to Tirm with all three barges? That depends, said Clovis. The sailors earn fifteen coppers per day, plus as much good food as they can eat, and a dram of whisky besides. What your men earn be your own business. I won't put them on my payroll. Normally we also hire guards for each barge, but they're... They're off hunting, yes, said Roran. We'll provide guards as well. The knob in Clovis's tan throat jumped as he swallowed. That'd be more than reasonable, so it would. In addition to the crew's wages, I charge a fee of two hundred crowns, plus recompense for any damage to the barges on account of your men, plus, as both owner and captain, twelve percent of the total profit from sale of the cargo. 
Our trip will have no profit. That, more than anything, seemed to unnerve Clovis. He rubbed the dimple in his chin with his left thumb, began to talk twice, stopped, then finally said, If that be the case, another four hundred crowns upon completion of the voyage. What, if I may make so bold as to inquire, do you wish to transport? We frighten him, thought Roran. Livestock, be it sheep, cattle, horses, goats, oxen. Our herds contain an assortment of animals. And why do you want to take them to Tirm? We have our reasons. Roran almost smiled at Clovis's confusion. Would you consider sailing past Tirm? No, Tirm's my limit, it is. I don't know the waters beyond, nor would I want to be gone any longer from my wife and daughter. When could you be ready? Clovis hesitated and executed two little steps. Mayhap five or six days. No, no, you'd better make it a week. I have affairs that I must attend to before departing. We'd pay an additional ten crowns to leave day after tomorrow. I don't. Twelve crowns. Day after tomorrow it is, vowed Clovis. One way or another I'll be ready by then. Trading his hand along the barge's gunwale, Roran nodded without looking back at Clovis and said, May I have a minute alone to confer with my associates? As you wish, sir. I'll just go for a turn about the docks until you're done. Clovis hurried to the door. Just as he exited the shed, he asked, I'm sorry, but what'd be your name again? I fear I missed it earlier, and my memory can be something dreadful. Stronghammer. My name is Stronghammer. Ah, of course. A good name, that. When the door closed, Horst and Baldor converged on Roran. Baldor said, We can't afford to hire him. We can't afford not to, replied Roran. We don't have the gold to buy the barges, nor do I fancy teaching myself to handle them when everyone's lives depend on it. It'll be faster and safer to pay for a crew. It's still too expensive, said Horst. Roran drummed his fingers against the gunwale. We can pay Clovis's initial fee of two hundred crowns. Once we reach Tium, though, I suggest that we either steal the barges using the skills we learned during the trip, or incapacitate Clovis and his men until we can escape through other means. That way we avoid paying the extra four hundred crowns, as well as the sailors' wages. I don't like cheating a man out of honest work, said Horst. It goes against my fibre. I don't like it either, but can you think of an alternative? How would you get everyone onto the barges? Have them meet Clovis a league or so down the coast, out of sight of Narda. Horst sighed. Very well, we'll do it, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Call Clovis back in, Baldur, and we'll seal this pact. That evening the villagers gathered around a small banked fire in order to hear what had transpired in Narda. From where he knelt on the ground... Roran stared at the pulsing coals while he listened to Gertrude and the three brothers describe their separate adventures. The news about Roran's and Aragon's posters caused murmurs of unease among the audience. When Darman finished, Horst took his place, and with short, brisk sentences related the lack of proper ships in Narda, how the dock worker recommended Clovis, and the deal that was brokered thereafter. However, the moment Horst mentioned the word barges, the villagers' cries of ire and discontent blotted out his voice. Marching to the forefront of the group, 
Loring raised his arms for attention. Barges, said the cobbler. Barges? We don't want no stinking barges. He spat by his foot as people clamoured with agreement. Everyone, be quiet," said Delwyn. "We'll be heard if we keep this up." When the crackling fire was the loudest noise, he continued at a slower pace. "I agree with Loring. Barges are unacceptable. They're slow and vulnerable, and we'd be crammed together with a complete lack of privacy and no shelter to speak of for who knows how long." Horst Elaine is six months pregnant. You can't expect her and others who are sick and infirm to sit under the blazing sun for weeks on end. We can lash tarpaulins over the holes," replied Horst. "It's not much, but it'll shield us from the sun and the rain." Burgett's voice cut through the crowd's low babble. "I have another concern." People moved aside as she walked to the fire. "What with the two hundred crowns Clovis is due and the money Darman and his brothers spent." We've used up most of our coin. Unlike those in cities, our wealth lies not in gold, but in animals and property. Our property is gone, and few animals are left. Even if we turn pirate and steal these barges, how can we buy supplies at Tirm or passage further south? The important thing, rumbled Horst, is to get to Tirm in the first place. Once we're there, then we can worry about what to do next. It's possible that we may have to resort to more drastic measures. Loring's bony face crumpled into a mass of wrinkles. Drastic? What do you mean, drastic? We've already done drastic. This whole venture is drastic. I don't care what you say. I won't use those confounded barges. Not after what we've gone through in the spine. Barges are for grain and animals. What we want is a ship with cabins and bunks where we can sleep in comfort. Why not wait another week or so and see if a ship arrives that we can bargain passage on? Where's the harm in that, eh? Or why not? He continued to rail for over fifteen minutes, amassing a mountain of objections, before ceding to Thane and Ridley, who built upon his arguments. The conversation halted as Roran unfolded his legs and rose to his full height. Silencing the villagers through his presence, they waited, breathless, hoping for another of his visionary speeches. "It's this or walk," he said. Then he went to bed. The hammer falls. The moon floated high among the stars when Roran left the makeshift tent he shared with Baldor, padded to the edge of the camp. And replaced Albrecht on watch. Nothing to report," whispered Albrecht. Then slipped off. Roran strung his bow and planted three goose feather arrows upright in the loam within easy reach. Then wrapped himself in a blanket and curled against the rock face to his left. His position afforded him a good view down and across the dark foothills. As was his habit, Roran divided the landscape into quadrants, examining each one for a full minute. Always alert for the flash of movement or the hint of light that might betray the approach of enemies, his mind soon began to wander, drifting from subject to subject with the hazy logic of dreams, distracting him from his task. He bit the inside of his cheek to force himself to concentrate. Staying awake was difficult in such mild weather. 
Roran was just glad that he had escaped drawing lots for the two watches preceding dawn, because they gave you no opportunity to catch up on lost sleep afterward, and you felt tired for the rest of the day. A breath of wind ghosted past him, tickling his ear and making the skin on the back of his neck prickle with an apprehension of evil. The intrusive touch frightened Roran, obliterating everything but the conviction that he and the rest of the villagers were in mortal danger. He quaked as if with the ague. His heart pounded, and he had to struggle to resist the urge to break cover and flee. What's wrong with me? It required an effort for him to even knock an arrow. To the east, a shadow detached itself from the horizon. Visible only as a void among the stars, it drifted like a torn veil across the sky until it covered the moon, where it remained hovering. Illuminated from behind, Roran could see the translucent wings of one of the Razak's mounts. The black creature opened its beak and uttered a long, piercing shriek. Roran grimaced with pain at the cry's pitch and frequency. It stabbed at his eardrums, turned his blood to ice, and replaced hope and joy with despair. The ululation woke the entire forest. Birds and beasts for miles around exploded into a yammering chorus of panic, including, to Roran's alarm, what remained of the villagers' herds. Staggering from tree to tree, Roran returned to the camp, whispering, The Razak are here! Be quiet and stay where you are! To everyone he encountered. He saw the other sentries moving among the frightened villagers, spreading the same message. Fisk emerged from his tent with a spear in hand and roared, Are we under attack? What set off those blasted... Roran tackled the carpenter to silence him, uttering a muffled bellow as he landed on his right shoulder and pained his old injury. "'Razak!' Roran groaned to Fisk. Fisk went still, and in an undertone asked, "'What should I do?' "'Help me to calm the animals.' Together they picked their way through the camp to the adjacent meadow, where the goats, sheep, donkeys and horses were bedded. The farmers who owned the bulk of the herds slept with their charges, and were already awake and working to soothe the beasts.' Roran thanked his paranoia that he had insisted on having the animals scattered along the edge of the meadow, where the trees and brush helped to camouflage them from unfriendly eyes. As he tried to pacify a clump of sheep, Roran glanced up at the terrible black shadow that still obscured the moon like a giant bat. To his horror, it began to move toward their hiding place. If that creature screams again, we're doomed. By the time the Razak circled overhead... Most of the animals had quieted, except for one donkey, who insisted upon loosing a grating hee-haw. Without hesitation, Roran dropped to one knee, fit arrow to string, and shot the ass between the ribs. His aim was true, and the animal dropped without a sound. He was too late, though. The braying had already alerted the Razak. The monster swung its head in the direction of the clearing, and descended toward it with outstretched claws, preceded by its fetid stench. Now the time has come to see if we can slay a nightmare, thought Roran. Fisk, who was crouched beside him in the grass, hefted his spear, preparing to hurl it once the brute was in range. Just as Roran drew his bow, in an attempt to begin and end the battle with a well-placed shaft, he was distracted by a commotion in the forest. A mass of deer burst through the underbrush and stampeded across the meadow, ignoring villagers and livestock alike in their frantic desire to escape the Razak. 
For almost a minute the deer bounded past Roran, mincing the loam with their sharp hooves and catching the moonlight with their white-rimmed eyes. They came so close he heard the soft gasps of their laboured breathing. The multitude of deer must have hidden the villagers, because after one last circuit over the meadow the winged monster turned to the south and glided further down the spine, melding into the night. Roran and his companions remained frozen in place like hunted rabbits, afraid that the Razak's departure might be a ruse to flush them into the open, or that the creature's twin might be close behind. They waited for hours, tense and anxious, barely moving except to string a bow. When the moon was about to set, the Razak's bone-chilling shriek echoed far in the distance. Then nothing. We were lucky, decided Roran when he woke the next morning, and we can't count on luck to save us the next time. After the Razak's appearance, none of the villagers objected to travelling by barge. On the contrary, they were so eager to be off, many of them asked Roran if it was possible to set sail that day instead of the next. I wish we could, he said, but too much has to be done. For going breakfast, he, Horst, and a group of other men hiked into Nada. Roran knew that he risked being recognised by accompanying them, but their mission was too important for him to neglect. Besides, he was confident that his current appearance was different enough from his portrait on the Empire's poster that no one would equate one with the other. They had no difficulty gaining entrance, as a different set of soldiers guarded the town gate, whereupon they went to the docks and delivered the two hundred crowns to Clovis, who was busy overseeing a gang of men as they readied the barges for sea. Thank ye, strong hammer, he said, tying the bag of coins to his belt. There be nothing like yellow gold to brighten a man's day. He led them to a work table and unrolled a chart of the waters surrounding Nada, complete with notations on the strength of various currents, locations of rocks, sandbars and other hazards, and decades' worth of sounding measurements. Drawing a line with his finger from Nada to a small cove directly south of it, Clovis said, "'Here's where we'll meet your livestock. "'The tides are gentle this time of year, "'but we still don't want to fight them and no bones about it, "'so we'll have to be on our way directly after the high tide.' "'High tide?' said Roran. "'Wouldn't it be easier to wait until low tide and let it carry us out?' "'Clovis tapped his nose with a twinkle in his eye. "'Aye, it would. "'And so I've begun many a cruise.' What I don't want, though, is to be slung up on the beach, loading your animals when the tide comes a-rushing back in and pushes us farther inland. There be no danger of that this way. But we'll have to move smart, so as we're not left high and dry when the waters recede. Assuming we do, the sea'll work for us, eh? Roran nodded. He trusted Clovis's experience. And how many men will you need to fill out your crews? Well, I managed to dig up seven lads, strong, true, and good seamen all, who have agreed to this venture, odd as it is. Mind you, most of the boys were at the bottom of their tankards when I cornered them last night, drinking off the pay from their last voyage. But they'll be sober as spinsters come morn, that I promise you. Seeing as seven were all I could find, I'd like four more. Four it is, said Roran. My men don't know much about sailing but they're able-bodied and willing to learn. Clovis grunted. I usually take on a brace of new lads each trip anyway. So long as they follow orders, they'll do fine. Otherwise they'll get a belaying pin upsides the head.
Mark my words. As for guards, I'd like to have nine, three per boat. And they'd better not be as green as your sailors, or I won't budge from the dock, not for all the whiskey in the world. Roran allowed himself a grim smile. Every man who rides with me has proved himself in battle many times over. And they all answer to you, eh, young Stronghammer? said Clovis. He scratched his chin, eyeing Gedrick, Delwyn, and the others who were new to Nada. How many are with you? Enough. Enough, you say? I wonder. He waved a hand. Never you mind me. My tongue runs a league before my own common sense, or so my father used to tell me. My first mate, Torson, is at the Chandler's now, overseeing the purchase of goods and equipment. I understand you have feed for your livestock? Among other things. Then you'd best fetch him. We can load him into the holes once the masts are up. Throughout the rest of the morning and afternoon, Roran and the villagers with him laboured to ferry the supplies which Loring's sons had procured from the warehouse where it was stored into the sheds with the barges. As Roran trudged across the gangplank to the Edeline and lowered his bag of flour to the sailor waiting in the hold, Clovis observed, "'Most of this taint feed, strong ammer.' "'No,' said Roran, "'but it's needed.' He was pleased that Clovis had the sense not to inquire further. When the last item had been stored away, Clovis beckoned to Roran. You might as well go. Me and the boys will handle the rest. Just you remember to be at the docks three hours after dawn with every man Jack you promised me, or we'll lose the tide. We'll be there. Back in the foothills, Roran helped Elaine and the others prepare for departure. It did not take long, as they were accustomed to breaking camp each morning. Then he picked twelve men to accompany him to Nada the next day. They were all good fighters, but he asked the best, like Horst and Delwyn, to remain with the rest of the villagers in case soldiers found them or the Razak returned. Once night fell, the two groups parted. Roran crouched on a boulder and watched Horst lead the column of people down through the foothills toward the cove where they would wait for the barges. Orval came up beside him and crossed his arms. Do you think they'll be safe, Stronghammer? Anxiety ran through his voice like a taut bowstring. Though he too was worried, Roran said, I do. I'd bet you a barrel of cider that they'll still be asleep when we put ashore tomorrow. You can have the pleasure of waking up Nola. How does that sound? Orval smiled at the mention of his wife and nodded, appearing reassured. I hope I'm right. Roran remained on the boulder, hunched like a bleak gargoyle, until the dark line of villages vanished from his sight. They woke an hour before sunrise, when the sky had just begun to brighten with pale green, and the damp night air numbed their fingers. Roran splashed his face with water, and then outfitted himself with his bow and quiver, his ever-present hammer, one of Fisk's shields, and one of Horst's spears. The others did likewise, with the addition of swords obtained during the skirmishes in Carvajal. Running as fast as they dared down the hummocky hills, the thirteen men soon arrived at the road to Nada, and shortly after that, the town's main gate. To Roran's dismay, the same two soldiers who had troubled them earlier stood guard by the entrance. As before, the soldiers lowered their poleaxes to block the way. "'There be quite a bit more of you this time,' observed the white-haired man. 
and not all the same ones either, except for you. He focused on Roran. I suppose you expect me to believe that the spear and shield be for pottery as well. No, we've been hired by Clovis to protect his barges from attack on the way to Tirm. You mercenaries! The soldiers burst out laughing. You said you were tradesmen. This pays better. The white-haired man scowled. You lie. I tried my hand at being a gentleman of fortune once. I spent more nights hungry than not. How large be your company of tradesmen anyway? Seven yesterday and twelve today. Thirteen counting you. It seems too large for an expedition from a bunch of shopkeepers. His eyes narrowed as he scrutinized Roran's face. You look familiar. What'd be your name, eh? Stronghammer. It wouldn't happen to be Roran, would? Roran jabbed forward with his spear, catching the white-haired soldier in the throat. Scarlet blood fountained. Releasing the spear, Roran drew his hammer and twisted round as he blocked the second soldier's poleaxe with his shield. Swinging his hammer up and around, Roran crushed the man's helm. He stood panting between the two corpses. Now I have killed ten. Orval and the other men stared at Roran with shock. Unable to bear their gazes, Roran turned his back on them and gestured at the culvert that ran beneath the road. Hide the bodies before anyone sees, he ordered, brusque and harsh. As they hurried to obey, he examined the parapet on top of the wall for sentries. Fortunately, no one was visible there or in the street through the gate. He bent and pulled his spear free, wiping the blade clean on a tuft of grass. Done, said Mandel, clambering out of the ditch. Despite his beard, the young man appeared pale. Roran nodded, and stealing himself, faced his band. Listen, we will walk to the docks at a quick but reasonable pace. We will not run. When the alarm is sounded, and someone may have heard the clash just now, act surprised and interested, but not afraid. Whatever you do, give people no reason to suspect us. The lives of your families and friends depend on it. If we are attacked... Your only duty is to see the barges launched. Nothing else matters. Am I clear? I, strong hammer, they answered. Then follow me. As he strode through Narda, Roran felt so tense he feared he might snap and explode into a thousand pieces. What have I made of myself? he wondered. He glanced from man to woman, child to man, man to dog, in an effort to identify potential enemies. Everything around him appeared unnaturally bright and filled with detail. It seemed as if he could see the individual threads in people's clothing. They reached the docks without incident, whereupon Clovis said, You be early, strong hammer. I like that in a man. It'll give us the opportunity to put things nice and shipshape before we head out. Can we leave now? asked Roran. You should know better than that. Have to wait till the tides finish coming in, so we do. Clovis paused then, taking his first good look at the thirteen of them, and said, why, what would be the matter, Stronghammer? The lot of you look as if you saw the ghost of old Galbatorix himself. Nothing a few hours of sea air won't cure, said Roran. In his current state he could not smile, but he did let his features assume a more pleasant expression in order to reassure the captain. With a whistle, Clovis summoned two sailors from the boats. Both men were tanned the colour of hazelnuts. This'd be Torson, my first mate, said Clovis, indicating the man to his right. 
Torson's bare shoulder was decorated with a coiled tattoo of a flying dragon. He'll be skipper of the Merry Bell. And this black dog is Flint. He's in command of the Edeline. While you are on board, their word is law, as is mine on the Red Boar. You'll answer to them and me, not Stronghammer. Well, give me a proper aye-aye, if you heard me. Aye-aye, said the men. Now which of you be my hands, and which be my men-at-arms? For the life of me, I can't tell you apart. Ignoring Clovis's admonishment that he was their commander, not Roran, the villagers looked at Roran to see if they should obey. He nodded his approval, and they divided into two factions, which Clovis proceeded to partition into even smaller groups, as he assigned a certain number of villagers to each barge. For the next half-hour, Roran worked alongside the sailors to finish preparing the Red Boar for departure, ears open for the first hint of alarm. We're going to be captured or killed if we stay much longer, he thought, checking the height of the water against the piers. He mopped sweat from his brow. Roran started as Clovis gripped his forearm. Before he could stop himself, Roran pulled his hammer halfway out of his belt. The thick air clogged his throat. Clovis raised an eyebrow at his reaction. I've been watching you, strong hammer, and I'd be interested to know how you won such loyalty from your men. I've served with more captains than I care to recall, and not one commanded the level of obedience you do without raising his pipes. Roran could not help it. He laughed. <laughs> I'll tell you how I did it. I saved them from slavery and from being eaten. Clovis's eyebrows rose almost to his hairline. Did you now? There's a story I'd like to hear. No, you wouldn't. After a minute, Clovis said, No, maybe I wouldn't at that. He glanced overboard. Why, I'll be hanged. I do believe we can be on our way. Ah, and here's my little Galena, punctual as ever. The burly man sprang onto the gangplank, and from there onto the docks, where he embraced a dark-haired girl of perhaps thirteen, and a woman who Roran guessed was her mother. Clovis ruffled the girl's hair and said, Now you'll be good while I'm gone, won't you, Galena? Yes, father. As he watched Clovis bid his family farewell, Roran thought of the two soldiers dead by the gate. They might have had families as well, wives and children who loved them, and a home they returned to each day. He tasted bile, and had to wrench his thoughts back to the pier to avoid being sick. On the barges, the men appeared anxious. Afraid that they might lose their nerve, Roran made a show of walking about the deck, stretching, and doing whatever he could to seem relaxed. At last, Clovis jumped back onto the red boar and cried, "'Cast off, me lads! It's the briny deep for us!' In short order, the gangplanks were pulled aboard, the mooring ropes untied and the sails raised on the three barges. The air rang with shouted orders and chants of heave-ho as the sailors pulled on ropes. Behind them, Galena and her mother remained watching as the barges drew away, still and silent, hooded and grave. "'We're lucky, Stronghammer,' said Clovis, clapping him on the shoulder. "'We've a bit of wind to push us along today. We may not have to row in order to reach the cove before the tide changes, eh?' When the Red Boar was in the middle of Narda's Bay, and still ten minutes from the freedom of the open sea, that which Roran dreaded occurred. The sound of bells and trumpets floated across the water from among the stone buildings. "'What's that?' he asked. 
I don't rightly know, said Clovis. He frowned as he stared at the town, his hands planted on his hips. It could be a fire, but no smoke is in the air. Maybe some urgles were discovered in the area. Concern grew upon his face. Did you perchance spy anyone on the road this morning? Roran shook his head, not trusting himself to speak. Flint drew alongside them and shouted from the deck of the Edeline, Should we turn back, sir? Roran gripped the gunwale so hard that he drove splinters under his nails, ready to intercede, but afraid to appear too anxious. Tearing his gaze from Nada, Clovis bellowed in return, No, we'd miss the tide then. Aye, aye, sir, but I'd give a day's pay to find out what caused that clamour. So would I, muttered Clovis. As the houses and buildings shrank behind them, Roran crouched at the rear port of the barge, wrapped his arms around his knees, and leaned against the cabins. He looked at the sky, struck by its depth, clarity, and color, then into the red boar's roiling green wake, where ribbons of seaweed fluttered. The pitch of the barge lulled him like the rock of a cradle. What a beautiful day it is, he thought, grateful he was there to observe it. After they escaped the cove, to his relief, Roran climbed the ladder to the poop deck behind the cabins, where Clovis stood with his hand on the tiller, guiding their course. The captain said, Ah, oh, there's something exhilarating about the first day of a voyage, before you realise how bad the food is and start longing for home. Mindful of his need to learn what he could about the barge, Roran asked Clovis the names and functions of various objects on board, at which point he was treated to an enthusiastic lecture on the workings of barges, ships, and the art of sailing in general. Two hours later, Clovis pointed at a narrow peninsula that lay before them. The cove be on the far side of that. Roran straightened off the railing and craned his neck, eager to confirm that the villagers were safe. As the red boar rounded the rocky spit of land, a white beach was revealed at the apex of the cove, upon which were assembled the refugees from Palancar Valley. The crowd cheered and waved as the barges emerged from behind the rocks. Roran relaxed. Beside him, Clovis uttered a dreadful oath. I knew something were amiss the moment I clapped eyes upon you, Stronghammer. Livestock indeed. Bah, you played me like a fool, you did. You wrong me, replied Roran. I did not lie. This is my flock, and I am their shepherd. Is it not within my right to call them livestock if I want? Call them what you will. I didn't agree to all people to tear them. Why you didn't tell me the true nature of your cargo, I might wonder. And the only answer on the horizon is that whatever venture you're engaged in means trouble. Trouble for you and trouble for me. I should toss the lot of you overboard and return to Narda. But you won't, said Roran, deadly quiet. No, and why not? Because I need these barges, Clovis, and I'll do anything to keep them, anything. Honour our bargain and you'll have a peaceful trip, and you'll get to see Galena again. If not... The threat sounded worse than it was. Roran had no intention of killing Clovis, though if he had to, he would abandon him somewhere along the coast. Clovis's face reddened, but he surprised Roran by grunting and saying... Fair enough, strong hammer. Pleased with himself, Roran returned his attention to the beach. Behind him, he heard a snick. Acting on instinct, 
Roran recoiled, crouching, twisting, and covering his head with his shield. His arm vibrated as a belaying pin broke across the shield. He lowered the shield and gazed at a dismayed Clovis, who retreated across the deck. Roran shook his head, never taking his eyes off his opponent. You can't defeat me, Clovis. I'll ask you again. Will you honour our bargain? If you don't, I'll put you ashore, commandeer the barges, and press your crew into service. I don't want to ruin your livelihood, but I will if you force me. Come now. This can be a normal, uneventful voyage if you choose to help us. Remember, you've already been paid. Drawing himself up with great dignity, Clovis said, If I agree, then you must do me the courtesy of explaining why this ruse was necessary, and why these people are here, and where they're from. No matter how much gold you offer me, I won't assist an undertaking that contradicts my principles. No, I won't. Are you bandits? Or do you serve the blasted king? The knowledge may place you in greater danger. I insist. Have you heard of Carvajal in Palancar Valley? asked Roran. Clovis waved a hand. Once or twice? What of it? You see it now on the beach. Galbatorix's soldiers attacked us without provocation. We fought back, and when our position became untenable, we crossed the spine and followed the coast to Nada. Galbatorix has promised that every man, woman, and child from Carval will be killed or enslaved. Reaching Surda is our only hope of survival. Roran left out mention of the Razak. He did not want to frighten Clovis too badly. The weathered seamen had gone grey. Are you still pursued? Aye, but the Empire has yet to discover us. And are you why the alarm was sounded? Very softly, Roran said, I killed two soldiers who recognized me. The revelation startled Clovis. His eyes widened, he stepped back, and the muscles in his forearms rippled as he clenched his fists. Make your choice, Clovis. The shore draws near. He knew he had won when the captain's shoulders drooped and the bravado faded from his bearing. Ah, the plague take you, Strunghammer. I'm no friend of the king. I'll get you to Tyrm. But then I want nothing more to do with you. Will you give me your word that you won't attempt to slip away in the night or any similar deception? Aye, you have it. Sand and rocks grated across the bottom of the red boar's hull as the barge drove itself up onto the beach, followed on either side by its two companions. The relentless, rhythmic surge of water dashing itself against the land sounded like the breathing of a gigantic monster. Once the sails were furled and the gangplanks extended, Torson and Flint both strode over to the Red Boar and accosted Clovis, demanding to know what was going on. "'There's been a change of plans,' said Clovis. Roran left him to explain the situation, skirting the exact reasons why the villagers left Palancar Valley, and jumped onto the sand." whereupon he set out to find Horst among the milling knots of people. When he spotted the smith, Roran pulled him aside and told him about the deaths in Narda. If it's discovered that I left with Clovis, they may send soldiers on horses after us. We have to get everyone onto the barges as fast as possible. Horst met his eye for a long minute. You've become a hard man, Roran. Harder than I'll ever be. I've had to. Mind that you don't forget who you are.
Roran spent the next three hours moving and packing the villagers' belongings in the red boar, until Clovis expressed his satisfaction. The bundles had to be secured so that they would not shift unexpectedly and injure someone, as well as distributed so that the barge rode level in the water, which was no easy task, as the bundles were of irregular size and density. Then the animals were coaxed on board, much to their displeasure, and immobilized by tethers lashed to iron rings in the hold. Last of all came the people, who, like the rest of the cargo, had to be organized into a symmetrical pattern within the barge to keep from capsizing it. Clovis, Torson, and Flint each ended up standing in the fore of their barges, shouting directions to the mass of villagers below. What now? thought Roran as he heard an argument break out on the beach. Pushing his way to the source of the disturbance, he saw Kalitha kneeling beside her stepfather, Wayland, trying to calm the old man. No, I won't go on that beast. You can't make me, cried Wayland. He thrashed his withered arms and beat his heels in an attempt to free himself from Kalitha's embrace. Spittle flew from his lips. Let me go, I say, let me go. Wincing from his blows, Kalitha said, He's been unreasonable ever since we made camp last night. It would have been better for all concerned if he had died in the spine, what with the trouble he's caused, thought Roran. He joined Kalitha, and together they managed to soothe Wayland, so that he no longer screamed and hit. As a reward for his good behaviour, Kalitha gave him a piece of jerky, which occupied his entire attention. While Wayland concentrated on gumming the meat, she and Roran were able to guide him onto the Edeline and get him settled in a deserted corner where he would not be a nuisance. "'Move your backsides, you lubbers!' shouted Clovis. "'The tide's about to turn. Up to, up to!' After a final flurry of activity, the gangplanks were withdrawn, leaving a cluster of twenty men standing on the beach before each barge. The three groups gathered around the prows and prepared to push them back into the water. Roran led the effort on the red boar. Chanting in unison, he and his men strained against the weight of the huge barge, the grey sand giving beneath their feet, the timbers and cables creaking, and the smell of sweat in the air. For a moment their efforts seemed to be in vain. Then the red boar lurched and slid back a foot. "'Again!' shouted Roran. Foot by foot they advanced into the sea until the frigid water surged about their waists. A breaker crashed over Roran, filling his mouth with seawater, which he spat out vigorously, disgusted by the taste of salt. It was far more intense than he expected. When the barge lifted free of the seabed, Roran swam alongside the red boar and pulled himself up with one of the ropes draped over the gunwale. Meanwhile, the sailors deployed long poles that they used to propel the red boar into ever deeper water, as did the crews of the Merrybell and Edeline. The instant they were a reasonable distance from shore, Clovis ordered the pole stowed away and oars broken out, with which the sailors aimed the red boar's prow toward the cove's entrance. They hoisted the sail, aligned it to catch the light wind, and at the vanguard of the trio of barges set forth from Tiam upon the uncertain expanse of the bounding main. The Beginning of Wisdom the days Eragon spent in Elismira blended together without distinction. Time seemed to have no hold in the Pinewood city. The season aged not, even as the afternoons and evenings lengthened, barring the forest with rich shadows. 
Flowers of all months bloomed at the urging of the elves' magic, nourished by the enchantments spun through the air. Aragon came to love Elismira, with its beauty and its quiet, the graceful buildings that flowed out of the trees, the haunting songs that echoed at twilight, the works of art hidden within the mysterious dwellings, and the introspection of the elves themselves, which they mixed with outbursts of merriment. The wild animals of Duweldenvarden had no fear of hunters. Often Aragon would look from his eyrie to see an elf petting a stag or a grey fox, or murmuring to a shy bear that trundled along the edge of a clearing, reluctant to expose himself. Some animals had no recognisable form. They appeared at night, moving and grunting in the bushes and fleeing if Aragon dared approach. Once he glimpsed a creature like a furred snake, and once a white-robed woman whose body wavered and disappeared to reveal a grinning she-wolf in her place. Aragon and Sephira continued to explore Elasmira when they had the chance. They went alone or with Oric, for Arya no longer accompanied them, nor had Aragon spoken to her since she broke his ferth. He saw her now and then, flitting between the trees, but whenever he approached, intending to apologize, she withdrew, leaving him alone among the ancient pines. At last Aragon realized that he had to take the initiative if he were to ever have a chance of mending his relationship with her. So one evening he picked a bouquet from the flowers along the path by his tree and hobbled to Tildari Hall, where he asked directions to Arya's quarters from an elf in the common room. The screen door was open when he reached her chambers. No one answered when he knocked. He stepped inside, listening for approaching footsteps, as he glanced around the spacious, vine-covered living room, which opened to a small bedroom on one side and a study on the other. Two ferths decorated the walls, a portrait of a stern, proud elf with silver hair who Aragon guessed was King Evendar, and that of a younger male elf whom he did not recognize. Aragon wandered through the apartment, looking but not touching, savoring his glimpse into Arya's life, gleaning what he could about her interests and hobbies. By her bed, he saw a glass sphere with a preserved blossom of the black morning glory embedded within it. On her desk, neat rows of scrolls with titles like Osylon, Harvest Report, and Activity Noted by Gilead Watchtower. On the sill of an open bay window, three miniature trees grown in the shape of glyphs from the ancient language, the glyphs for peace, strength, and wisdom. And by the trees a scrap of paper with an unfinished poem, covered with crossed-out words and scribble marks. It read, Under the moon, the bright white moon, lies a pool, a flat silver pool, among the brakes and brambles and blackheart pines. Falls a stone, a living stone, cracks the moon, the bright white moon, among the brakes and brambles and blackheart pines. Shards of light, swords of light, ripple across the pool. The quiet mere, the still tarn, the lonely lake there. In the night, the dark and heavy night, flutter shadows, confused shadows, where once... Going to the small table by the entrance, Aragon laid his bouquet upon it and turned to leave. He froze as he saw Arya standing in the doorway. She looked startled by his presence, then concealed her emotions behind an impassive expression. They stared at each other in silence. He lifted the bouquet, half offering it to her. I don't know how to make a blossom for you like Phaelin did, 
but these are honest flowers, and the best I could find. I cannot accept them, Merigon. They're not... they're not that sort of gift. He paused. It's no excuse, but I didn't realise beforehand that my faith would put you in such a difficult situation. For that I'm sorry, and I cry your pardon. I was just trying to make a faith, not cause trouble. I understand the importance of my studies, Arya, and you needn't fear I will neglect them in order to moon after you. He swayed and leaned against the wall, too dizzy to remain on his feet without support. That's all. She regarded him for a long moment, then slowly reached out and took the bouquet, which she held beneath her nose. Her eyes never left his. They are honest flowers, she conceded. Her gaze flickered down to his feet and back up again. Have you been ill? No, my back. I had heard, but I did not think. He pushed himself away from the wall. I should go. Wait. Arya hesitated, then guided him to the bay window, where he sat on the padded bench that curved from the wall. Removing two goblets from a cupboard, Arya crumbled dried nettle leaves into them, then filled the goblets with water, and saying, Boil, heated the water for tea. She gave a goblet to Eragon, who held it with both hands so the warmth seeped into him. He glanced out the window to the ground twenty feet below, where elves walked among the royal gardens, talking and singing, and fireflies floated through the dusky air. I wish, said Aragon, I wish it could always be like this. It's so perfect and quiet. Arya stirred her tea. How fares Sephira? The same. And you? I have been preparing to return to the Varden. Alarm shot through him. When? After the Blood Oath celebration. I have tarried here far too long as it is but I have been loath to leave, and Islanzadi wished me to stay. Also, I have never attended a blood oath celebration, and it is the most important of our observances. She considered him over the rim of her goblet. Is there nothing Oramus can do for you? Aragon forced a weary shrug. He tried everything he knows. They sipped their tea and watched the groups and couples meander along the garden paths. Your studies go well, though? she asked. They do. In the lull that followed, Aragon picked up the scrap of paper from between the trees and examined her stanzas, as if reading them for the first time. Do you often write poetry? Arya extended her hand for the paper, and when he gave it to her, rolled it into a tube, so that the words were no longer visible. It is custom that everyone who attends the Blood Oath celebration should bring a poem, a song, or some other piece of art that they have made, and share it with those assembled. I have but begun to work on mine. I think it's quite good. If you had read much poetry, I have. Arya paused, then dipped her head and said, Forgive me, you are not the person I first met in Gilead. No, I... He stopped and twisted the goblet between his hands while he searched for the right words. Arya, you'll be leaving soon enough. I would count it a shame if this is the last I see of you between now and then. Could we not meet occasionally, as we did before, and you could show Sephira and me more of Elismira? It would not be wise, she said in a gentle but firm voice. 
He looked up at her. Must the price of my indiscretion be our friendship? I cannot help how I feel toward you, but I would rather suffer another wound from Durza than allow my foolishness to destroy the companionship that existed between us. I value it too highly. Lifting her goblet, Arya finished the last of her tea before responding. Our friendship shall endure, Aragon. As for us spending time together, her lips curved with a hint of a smile. Perhaps. However, we shall have to wait and see what the future brings, for I am busy and can promise nothing. He knew her words were the closest thing to a conciliation he was likely to receive, and he was grateful for them. Of course, Arya Svitkona, he said, and bowed his head. They exchanged a few more pleasantries, but it was clear that Arya had gone as far as she was willing to go that day. So Aragon returned to Sephira, his hope restored by what he had accomplished. Now it's up to fate to decide the outcome, he thought, as he settled before Oromus's latest scroll. Reaching into the pouch at his belt, Aragon withdrew a soapstone container of nalgask, beeswax melted with hazelnut oil, and smeared it over his lips to protect them against the cold wind that scoured his face. He closed the pouch, then wrapped his arms around Sophia's neck and buried his face in the crook of his elbow to reduce the glare from the wimpled clouds beneath them. The tireless beat of Sophia's wings dominated his hearing, higher and faster than those of Glader's, whom she followed. They flew southwest from dawn until early afternoon, often pausing for enthusiastic sparring bouts between Sephira and Glader, during which Aragon had to strap his arms onto the saddle to prevent himself from being thrown off by the stomach-turning acrobatics. He then would free himself by pulling on slipknots with his teeth. The trip ended at a cluster of four mountains that towered over the forest, the first mountains Aragon had seen in Duweldenbaden. White-capped and windswept, they pierced the veil of clouds and bared their crevassed brows to the beating sun, which was heatless at such altitude. They look so small compared to the Beors, said Sephira. As had become his habit during weeks of meditation, Aragon extended his mind in every direction, touching upon the consciousnesses around him, in search of any who might mean him harm. He felt a marmot warm in her burrow, ravens, nuthatches and hawks, numerous squirrels running among the trees, and farther down the mountain, rock snakes undulating through the brush in search of the mice that were their prey, as well as the hordes of ubiquitous insects. When Glader descended to a bare ridge on the first mountain, Sephira had to wait until he folded his massive wings before there was enough room for her to land. The field of boulder-strewn talus they alighted upon was brilliant yellow from a coating of hard, crenulated lichen. Above them loomed a sheer black cliff. It acted as buttress and dam for a cornice of blue ice that groaned and split under the wind, loosing jagged slabs that shattered on the granite below. This peak is known as Fionola, said Glader, and her brothers are Ethrunder, Merigoven, and Grimmensmal. Each has its own tale, which I shall recount on the flight back. But for now, I shall address the purpose of this trip, namely the nature of the bond forged between dragons and elves, and later, humans. You both know something of it, and I have hinted at its full implications to Sephira, 
but the time has come to learn the solemn and profound meaning of your partnership, so that you may uphold it when Oromis and I are no more. Master, asked Aragon, wrapping his cloak around himself to stay warm. Yes, Aragon. Why is Oromis not here with us? Because, rumbled Cleda, it is my duty, as was always the duty of an elder dragon in centuries past, to ensure that the newest generation of riders understands the true importance of the station they have assumed, and because Oromis is not as well as he appears. The rocks cracked with muffled reports as Glader coiled up, nestling himself among the scree and placing his majestic head upon the ground, lengthwise to Eragon and Sephira. He examined them with one gold eye as large as a polished round shield and twice as brilliant. A grey smudge of smoke drifted from his nostrils and was blown to tatters by the wind. Parts of what I am about to reveal were common knowledge among the elves, riders, and learned humans, but much of it was known only to the leader of the riders. A mere handful of elves, the humans current potentate, and, of course, the dragons. Listen now, my hatchlings. When peace was made between dragons and elves at the end of our war, the riders were created to ensure that such conflict would never again arise between our two races. Queen Tarmonora of the elves, and the dragon who had been selected to represent us, whose name... He paused and conveyed a series of impressions to Aragon. Long tooth, white tooth, chipped tooth. Fights won, fights lost. Countless eaten Shurk and Nagra. Seven and twenty eggs sired, and nineteen offspring grown to maturity. Cannot be expressed in any language. Decided that a common treaty would not suffice. Signed paper means nothing to a dragon. Our blood runs hot and thick, and given enough time, it was inevitable that we would clash with the elves again as we had with the dwarves over the millennia. But unlike with the dwarves, neither we nor the elves could afford another war. We were both too powerful, and we would have destroyed each other. The one way to prevent that and to forge a meaningful accord was to link our two races with magic. Eragon shivered, and with a touch of amusement, Glader said, Safira, if you are wise, you will heat one of these rocks with the fire from your belly, so that your rider does not freeze. Thereupon Safira arched her neck, and a jet of blue flame emanated from between her serrated fangs and splashed against the scree, blackening the lichen, which released a bitter smell as it burned. The air grew so hot that Aragon was forced to turn away. He felt the insects underneath the rocks were being crisped in the inferno. After a minute, Sephira clapped shut her jaws, leaving a circle of stones five feet across, glowing cherry red. Thank you, Aragon said to her. 
he hunched by the edge of the scorched rocks and warmed his hands over them. Remember, Sathira, to use your tongue to direct the stream, admonished Leda. Now, it took nine years for the elves' wisest magicians to devise the needed spell. When they had, they and the dragons gathered together at Illyria. The elves provided the structure of the enchantment, the dragons provided the strength, and together they melded the souls of elves and dragons. The joining changed us. We dragons gained the use of language and other trappings of civilization, while the elves shared in our longevity. Since before that moment, their lives were as short as humans. In the end, the elves were the most affected. Our magic, dragon's magic, which permeates every fiber of our being, was transmitted to the elves, and in time gave them their much-vaunted strength and grace. Humans have never been influenced as strongly since you were added to the spell after its completion, and it has not had as much time to work upon you as with the elves. Still, and here Glader's eye gleamed, it has already gentled your race from the rough barbarians who first landed in Alagasia, though you have begun to regress since the fall. Were dwarves ever part of this spell? asked Aragon. No, and that is why there has never been a dwarf rider. They do not care for dragons, nor we for them, and they found the idea of being joined with us repellent. Perhaps it is fortunate that they did not enter into our pact, for they have escaped the decline of humans and elves. Decline, master? queried Sephira, in what Aragon would have sworn was a teasing tone of voice. I decline. If one or another of our three races suffer, so do they all. By killing dragons, Galbatorix harmed his own race as well as the elves. The two of you have not seen this, for you are new to Elismira. But the elves are on the wane. Their power is not what it once was. And humans have lost much of their culture and been consumed by chaos and corruption. Only by writing the imbalance between our three races shall order return to the world. The old dragon kneaded the scree with his talons, crumbling it into gravel so that he was more comfortable. Layered within the enchantment Queen Tarmonora oversaw was the mechanism that allows a hatchling to be linked with his or her rider. When a dragon decides to give an egg to the riders, certain words are said over the egg, which I shall teach you later, that prevent the dragon inside from hatching until it is brought into contact with the person with whom it decides to bond. As dragons can remain in their eggs indefinitely, 
Time is of no concern, nor is the infant harmed. You yourself are an example of this, Safira. The bond that forms between a rider and dragon is but an enhanced version of the bond that already exists between our races. The human or elf becomes stronger and fairer, while some of the dragon's fiercer traits are tempered by a more reasoned outlook. I see a thought biting at your tongue, Aragon. What is it? It's just... he hesitated. I have a hard time imagining you or Sephira being any fiercer. Not, he added anxiously, that that's a bad thing. The ground shook as if with an avalanche as Glader chuckled, rolling his great big staring eye behind its horny lid and back again. If ever you met an unbonded dragon, you would not say so. A dragon alone answers to no one and no thing, takes whatever pleases it, and bears no thought of kindness for aught but its kith and kin. Fierce and proud were the wild dragons, even arrogant. The females were so formidable, it was accounted a great accomplishment among the rider's dragons to mate with one. The lack of this bond is why Galbatorix's partnership with Shrukan, his second dragon, is such a perverted union. Shrukan did not choose Galbatorix as his partner. He was twisted by certain black magics into serving Galbatorix's madness. Galbatorix has constructed a depraved imitation of the relationship that you, Aragon, and you, Safira, possess, and that he lost when the Urgals murdered his original dragon. Glader paused and looked between the two of them. His eye was all that moved. That which links you exceeds any simple connection between minds. Your very souls, your identities, call it what you will, have been welded on a primal level. His eye flicked to Aragon. Do you believe that a person's soul is separate from his body? I don't know, said Aragon. Sephira once took me out of my body and let me see the world through her eyes. It seemed like I was no longer connected to my body. And if the wraiths that a sorcerer calls upon can exist, then maybe our consciousness is independent of flesh as well. Extending the needle-sharp tip of his foreclaw, Glader flipped over a rock to expose a wood rat cowering in its nest. He snapped up the rat with a flash of his red tongue. Eragon winced as he felt the animal's life extinguished. When the flesh is destroyed, so is the soul, said Glader. But an animal isn't a person, protested Aragon. After your meditations, do you truly believe that any of us are so different from a wood rat? That we are gifted with a miraculous quality that other creatures do not enjoy, and that somehow preserves our beings after death? No, muttered Aragon. I thought not. Because we are so closely joined, 
When a dragon or rider is injured, they must harden their hearts and sever the connection between them in order to protect each other from unnecessary suffering, even insanity. And since the soul cannot be torn from the flesh, you must resist the temptation to try to take your partner's soul into your own body and shelter it there, as that will result in both your deaths. Even if it were possible, it would be an abomination to have multiple consciousnesses in one body. How terrible! said Aragon, to die alone, separate even from the one who is closest to you. Everyone dies alone, Aragon. Whether you are a king on a battlefield or a lowly peasant lying in bed among your family, no one can accompany you into the void. Now I will have you practice separating your consciousnesses. Start by... Aragon stared at the tray of dinner left in the anteroom of the treehouse. He catalogued the contents. Bread with hazelnut butter, berries, beans, a bowl of leafy greens, two hard-boiled eggs which in accordance with the elves' beliefs were unfertilized, and a stoppered jug of fresh spring water. He knew that each dish was prepared with the utmost care, that the elves lavished all of their culinary skills upon his meals, and that not even Islanzadi ate better than him. He could not bear the sight of the tray. "'I want meat!' he growled, stomping back into the bedroom. Safira looked up at him from her dais. "'I'd even settle for fish or fowl, anything besides this never-ending stream of vegetables!' They don't fill up my stomach. I'm not a horse. Why should I be fed like one? Zephira unfolded her legs, walked to the edge of the teardrop gap overlooking Ella's mirror, and said, I have needed to eat these past few days. Would you like to join me? You can cook as much meat as you like, and the elves will never know. That I would, he said, brightening. Should I get the saddle? We won't go that far. Aragon fetched his supply of salt, herbs and other seasonings from his bags, and then, careful not to overexert himself, climbed into the gap between the spikes along Safira's spine. Launching herself off the ground, Safira let an updraft waft her high above the city, whereupon she glided off the column of warm air, slipping down and sideways as she followed a braided stream through Duweldenwarden to a pond some miles thence. She landed and hunched low to the ground, making it easier for Aragon to dismount. She said, There are rabbits in the grass by the edge of the water. See if you can catch them. In the meantime, I go to hunt deer. What, you don't want to share your own prey? No, I don't, she replied grumpily. Though I will, if those oversized mice elude you. He grinned as she took off, then faced the tangled clumps of grass and cowparsnip that surrounded the pond, and set about procuring his dinner. Less than a minute later, Aragon collected a brace of dead rabbits from their nest. It had taken him but an instant to locate the rabbits with his mind, and then kill them with one of the twelve death words. What he had learned from Oromis had drained the challenge and excitement from the chase. I didn't even have to stalk them, he thought, 
remembering the years he had spent honing his tracking abilities. He grimaced with sour amusement. I can finally bag any game I want, and it seems meaningless to me. At least when I hunted with a pebble with Brom, it was still a challenge. But this, this is slaughter. The warning of the sword shaper Runan returned to him then. When you can have anything you want by uttering a few words, the goal matters not. Only the journey to it. I should have paid more attention to her, realized Aragon. With practiced movements, he drew his old hunting knife, skinned and gutted the rabbits, and then, putting aside the hearts, lungs, kidneys and livers, buried the viscera so that the scent would not attract scavengers. Next, he dug a pit, filled it with wood, and lit a small blaze with magic, since he had not thought to bring his flint and steel. He tended the fire until he had a bed of coals. Cutting a wand of dogwood, he stripped the bark and seared the wood over the coals to burn off the bitter sap, then spitted the carcasses on the wand and suspended them between two forked branches, pounded into the ground. For the organs he placed a flat stone upon a section of the coals and greased it with fat for a makeshift frying pan. Sephira found him crouched by the fire, slowly turning the wand to cook the meat evenly. She landed with a limp deer hanging from her jaws and the remains of a second deer clutched in her talons. Measuring her length out in the fragrant grass, she proceeded to gorge upon her prey, eating the entire deer, including the hide. Bones cracked between her razor teeth like branches snapping in a gale. When the rabbits were ready, Eragon waved them in the air to cool them, then stared at the glistening golden meat, the smell of which he found almost unbearably enticing. As he opened his mouth to take the first bite, his thoughts turned unbidden to his meditations. He remembered his excursions into the minds of birds and squirrels and mice, how full of energy they felt, and how vigorously they fought for the right to exist in the face of danger. And if this life is all they have... Gripped by revulsion, Aragon thrust the meat away, as appalled by the fact that he had killed the rabbits as if he had murdered two people. His stomach churned and threatened to make him purge himself. Sephira paused in her feast to eye him with concern. Taking a long breath, Aragon pressed his fists against his knees in an attempt to master himself and understand why he was so strongly affected. His entire life he had eaten meat, fish and fowl. He enjoyed it. And yet it now made him physically ill to consider dining upon the rabbits. He looked at Sephira. I can't do it, he said. It is the way of the world that everything eats everything else. Why do you resist the order of things? He pondered her question. He did not condemn those who did partake of flesh. He knew that it was the only means of survival for many a poor farmer. But he could no longer do so himself, unless faced with starvation. Having been inside of a rabbit, and having felt what a rabbit feels, eating one would be akin to eating himself. "'Because we can better ourselves,' he answered Sephira. "'Should we give in to our impulses to hurt or kill any who anger us, "'to take whatever we want from those who are weaker, "'and in general to disregard the feelings of others? "'We are made imperfect, and we must guard against our flaws "'lest they destroy us.' "'He gestured at the rabbits. "'As Oramis said, "'Why should we cause unnecessary suffering?' Would you deny all of your desires, then? 
I would deny those that are destructive. You are adamant on this? Aye. In that case, said Sephira, advancing upon him, these will make a fine dessert. In a blink she gulped down the rabbits and then licked clean the stone with the organs, abrading the slate with the barbs on her tongue. I, at least, cannot live on plants alone. That is food for prey, not a dragon. I refuse to be ashamed about how I must sustain myself. Everything has its place in the world. Even a rabbit knows that. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, he said, patting her on the leg. This is a personal decision. I won't force my choice upon anyone. Very wise, she said, with a touch of sarcasm. Broken Egg and Scattered Nest Concentrate, Aragon, said Oramis, though not unkindly. Aragon blinked and rubbed his eyes in an attempt to focus on the glyphs that decorated the curling parchment paper before him. Sorry, master. Weariness dragged upon him like lead weights tied to his limbs. He squinted at the curved and spiked glyphs, raised his goose-feather quill, and began to copy them again. Through the window behind Oramis, the green shelf on top of the crags of Telnair was streaked with shadows from the descending sun. Beyond, feathery clouds banded the sky. Aragon's hand jerked as a line of pain shot up his leg, and he broke the nib of the quill and sprayed ink across the paper, ruining it. Across from him, Oramis also started, clutching his right arm. Sephira! cried Aragon. He reached for her with his mind, and to his bewilderment was deflected by impenetrable barriers that she had erected around herself. He could barely feel her. It was as if he were trying to grasp an orb of polished granite, coated with oil. She kept slipping away from him. He looked at Oramis. Something has happened to them, hasn't it? I know not. Glader returns, but he refuses to talk to me. Taking his blade, nagling from the wall, Oramis strode outside and stood upon the edge of the crags, head uplifted as he waited for the gold dragon to appear. Eragon joined him, thinking of everything, probable and improbable, that might have befallen Zephira. The two dragons had left at noon, flying north, to a place called the Stone of Broken Eggs, where the wild dragons had nested in ages past. It was an easy trip. It couldn't be Urgles. The elves don't allow them into do Weldenvarden, he told himself. At last, Glader came into view, high above, as a winking speck among the darkening clouds. As he descended to land, Eragon saw a wound on the back of the dragon's right foreleg, a tear in his lapped scales as wide as Eragon's hand. Scarlet blood laced the grooves between the surrounding scales. The moment Glader touched the ground, Oromis rushed toward him, only to stop when the dragon growled at him. Hopping on his injured leg, Glader crawled to the edge of the forest where he curled up beneath the outstretched boughs, his back to Eragon, and set about licking clean his wound. Oromis went and knelt in the clover by Glader, keeping his distance with calm patience. It was obvious that he would wait as long as need be. Eragon fidgeted as the minutes elapsed. Finally, by some unspoken signal, Glader allowed Oromis to draw near and inspect his leg. Magic glowed from Oromis's Gedway Ignazia as he placed his hand over the rent in Glader's scales. How is he? asked Aragon when Oromis withdrew. 
It looks a fearsome wound, but it is no more than a scratch for one so large as Glader. What about Sephira, though? I still can't contact her. You must go to her, said Oramis. She is hurt in more ways than one. Glader said little of what transpired, but I have guessed much, and you would do well to hurry. Aragon glanced about for any means of transportation and groaned with anguish when he confirmed that none existed. How can I reach her? It's too far to run. There's no trail, and I can't— Calm thyself, Aragon. What was the name of the steed who bore you hence from Seelthrim? It took Aragon a moment to recall. Folkvir. Then summon him with your skill at grammary. Name him and your need in this the most powerful of languages, and he will come to your assistance. Letting the magic suffuse his voice, Aragon cried out for Folkvir, sending his plea echoing over the forested hills toward Elismira with all the urgency he could muster. Oramis nodded, satisfied. Well done. Twelve minutes later, Folkvir emerged like a silver ghost from the dark shadows among the trees, tossing his mane and snorting with excitement. The stallion's sides heaved from the speed of his journey. Throwing a leg over the small elven horse, Aragon said, I'll return as soon as I can. Do what you must, said Oramis. Then Aragon touched his heels to Folkvir's ribs and shouted, Run, Folkvir, run! The horse leaped forward and bounded into Duweldenvarden, threading his way with incredible dexterity between the gnarled pines. Aragon guided him towards Sephira with images from his mind. Lacking a trail through the underbrush, a horse like Snowfire would have taken three or four hours to reach the stone of broken eggs. Folkvir managed the trip in a bit over an hour. At the base of the basalt monolith, which ascended from the forest floor like a mottled green pillar, and stood a good hundred feet higher than the trees, Aragon murmured, Halt, then slid to the ground. He looked at the distant top of the stone of broken eggs. Sephira was up there. He walked around the perimeter, searching for a means to achieve the pinnacle, but in vain, for the weathered formation was impregnable. It possessed no fissures, crevices, or other faults near enough to the ground that he could use to climb its sides. This might hurt, he thought. Stay here, he told Folkvir. The horse looked at him with intelligent eyes. Graze if you want, but stay here, okay? Folkvir nickered, and with his velvet muscle nudged Aragon's arm. Yes, good boy, you've done well. Fixing his gaze on the crest of the monolith, Aragon gathered his strength, then said in the ancient language, Up! He realized later that if he had not been accustomed to flying with Sephira, the experience might have proved unsettling enough to cause him to lose control of the spell and plunge to his death. The ground dropped away beneath his feet at a swift clip, while the tree trunks narrowed as he floated toward the underside of the canopy and the fading evening sky beyond. Branches clung like grasping fingers to his face and shoulders as he pushed through into the open. Unlike during one of Sephira's dives, he retained his sense of weight, as if he still stood upon the loam below. Rising above the edge of the stone of broken eggs, Aragon moved himself forward and released his grip on the magic, alighting upon a mossy patch. He sagged with exhaustion, and waited to see if the exertion would pain his back, then sighed with relief when it did not. 
The top of the monolith was composed of jagged towers divided by deep and wide gullies where naught but a few scattered wildflowers grew. Black caves dotted the towers, some natural, others clawed out of the basalt by talons as thick as Aragon's lake. Their floors were blanketed with a deep layer of lichen-ridden bones, remnants of the dragon's ancient kills. Birds now nested where dragons once had, hawks and falcons and eagles, who watched him from their perches, ready to attack if he should threaten their eggs. Aragon picked his way across the forbidding landscape, careful not to twist an ankle on the loose flakes of stone or to get too close to the occasional rifts that split the column. If he fell down one, it would send him tumbling out into empty space. Several times he had to climb over high ridges, and twice more he had to lift himself with magic. Evidence of the dragon's habitation was visible everywhere, from deep scratches in the basalt to puddles of melted rock to a number of dull colourless scales caught in nooks, along with other detritus. He even stepped upon a sharp object that when he bent to examine it proved to be a fragment of a green dragon egg. On the eastern face of the monolith stood the tallest tower, in the centre of which, like a black pit turned on its side, was the largest cave. It was there that Aragon finally beheld Sephira, curled in a hollow against the far wall, her back to the opening. Tremors ran her length. The walls of the cave bore fresh scorch marks, and the piles of brittle bones were scattered about as if from a fight. Sephira! said Aragon, speaking out loud since her mind was close to him. Her head whipped up and she stared at him as if he were a stranger, her pupils contracting to thin black slits as her eyes adjusted to the light from the setting sun behind him. She snarled once, like a feral dog, and then twisted away. As she did, she lifted her left wing and exposed a long, ragged gash along her upper thigh. His heart caught at the sight. Aragon knew that she would not let him approach, so he did as Oramis had with Gleda. He knelt among the crushed bones and waited. He waited without word or motion until his legs were numb and his hands were stiff with cold. Yet he did not resent the discomfort. He paid the price gladly if it meant he could help Sephira. After a time she said, I have been a fool. We are all fools sometimes. That makes it no easier when it's your turn to play dance. I suppose not. I have always known what to do. When Garrow died, I knew it was the right thing to pursue the Razak. When Brom died, I knew that we should go to Gilead and thence to the Varden. And when Ajihad died, I knew that you should pledge yourself to Nasawada. The path has always been clear to me. Except now. In this issue alone, I am lost. What is it, Sephira? Instead of answering, she turned the subject and said, Do you know why this is called the Stone of Broken Eggs? No. Because during the war between dragons and elves, the elves tracked us to this location and killed us while we slept. They tore apart our nests, then shattered our eggs with their magic. That day it rained blood in the forest below. No dragon has lived here since. Eragon remained silent. That was not why he was here. 
he would wait until she could bring herself to address the situation at hand. "'Say something!' demanded Safira. "'Will you let me heal your leg?' "'Leave well enough alone!' "'Then I shall remain as mute as a statue, and sit here until I turn to dust, for I have the patience of a dragon from you.' When they came, her words were halting, bitter, and self-mocking. "'It shames me to admit it. When we first came here, and I saw Glader, I felt such joy that another member of my race survived besides Shrukan. I had never even seen another dragon before, except in Brom's memories. And I thought, I thought that Glader would be as pleased by my existence as I was by his. But he was. You don't understand. I thought that he would be the mate I never expected to have, and that together we could rebuild our race. She snorted, and a burst of flame escaped her nostrils. I was mistaken. He does not want me. Eragon chose his response with care, to avoid offending her, and to provide a modicum of comfort. That's because he knows you are destined for someone else, one of the two remaining eggs. Nor would it be proper for him to mate with you when he is your mentor. Or perhaps he does not find me comely enough. Sephira, no dragon is ugly, and you are the fairest of dragons. I am a fool, she said. But she raised her left wing and kept it in the air as permission for him to tend to her injury. Aragon limped to Sephira's side where he examined the crimson wound, glad that Oromis had given him so many scrolls on anatomy to read. The blow, by claw or tooth he was not sure, had torn the quadriceps muscle beneath Sephira's hide, but not so much as to bear the bone. Merely closing the surface of the wound, as Aragon had done so many times, would not be enough. The muscle had to be knitted back together. The spell Aragon used was long and complex, and even he did not understand all its parts, for he had memorized it from an ancient text that offered little explanation beyond the statement that, given no bones were broken and the internal organs were whole, this charm will heal any ailment of violent origins, excepting that of grim death. Once he uttered it, Aragon watched with fascination as Sephira's muscle writhed beneath his hand, veins, nerves, and fibres weaving together, and became whole once more. The wound was big enough that in his weakened state he dared not heal it with just the energy from his body, so he drew upon Sephira's strength as well. It itches, said Sephira when he finished. Aragon sighed and leaned his back against the rough basalt looking at the sunset through his eyelashes. I fear that you will have to carry me off this rock. I'm too tired to move. With a dry rustle she twisted in place and laid her head on the bones beside him. I have treated you poorly ever since we came to Elismira. I ignored your advice when I should have listened. You warned me about Glada, but I was too proud to see the truth in your words. I have failed to be a good companion for you, betrayed what it means to be a dragon, and tarnished the honour of the riders. No, never that, he said vehemently. Sephira, you haven't failed your duty. You may have made a mistake, but it was an honest one, and one that anyone might have committed in your position. 
That does not excuse my behavior toward you. He tried to meet her eye, but she avoided his gaze until he touched her upon the neck and said, Sephira, family members forgive one another, even if they don't always understand why someone acts in a certain way. You are as much my family as Roran, more. Nothing you can do will ever change that, nothing. When she did not respond, he reached behind her jaw and tickled the patch of leathery skin below one of her ears. Do you hear me, eh? Nothing. She coughed low in her throat with reluctant amusement, then arched her neck and lifted her head to escape his dancing fingers. How can I face Glader again? He was in a terrible rage. The entire stone shook with the force of his anger. At least you held your own when he attacked you. It was the other way around. Caught by surprise, Aragon raised his eyebrows. Well, in any case, the only thing to do is to apologize. Apologize? Aye. Go tell him that you are sorry, that this won't happen again, and that you want to continue your training with him. I'm sure he will be sympathetic if you give him the chance. Very well, she said in a low voice. You'll feel better once you do. He grinned. I know from experience. She grunted and padded to the edge of the cave where she crouched and surveyed the rolling forest. We should go. Soon it will be dark. Gritting his teeth, he forced himself upright, every movement costing him effort, and climbed onto her back, taking twice the time he usually did. Aragon, thank you for coming. I know what you risked with your back. He patted her on the shoulder. Are we one again? We are one. The Gift of Dragons The days leading up to the Agate Blodrum were the best and worst of times for Aragon. His back troubled him more than ever, battering down his health and endurance and destroying his calm of mind. He lived in constant fear of triggering an episode. Yet in contrast, he and Sephira had never been so close. They lived as much in each other's minds as in their own, and every now and then Arya would visit the treehouse and walk through Elasmira with Aragon and Sephira. She never came alone, though, always bringing either Oric or Maud the Weircat. Over the course of their wanderings, Arya introduced Aragon and Sephira to elves of distinction, great warriors, poets and artists, she took them to concerts held under the thatched pines, and she showed them many hidden wonders of Elasmira. Eragon seized every opportunity to talk with her. He told her about his upbringing in Palancar Valley, about Roran, Garrow, and his Aunt Marion, stories of Sloane, Ethelbert, and the other villagers, and his love of the mountains surrounding Carverhall and the flaming sheets of light that adorned the winter's sky at night. He told her about the time a vixen fell into Gedrick's tanning vats and had to be fished out with a net. He told her about the joy he found in planting a crop, weeding and nurturing it, and watching the tender green shoots grow under his care, a joy that he knew she of all people could appreciate. In turn, Aragon gleaned occasional insights into her own life. He heard mentions of her childhood, her friends and family, and her experiences among the Varden, which she spoke about most freely describing raids and battles she participated in, treaties she helped to negotiate, 
her disputes with the dwarves, and the momentous events she witnessed during her tenure as ambassador. Between her and Sephira a measure of peace entered Aragon's heart, but it was a precarious balance that the slightest influence might disrupt. Time itself was an enemy, for Arya was destined to leave Du Weldenvarden after the Agate Blodron. Thus Aragon treasured his moments with her, and dreaded the arrival of the forthcoming celebration. The entire city bustled with activity as the elves prepared for the Agate Blodron. Aragon had never seen them so excited before. They decorated the forest with coloured bunting and lanterns, especially around the Manoa tree, while the tree itself was adorned with a lantern upon the tip of each branch, where they hung like glowing teardrops. Even the plants, Aragon noticed, took on a festive appearance, with a collection of bright new flowers. He often heard the elves singing to them late at night. Each day hundreds of elves arrived in Elismira from their cities scattered throughout the woods, for no elf would willingly miss the centennial observance of their treaty with the dragons. Aragon guessed that many of them also came to meet Sephira. It seems as if I do nothing but repeat their greeting, he thought. The elves who were absent because of their responsibilities would hold their own festivities simultaneously and would participate in the ceremonies at Elismira by scrying through enchanted mirrors that displayed the likeness of those watching so that no one felt as if they were being spied upon. A week before the Agate Blodron, when Aragon and Sephira were about to return to their quarters from the crags of Telnair, Oromis said, You should both think about what you can bring to the Blood Oath celebration. Unless your creations require magic to make or function, I suggest that you avoid using grammary. No one will respect your work if it's the product of a spell and not of your own hands. I also suggest you each make a separate piece. That, too, is custom. In the air, Aragon asked Sephira, Do you have any ideas? I might have one, but if you don't mind, I'd like to see if it works before I tell you. He caught part of an image from her of a bare knuckle of stone protruding from the forest floor before she concealed it from him. He grinned. Won't you give me a hint? Fire! Lots of fire! Back in their treehouse, Aragon catalogued his skills and thought, I know more about farming than anything else, but I don't see how I can turn that to my advantage. Nor can I hope to compete with the elves with magic or match their accomplishments with the crafts I am familiar with. Their talent exceeds that of the finest artisans in the Empire. But you possess one quality that no one else does, said Sephira. Oh? Your identity, your history, deeds, and situation. Use those to shape your creation, and you will produce something unique. Whatever you make, base it upon that which is most important to you. Only then will it have depth and meaning and only then will it resonate with others. He looked at her with surprise. I never realized that you knew so much about art. I don't, she said. You forget I spent an afternoon watching Oromis paint his scrolls while you flew with Gleda. Oromis discussed the topic quite a bit. Ah, yes, I had forgotten. After Sephira left to pursue her project, Aragon paced along the edge of the open portal in the bedroom, pondering what she had said. 
What's important to me? he asked himself. Safira and Arya, of course, and being a good rider. But what can I say about those subjects that isn't blindingly obvious? I appreciate beauty and nature, but again the elves have already expressed everything possible on that topic. Erasmira itself is a monument to their devotion. He turned his gaze inward and scrutinized himself to determine what struck the deepest, darkest chords within him. What stirred him with enough passion of either love or hate that he burned to share it with others? Three things presented themselves to him. His injury at the hands of Durza, his fear of one day fighting Galbatorix, and the elves' epics that so engrossed him. A rush of excitement flared within Aragon as a story combining those elements took form in his mind. Light on his feet, he ran up the twisting stairs, two at a time, to the study, where he sat before the writing desk, dipped quill in ink, and held it trembling over a pale sheet of paper. The nib rasped as he made the first stroke. In the kingdom by the sea, in the mountains mantled blue. The words flowed from his pen, seemingly of their own accord. He felt as if he were not inventing his tale, but merely acting as a conduit to transport it fully formed into the world. Having never composed a work of his own before, Eragon was gripped by the thrill of discovery that accompanies new ventures, especially since previously he had not suspected that he might enjoy being a bard. He laboured in a frenzy, not stopping for bread or drink. His tunic sleeves rolled past his elbows to protect them from the ink flicked from his quill by the wild force of his writing. So intense was his concentration, he heard nothing but the beat of his poem, saw nothing but the empty paper, and thought of nothing but the phrases etched in lines of fire behind his eyes. An hour and a half later, he dropped the quill from his cramped hand, pushed his chair away from the desk, and stood. Fourteen pages lay before him. It was the most he had ever written at one time. Aragon knew that his poem could not match those of the elves and dwarves' great authors, but he hoped it was honest enough that the elves would not laugh at his effort. He recited the poem to Sephira when she returned. Afterward she said, Ah, Aragon, you have changed much since we left Palancar Valley. You would not recognize the untested boy who first set out for vengeance, I think. That Aragon could not have written a lay after the style of the elves. I look forward to seeing who you become in the next fifty or a hundred years. He smiled. If I live that long. Rough but true, was what Oramis said when Aragon read him the poem. Then you like it? Tis a good portrait of your mental state at the present, and an engaging read but no masterpiece. Did you expect it to be? I suppose not. However, I am surprised that you can give voice to it in this tongue. No barrier exists to writing fiction in the ancient language. The difficulty arises when one attempts to speak it, for that would require you to tell untruths, which the magic will not allow. I can say it, replied Aragon, because I believe it's true. And that gives your writing far more power. I am impressed, Aragon Finiarel. Your poem will be a worthy addition to the blood oath celebration. 
Raising a finger, Oromis reached within his robe and gave Eragon a scroll tied shut with ribbon. Inscribed on that paper are nine wards I want you to place about yourself and the dwarf Oric. As you discovered at Sealthrim, our festivities are potent, and not for those with constitutions weaker than ours. Unprotected, you risk losing yourself in the web of our magic. I have seen it happen. Even with these precautions, you must take care you are not swayed by fancies wafted on the breeze. Be on your guard, for during this time we elves are apt to go mad, wonderfully, gloriously mad, but mad all the same. On the eve of the Agate Blodron, which was to last three days, Eragon, Sephira, and Oric accompanied Arya to the Manoa tree, where a host of elves were assembled their black and silver hair flickering in the lamplight. Islanzadi stood upon a raised root at the base of the trunk, as tall, pale, and fair as a birch tree. Blogden roosted on the queen's left shoulder, while Maud the weircat lurked behind her. Glader was there, as well as Oromis, garbed in red and black, and other elves Aragon recognized, such as Lifane and Nari, and to his distaste, Vanna. Overhead the stars glittered in the velvet sky, "'Wait here,' said Arya. "'She slipped through the crowd and returned, leading Runan. "'The smith blinked like an owl at her surroundings. "'Eragon greeted her, and she nodded to him and Sephira. "'Well met, bright scales and shade slayer.' "'Then she spied Oric and addressed him in Dwarvish, "'to which Oric replied with enthusiasm, "'obviously delighted to converse with someone in the rough speech of his native land. "'What did she say?' asked Aragon, bending down. She invited me to her home to view her work and discuss metalworking. Or crossed Oric's face. Aragon, she first learned her craft from Futhark himself, one of the legendary Grimstborthen of Durgrimstingetum. What I would give to have met him. Together they waited until the stroke of midnight when Islanzadi raised her bare left arm so that it pointed toward the new moon like a marble spear. A soft white orb gathered itself above her palm from the light emitted by the lanterns that dotted the Manoa tree. Then Islanzadi walked along the route to the massive trunk and placed the orb in a hollow in the bark, where it remained pulsing. Eragon turned to Arya. Is it begun? It is begun, she laughed. And it will end when the Wheelite expends itself. The elves divided themselves into informal camps throughout the forest and clearing that encircled the Manoa tree. Seemingly out of nowhere, they produced tables laden high with fantastic dishes, which, from their unearthly appearance, were as much the result of the spellweaver's handiwork as the cook's. Then the elves began to sing in their clear, flute like voices. They sang many songs yet each was but part of a larger melody that wove an enchantment over the dreamy night, heightening senses, removing inhibitions, and burnishing the revels with fey magic. Their verses concerned heroic deeds and quests by ship and horse to forgotten lands and the sorrow of lost beauty. The throbbing music enveloped Eragon, and he felt a wild abandon take hold of him, the desire to run free of his life and dance through elven glades for evermore. Beside him, Sephira hummed along with the tune, her glazed eyes lidded halfway. 
What transpired afterward, Aragon was never able to adequately recall. It was as if he had a fever and faded in and out of consciousness. He could remember certain incidents with vivid clarity, bright, pungent flashes filled with merriment, but it was beyond him to reconstruct the order in which they occurred. He lost track of whether it was day or night, for no matter the time, dusk seemed to pervade the forest. Nor could he ever say if he had slumbered or needed sleep during the celebration. He remembered spinning in circles while holding the hands of an elf-maid with cherry lips, the taste of honey on his tongue and the smell of juniper in the air. He remembered elves perched on the outstretched branches of the manoa tree like a flock of starlings. They strummed golden harps and called riddles to Gleda below, and now and then pointed a finger at the sky, whereupon a burst of coloured embers would appear in various shapes before fading away. He remembered sitting in a dell propped against Sephira and watching the same elf-maid sway before a rapt audience while she sang, Away, away, you shall fly away, or the peaks and vales to the lands beyond. Away, away, you shall fly away, and never return to me. Gone, gone, you shall be from me, and I will never see you again. Gone, gone, you shall be from me, though I wait for you evermore. He remembered endless poems, some mournful, others joyful, most both. He heard Arya's poem in full, and thought it fine indeed, and Islanzadis, which was longer, but of equal merit. All the elves gathered to listen to those two works. He remembered the wonders the elves had made for the celebration, many of which he would have deemed impossible beforehand, even with the assistance of magic. Puzzles and toys, art and weapons, and items whose function escaped him. One elf had charmed a glass ball so that every few seconds a different flower bloomed within its heart. Another elf had spent decades travelling Du Weldenvarden and memorising the sounds of the elements, the most beautiful of which he now played from the throats of a hundred white lilies. Runan contributed a shield that would not break, a pair of gloves woven from steel thread that allowed the wearer to handle molten lead and other such items without harm, and a delicate sculpture of a wren in flight, chiselled from a solid block of metal and painted with such skill that the bird seemed alive. A tiered wood pyramid eight inches high and constructed of fifty-eight interlocking pieces was Oryx offering, much to the elves' delight, who insisted upon disassembling and reassembling the pyramid as often as he would allow. Master Longbeard, they called him, and said, Clever fingers mean a clever mind. He remembered Oromis pulling him aside away from the music and asking the elf, What's wrong? You need to clear your mind. Oromis guided him to a fallen log and had him sit. Stay here for a few minutes. You will feel better. I'm fine. I don't need to rest, protested Aragon. You are in no position to judge yourself right now. Stay here until you can list the spells of changing, great and minor, and then you may rejoin us. Promise me this. He remembered creatures dark and strange drifting in from the depths of the forest. The majority were animals who had been altered by the accumulated spells into Weldenvarden and were now drawn to the Agate Blodron as a starving man is drawn to food. They seemed to find nourishment in the presence of the elves' magic. Most dared reveal themselves only as pairs of glowing eyes on the outskirts of the lantern light. 
One animal that did expose itself was the she-wolf in the form of a white-robed woman that Aragon had encountered before. She lurked behind a dogwood bush, dagger teeth bared in an amused grin, her yellow eyes darting from point to point. But not all the creatures were animals. Some few were elves who had altered their original forms for functionality or in pursuit of a different ideal of beauty. An elf covered in brindled fur leaped over Aragon and continued to gamble about, as often on all fours as on his feet. His head was narrow and elongated, with ears like a cat, his arms hung to his knees, and his long-fingered hands had rough pads on the palm. Later, two identical elf-women presented themselves to Sephira. They moved with languid grace, and when they touched their hands to their lips in the traditional greeting, Aragon saw that their fingers were joined by translucent webbing. "'We have come far,' they whispered. As they spoke, three rows of gills pulsed on each side of their slender necks, exposing pink flesh underneath. Their skin glistened as if with oil. Their lank hair hung past their narrow shoulders. He met an elf armoured in imbricated scales like a dragon, with a bony crest upon his head, a line of spikes that ran down his back, and two pallid flames that ever flickered in the pits of his flared nostrils. And he met others who were not so recognisable, elves whose outlines wavered as if seen through water, elves who, when motionless, were indistinguishable from trees, tall elves with eyes of black, even where the white should have been, who possessed an awful beauty that frightened Aragon, and when they chanced to touch something, passed through it like shadows. The ultimate example of this phenomenon was the Manoa tree, which was once the elf Linnea. The tree seemed to quicken with life at the activity in the clearing. Its branches stirred, though no breeze touched them. At times the creaks of its trunk could be heard to match the flow of music, and an air of gentle benevolence emanated from the tree and lay upon those in the vicinity. And he remembered two attacks from his back, screaming and groaning in the shadows, while the mad elves continued their revels around him, and only Sephira came to guard over him. On the third day of the Agate Blodron, or so Aragon later learned, he delivered his verses to the elves. He stood and said, I am no smith, nor skilled at carving or weaving or pottery or painting or any of the arts, nor can I rival your accomplishments with spells. Thus all that remains to me are my own experiences, which I have attempted to interpret through the lens of a story, though I am also no bard. Then, in the manner that Brom had performed lays in Carverhall, Aragon chanted, In the kingdom by the sea, in the mountains mantled blue, on frigid winter's final day was born a man with but one task, to kill the foe in Durza, in the land of shadows. Nurtured by the kind and wise under oaks as old as time, he ran with deer and wrestled bears, and from his elders learned the skills to kill the foe in Durza, in the land of shadows. Taught to spy the thief in black when he grabs the weak and strong, to block his blows and fight the fiend with rag and rock and plant and bone, and kill the foe in Durza, in the land of shadows. Quick as thought the years did turn, till the man had come of age, his body burned with fevered rage, while youth's impatience seared his veins. Then he met a maiden fair, who was tall and strong and wise, 
her brow adorned with Gaida's light which shone upon her trailing gown. In her eyes of midnight blue, in those enigmatic pools, appeared to him a future bright, together, where they would not have to fear the foe in Durza, in the land of shadows. So Aragon told of how the man voyaged to the land of Durza, where he found and fought the foe, despite the cold terror within his heart. Yet though at last he triumphed, the man withheld the fatal blow, for now that he had defeated his enemy, he did not fear the doom of mortals. He did not need to kill the foe in Durza. Then the man sheathed his sword and returned home and wed his love on summer's eve. With her he spent his many days content until his beard was long and white. But in the dark before the dawn, in the room where slept the man, the foe he crept and loomed above his mighty rival now so weak. From his pillow did the man raise his head and gaze upon the cold and empty face of death, the king of everlasting night. Calm acceptance filled the man's aged heart, for long ago he'd lost all fear of death's embrace, the last embrace a man will know. Gentle as a morning breeze bent the foe, and from the man his glowing, pulsing spirit took, and thence in peace they went to dwell forevermore in Durza, in the land of shadows. Aragon fell quiet, and conscious of the eyes upon him, ducked his head and quickly found his seat. He felt embarrassed that he had revealed so much of himself. The elf lord Daethoda said, You underestimate yourself, Shadeslayer. It seems that you have discovered a new talent. Islanzadi raised one pale hand. Your work shall be added to the great library in Tildari Hall, Eragon Finiarel, so that all who wish can appreciate it. Though your poem is allegory, I believe that it has helped many of us to better understand the hardships you have faced since Saphira's egg appeared to you, for which we are in no small way responsible. You must read it to us again, so we may think upon this further. Pleased, Aragon bowed his head and did as she commanded. Afterward was time for Saphira to present her work to the elves. She flew off into the night and returned with a black stone, thrice the size of a large man, clutched between her talons. Landing on her hind legs, she placed the stone upright in the middle of the bare greensward, in full view of everyone. The glassy rock had been melted and somehow moulded into intricate curves that wound about each other like frozen waves. The striated tongues of rock twisted in such convoluted patterns that the eye had difficulty following a single piece from base to tip, but rather flitted from one coil to the next. As it was his first time seeing the sculpture, Aragon gazed at it with as much interest as the elves. How did you make this? Saphira's eyes twinkled with amusement. By licking the molten rock. Then she bent and breathed fire long upon the stone, bathing it in a golden pillar that ascended toward the stars and clawed at them with loosened fingers. When Saphira closed her jaws, the paper-thin edges of the sculpture glowed cherry red, while small flames flickered in the dark hollows and recesses throughout the rock. 
The flowing strands of rock seemed to move under the hypnotic light. The elves exclaimed with wonder, clapping their hands and dancing about the piece. An elf cried, "'Well wrought, bright scales!' "'It's beautiful,' said Aragon. Sephira touched him on the arm with her nose. "'Thank you, little one!' Then Glader brought out his offering, a slab of red oak that he had carved with the point of one talon into a likeness of Elismira as seen from high above and Oromus revealed his contribution, the completed scroll that Aragon had often watched him illustrate during their lessons. Along the top half of the scroll marched columns of glyphs, a copy of the Lay of Vestari the Mariner, while along the bottom half ran a panorama of a fantastic landscape rendered with breathtaking artistry, detail and skill. Arya took Aragon's hand then and drew him through the forest and toward the Manoa tree, where she said, Look how the weirlight dims. We have but a few hours left to us before dawn arrives, and we must return to the world of cold reason. Around the tree the host of elves gathered, their faces bright with eager anticipation. With great dignity, Islanzadi emerged from within their midst and walked along a route as wide as a pathway until it angled upward and doubled back on itself. She stood upon the gnarled shelf overlooking the slender waiting elves. As is our custom, and as was agreed upon at the end of the Dragon War by Queen Tarmanora, the first Aragon, and the white dragon who represented his race, he whose name cannot be uttered in this or any language, when they bound the fates of elves and dragons together, we have met to honour our blood oath with song and dance and the fruits of our labour. Last this celebration occurred many long years ago. Our situation was desperate indeed. It has improved somewhat since, the result of our efforts, the dwarves and the vardens. Though Alagasia still lies under the black shadow of the weird fell, and we must still live with our shame of how we have failed the dragons. Of the riders of old, only Oromis and Glader remain. Brom and many others entered the void this past century. However, new hope has been granted to us in the form of Aragon and Sephira, and it is only right and proper that they should be here now, as we reaffirm the oath between our races three. At the Queen's signal, the elves cleared a wide expanse at the base of the Manoa tree. Around the perimeter they staked a ring of lanterns mounted upon carved poles, while musicians with flutes, harps, and drums assembled along the ridge of one long route. Guided by Arya to the edge of the circle, Eragon found himself seated between her and Oromis, while Sephira and Glader crouched on either side of them like gem-studded bluffs. To Eragon and Sephira, Oromis said, Watch you carefully, for this is of great importance to your heritage as riders. When all the elves were settled, Two elf-maids walked to the centre of the space in the host and stood with their backs to each other. They were exceedingly beautiful and identical in every respect except for their hair. One had tresses as black as a forgotten pool, while the other's hair gleamed like burnished silver wire. The caretakers, Iduna and Nea, whispered Oromis. From Islanzadi's shoulder, Blagden shrieked, Weirda! Moving in unison, 
the two elves raised their hands to the brooches at their throats, unclasped them, and allowed their white robes to fall away. Though they wore no garments, the women were clad in an iridescent tattoo of a dragon. The tattoo began with the dragon's tail wrapped around the left ankle of Iduna, continued up her leg and thigh, over her torso, and then across Nea's back, ending with the dragon's head on Nea's chest. Every scale on the dragon was inked a different colour. The vibrant hues gave the tattoo the appearance of a rainbow. The elf-maids twined their hands and arms together, so that the dragon appeared to be a continuous whole, rippling from one body to the next without interruption. Then they each lifted a bare foot and brought it down on the packed ground with a soft thump. And again, thump. On the third thump, the musicians struck their drums in rhythm. A thump later, the harpists plucked the strings of their gilt instruments, and a moment after that, those elves with flutes joined the throbbing melody. Slowly at first, but with gathering speed, Iduna and Nea began to dance, marking time with the stamp of their feet on the dirt, and undulating, so that it was not they who seemed to move, but the dragon upon them. Round and round they went, and the dragon flew endless circles across their skin. Then the twins added their voices to the music, building upon the pounding beat with their fierce cries, their lyrics, verses of a spell so complex that its meaning escaped Aragon. Like the rising wind that precedes a storm, the elves accompanied the incantation, singing with one tongue and one mind and one intent. Aragon did not know the words, but found himself mouthing them along with the elves, swept along by the inexorable cadence. He heard Sephira and Gleda hum in concordance, a deep pulse so strong that it vibrated within his bones and made his skin tingle and the air shimmer. Faster and faster spun Iduna and Nea until their feet were a dusty blur and their hair fanned about them and they glistened with a film of sweat. The elf-maids accelerated to an inhuman speed and the music climaxed in a frenzy of chanted phrases. Then a flare of light ran the length of the dragon tattoo from head to tail and the dragon stirred. At first Aragon thought his eyes had deceived him, until the creature blinked, raised his wings, and clenched his talons. A burst of flame erupted from the dragon's maw, and he lunged forward and pulled himself free of the elf's skin, climbing into the air, where he hovered, flapping his wings. The tip of his tail remained connected to the twins below like a glowing umbilical cord. The giant beast strained toward the black moon and loosed an untamed roar of ages past, then turned and surveyed the assembled elves. As the dragon's baleful eye fell upon him, Aragon knew that the creature was no mere apparition, but a conscious being, bound and sustained by magic. Sephira and Gleda's humming grew ever louder until it blocked all other sound from Aragon's ears. Above... The spectre of their race looped down over the elves, brushing them with an insubstantial wing. It came to a stop before Aragon, engulfing him in an endless, whirling gaze. Bidden by some instinct, Aragon raised his right hand, his palm tingling. In his mind echoed a voice of fire. Our gift, so you may do what you must. The dragon bent his neck and with his snout touched the heart of Aragon's Gedwe Ignazia. 
A spark jumped between them, and Aragon went rigid as incandescent heat poured through his body, consuming his insides. His vision flashed red and black, and the scar on his back burned as if branded. Fleeing to safety, he fell deep within himself, where darkness grasped him, and he had not the strength to resist it. Last, he again heard the voice of fire say, Our gift to you. In a starry glade. Aragon was alone when he woke. He opened his eyes to stare at the carved ceiling in the treehouse he and Sephira shared. Outside, night still reigned, and the sounds of the elves' revels drifted from the glittering city below. Before he noticed more than that, Sephira leaped into his mind, radiating concern and anxiety. An image passed to him of her standing beside Islanzadi at the Manoa tree. Then she asked, How are you? I feel good. Better than I've felt in a long time. How long have I... Only an hour. I would have stayed with you, but they needed Oramis, Glader, and me to complete the ceremony. You should have seen the elves' reaction when you fainted. Nothing like this has occurred before. Did you cause this, Sephira? It was not my work alone, nor Glader's. The memories of our race, which were given form and substance by the elves' magic, anointed you with what skill we dragons possess. For you are our best hope to avoid extinction. I don't understand. Look in a mirror, she suggested. Then rest and recover, and I shall rejoin you at dawn. She left, and Aragon got to his feet and stretched, amazed by the sense of well-being that pervaded him. Going to the wash closet, he retrieved the mirror he used for shaving and brought it into the light of a nearby lantern. Aragon froze with surprise. It was as if the numerous physical changes that over time altered the appearance of a human rider, and which Aragon had already begun to experience since bonding with Sephira, had been completed while he was unconscious. His face was now as smooth and angled as an elf's, with ears tapered like theirs, and eyes slanted like theirs, and his skin was as pale as alabaster, and seemed to emit a faint glow, as if with the sheen of magic. I look like a princeling. Aragon had never before applied the term to a man, least of all himself, but the only word that described him now was beautiful. Yet he was not entirely an elf. His jaw was stronger, his brow thicker, his face broader. He was fairer than any human, and more rugged than any elf. With trembling fingers, Aragon reached around the nape of his neck in search of his scar. He felt nothing. Aragon tore off his tunic and twisted in front of the mirror to examine his back. It was as smooth as it had been before the Battle of Fardendur. Tears sprang to Aragon's eyes as he slid his hand over the place where Durza had maimed him. He knew that his back would never trouble him again. Not only was the savage blight he had elected to keep gone, but every other scar and blemish had vanished from his body, 
leaving him as unmarked as a newborn babe. Aragon traced a line upon his wrist where he had cut himself while sharpening Garrow's scythe. No evidence of the wound remained. The blotchy scars on the insides of his thighs, remnants from his first flight with Sephira, had also disappeared. For a moment he missed them as a record of his life, but his regret was short-lived, as he realized that the damage from every injury he had ever suffered, no matter how small, had been repaired. I have become what I was meant to be, he thought, and took a deep breath of the intoxicating air. He dropped the mirror on the bed and garbed himself in his finest clothes, a crimson tunic stitched with gold thread, a belt studded with white jade, warm felted leggings, a pair of the cloth boots favoured by the elves, and upon his forearms leather vambraces the dwarfs had given him. Descending from the tree, Aragon wandered the shadows of Elismira and observed the elves carousing in the fever of the night. None of them recognised him, though they greeted him as one of their own and invited him to share in their Saturnalias. Aragon floated in a state of heightened awareness, his senses thrumming with the multitude of new sights, sounds, smells and feelings that assailed him. He could see in darkness that would have blinded him before. He could touch a leaf and by touch alone count the individual hairs that grew upon it. He could identify the odours wafting about him as well as a wolf or a dragon. And he could hear the patter of mice in the underbrush and the noise a flake of bark makes as it falls to earth. The beating of his heart was as a drum to him. His aimless path led him past the manoa tree, where he paused to watch Sephira among the festivities, though he did not reveal himself to those in the glade. "'Where go you, little one?' she asked. He saw Arya rise from her mother's side, make her way through the gathered elves, and then, like a forest sprite, glide underneath the trees beyond. I walk between the candle and the dark, he replied, and followed Arya. Aragon tracked Arya by her delicate scent of crushed pine needles, by the feathery touch of her foot upon the ground, and by the disturbance of her wake in the air. He found her standing alone on the edge of a clearing, poised like a wild creature as she watched the constellations turn in the sky above. As Aragon emerged in the open, Arya looked at him and he felt as if she saw him for the first time. Her eyes widened, and she whispered, "'Is that you, Aragon?' "'Aye.' "'What have they done to you?' "'I know not.' He went to her, and together they wandered the dense woods, which echoed with fragments of music and voices from the festivities. Changed as he was, Aragon was acutely conscious of Arya's presence." of the whisper of her clothes over her skin, of the soft, pale exposure of her neck, and of her eyelashes, which were coated with a layer of oil that made them glisten and curl like black petals wet with rain. They stopped on the bank of a narrow stream so clear it was invisible in the faint light. The only thing that betrayed its presence was the throaty gurgle of water pouring over rocks. Around them the thick pines formed a cave with their branches, hiding Aragon and Arya from the world and muffling the cool, still air. The hollow seemed ageless, as if it were removed from the world and protected by some magic against the withering breath of time. In that secret place, 
Aragon felt suddenly close to Arya, and all his passion for her sprang to the fore of his mind. He was so intoxicated with the strength and vitality coursing through his veins, as well as the untamed magic that filled the forest, he ignored caution and said, How tall the trees! How bright the stars! And how beautiful you are, O Arya Svitkona! Under normal circumstances he would have considered his deed the height of folly, but in that fey, madcap night it seemed perfectly sane. She stiffened. Aragon? He ignored her warning. Arya, I'll do anything to win your hand. I would follow you to the ends of the earth. I would build a palace for you with nothing but my bare hands. I would... Will you stop pursuing me? Can you promise me that? When he hesitated, she stepped closer and said, low and gentle, Aragon, this cannot be. You are young and I am old and that shall never change. Do you feel nothing for me? My feelings for you, she said, are those of a friend and nothing more. I am grateful to you for rescuing me from Gilead, and I find your company pleasant. That is all. Relinquish this quest of yours. It will only bring you heartache, and find someone your own age to spend the long years with. His eyes brimmed with tears. How can you be so cruel? I am not cruel, but kind. You and I are not meant for each other. In desperation, he suggested, You could give me your memories, and then I would have the same amount of experience and knowledge as you. It would be an abomination. Arya lifted her chin, her face grave and solemn and brushed with silver from the glimmering stars. A hint of steel entered her voice. Hear me well, Aragon. This cannot, nor ever shall be. And until you master yourself, our friendship must cease to exist, for your emotions do nothing but distract us from our duty. She bowed to him. Goodbye, Aragon Shadeslayer. Then she strode past and vanished into Duweldenvarden. Now the tears spilled down Aragon's cheeks and dropped to the moss below, where they lay unabsorbed, like pearls strewn across a blanket of emerald velvet. Numb, Aragon sat upon a rotting log and buried his face in his hands, weeping that his affection for Arya was doomed to remain unrequited, and weeping that he had driven her further away. Within moments, Sephira joined him. Oh, little one! She nuzzled him. Why did you have to inflict this upon yourself? You knew what would happen if you tried to woo Arya again. I couldn't stop myself. He wrapped his arms around his belly and rocked back and forth on the log, reduced to hiccuping sobs by the strength of his misery. Putting one warm wing over him, Sephira drew him close to her side like a mother falcon with her offspring. He curled up against her and remained huddled there as night passed into day, and the Agate Blodron came to an end. Landfall Roran stood upon the poop deck of the Red Boar, 
his arms crossed over his chest and his feet planted wide apart to steady himself on the rolling barge. The salty wind ruffled his hair and tugged at his thick beard and tickled the hairs on his bare forearms. Beside him Clovis manned the tiller. The weathered sailor pointed toward the coastline at a seagull-covered rock silhouetted on the crest of a rolling hill that extended into the ocean. Tearn be right on the far side of that peak!' Roran squinted into the afternoon sun, which reflected off the ocean in a blindingly bright band. "'We'll stop here for now, then.' "'You don't want to go on into this city yet?' "'Not all of us at once. Call over Torson and Flint and have them run the barges up on that shore. It looks like a good place to camp.' Clovis grimaced. "'Ah, I was hoping to get a hot meal tonight.' Roran understood. The fresh food from Nada had long since been eaten, leaving them with naught but salt pork, salted herrings, salted cabbage, sea biscuits the villagers had made from their purchased flour, pickled vegetables, and the occasional fresh meat when the villagers slaughtered one of their few remaining animals, or managed to catch game when they landed. Clovis's rough voice echoed over the water as he shouted to the skippers of the other two barges. When they drew near, he ordered them to pull ashore, much to their vociferous displeasure. They and the other sailors had counted on reaching Tyrum that day and lavishing their pay on the city's delights. After the barges were beached, Roran walked among the villagers and helped them by pitching tents here and there, unloading equipment, fetching water from a nearby stream, and otherwise lending his assistance until everyone was settled. He paused to give Morn and Tara a word of encouragement, for they appeared despondent, and received a guarded response in turn. The tavern owner and his wife had been aloof to him ever since they left Palankar Valley. On the whole, the villagers were in better condition than when they arrived at Nada, due to the rest they had garnered on the barges. But constant worry and exposure to the harsh elements had prevented them from recuperating as well as Roran hoped. Stronghammer, will you sup at our tent tonight? asked Thane, coming up to Roran. Roran declined with as much grace as he could and turned to find himself confronted by Felder, whose husband, Bird, had been murdered by Sloane. She bobbed a quick curtsy, then said, "'May I speak with you, Roran Garrison?' He smiled at her. "'Always, Felder, you know that.' "'Thank you.' With a furtive expression, she fingered the tassels that edged her shawl and glanced toward her tent. "'I would ask a favour of you. "'It's about Mandel.' Roran nodded. He had chosen her eldest son to accompany him into Nada on that fateful trip when he killed the two guards. Mandel had performed admirably then, as well as in the weeks since while he crewed the Edeline and learned what he could about piloting the barges. He's become quite friendly with the sailors on our barge, and he started playing dice with those lawless men. Not for money, we have none, but for small things, things we need. Have you asked him to stop? Felder twisted the tassels. I fear that since his father died, he no longer respects me as he once did. He has grown wild and willful. We have all grown wild, thought Roran. And what would you have me do about it? he asked gently. You have ever dealt generously with Mantle. He admires you. If you talk with him, he will listen. Roran considered the request, then said, "'Very well. 
I will do what I can. Felder sagged with relief. Tell me, though, what has he lost at dice? Food, mostly. Felder hesitated, and then added, But I know he once risked my grandmother's bracelet for a rabbit those men snared. Roran frowned. Put your heart at ease, Felder. I will tend to the matter as soon as I can. Thank you. Felder curtsied again, then slipped away between the makeshift tents, leaving Roran to mull over what she had said. Roran absently scratched his beard as he walked. The problem with Mandel and the sailors was a problem that cut both ways. Roran had noticed that during the trip from Narda, one of Torson's men, Freewin, had become close to Odele, a young friend of Katrina. They could cause trouble when we leave Clovis. Taking care not to attract undue attention, Roran went through the camp and gathered the villagers he trusted the most and had them accompany him to Horst's tent, where he said, The five we agreed upon will leave now before it gets much later. Horst will take my place while I'm gone. Remember that your most important task is to ensure Clovis doesn't leave with the barges or damage them in any way. They may be our only means to reach Zorda. That and make sure we aren't discovered, commented Orville. Exactly. If none of us have returned by nightfall day after tomorrow, assume we were captured. Take the barges and set sail for Sorda, but don't stop in Kuasta to buy provisions. The Empire will probably be lying in wait there. You'll have to find food elsewhere. While his companions readied themselves, Roran went to Clovis's cabin on the Red Boar. Just the five of you be going? demanded Clovis after Roran explained their plan. That's right. Roran let his iron gaze bore into Clovis until the man fidgeted with unease. And when I get back, I expect you, these barges, and every one of your men to still be here. You dare impugn my honour after how I've kept our bargain? I impugn nothing. Only tell you what I expect. Too much is at stake. If you commit treachery now, you condemn our entire village to death. That I know muttered Clovis, avoiding his eyes. My people will defend themselves during my absence. So long as breath remains in their lungs, they'll not be taken, tricked, or abandoned. And if misfortune were to befall them, I'd avenge them, even if I had to walk a thousand leagues and fight Galbatorix himself. Heed my words, Master Clovis, for I speak the truth. We're not so fond of the Empire as you seem to believe, protested Clovis, I wouldn't do them a favour more than the next man. Roran smiled with grim amusement. Men will do anything to protect their families and homes. As Roran lifted the door latch, Clovis asked, And what will you do once you reach Serda? We will, not we, you. What will you do? I've watched you, Roran. I've listened to you. And you seem a good enough sort, even if I don't care for how you dealt with me but I cannot fit it in my head. You dropping that hammer of yours and taking up the plough again just because you've arrived in Serda. Roran gripped the latch until his knuckles turned white. When I have delivered the village to Serda, he said in a voice as empty as a blackened desert, then I shall go hunting. Ah, after that red-headed lass of yours. I heard some talk of that, but I didn't put... The door slammed behind Roran as he left the cabin. 
He let his anger burn hot and fast for a moment, enjoying the freedom of the emotion, before he began to subdue his unruly passions. He marched to Felder's tent, where Mandel was throwing a hunting knife at a stump. Felder's right. Someone has to talk some sense into him. You're wasting your time, said Roran. Mandel whirled around with surprise. Why do you say that? In a real fight, you're more likely to put out your own eye than injure your enemy. If you don't know the exact distance between you and your target, Roran shrugged, you might as well throw rocks. He watched with detached interest as the younger man bristled with pride. Gunner told me about a man he knew in Scythri who could hit a flying crow with his knife eight times out of ten. And the other two times you get killed. It's usually a bad idea to throw away your weapon in battle. Roram waved a hand, forestalling Mandel's objections. Get your kit together and meet me on the hill past the stream in fifteen minutes. I've decided you should come with us to Tiam. Yes, sir! With an enthusiastic grin, Mandel dove into the tent and began packing. As Roran left, he encountered Felder, her youngest daughter balanced on one hip. Felder glanced between him and Mandel's activity in the tent, and her expression tightened. Keep him safe, Stronghammer. She set her daughter on the ground, and then bustled about, helping to gather the items Mandel would need. Roran was the first to arrive at the designated hill. He squatted on a white boulder and watched the sea while he readied himself for the task ahead. When Loring, Gertrude, Burgett and Nolfavrel, Burgett's son, arrived, Roran jumped off the boulder and said, We have to wait for Mandel. He'll be joining us. What for? demanded Loring. Burgett frowned as well. I thought we agreed no one else should accompany us, especially not Mandel, since he was seen in Narda. It's dangerous enough having you and Gertrude along, and Mandel only increases the odds that someone will recognize us. I'll risk it. Roran met each of their eyes in turn. He needs to come. In the end, they listened to him, and with Mandel, the six of them headed south toward Tirm. Tirm in that area, the coastline was composed of low, rolling hills, verdant with lush grass and occasional briars, willows, and poplars. The soft, muddy ground gave under their feet and made walking difficult. To their right lay the glittering sea. To their left ran the purple outline of the spine. The ranks of snow-capped mountains were laced with clouds and mist. As Roran's company wended past the properties surrounding Tirm, some freehold farms, others massive estates, they made every effort to go undetected. When they encountered the road that connected Narda to Tirm, they darted across it and continued farther east towards the mountains for several more miles before turning south again. Once they were confident they had circumnavigated the city, they angled back toward the ocean until they found the southern road in. During his time on the Red Boar, it had occurred to Roran that officials in Narda might have deduced that whoever killed the two guards was among the men who left upon Clovis's barges. If so, messengers would have warned Tiam's soldiers to watch for anyone matching the villagers' descriptions. And if the Razak had visited Narda, then the soldiers would also know that they were looking not just for a handful of murderers, but Roran's stronghammer and the refugees from Carvajal. 
Tian could be one huge trap. Yet they could not bypass the city, for the villagers needed supplies and a new mode of transportation. Roran had decided that their best precaution against capture was to send no one into Tiam who had been seen in Nada, except for Gertrude and himself. Gertrude, because only she understood the ingredients for her medicines, and Roran, because though he was the most likely to be recognized, he trusted no one else to do what was required. He knew he possessed the will to act when others hesitated, like the time he slew the guards. The rest of the group was chosen to minimize suspicion. Loring was old, but a tough fighter and an excellent liar. Burgett had proven herself canny and strong, and her son, Nolfavrel, had already killed a soldier in combat, despite his tender age. Hopefully they would appear as nothing more than an extended family travelling together. That is, if Mandel doesn't throw the scheme or I, thought Roran. It was also Roran's idea to enter Tiam from the south, and thus make it seem even more unlikely that they had come from Nada. Evening was nigh when Tiam came into view, white and ghostly in the gloaming. Roran stopped to inspect what lay before them. The walled city stood alone upon the edge of a large bay, self-contained and impregnable to any conceivable attack. Torches glowed between the merlins on the battlements, where soldiers with bows patrolled their endless circuits. Above the walls rose a citadel, and then a faceted lighthouse, which swept its hazy beam across the dark waters. "'It's so big!' said Nolfavrel. Loring bobbed his head, without taking his eyes off Tiam. "'Aye, that it is!' Roran's attention was caught by a ship moored at one end of the stone piers jutting from the city. The three-masted vessel was larger than any had seen in Nada, with a high forecastle, two banks of oarlocks, and twelve powerful ballistae mounted along each side of the deck for shooting javelins. The magnificent craft appeared equally suited for either commerce or war. Even more importantly, Roran thought that it might, might, be able to hold the entire village. "'That's what we need,' he said, pointing. Burgett uttered a sour grunt. "'We'd have to sell ourselves into slavery to afford passage on that monster?' Clovis had warned them that Tiam's portcullis closed at sunset, so they quickened their pace to avoid spending the night in the countryside." As they neared the pale walls, the road filled with a double stream of people hurrying to and from Tiam. Roran had not anticipated so much traffic, but he soon realized that it could help shield his party from unwanted attention. Beckoning to Mandel, Roran said, Drop back a ways and follow someone else through the gate, so the guards don't think you're with us. We'll wait for you on the other side. If they ask, you've come here seeking employment as a seaman. Yes, sir. As Mandel fell behind, Roran hunched one shoulder, allowing a limp to creep into his walk, and began to rehearse the story Loring had concocted to explain their presence at Tiam. He stepped off the road and ducked his head as a man drove a pair of lumbering oxen past, grateful for the shadows that concealed his features. The gate loomed ahead, washed in uncertain orange from the torches placed in sconces on each side of the entrance. Underneath stood a pair of soldiers with Galbatorix's twisting flames stitched onto the front of their crimson tunics. Neither of the armed men so much as glanced at Roran and his companions as they shuffled underneath the spiked portcullis and through the short tunnel beyond. 
Roran squared his shoulders and felt some of his tension ease. He and the others clustered by a corner of the house where Loring murmured, So far, so good. When Mandel rejoined them, they set out to find an inexpensive hostel where they could let a room. As they walked, Roran studied the layout of the city with its fortified houses, which grew progressively higher toward the citadel and the grid-like arrangement of streets. Those north to south radiated from the citadel like a starburst, while those east to west curved gently across and formed a spiderweb pattern, creating numerous places where barriers could be erected and soldiers stationed. If Carvajal had been built like this, he thought, no one could have defeated us but the king himself. By dusk they had acquired lodging at the Green Chestnut, an exceedingly vile tavern with atrocious ale and flea-infested beds. Its sole advantage was that it cost next to nothing. They went to sleep without dinner to save their precious coin, and huddled together to prevent their purses from being filched by one of the tavern's other guests. The next day Roran and his companions left the green chestnut before dawn, to search for provisions and transportation. Gertrude said, I have heard tell of a remarkable herbalist, Angela by name, who lives here and is supposed to work the most amazing cures, perhaps even a touch of magic. I would go see her, for if anyone has what I seek, it would be she. You shouldn't go alone, said Roran. He looked at Mandel. Accompany Gertrude, help her with the purchases, and do your best to protect her if you are attacked. Your nerve may be tested at times, but do nothing to cause alarm unless you would betray your friends and family. Mandel touched his forelock and nodded his obedience. He and Gertrude departed at right angles down a cross street, while Roran and the rest resumed their hunt. Roran had the patience of a stalking predator, but even he began to thrum with restlessness when morning and afternoon slipped by and they still had not found a ship to carry them to Surda. He learned that the three-masted ship, the Dragonwing, was newly built and about to be launched on her maiden voyage, that they had no chance of hiring it from the Blackmoor Shipping Company unless they could pay a roomful of the dwarves' red gold, and indeed that the villagers lacked the coin to engage even the meanest vessel. Nor would taking Clovis's barges solve their problems, because it still left unanswered the question of what they would eat on their trek. It would be hard, said Burgett, very hard to steal goods from this place, what with all the soldiers and how close together the houses are and the watchmen at the gate. If we tried to cart that much stuff out of Tiam, they'd want to know what we were doing. Roran nodded. That too. Roran had suggested to Horst that if the villagers were forced to flee Tiam with naught but their remaining supplies, they could raid for their food. However, Roran knew that such an act would mean they had become as monstrous as those he hated. He had no stomach for it. It was one thing to fight and kill those who served Galbatorix, or even to steal Clovis's barges, since Clovis had other means of supporting himself. But it was quite another to take provisions from innocent farmers who struggled to survive as much as the villagers had in Palancar Valley. That would be murder. Those hard facts weighed upon Roran like stones. Their venture had always been tenuous at best, sustained in equal parts by fear, desperation, optimism, and last-minute improvisation. 
Now he feared that he had driven the villagers into the den of their enemies and bound them in place with a chain forged of their own poverty. I could escape alone and continue my search for Katrina, but what victory would that be if I left my village to be enslaved by the Empire? Whatever our fate in Tyrm, I will stand firm with those who trusted me enough to forsake their homes upon my word. To relieve their hunger, they stopped at a bakery and bought a loaf of fresh rye bread, as well as a small pot of honey to slather it with. While he paid for the items, Loring mentioned to the baker's assistant that they were in the market for ships, equipment and food. At a tap on his shoulder, Roran turned. A man with coarse black hair and a thick slab of belly said, "'Pardon me for overhearing your parley with the young master, "'but if it's ships and such you'd be after, and at a fair price, "'then I should guess you'd want to attend the auction.' "'What auction is this?' asked Roran. "'Ah, it's a sad story it is, but all too common nowadays. "'One of our merchants, Jode, Jode Longshanks, as we call him out of hearing, "'has had the most abominable run of bad luck.' In less than a year, he lost four of his ships, and when he tried to send his goods over land, the caravan was ambushed and destroyed by some thieving outlaws. His investors forced him to declare bankruptcy, and now they're going to sell his property to recoup their losses. I don't know about food, but you'd be sure to find most everything else you're looking for to buy at the auction. A faint ember of hope kindled in Roran's breast. When will the auction be held? Why, it's posted on every message board throughout the city. Day after tomorrow, to be sure. That explained to Roran why they had not learned of the auction before. They had done their best to avoid the message boards, on the off chance that someone would recognise Roran from the portrait on his reward poster. Thank you much, he said to the man. You may have saved us a great deal of trouble. My pleasure, so it is. Once Roran and his companions filed out of the shop, they huddled together on the edge of the street. He said, Do you think we should look into this? It's all we have to look into, growled Loring. Burgett, you needn't ask me, it's obvious. We cannot wait until the day after tomorrow, though. No. I say we meet with this Jode and see if we can strike a bargain with him before the auction opens. Are we agreed? They were, and so they set out for Jode's house, armed with directions from a passer-by. The house, or rather mansion, was set on the west side of Tyrm, close to the citadel, among scores of other opulent buildings embellished with fine scrollwork, wrought iron gates, statues and gushing fountains. Roran could scarcely comprehend such riches. It amazed him how different the lives of these people were from his own. Roran knocked on the front door to Jode's mansion, which stood next to an abandoned shop. After a moment, the door was pulled open by a plump butler garnished with overly shiny teeth. He eyed the four strangers upon his doorstep with disapproval, then flashed his glazed smile and asked, "'How may I help you, sirs and madam?' "'We would talk with Jode if he is free. "'Have you an appointment?' Roran thought the butler knew perfectly well that they did not. Our stay in Tiam is too brief for us to arrange a proper meeting. Ah, well, then I regret to say that your time would have been better spent elsewhere. My master has many matters to tend, 
He cannot devote himself to every group of ragged tramps that bangs on his door asking for handouts," said the butler. He exposed even more of his glassy teeth and began to withdraw inside. "Wait," cried Roran. "It's not handouts we want. We have a business proposition for Joad." The butler lifted one eyebrow. "Is that so?" "Ay, it is. Please ask him if he will hear us." We've travelled more leagues than you'd care to know, and it's imperative we see Joad today. May I inquire as to the nature of your proposition? It's confidential. Very well, sir," said the butler. "I will convey your offer, but I warn you that Joad is occupied at the moment, and I doubt he will wish to bother himself. By what name shall I announce you, sir? You may call me Stronghammer." The butler's mouth twitched as if amused by the name, then slipped behind the door and closed it. If his head were any larger, he couldn't fit in a privy," muttered Loring out the side of his mouth. Nulfrevel uttered a bark of laughter at the insult. Burgett said, "Let's hope the servant doesn't imitate the master." A minute later, the door reopened and the butler announced with a rather brittle expression. Joad has agreed to meet you in the study. He moved to the side and gestured with one arm for them to proceed. This way. After they trooped into the sumptuous entryway, the butler swept past them and down a polished wood hallway to one door among many, which he opened and ushered them through. Joad Longshanks. If Roran had known how to read, he might have been more impressed by the treasure trove of books that lined the study walls. As it was, he reserved his attention for the tall man with greying hair who stood behind an oval writing desk. The man who Roran assumed was Joad looked about as tired as Roran felt. His face was lined, careworn, and sad, and when he turned toward them, a nasty scar gleamed white from his scalp to his left temple. To Roran, it bespoke steel in the man, long and buried, perhaps, but steel nevertheless. Do sit," said Joad. "I won't stand on ceremony in my own house." He watched them with curious eyes as they settled in the soft leather armchairs. "May I offer you pastries and a glass of apricot brandy? I cannot talk for long, but I see you've been on the road for many a week, and I well remember how dusty my throat was after such journeys." Loring grinned. "Ay, a touch of brandy would be welcome indeed. You're most generous, sir. Only a glass of milk for my boy," said Burgett. "Of course, madam." Joad rang for the butler, delivered his instructions, then leaned back in his chair. "I am at a disadvantage. I believe you have my name, but I don't have yours." "Stronghammer, at your service," said Loring. Mardra, at your service," said Burgett. "Kell, at your service," said Nolfavrell. "And I'd be Wally, at your service," finished Loring. "And I at yours," responded Joad. "Now, Rolf mentioned that you wished to do business with me. It's only fair that you know I'm in no position to buy or sell goods, nor have I gold for investing." Nor proud ships to carry wool and food, gems and spices across the restless sea. 
Uh, what, then, can I do for you? Roran rested his elbows on his knees, then knitted his fingers together and stared between them as he marshalled his thoughts. A slip of the tongue could kill us here, he reminded himself. To put it simply, sir, we represent a certain group of people who, for various reasons, must purchase a large amount of supplies with very little money. We know that your belongings will be auctioned off day after tomorrow to repay your debts, and we would like to offer a bid now on those items we need. We would have waited until the auction, but circumstances press us, and we cannot tarry another two days. If we are to strike a bargain, it must be tonight or tomorrow, no later. What manner of supplies do you need? asked Jode. Food, and whatever else is required to outfit a ship or other vessel for a long voyage at sea. A spark of interest gleamed in Jode's weary face. Do you have a certain ship in mind? For I know every craft that's plied these waters in the last twenty years. We've yet to decide. Jode accepted that without question. I understand now why you thought to come to me, but I fear you labour under a misapprehension. He spread his grey hands, indicating the room. Everything you see here no longer belongs to me, but to my creditors. I have no authority to sell my possessions, and if I did so without permission, I would likely be imprisoned for cheating my creditors out of the money I owe them. He paused as Rolf backed into the study, carrying a large silver tray dotted with pastries, cut crystal goblets, a glass of milk, and a decanter of brandy. The butler placed the tray on a padded footstool, and then proceeded to serve the refreshments. Roran took his goblet and sipped the mellow brandy, wondering how soon courtesy would allow the four of them to excuse themselves and resume their quest. When Rolf left the room, Joe drained his goblet with a single draught, then said, I may be of no use to you, but I do know a number of people in my profession who might, might, be able to help. If you can give me a bit more detail about what you want to buy, then I'd have a better idea of who to recommend. Roran saw no harm in that, so he began to recite a list of items the villagers had to have, things they might need, and things they wanted, but would never be able to afford unless fortune smiled greatly upon them. Now and then Burgett or Loring mentioned something Roran had forgotten, like lamp oil, and Jode would glance at them for a moment, before returning his hooded gaze to Roran, where it remained with growing intensity. Jode's interest concerned Roran. It was as if the merchant knew, or suspected, what he was hiding. "'It seems to me,' said Jode at the completion of Roran's inventory, "'that this would be enough provisions to transport several hundred people to Feinster, or Arrows, or beyond. Admittedly, I've been rather occupied for the past few weeks, but I've heard of no such host in this area, nor can I imagine where one might have come from.' His face blank. Roran met Jode's stare and said nothing. On the inside he seethed with self-contempt for allowing Jode to amass enough information to reach that conclusion. Jode shrugged. Well, be as it may, that's your own concern. I'd suggest that you see Galton on Market Street about your food, and old Hamel by the docks for all else. 
They're both honest men and will treat you true and fair. Reaching over, he plucked a pastry from the tray, took a bite, and then, when he finished chewing, asked Nolfavrel, So, young Kell, have you enjoyed your stay in Tyrm? Yes, sir, said Nolfavrel, and grinned. I've never seen anything quite so large, sir. Is that so? Yes, sir, I... Feeling that they were in dangerous territory, Roran interrupted. I'm curious, sir, as to the nature of the shop next to your house. It seems odd to have such a humble store among all these grand buildings. For the first time, a smile, if only a small one, brightened Jode's expression, erasing years from his experience. Well, it was owned by a woman who was a bit odd herself. Angela the Herbalist, one of the best healers I've ever met. She tended that store for twenty-some years, and then only a few months ago up and sold it and left for parts unknown. He sighed. It's a pity, for she made an interesting neighbour. That's who Gertrude wanted to meet, isn't it? asked Nolfavrel, and looked up at his mother. Roran suppressed a snarl and flashed a warning glance strong enough to make Nolfavrel quail in his chair. The name would mean nothing to Jode but unless Nolfavrel guarded his tongue better, he was liable to blurt out something far more damaging. Time to go, thought Roran. He put down his goblet. It was then that he saw the name did mean something to Jode. The merchant's eyes widened with surprise, and he gripped the arms of his chair until the tips of his fingers turned bone white. It can't be! Jode focused on Roran, studying his face as if trying to see past the beard, and then breathed, Roran! Roran Garrison! An Unexpected Ally Roran had already pulled his hammer from his belt and was halfway out of the chair when he heard his father's name. It was the only thing that kept him from leaping across the room and knocking Jode unconscious. How does he know who Garrow is? Beside him, Loring and Burgett jumped to their feet, drawing knives from within their sleeves, and even Nolfavrel readied himself to fight with a dagger in hand. It is Roran, isn't it? Jode asked quietly. He showed no alarm at their weapons. How did you guess? Because Brom brought Aragon here. And you look like your cousin. When I saw your poster with Aragons, I realized that the Empire must have tried to capture you, and that you had escaped. Although, Jode's gaze drifted to the other three, in all my imaginings, I never suspected that you took the rest of Carvajal with you. Stunned, Roran dropped back into his chair and placed the hammer across his knees, ready for use. Aragon was here? Aye. And Sephira, too. Sephira? Again, surprise crossed Jode's face. You don't know, then? Know what? Jode considered him for a long minute. I think the time has come to drop our pretenses, Roran Garrison, and talk openly and without deception. I can answer many of the questions you must have, such as why the Empire is pursuing you, but in return I need to know the reason you came to Tyrm, the real reason. And why should we trust you, Longshanks? demanded Loring. You could be working for Galbatorix, you could. 
I was Brom's friend for over twenty years, before he was a storyteller in Carvajal, said Jode, and I did my best to help him and Eragon when they were under my roof. But since neither of them are here to vouch for me, I place my life in your hands, to do with as you wish. I could shout for help, but I won't, nor will I fight you. All I ask is that you tell me your story and hear my own. Then you can decide for yourself what course of action is proper. You're in no immediate danger, so what harm is there in talking? Burgett caught Roran's eye with a flick of her chin. He could just be trying to save his hide. Maybe, replied Roran, but we have to find out whatever it is he knows. Hooking an arm underneath his chair, he dragged it across the room, placed the back of the chair against the door and then sat in it so that no one could burst in and catch them unawares. He jabbed his hammer at Jode. All right, you want to talk? Then let us talk, you and I. It would be best if you go first. If I do, and we're not satisfied by your answers afterward, we'll have to kill you, warned Roran. Jode folded his arms. So be it. Despite himself, Roran was impressed by the merchant's fortitude. Jode appeared unconcerned by his fate, if a bit grim about the mouth. So be it, Roran echoed. Roran had relived the events since the Razak's arrival in Carvajal often enough, but never before had he described them in detail to another person. As he did, it struck him how much had happened to him and the other villages in such a short time, and how easy it had been for the Empire to destroy their lives in Palancar Valley. Resuscitating old terrors was painful for Roran, but he at least had the pleasure of seeing Jode exhibit unfeigned astonishment as he heard about how the villagers had rousted the soldiers and Razak from their camp. The siege of Carvajal thereafter, Sloane's treachery, Katrina's kidnapping, how Roran had convinced the villagers to flee, and the hardships of their journey to Tirm. "'By the lost kings!' exclaimed Jode, that's the most extraordinary tale. Extraordinary. To think you've managed to thwart Galbatorix, and that right now the entire village of Carvajal is hiding outside one of the Empire's largest cities, and the king doesn't even know it. He shook his head with admiration. Aye, that's our position, growled Loring, and it's precarious at best. "'so you'd better explain well and good "'why we should risk letting you live. "'It places me in as much—' "'Jode stopped as someone rattled the latch "'behind Roran's chair, trying to open the door, "'followed by pounding on the oak planks. "'In the hallway, a woman cried, "'Jode, let me in, Jode. "'You can't hide in that cave of yours.' "'May I?' murmured Jode. "'Roran clicked his fingers at Nolfavrel and the boy tossed his dagger to Roran, who slipped around the writing-desk and pressed the flat of the blade against Jode's throat. Make her leave. Raising his voice, Jode said, I can't talk now. I'm in the middle of a meeting. Liar! You don't have any business. You're bankrupt. Come out and face me, you coward. Are you a man or not, that you won't even look your wife in the eye? She paused for a second as if expecting a response. Then her screeches increased in volume. Coward! 
You're a gutless rat, a filthy yellow-bellied sheep-biter without the common sense to run a meat stall, much less a shipping company. My father would have never lost so much money. Roran winced as the insults continued. I can't restrain Jode if she goes on much longer. Be still, woman, commanded Jode, and silence ensued. Our fortunes might be about to change for the better if you but have the sense to restrain your tongue and not rail on like a fishmonger's wife. Her answer was cold. I shall wait upon your pleasure in the dining-room, dear husband, and unless you choose to attend me by the evening meal and explain yourself, then I shall leave this accursed house never to return. The sound of her footsteps retreated into the distance. When he was sure that she was gone, Roran lifted the dagger from Jode's neck and returned the weapon to Nolfavrel, before seating himself in the chair pushed against the door. Jode rubbed his neck and then, with a wry expression, said, If we don't reach an understanding, you had better kill me. It'd be easier than explaining to Helen that I shouted at her for naught. You have my sympathy, Longshanks, said Loring. It's not her fault, not really. She just doesn't understand why so much misfortune has befallen us. Jode sighed. Perhaps it's my fault for not daring to tell her. Tell her what? piped Nolfavrel. That I'm an agent for the Varden. Jode paused at their dumbfounded expressions. Perhaps I should start from the beginning. Roran, have you heard rumours in the past few months of the existence of a new rider who opposes Galbatorix? Mutterings here and there, yes, but nothing I'd give credence to. Jode hesitated. I don't know how else to say this, Roran, but there is a new rider in Allegasia, and it's your cousin, Eragon. The stone he found in the spine was actually a dragon egg I helped the Varden steal from Galbatorix years ago. The dragon hatched for Eragon, and he named her Sephira. That is why the Razak first came to Palankar Valley. They returned, because Eragon has become a formidable enemy of the Empire, and Galbatorix hoped that by capturing you, they could bring Eragon to bay. Roran threw back his head and howled with laughter, until tears gathered at the corners of his eyes and his stomach hurt from the convulsions. Loring, Burgett, and Nolfavrel looked at him with something akin to fear, but Roran cared not for their opinions. He laughed at the absurdity of Jode's assertion. He laughed at the terrible possibility that Jode had told the truth. Taking rasping breaths, Roran gradually returned to normal, despite an occasional outburst of humorless chuckles. He wiped his face on his sleeve and then regarded Jode, a hard smile upon his lips. It fits the facts, I'll give you that. But so do a half-dozen other explanations I've thought of. Burgett said, If Aragon Stone was a dragonic, then where did it come from? Ah, replied Jode. Now there's an affair I'm well acquainted with. Comfortable in his chair, Roran listened with disbelief as Jode spun a fantastic story of how Brom, grumpy old Brom, had once been a rider and had supposedly helped establish the Varden, 
how Jode had discovered a secret passageway into Urubain, how the Varden arranged to filch the last three dragon eggs from Galbatorix, and how only one egg was saved after Brom fought and killed Morzan of the Forsworn. As if that were not preposterous enough, Jode went on to describe an agreement between the Varden, dwarves and elves that the egg should be ferried between Duwelden Varden and the Beor Mountains, which was why the egg and its couriers were near the edge of the great forest when they were ambushed by a shade. A shade! Ha! <laughs> thought Roran. Skeptical as he was, Roran attended with redoubled interest when Jode began to talk of Aragon finding the egg and raising the dragon, Sephira, in the forest by Garrow's farm. Roran had been occupied at the time, preparing to leave for Dempton's mill in Therensford, but he remembered how distracted Aragon had been, how he spent every moment he could outdoors, doing who knows what. As Jode explained how and why Garrow died, rage filled Roran that Aragon had dared keep the dragon secret when it so obviously put everyone in danger. It's his fault my father died. What was he thinking? burst out Roran. He hated how Jode looked at him with calm understanding. I doubt Aragon knew himself. Riders and their dragons are bound together so closely it's often hard to differentiate one from the other. Aragon could have no more harmed Sephira than he could have sawed off his own leg. He could have, muttered Roran. Because of him I've had to do things just as painful, and I know he could have. You've a right to feel as you do, said Jode. But don't forget that the reason Aragon left Palancar Valley was to protect you and all who remained. I believe it was an extremely hard choice for him to make. From his point of view, he sacrificed himself to ensure your safety and to avenge your father. And while leaving may not have had the desired effect, things would have certainly turned out far worse if Aragon had stayed. Roran said nothing more until Jode mentioned that the reason Brom and Aragon had visited Tirm was to see if they could use the city's shipping manifests to locate the Razak's lair. And did they? cried Roran, bolting upright. We did, indeed. Well, where are they, then? For goodness sake, man, say it! You know how important this is to me! It seemed apparent from the records, and I later had a message from the Varden that Aragon's own account confirmed this, that the Razak's den is in the formation known as Hellgrind, by Drasleona. Roran gripped his hammer with excitement. It's a long way to Drasleona, but Tirm has access to the only open pass between here and the southern end of the spine. If I can get everyone safely heading down the coast, then I could go to this Hellgrind, rescue Katrina if she's there, and follow the Jeet River down to Surda. Something of Roran's thoughts must have revealed themselves on his face, because Jode said, It can't be done, Roran. What? No one man can take Hellgrind. It's a solid, bare, black mountain of stone that's impossible to climb. Consider the Razak's foul steeds. It seems likely they would have an eyrie near the top of Hellgrind, rather than bed near the ground, where they are most vulnerable. How, then, would you reach them? And if you could, do you really believe that you could defeat both Razak and their two steeds, if not more? I have no doubt you are a fearsome warrior, 
After all, you and Eragon share blood, but these are foes beyond any normal human. Roran shook his head. I can't abandon Katrina. It may be futile, but I must try to free her, even if it costs me my life. It won't do Katrina any good if you get yourself killed, admonished Jode. If I may offer a bit of advice, try to reach Surda as you've planned. Once there, I'm sure you can enlist Eragon's help. Even the Razak cannot match a rider and dragon in open combat. In his mind's eye, Roran saw the huge, grey-skinned beasts the Razak rode upon. He was loath to acknowledge it, but he knew that such creatures were beyond his ability to kill, no matter the strength of his motivation. The instant he accepted that truth, Roran finally believed Jode's tale, for if he did not, Katrina was forever lost to him. Aragon, he thought, Aragon. By the blood I've spilled and the gore on my hands, I swear upon my father's grave I'll have you atone for what you've done by storming Helldrind with me. If you created this mess, then I'll have you clean it up. Roran motioned to Jode. Continue your account. Let us hear the rest of this sorry play before the day grows much older. Then Jode spoke of Brom's death of Murtag, son of Morzan, of capture and escape in Gilead, a desperate flight to save an elf, of urgles and dwarves and a great battle in a place called Farthandur, where Eragon defeated a shade. And Jode told them how the Vardan left the Beor Mountains for Surda, and how Eragon was even now deep within Duwelden Vardan, learning the elves' mysterious secrets of magic and warfare, but would soon return. When the merchant fell silent, Roran gathered at the far end of the study with Loring, Burgett, and Nolfarel, and asked their thoughts. Lowering his voice, Loring said, I can't tell whether he's lying or not, but any man who can weave a yarn like that at knife point deserves to live. A new rider, and Aragon to boot. He shook his head. Burgett? asked Roran. I don't know. It's so outlandish. She hesitated. But it must be true. Another rider is the only thing that would spur the Empire to pursue us so fiercely. Aye, agreed Loring. His eyes were bright with excitement. We've been entangled in far more momentous events than we realised. A new rider. Just think about it. The old order is about to be washed away, I tell you. You were right all along, Roran. Nolfavrel? The boy looked solemn at being asked. He bit his lip, then said, Joe seems honest enough. I think we can trust him. Right then, said Roran. He strode back to Joe, planted his knuckles on the edge of the desk, and said, Two last questions, Longshanks. What do Brom and Eragon look like? And how did you recognise Gertrude's name? I knew of Gertrude because Brom mentioned that he left a letter for you in her care. As for what they looked like, Brom stood a bit shorter than me. He had a thick beard, a hooked nose, and he carried a carved staff with him. And I dare say he was rather irritable at times. Roran nodded. That was Brom. Aragon was young. Brown hair, brown eyes, with a scar on his wrist and he never stopped asking questions.
Roran nodded again. That was his cousin. Roran stuck his hammer back under his belt. Burgett, Loring, and Nolfavrel sheathed their blades. Then Roran pulled his chair away from the door, and the four of them resumed their seats like civilized beings. What now, Jode? asked Roran. Can you help us? I know you're in a difficult situation, but we... we are desperate and have no one else to turn to. As an agent of the Varden, can you guarantee us the Varden's protection? We are willing to serve them if they'll shield us from Galbatorix's wrath. The Varden, said Jode, would be more than happy to have you. More than happy. I suspect you already guessed that. As for help... He ran a hand down his long face and stared past Loring at the rows of books on the shelves. I've been aware for almost a year that my true identity, as well as that of many other merchants here and elsewhere who have assisted the Varden, was betrayed to the Empire. Because of that, I haven't dared flee to Surda. If I tried, the Empire would arrest me, and then who knows what horrors I'd be in for. I've had to watch the gradual destruction of my business without being able to take any action to oppose or escape it. What's worse, now that I cannot ship anything to the Varden, and they dare not send envoys to me, I feared that Lord Risthart would have me clapped in irons and dragged off to the dungeons, since I'm of no further interest to the Empire. I've expected it every day since I declared bankruptcy. Perhaps, suggested Burgett, they want you to flee so they can capture whoever else you bring with you. Jode smiled. Perhaps. But now that you are here, I have a means to leave that they never anticipated. Then you have a plan? asked Loring. Glee crossed Jode's face. Oh, yes, I have a plan. Did the four of you see the ship Dragonwing moored at port? Roran thought back to the vessel. Aye. The Dragonwing is owned by the Blackmore Shipping Company, a front for the Empire. They handle supplies for the army, which has mobilized to an alarming degree recently, conscripting soldiers among the peasants and commandeering horses, asses and oxen. Jode raised an eyebrow. I'm not sure what it indicates, but it's possible Galbatorix means to march on Surda. In any case, the Dragonwing is to sail for Feinster within the week. She's the finest ship ever built from a new design by Master Shipwright Kennell. And you want to pirate her, concluded Roran. I do. Not only to spite the Empire, or because the Dragonwing is reputed to be the fastest square-rigged ship of her tonnage, but because she's already fully provisioned for a long voyage. And since her cargo is food, we'd have enough for the whole village. Loring uttered a strained cackle. I hope you can sailor yourself, Longshanks, cause not one of us knows how to handle anything larger than a barge. A few men from the crews of my ships are still in Tyrm. They're in the same position I am, unable to fight or flee. I'm confident they'll jump at a chance to get to Surda. They can teach you what to do on the Dragonwing. It won't be easy, but I don't see much choice in the matter. Roran grinned. The plan was to his liking, swift, decisive, and unexpected. "'You mentioned,' said Burgett, 
that in the past year none of your ships nor those from other merchants who serve the Vardan have reached their destination. Why then should this mission succeed when so many have failed? Jode was quick to answer, Because surprise is on our side. The law requires merchant ships to submit their itinerary for approval with the port authority at least two weeks before departure. It takes a great deal of time to prepare a ship for launch, so if we leave without warning, it could be a week or more before Galbatorix can launch intercept vessels. If luck is with us, we won't see so much as the topmast of our pursuers. So, continued Jode, if you are willing to attempt this enterprise, this is what we must do. Escape after they considered Jode's proposal from every possible angle and agreed to abide by it with a few modifications, Roran sent Nolfrevrel to fetch Gertrude and Mandel from the Green Chestnut, for Jode had offered their entire party his hospitality. Now, if you will excuse me, said Jode, rising, I must go reveal to my wife that which I should never have hidden from her, and ask if she'll accompany me to Sörda. You may take your pick of rooms on the second floor. Rolf will summon you when supper is ready. With long, slow steps he departed the study. Is it wise to let him tell that ogress? asked Loring. Roran shrugged. Wise or not, we can't stop him, and I don't think he'll be at peace until he does. Instead of going to a room, Roran wandered through the mansion, unconsciously evading the servants, as he pondered the things Jode had said. He stopped at a bay window open to the stables at the rear of the house and filled his lungs with the brisk, smoky air, heavy with the familiar smell of manure. Do you hate him? He started and turned to see Burgett silhouetted in the doorway. She pulled her shawl tied around her shoulders as she approached. Who? he asked, knowing full well. Aragon. Do you hate him? Roran looked at the darkening sky. I don't know. I hate him for causing the death of my father, but he's still family, and for that I love him. I suppose that if I didn't need Aragon to save Katrina, I would have nothing to do with him for a long while yet. As I need and hate you, Stronghammer. He snorted with grim amusement. Aye, we're joined at the hip, aren't we? You have to help me find Aragon in order to avenge Quimby on the Razak, and to have my vengeance on you afterward. That too. Roran stared into her unwavering eyes for a moment, acknowledging the bond between them. He found it strangely comforting to know that they shared the same drive, the same angry fire that quickened their steps when others faltered. In her he recognized a kindred spirit. Returning through the house, Roran stopped by the dining-room as he heard the cadence of Jode's voice. Curious, he fit his eye to a crack by the middle door-hinge. Jode stood opposite a slight, blonde woman, who Roran assumed was Helen. "'If what you say is true, how can you expect me to trust you?' "'I cannot,' answered Jode. "'Yet you ask me to become a fugitive for you?' "'You once offered to leave your family.' and wander the land with me. You begged me to spirit you away from Tirm. Once? I thought you were terribly dashing then, what with your sword and your scar. 
I still have those, he said softly. I made many mistakes with you, Helen. I understand that now. But I still love you and want you to be safe. I have no future here. If I stay, I'll only bring grief to your family. You can return to your father or you can come with me. Do what will make you the happiest. However, I beg you to give me a second chance to have the courage to leave this place and shed the bitter memories of our life here. We can start anew in Sarda. She was quiet for a long time. That young man who was here, is he really a rider? He is. The winds of change are blowing, Helen. The Varden are about to attack, the dwarves are gathering, and even the elves stir in their ancient haunts. War approaches, and if we are fortunate, so does Galbatorix's downfall. Are you important among the Varden? They owe me some consideration for my part in acquiring Sephira's egg. Then you would have a position with them in Surda? I imagine so. He put his hands on her shoulders, and she did not draw away. She whispered, Jode, Jode, don't press me. I cannot decide yet. Will you think about it? She shivered. Oh, yes. I'll think about it. Roran's heart pained him as he left. Katrina! That night at dinner, Roran noticed Helen's eyes were often upon him, studying and measuring, comparing him, he was sure, to Aragon. After the meal, Roran beckoned to Mandel and led him out into the courtyard behind the house. What is it, sir? asked Mandel. I wish to talk with you in private. About what? Roran fingered the pitted blade of his hammer and reflected on how much he felt like Garrow when his father gave a lecture on responsibility. Roran could even feel the same phrases rising in his throat. And so one generation passes to the next, he thought. You've become quite friendly with the sailors as of late. They're not our enemies, objected Mandel. Everyone is an enemy at this point. Clovis and his men could turn on us in an instant. It wouldn't be a problem, though, if being with them hadn't caused you to neglect your duties. Mandel stiffened and colour bloomed in his cheeks, but he did not lower himself in Roran's esteem by denying the charge. Pleased, Roran asked, What is the most important thing we can do right now, Mandel? Protect our families. Aye, and what else? Mandel hesitated, uncertain, then confessed, I don't know. Help one another. It's the only way any of us are going to survive. I was especially disappointed to learn that you've gambled food with the sailors, since that endangers the entire village. Your time would be far better spent hunting than playing games of dice or learning to throw knives. With your father gone, it's fallen upon you to care for your mother and siblings. They rely on you. Am I clear? Very clear, sir replied Mandel, with a choked voice. Will this ever happen again? Never again, sir. Good. Now I didn't bring you here just to chastise you. You show promise, which is why I'm giving you a task that I would trust to no one else but myself. Yes, sir. Tomorrow morning I need you to return to camp and deliver a message to Horst. Jode believes the Empire has spies watching this house, 
so it's vital that you make sure you aren't followed. Wait until you're out of the city, then lose whoever is trailing you in the countryside. Kill him if you have to. When you find Horst, tell him to... As Roran outlined his instructions, he watched Mandel's expression change from surprise to shock, and then to awe. What if Clovis objects? asked Mandel. That night, break the tillers on the barges so they can't be steered. It's a dirty trick, but it could be disastrous if Clovis or any of his men arrive at Tiam before you. I won't let that happen, vowed Mandel. Roran smiled. Good. Satisfied that he had resolved the matter of Mandel's behaviour and that the young man would do everything possible to get the message to Horst, Roran went back inside and bade their host good night before heading off to sleep. With the exception of Mandel, Roran and his companions confined themselves to the mansion throughout the following day, taking advantage of the delay to rest, hone their weapons, and review their stratagems. From dawn till dusk they saw some of Helen as she bustled from one room to the next, more of Rolf with his teeth like varnished pearls, and none of Jode for the grey-pated merchant had left to walk the city and, seemingly by accident, meet with the few men of the sea whom he trusted for their expedition. Upon his return he told Roran, We can count on five more hands. I only hope it's enough. Jode remained in his study for the rest of the evening, drawing up various legal documents and otherwise tending to his affairs. Three hours before dawn, Roran, Loring, Burgett, Gertrude and Nolferrell roused themselves, and fighting back prodigious yawns, congregated in the mansion's entryway, where they muffled themselves in long cloaks to obscure their faces. A rapier hung at Jode's side when he joined them, and Roran thought the narrow sword somehow completed the rangy man, as if it reminded Jode who he really was. Jode lit an oil lantern and held it up before them. "'Are we ready?' he asked. They nodded. Then Jode unlatched the door and they filed outside to the empty cobblestone street. Behind them, Jode lingered in the entryway, casting a longing gaze toward the stairs on the right. But Helen did not appear. With a shudder, Jode left his home and closed the door. Roran put a hand on his arm. What's done is done. I know. They trotted through the dark city, slowing to a quick walk whenever they encountered watchmen or a fellow creature of the night, most of whom darted away at the sight of them. Once they heard footsteps on top of a nearby building. The design of the city, explained Jode, makes it easy for thieves to climb from one roof to another. They slowed to a walk again when they arrived at Tiam's eastern gate. Because the gate opened to the harbour, it was closed only four hours each night, in order to minimize the disruption to commerce. Indeed, despite the time, several men were already moving through the gate. Even though Jode had warned them it might happen, Roran still felt a surge of fear when the guards lowered their pikes and asked what their business was. He wet his mouth and tried not to fidget, while the elder soldier examined a scroll that Jode handed to him. After a long minute, the guard nodded and returned the parchment. "'You can pass!' Once they were on the wharf and out of earshot of the city wall, Jode said, It's a good thing he couldn't read. The six of them waited on the damp planking, until one by one Jode's men emerged from the grey mist that lay upon the shore, 
They were grim and silent, with braided hair that hung to the middle of their backs, tar-smeared hands, and an assortment of scars even Roran respected. He liked what he saw, and he could tell they approved of him as well. They did not, however, take to Burgett. One of the sailors, a large brute of a man, jerked a thumb at her and accused Jode. You didn't say there'd be a woman along for the fighting? How am I supposed to concentrate with some backwoods tramp getting him away? Don't talk about her like that, said Dolphavrel between clenched teeth. And a runt too? In a calm voice, Jode said, Burgett has fought the Razak, and her son has already killed one of Galbatorix's best soldiers. Can you claim as much, Uther? It's not proper, said another man. I wouldn't feel safe with a woman at my side. They do naught but bring bad luck. A lady shouldn't... Whatever he was going to say was lost, for at that instant, Burgett did a very unladylike thing. Stepping forward, she kicked Uthar between his legs and then grabbed the second man and pressed her knife against his throat. She held him for a moment so everyone could see what she had done, then released her captive. Uthar rolled on the boards by her feet, holding himself and muttering a stream of curses. "'Does anyone else have an objection?' demanded Burgett. Beside her, Nolfrevrel stared with open-mouthed amazement at his mother. Roran pulled his hood lower to conceal his grin. Good thing they haven't noticed Gertrude, he thought. When no one else challenged Burgett, Jode asked, Did you bring what I wanted? Each sailor reached inside his vest and divulged a weighted club and several lengths of rope. Thus armed, they worked their way down the harbour toward the dragon wing, doing their best to escape detection. Jode kept his lantern shuttered the whole while. Near the dock, they hid behind a warehouse and watched the two lights carried by sentries bob around the deck of the ship. The gangway had been pulled away for the night. Remember, whispered Jode, the most important thing is to keep the alarm from being sounded until we're ready to leave. Two men above, two men below, right? asked Roran. Uthar replied, that be the custom. Roran and Uthar stripped to their breeches, tied the rope and clubs around their waists. Roran left his hammer behind, and then ran farther down the wharf out of the sentry's sight, where they lowered themselves into the frigid water. Oh, I hate when I have to do this, said Uthar. You've done it before? Four times now. Don't stop moving or you'll freeze. Clinging to the slimy piles underneath the wharf, they swam back up the way they had come until they reached the stone pier that led to the dragon wing and then turned right. Uthar put his lips to Roran's ear. I'll take the starboard anchor. Roran nodded his agreement. They both dove under the black water and there they separated. Uthar swam like a frog under the bow of the ship while Roran went straight to the port anchor and clung to its thick chain. He untied the club from his waist and fit it between his teeth, as much to stop them from chattering as to free his hands, and prepared to wait. The rough metal sapped the warmth from his arms as fast as ice. Not three minutes later, Roran heard the scuff of Burgett's boots above him as she walked to the end of the pier opposite the middle of the dragon wing, and then the faint sound of her voice as she engaged the sentries in conversation. Hopefully she would keep their attention away from the bow. Now. 
Roran pulled himself hand over hand along the chain. His right shoulder burned where the razak had bit him, but he pressed on. From the porthole where the anchor chain entered the ship, he clambered up the ridges that supported the painted figurehead over the railing and onto the deck. Uthar was already there, dripping and panting. Clubs in hand, they padded toward the aft of the ship, using whatever cover they could find. They stopped not ten feet behind the sentries. The two men leaned on the rail, bandying words with Burgett. In a flash, Roran and Uthar burst into the open and struck the sentries on the head before they could draw their sabres. Below, Burgett waved for Jode and the rest of their group, and between them they raised the gangway and slid one end across to the ship, where Uthar lashed it to the railing. As Nolfavrel ran aboard, Roran tossed his rope to the boy and said, "'Tie and gag these two. Then everyone but Gertrude descended below decks to hunt for the remaining sentries. They found four additional men, the purser, the boatswain, the ship's cook, and the ship's cook's assistant, all of whom were trundled out of bed, knocked on the head if they resisted, and then securely trussed. In this, Burgett again proved her worth, capturing two men herself. Jode had the unhappy prisoners placed in a line on the deck, so they could be watched at all times, then declared, We have much to do and little time. Roran, Uthar is captain on the dragon wing. You and the others will take your orders from him. For the next two hours the ship was a frenzy of activity. The sailors tended to the rigging and sails, while Roran and those from Carvajal worked to empty the hold of extraneous supplies, such as bales of raw wool. These they lowered overboard to prevent anyone on the wharf from hearing a splash. If the entire village was to fit on the dragon wing, they needed to clear as much space as possible. Roran was in the midst of fitting a cable around a barrel when he heard the hoarse cry, Someone's coming! Everyone on deck except Jode and Uthar dropped to their bellies and reached for their weapons. The two men who remained standing paced the ship as if they were sentries. Roran's heart pounded while he lay motionless, wondering what was about to happen. He held his breath as Jode addressed the intruder. Then footsteps echoed on the gangway. It was Helen. She wore a plain dress, her hair was bound under a kerchief, and she carried a burlap sack over one shoulder. She spoke not a word, but stowed her gear in the main cabin and returned to stand by Jode. Roran thought he had never seen a happier man. The sky above the distant mountains of the spine had just begun to brighten when one of the sailors in the rigging pointed north and whistled to indicate he had spotted the villagers. Roran moved even faster. What time they had was now gone. He rushed up on deck and peered at the dark line of people advancing down the coast. This part of their plan depended on the fact that unlike other coastal cities, Tiam's outer wall had not been left open to the sea, but rather completely enclosed the bulk of the city in order to ward off frequent pirate attacks. This meant that the buildings skirting the harbour were left exposed, and that the villagers could walk right up to the dragon wing. "'Hurry now, hurry!' said Jode. At Uthar's command, the sailors brought out armfuls of javelins for the great bows on deck, as well as casks of foul-smelling tar, which they knocked open and used to paint the upper half of the javelins. Then they drew and loaded the ballistae on the starboard side. It took two men per bow to pull out the sinew cord until it caught on its hook. The villagers were two-thirds of the way to the ship, before the soldiers patrolling the battlements of Tirm spotted them 
and trumpeted the alarm. Even before that first note faded, Uthar bellowed, Light and fire em! Dashing open Jode's lantern, Nolfavel ran from one ballista to the next, holding the flame to the javelins until the tar ignited. The instant a missile caught, the man behind the bow pulled the release line, and the javelin vanished with a heavy thunk. In all, twelve blazing bolts shot from the dragon wing and pierced the ships and buildings along the bay like roaring red-hot meteors from the heavens above. "'Draw and reload!' shouted Uthar. The creak of bending wood filled the air as every man hauled back on the twisted cords. Javelins were slotted in place. Once again, Nolfavrel made his run. Roran could feel the vibration in his feet as the ballista in front of him sent its deadly projectile winging on its way. The fire quickly spread along the waterfront, forming an impenetrable barrier that prevented soldiers from reaching the dragon wing through Tiam's east gate. Roran had counted on the pillar of smoke to hide the ship from the archers on the battlements, but it was a near thing. A flight of arrows tugged at the rigging, and one dart embedded itself in the deck by Gertrude before the soldiers lost sight of the ship. From the bow, Uthar shouted, "'Pick your targets at will!' The villagers were running pell-mell down the beach now. They reached the north end of the wharf, and a handful of them stumbled and fell as the soldiers in Tiam redirected their aim. Children screamed in terror. Then the villagers regained momentum. They pounded down the planks, past a warehouse engulfed in flame, and along the pier. The panting mob charged onto the ship in a confused mass of jostling bodies. Burgett and Gertrude guided the stream of people to the fore and aft hatches. In a few minutes the various levels of the ship were packed to their limit, from the cargo hold to the captain's cabin. Those who could not fit below remained huddled on deck, holding Fisk's shields over their heads. As Roran had asked in his message, all able-bodied men from Carvajal clustered around the mainmast, waiting for instructions. Roran saw Mandel among them and tossed him a proud salute. Then Uthar pointed at a sailor and barked, "'You there, Bonden! Get those swabs to the capstans and weigh anchors! Then dart to the oars! Double time!' To the rest of the men at the ballisti, he ordered, "'Half of you leave off and take the port ballisti! Drive away any boarding parties!' Roran was one of those who switched sides. As he prepared the ballisti, a few laggards staggered out of the acrid smoke and onto the ship. Beside him, Jode and Helen hoisted the six prisoners one by one onto the gangway and rolled them onto the pier. Before Roran quite knew it, anchors had been raised, the gangway was cut loose, and a drum pounded beneath his feet, setting the tempo for the oarsmen. Ever so slowly, the dragon wing turned to starboard, toward the open sea, and then, with gathering speed, pulled away from the dock. Roran accompanied Jode to the quarter-deck where they watched the crimson inferno devour everything flammable between Tiam and the ocean. Through the filter of smoke, the sun appeared a flat, bloated, bloody orange disk as it rose over the city. "'How many have I killed now?' wondered Roran. Echoing his thoughts, Jode observed, "'This will harm a great many innocent people.' Guilt made Roran respond with more force than he intended, would you rather be in Lord Ristart's prisons? I doubt many will be injured in the blaze, and those that aren't won't face death like we will if the Empire catches us. You needn't lecture me, Roran. I know the arguments well enough. We did what we had to. 
Just don't ask me to take pleasure in the suffering we've caused to ensure our own safety. By noon, the oars had been stowed and the dragon wing sailed under her own power, propelled by favourable winds from the north. The gusts of air caused the rigging overhead to emit a low hum. The ship was miserably overcrowded, but Roram was confident that with some careful planning they could make it to Sorda with a minimum of discomfort. The worst inconvenience was that of limited rations. If they were to avoid starvation, food would have to be dispensed in miserly portions. And in such cramped quarters, disease was an all-too-likely possibility. After Uthar gave a brief speech about the importance of discipline on a ship, the villagers applied themselves to the tasks that required their immediate attention, such as tending to their wounded, unpacking their meagre belongings, and deciding upon the most efficient sleeping arrangement for each deck. They also had to choose people to fill the various positions on the dragon wing, who would cook, who would train as sailors under Uthar's men, and so forth. Roran was helping Elaine hang a hammock, when he became embroiled in a heated dispute between Odalay, her family, and Freewin, who had apparently deserted Torson's crew to stay with Odalay. The two of them wanted to marry, which Odalay's parents vehemently opposed on the grounds that the young sailor lacked a family of his own, a respectable profession, and the means to provide even a modicum of comfort for their daughter. Roran thought it best if the enamoured couple remained together. It seemed impractical to try and separate them while they remained confined to the same ship, but Odalay's parents refused to give his arguments credence. Frustrated, Roran said, "'What would you do, then? You can't lock her away.' and I believe Freewin has proved his devotion more than... Razak! The cry came from the crow's nest. Without a second thought, Roran yanked his hammer from his belt, whirled about, and scrambled up the ladder through the fore hatchway, barking his shin on the way. He sprinted toward the knot of people on the quarter-deck, coming to a halt beside Horst. The smith pointed. One of the Razak's dread steeds drifted like a tattered shadow above the edge of the coastline a razak on its back. Seeing the two monsters exposed in daylight in no way diminished the creeping horror they inspired in Roran. He shuddered as the winged creature uttered its terrifying shriek, and then the razak's insectile voice drifted across the water, faint but distinct. You shall not escape! Roran looked at the ballistae but they could not turn far enough to aim at the Razak or its mount. Does anyone have a bow? I do, said Baldor. He dropped to one knee and began to string his weapon. Don't let them see me. Everyone on the quarter-deck gathered in a tight circle around Baldor, shielding him with their bodies from the Razak's malevolent gaze. Why don't they attack? growled Horst. Puzzled, Roran reached for an explanation but found none. It was Jode who suggested, Perhaps it's too bright for them. The Razak hunt at night, and so far as I know they do not willingly venture forth from their lairs while the sun is yet in the sky. It's not just that, said Gertrude slowly. I think they're afraid of the ocean. Afraid of the ocean? scoffed Horst. Watch them. They don't fly more than a yard over the water at any given time. She's right, said Roran. At last, a weakness I can use against them. A few seconds later, Baldor said, Ready. 
At his word, the ranks of people who stood before him jumped aside, clearing the path for his arrow. Baldor sprang to his feet, and in a single motion pulled the feather to his cheek and loosed the reed shaft. It was a heroic shot. The Razak was at the extreme edge of the longbow's range, far beyond any mark Roran had seen an archer hit, and yet Baldor's aim was true. His arrow struck the flying creature on the right flank, and the beast gave a scream of pain so great that the glass on the deck was shattered, and the stones on the shore were riven in shards. Roran clapped his hands over his ears to protect them from the hideous blast. Still screaming, the monster veered inland and dropped behind a line of misty hills. "'Did you kill it?' asked Jode, his face pale. "'I fear not,' replied Baldor. "'It was naught but a flesh wound.' Loring, who had just arrived, observed with satisfaction, "'Aye, but at least you hurt him, and I'd wager they'll think twice about bothering us again.' Gloom settled over Roran. Save your triumph for later, Loring. This was no victory. Why not? demanded Horst. Because now the Empire knows exactly where we are. The quarterdeck fell silent as they grasped the implications of what he had said. Child's Play And this, said Triana, is the latest pattern we've invented. Nasuada took the black veil from the sorceress and ran it through her hands, marvelling at its quality. No human could throw lace that fine. She gazed with satisfaction at the rows of boxes on her desk, which contained samples of the many designs Duvrangelgata now produced. "'You've done well,' she said, "'far better than I had hoped. Tell your spellcasters how pleased I am with their work. It means much to the Varden.' Triana inclined her head at the praise. I will convey your message to them, Lady Nasawada. Have they yet? A disturbance at the doors to her quarters interrupted Nasawada. She heard her guards swear and raise their voices, then a yelp of pain. The sound of metal clashing on metal rang in the hallway. Nasawada backed away from the door in alarm, drawing her dagger from its sheath. Run, lady, said Triana. The sorceress placed herself in front of Nasawada and pushed back her sleeves, bearing her white arms in preparation to work magic. Take the servant's entrance. Before Nasawada could move, the doors burst open and a small figure tackled her legs, knocking her to the floor. Even as Nasawada fell, a silvery object flashed through the space she had just occupied, burying itself in the far wall with a dull thud. Then the four guards entered, and all was confusion, as Nasuada felt them drag her assailant off her. When Nasuada managed to stand, she saw Elva hanging in their grip. "'What is the meaning of this?' demanded Nasuada. The black-haired girl smiled, then doubled over and retched on the braided rug. Afterwards she fixed her violet eyes on Nasuada, and in her terrible, knowing voice she said, "'Have your magician examine the wall.' O daughter of Ajiad, and see if I have not fulfilled my promise to you. Nasuada nodded to Triana, who glided to the splintered hole in the wall and muttered a spell. She returned, holding a metal dart. This was buried in the wood. But where did it come from? asked Nasuada, bewildered. 
Triana gestured toward the open window overlooking the city of Aberon. Somewhere out there, I guess. Naswada returned her attention to the waiting child. What do you know about this, Elva? The girl's horrible smile widened. It was an assassin. Who sent him? An assassin trained by Galbatorix himself in the dark uses of magic. Her burning eyes grew half-lidded, as if she were in a trance. The man hates you. He's coming for you. He would have killed you if I hadn't stopped him. She lurched forward and retched again, spewing half-digested food across the floor. Nasuada gagged with revulsion. And he's about to suffer great pain. Why is that? Because I will tell you he stays in the hostel on Fane Street, in the last room on the top floor. You had better hurry, or he'll get away, away. She groaned like a wounded beast and clutched her belly. Hurry, before Aragon's spell forces me to stop you from hurting him. You'll be sorry then. Triana was already moving, as Nasuada said. Tell Jormanda what's happened. Then take your strongest magicians and hunt down this man. Capture him if you can. Kill him if you can't. After the sorceress left, Nasuada looked at her men and saw that their legs were bleeding from numerous small cuts. She realized what it must have cost Elva to hurt them. Go, she told them. Find a healer who can mend your injuries. The warriors shook their heads and their captain said, No, ma'am. We will stay by your side until we know it's safe again. As you see fit, Captain. The men barricaded the windows, which worsened the already sweltering heat that plagued Borromeo Castle. Then everyone retreated to her inner chambers for further protection. Naswara paced, her heart pounding with delayed shock as she contemplated how close she had come to being killed. What would become of the Varden if I died? she wondered. Who would succeed me? Dismay gripped her. She had made no arrangements for the Varden in the event of her own demise, an oversight that now seemed a monumental failing. I won't allow the Varden to be thrown into chaos because I failed to take precautions. She halted. I am in your debt, Elva. Now and forever. Nasuada faltered, disconcerted as she often was by the girl's responses, then continued, I apologize for not ordering my guards to let you pass night or day. I should have anticipated an event like this. You should have, agreed Elva in a mocking tone. Smoothing the front of her dress, Nasawada resumed pacing, as much to escape the sight of Elva's stone-white, dragon-marked face as to disperse her own nervous energy. How did you escape your rooms unaccompanied? I told my caretaker, Greta, what she wanted to hear. That's all? Elva blinked. It made her very happy. And what of Angela? She left on an errand this morning. Well, be as that may, you have my gratitude for saving my life. Ask me any boon you want, and I shall grant it, if it's within my power. Elva glanced around the ornate bedroom then said, Do you have any food? I'm hungry. Premonition of War 
Two hours later, Triana returned, leading a pair of warriors who carried a limp body between them. At Triana's word, the men dropped the corpse on the floor. Then the sorceress said, We found the assassin where Elva said we would. Drail was his name. Motivated by a morbid curiosity, Nasuada examined the face of the man who had tried to kill her. The assassin was short, bearded, and plain-looking, no different from countless other men in the city. She felt a certain connection to him, as if his attempt on her life and the fact that she had arranged his death in return linked them in the most intimate manner possible. How was he killed? she asked. I see no marks on his body. He committed suicide with magic when we overwhelmed his defences and entered his mind, but before we could take control of his actions. Were you able to learn anything of use before he died? We were. Drail was part of a network of agents based here in Surda who are loyal to Galbatorix. They are called the Black Hand. They spy on us, sabotage our war efforts, and, best we could determine in our brief glimpse into Drail's memories, are responsible for dozens of murders throughout the Varden. Apparently, they've been waiting for a good chance to kill you ever since we arrived from Farthandur. Why hasn't this Black Hand assassinated King Orin yet? Triana shrugged. I can't say. It may be that Galbatorix considers you to be more of a threat than Orin. If that's the case, then once the Black Hand realizes you are protected from their attacks... Here her gaze darted toward Elva. Orin won't live another month unless he is guarded by magicians day and night. Or perhaps Galbatorix has abstained from such direct action because he wanted the Black Hand to remain unnoticed. Surda has always existed at his tolerance. Now that it's become a threat... Can you protect Orin as well? asked Naswada, turning to Elva. Her violet eyes seemed to glow. Maybe, if he asks nicely. Naswada's thoughts raced as she considered how to thwart this new menace. Can all of Galbatorix's agents use magic? Drail's mind was confused, so it's hard to tell, said Triana. But I'd guess a fair number of them can. Magic, cursed Naswada to herself. The greatest danger the Varden faced from magicians or any person trained in the use of their mind, was not assassination, but rather espionage. Magicians could spy on people's thoughts and glean information that could be used to destroy the Varden. That was precisely why Nasuada and the entire command structure of the Varden had been taught to know when someone was touching their minds and how to shield themselves from such attentions. Nasuada suspected that Orin and Hothgar relied upon similar precautions within their own governments. However, since it was impractical for everyone privy to potentially damaging information to master that skill, one of Duvrangelgata's many responsibilities was to hunt for anyone who was siphoning off facts as they appeared in people's minds. The cost of such vigilance was that Duvrangelgata ended up spying on the Varden as much as on their enemies, a fact that Nasuada made sure to conceal from the bulk of her followers, for it would only sow hatred, distrust, and dissent. She disliked the practice, but saw no alternative. What she had learned about the Black Hand hardened Nasuada's conviction that somehow magicians had to be governed. Why, she asked, didn't you discover this sooner? 
I can understand that you might miss a lone assassin, but an entire network of spellcasters dedicated to our destruction. Explain yourself, Triana. The sorceress's eyes flashed with anger at the accusation, because here, unlike in Farthendur, we cannot examine everyone's mind for duplicity. There are just too many people for us magicians to keep track of. That is why we didn't know about the Black Hand until now, Lady Nasuada. Nasuada paused, then inclined her head. Understood. Did you discover the identities of any other members of the Black Hand? A few. Good. Use them to ferret out the rest of the agents. I want you to destroy this organization for me, Triana. Eradicate them as you would an infestation of vermin. I'll give you however many men you need. The sorceress bowed. As you wish, Lady Nasuada. At a knock on the door, the guards drew their swords and positioned themselves on either side of the entranceway. Then their captain yanked open the door without warning. A young page stood outside, a fist raised to knock again. He stared with astonishment at the body on the floor, then snapped to attention as the captain asked, What is it, boy? I have a message for Lady Nasuada from King Orin. Then speak, and be quick about it, said Nasuada. The page took a moment to compose himself. King Orin requests that you attend him directly in his council chambers, for he has received reports from the Empire that demand your immediate attention. Is that all? Yes, ma'am. I must attend to this. Triana, you have your orders. Captain, will you leave one of your men to dispose of Drail? Aye, ma'am. Also, please have him locate Farica, my handmaid. She will see to it that my study is cleaned. And what of me? asked Elva, tilting her head. You, said Nasawada, shall accompany me. That is, if you feel strong enough to do so. The girl threw back her head, and from her small round mouth emanated a cold laugh. I'm strong enough, Nasuada. Are you? Ignoring the question, Nasuada swept forth into the hallway with her guards clustered around her. The stones of the castle exuded an earthy smell in the heat. Behind her she heard the patter of Elva's footsteps, and was perversely pleased that the ghastly child had to hurry to keep pace with the adult's longer stride. The guards remained behind in the vestibule to the council chambers while Nasuada and Elva proceeded inside. The chambers were bare to the point of severity, reflecting the militant nature of Surda's existence. The country's kings had devoted their resources to protecting their people and overthrowing Galbatorix, not to decorating Borromeo Castle with idle riches, as the dwarves had done with Trongine. In the main room lay a rough-hewn table twelve feet long, upon which a map of Allegasia was staked open with daggers at the four corners. As was custom, Orin sat at the head of the table, while his various advisers, many of whom Nasuada knew vehemently opposed her, occupied the chairs farther down. The Council of Elders was also present. Nasuada noticed the concern on Jormunda's face as he looked at her, and deduced that Triana had indeed told him about Drail. Sire, you asked for me? Orin rose. That I did. We have now— He stopped in mid-word as he noticed Elva. Ah, yes, shining brow. I have not had the opportunity to grant you audience before, though accounts of your feats have reached my ear, and I must confess I have been most curious to meet you. Have you found the quarters I arranged for you satisfactory? They are quite nice, sire. Thank you. At the sound of her eerie voice, the voice of an adult, everyone at the table flinched. 
Erwin, the Prime Minister, bolted upright and pointed a quivering finger at Elva. Why have you brought this, this abomination here? You forget your manners, sir, replied Nasuada, though she understood his sentiment. Orin frowned. Yes, do restrain yourself, Erwin. However, his point is valid, Nasuada. We cannot have this child present at our deliberations. The Empire, she said, has just tried to assassinate me. The room echoed with cries of surprise. If it were not for Elva's swift action, I would be dead. As a result, I have taken her into my confidence. Where I go, she goes. Let them wonder what it is exactly Elva can do. This is indeed distressing news, exclaimed the king. Have you caught the blackguard responsible? Seeing the eager expressions of his advisers, Nasuada hesitated. It would be best to wait until I can give you an account in private, sire. Orin appeared put out by her response, but he did not pursue the issue. Very well, but sit, sit. We have just received the most troubling report. After Nasuara took her place opposite him, Elva lurking behind her, he continued, It seems that our spies in Gilead have been deceived as to the status of Galbatorix's army. How so? They believe the army to be in Gilead. Whereas we have here a missive from one of our men in Urubain, who says that he witnessed a great host march south past the capital a week and a half ago. It was night, so he could not be sure of their numbers, but he was certain that the host was far larger than the sixteen thousand that formed the core of Galbatorix's troops. There may have been as many as a hundred thousand soldiers or more. A hundred thousand? A cold pit of fear settled in Nasuara's stomach. Can we trust your source? His intelligence has always been reliable. I don't understand, said Nasuada. How could Galbatorix move that many men without our knowing of it before? The supply trains alone would be miles long. It's been obvious the army was mobilizing, but the Empire was nowhere near ready to deploy. Falbert spoke then, slapping a heavy hand on the table for emphasis. We were outfoxed. Our spies must have been deceived with magic to think the army was still in their barracks in Gilead. Nasuada felt the blood drain from her face. The only person strong enough to sustain an illusion of that size and duration is Galbert Torix himself, completed Orin. That was our conclusion. It means that Galbert Torix has finally abandoned his lair in favor of open combat. Even as we speak, the black foe approaches. Erwin leaned forward. The question now is how we should respond. We must confront this threat, of course. But in what manner? Where, when, and how? Our own forces aren't prepared for a campaign of this magnitude, while yours, Lady Naswada, the Varden, are already accustomed to the fierce clamor of war. What do you mean to imply? that we should die for you? I but made an observation. Take it how you will. Then Orin said, Alone we will be crushed against an army so large. We must have allies, and above all else we must have Aragon, especially if we are to confront Galbatorix. Nasuada, will you send for him? I would if I could, but until Arya returns I have no way to contact the elves or to summon Aragon. In that case, said Orin in a heavy voice, 
We must hope that she arrives before it is too late. I do not suppose we can expect the elves' assistance in this affair. While a dragon may traverse the leagues between Aberon and Elismira with the speed of a falcon, it would be impossible for the elves to marshal themselves and cross the same distance before the Empire reaches us. That leaves only the dwarves. I know that you have been friends with Hrothgar for many years. Will you send him a plea for help on our behalf? The dwarves have always promised they would fight when the time came. Nasuada nodded. Duvrangergata has an arrangement with certain dwarf magicians that allows us to transfer messages instantaneously. I will convey your... our request, and I will ask Hrothgar to send an emissary to Ceres to inform the elves of the situation so that they are forewarned, if nothing else. Good. We are quite a ways from Farthendur, but if we can delay the Empire for even a week, the dwarves might be able to get here in time. The discussion that followed was an exceedingly grim one. Various tactics existed for defeating a larger, though not necessarily superior, force, but no one at the table could imagine how they might defeat Galbatorix, especially when Aragon was still so powerless compared to the ancient king. The only ploy that might succeed would be to surround Aragon with as many magicians, dwarf and human, as possible, and then attempt to force Galbatorix to confront them alone. The problem with that plan, thought Nasuada, is that Galbatorix overcame far more formidable enemies during his destruction of the riders, and his strength has only grown since. She was certain that this had occurred to everyone else as well. If we but had the elves spellweavers to swell our ranks, then victory might be within our reach. Without them, if we cannot overthrow Galbatorix, the only avenue left may be to flee Alagazia across the Sundering Sea and find a new land in which to build a life for ourselves. There we could wait until Galbatorix is no more. Even he cannot endure forever. The only certainty is that eventually all things shall pass. They moved on then from tactics to logistics, and here the debate became far more acrimonious as the Council of Elders argued with Orin's advisers over the distribution of responsibilities between the Varden and Surda. Who should pay for this or that, provide rations for labourers who worked for both groups, manage the provisions for their respective warriors, and how numerous other related subjects should be dealt with. In the midst of the verbal fray, Orin pulled a scroll from his belt and said to Nasuada, On the matter of finances, would you be so kind as to explain a rather curious item that was brought to my attention? I'll do my best, sire. I hold in my hand a complaint from the Weavers' Guild, which asserts that weavers throughout Surda have lost a good share of their profits because the textile market has been inundated with extraordinarily cheap lace. Lace, they swear, originates with the Varden. A pained look crossed his face. It seems foolish to even ask, but does their claim have basis in fact? And if so, why would the Varden do such a thing? Nasuada made no attempt to hide her smile. If you remember, sire, when you refused to lend the Varden more gold, you advised me to find another way for us to support ourselves. So I did. What of it? asked Orin, narrowing his eyes. Well, it struck me that while lace takes a long time to make by hand, which is why it's so expensive, lace is quite easy to produce using magic, due to the small amount of energy involved. 
You, of all people, as a natural philosopher, should appreciate that. By selling our lace here and in the empire, we have been able to fully fund our efforts. The Varden no longer want for food or shelter. Few things in her life pleased Nasawada so much as Orin's incredulous expression at that instant. The scroll frozen halfway between his chin and the table, his slightly parted mouth, and the quizzical frown upon his brow conspired to give him the stunned appearance of a man who had just seen something he did not understand. She savoured the sight. Lace! he sputtered. Yes, sire. You can't fight Galbatorix with lace? Why not, sire? He struggled for a moment, then growled, Because, because it's not respectable, that's why. What bard would compose an epic about our deeds and write about lace? We do not fight in order to have epics written in our praise. Then blast epics! How am I supposed to answer the Weaver's Guild? By selling your lace so cheaply you hurt people's livelihoods and undermine our economy. It won't do. It won't do at all. Letting her smile become sweet and warm, Nasuada said in her friendliest tone, Oh dear, if it's too much of a burden for your treasury, the Varden would be more than willing to offer you a loan in return for the kindness you've shown us, at a suitable rate of interest, of course. The Council of Elders managed to maintain their decorum, but behind Nasuada, Elva uttered a quick laugh of amusement. Red Blade, White Blade The moment the sun appeared over the tree-lined horizon, Eragon deepened his breathing, willed his heart to quicken, and opened his eyes as he returned to full awareness. He had not been asleep, for he had not slept since his transformation. When he felt weary and lay himself down to rest, he entered a state that was unto a waking dream. There he beheld many wondrous visions, and walked among the grey shades of his memories, yet all the while remained aware of his surroundings. He watched the sunrise, and thoughts of Arya filled his mind, as they had every hour since the Agate Blodron two days before. The morning after the celebration, he had gone looking for her in Tildari Hall, intending to try and make amends for his behaviour, only to discover that she had already left for Surda. When will I see her again? he wondered. In the clear light of day, he had realized just how much the elves and dragons' magic had dulled his wits during the Agate Blodron. I may have acted a fool, but it wasn't entirely my fault. I was no more responsible for my conduct than if I were drunk. Still, he had meant every word he said to Arya, even if normally he would not have revealed so much of himself. A rejection cut Aragon to the quick. Freed of the enchantments that had clouded his mind, he was forced to admit that she was probably right, that the difference between their ages was too great to overcome. It was a difficult thing for him to accept, and once he had, the knowledge only increased his anguish. Aragon had heard the expression heartbroken before. Until then, he always considered it a fanciful description, not an actual physical symptom. But now he felt a deep ache in his chest, like that of a sore muscle, and each beat of his heart pained him. His only comfort was Sephira. In those two days she had never criticized what he had done, nor did she leave his side for more than a few minutes at a time, lending him the support of her companionship. She talked to him a great deal as well, 
doing her best to draw him out of his shell of silence. To keep himself from brooding over Arya, Eragon took Oric's puzzle ring from his nightstand and rolled it between his fingers, marvelling at how keen his senses had become. He could feel every flaw in the twisted metal. As he studied the ring, he perceived a pattern in the arrangement of the gold bands, a pattern that had escaped him before. Trusting his instinct, he manipulated the bands in the sequence suggested by his observation. To his delight, the eight pieces fit together perfectly, forming a solid whole. He slid the ring onto the fourth finger of his right hand, admiring how the woven bands caught the light. You could not do that before, observed Sephira from the bowl in the floor where she slept. I can see many things that were once hidden to me. Eragon went to the wash closet and performed his morning ablutions, including removing the stubble from his cheeks with a spell. Despite the fact that he now closely resembled an elf, he had retained the ability to grow a beard. Oric was waiting for them when Eragon and Sephira arrived at the sparring field. His eyes brightened as Eragon lifted his hand and displayed the completed puzzle ring. You solved it, then! It took me longer than I expected, said Eragon. But yes. Are you here to practice as well? Nay. I already got in a bit of axe-work with an elf who took a rather fiendish delight in cracking me over the head. No, I came to watch you fight. You've seen me fight before, pointed out Eragon. Not for a while, I haven't. You mean you're curious to see how I've changed? Oric shrugged in response. Vanner approached from across the field. He cried, Are you ready, Shade Slayer? The elf's condescending demeanour had lessened since their last duel before the Agate Blodron, but not by much. I'm ready. Eragon and Vanner squared off against each other in an open area of the field. Emptying his mind, Eragon grasped and drew Zarok as fast as he could. To his surprise, the sword felt as if it weighed no more than a willow wand. Without the expected resistance, Eragon's arm snapped straight, tearing the sword from his hand and sending it whirling twenty yards to his right, where it buried itself in the trunk of a pine tree. "'Can you not even hold on to your blade, Rider?' demanded Vanner. "'I apologize, Vanna Voda,' gasped Eragon. He clutched his elbow, rubbing the bruised joint to lessen the pain. "'I misjudged my strength.' See that it does not happen again. Going to the tree, Vanna gripped Zarok's hilt and tried to pull the sword free. The weapon remained motionless. Vanna's eyebrows met as he frowned at the unyielding crimson blade as if he suspected some form of trickery. Bracing himself, the elf heaved backward and with a crack of wood yanked Zarok out of the pine. Aragon accepted the sword from Vanna and hefted Zarok, troubled by how light it was. Something's wrong he thought. Take your place. This time it was Vanna who initiated the fight. In a single bound he crossed the distance between them and thrust his blade toward Aragon's right shoulder. To Aragon it seemed as if the elf moved slower than usual, as if Vanna's reflexes had been reduced to the level of a human's. It was easy for Aragon to deflect Vanna's sword, blue sparks flying from the metal as their blades grated against one another. Vanna landed with an astonished expression. He struck again, and Eragon evaded the sword by leaning back, like a tree swaying in the wind. In quick succession, Vanna rained a score of heavy blows upon Eragon, each of which Eragon dodged or blocked, using Zarok's sheath as often as the sword to foil Vanna's onslaught. 
Aragorn soon realized that the spectral dragon from the Agate Blodron had done more than alter his appearance. It had also granted him the elves' physical abilities. In strength and speed, Aragorn now matched even the most athletic elf. Fired by that knowledge and a desire to test his limits, Aragorn jumped as high as he could. Zarok flashed crimson in the sunlight as he flew skyward, soaring more than ten feet above the ground before he flipped like an acrobat and came down behind Vanna, facing the direction from which he had started. A fierce laugh erupted from Aragorn. No more was he helpless before elves, shades, and other creatures of magic. No more would he suffer the elves' contempt. No more would he have to rely on Sephira or Arya to rescue him from enemies like Durza. He charged Vanna, and the field rang with a furious din as they strove against each other, raging back and forth upon the trampled grass. The force of their blows created gusts of wind that whipped their hair into tangled disarray. Overhead the trees shook and dropped their needles. The duel lasted long into the morning, for even with Aragorn's newfound skill, Vanna was still a formidable opponent. But in the end, Aragorn would not be denied. Playing Zarok in a circle, he darted past Vanna's guard and struck him upon the upper arm, breaking the bone. Vanna dropped his blade, his face turning white with shock. How swift is your sword, he said, and Aragorn recognized the famous line from the Lay of Umhoden. By the gods, exclaimed Oric, that was the best swordsmanship I've ever seen, and I was there when you fought Arya in Farthendur. Then Vanna did what Aragorn had never expected. The elf twisted his uninjured hand in a gesture of fealty, placed it upon his sternum, and bowed. I beg your pardon for my earlier behavior, Aragorn Elder. I thought that you had consigned my race to the void, and out of my fear I acted most shamefully. However, it seems that your race no longer endangers our cause. In a grudging voice he added, you are now worthy of the title Rider. Aragon bowed in return. You honor me. I am sorry that I injured you so badly. Will you allow me to heal your arm? No. I shall let nature tend to it at her own pace, as a memento that I once crossed blades with Aragon Shadeslayer. You needn't fear that it will disrupt our sparring tomorrow. I am equally good with my left hand. They both bowed again and then Vanna departed. Oryx slapped a hand on his thigh and said, Now we have a chance of victory, a real chance. I can feel it in my bones. Bones like stone, they say. Ah, this'll please Hrothgar and Nasuada to no end. Eragon kept his peace and concentrated on removing the block from Zarok's edges. But he said to Sephira, If Braun were all that was required to depose Galbatorix, the elves would have done it long ago. Still, he could not help being pleased by his heightened prowess, as well as by his long-awaited reprieve from the torment of his back. Without the constant bursts of pain, it was as if a haze had been lifted from his mind, allowing him to think clearly once again. A few minutes remained before they were supposed to meet with Oromis and Gleda, so Eragon took his bow and quiver from where they hung on Sephira's back and walked to the range where elves practised archery. Since the elves' bows were much more powerful than his, their padded targets were both too small and too far away for him. He had to shoot from halfway down the range. Taking his place, Aragorn knocked an arrow and slowly pulled back the string, delighted by how easy it had become. He aimed 
released the arrow and held his position, waiting to see if he would hit his mark. Like a maddened hornet, the dart buzzed toward the target and buried itself in the center. He grinned. Again and again he fired at the target, his speed increasing with his confidence until he loosed thirty arrows in a minute. At the thirty-first arrow, he pulled on the string slightly harder than he had ever done or was capable of doing before. With an explosive report, the U-bow broke in half underneath his left hand, scratching his fingers and discharging a burst of splinters from the back of the bow. His hand went numb from the jolt. Aragon stared at the remains of his weapon, dismayed by the loss. Garrow had made it as a birthday present for him over three years ago. Since then, hardly a week went by when Aragon had not used his bow. It had helped him to provide food for his family on numerous occasions when they would have otherwise gone hungry. With it, he had killed his first deer. With it, he had killed his first urgle. And through it, he had first used magic. Losing his bow was like losing an old friend who could be relied upon in even the worst situation. Sephira sniffed the two pieces of wood dangling from his grip and said, It seems you need a new stick-thrower. He grunted, in no mood to talk, and stomped out to retrieve his arrows. From the open field, he and Sephira flew to the white crags of Telnair and presented themselves to Oromis, who was seated on a stool in front of his hut, gazing out over the cliff with his far-seeing eyes. He said, Have you entirely recovered, Aragon, from the potent magic of the Blood Oath celebration? I have, Master. A long silence followed as Oromis drank from a cup of blackberry tea and resumed contemplating the ancient forest. Aragon waited without complaint. He was used to such pauses when dealing with the old rider. At length Oromis said, Leda explained to me as best he could what was done to you during the celebration. Such a thing has never before occurred in the history of the riders. Once again the dragons have proved themselves capable of far more than we imagined. He sipped his tea. Glader was uncertain exactly what changes you would experience, so I would like you to describe the full extent of your transformation, including your appearance. Aragon quickly summarized how he had been altered, detailing the increased sensitivity of his sight, smell, hearing, and touch, and ending with an account of his clash with Vanna. And how, asked Oromis, do you feel about this? Do you resent that your body was manipulated without your permission? No, no, not at all. I might have resented it before the Battle of Fardendur, but now I'm just grateful that my back doesn't hurt any more. I would have willingly submitted myself to far greater changes in order to escape Durza's curse. No, my only response is gratitude. Oromis nodded. I am glad that you are wise enough to take that position for your gift is worth more than all the gold in the world. With it I believe that our feet are at last set upon the correct path. Again he sipped his tea. Let us proceed. Sephira, Glader expects you at the Stone of Broken Eggs. Aragon, you will begin today with the third level of Rimgar if you can. I would know everything you are capable of. Aragon started toward the square of Tamped Earth, where they usually performed the dance of snake and crane, then hesitated when the silver-haired elf remained behind. Master, won't you join me? A sad smile graced Oromus's face. Not today, Aragon. 
The spells required by the blood oath celebration exacted a heavy toll from me. That and my condition, it took the last of my strength to come sit outside. I am sorry, master. Does he resent that the dragons didn't choose to heal him as well? wondered Aragon. He immediately discounted the thought. Aramis would never be so petty. Do not be. It is no fault of yours that I am crippled. As Aragon struggled to complete the third level of the Rimgar, it became obvious that he still lacked the elves' balance and flexibility, two attributes that even the elves had to work to acquire. In a way, he welcomed those limitations, for if he was perfect, what was left for him to accomplish? The following weeks were difficult for Aragon. On one hand, he made enormous progress with his training, mastering subject after subject that had once confounded him. He still found Oromus's lessons challenging, but he no longer felt as if he were drowning in a sea of his own inadequacy. It was easier for Aragon to read and write, and his increased strength meant that he could now cast elven spells that required so much energy they would kill any normal human. His strength also made him aware of how weak Oromus was compared to other elves. And yet, despite those accomplishments, Aragon experienced a growing sense of discontent. No matter how hard he tried to forget Arya, every day that passed increased his yearning, an agony made worse by knowing that she did not want to see or talk with him. But more than that, it seemed to him as if an ominous storm was gathering beyond the edge of the horizon, a storm that threatened to break at any moment and sweep across the land, devastating everything in its path. Zephyra shared his unease. She said, The world is stretched thin, Aragon. Soon it will snap, and madness will burst forth. What you feel is what we dragons feel, and what the elves feel, the inexorable march of grim fate as the end of our age approaches. Weep for those who will die in the chaos that shall consume Alagazia, and hope that we may win a brighter future by the strength of your sword and shield, and my fangs and talons." Visions, near and far. The day came when Aragon went to the glade beyond Oromus's hut, seated himself on the polished white stump in the centre of the mossy hollow, and when he opened his mind to observe the creatures around him, sensed not just the birds, beasts and insects, but also the plants of the forest. The plants possessed a different type of consciousness than animals, slow, deliberate and decentralised but in their own way just as cognizant of their surroundings as Aragon himself was. The faint pulse of the plant's awareness bathed the galaxy of stars that wheeled behind his eyes, each bright spark representing a life in a soft, omnipresent glow. Even the most barren soil teemed with organisms. The land itself was alive and sentient. Intelligent life, he concluded, existed everywhere. As Aragon immersed himself in the thoughts and feelings of the beings around him, he was able to attain a state of inner peace so profound that during that time he ceased to exist as an individual. He allowed himself to become a non-entity, a void, a receptacle for the voices of the world. Nothing escaped his attention, for his attention was focused on nothing. He was the forest and its inhabitants. Is that what a god feels like? wondered Aragon when he returned to himself. He left the glade, sought out Oromus in his hut, and knelt before the elf, saying, Master, 
I have done as you told me to. I listened until I heard no more. Aramis paused in his writing, and with a thoughtful expression looked at Aragon. Tell me. For an hour and a half, Aragon waxed eloquent about every aspect of the plants and animals that populated the glade, until Aramis raised his hand and said, I am convinced. You heard all there was to hear. But did you understand it all? No, master. That is as it should be. Comprehension will come with age. Well done, Neragon Finiarel. Well done indeed. If you were my student in Illyria, before Galbatorix rose to power, you would have just graduated from your apprenticeship, and would be considered a full member of our order, and accorded the same rights and privileges as even the oldest riders. Oramis pushed himself up out of his chair, and then remained standing in place, swaying. Lend me your shoulder, Eragon, and help me outside. My limbs betray my will. Hurrying to his master's side, Eragon supported the elf's slight weight, as Oramis hobbled to the brook that rushed headlong toward the edge of the crags of Telnair. Now that you have reached this stage in your education, I can teach you one of the greatest secrets of magic, a secret that even Galbatorix may not know. It is your best hope of matching his power. The elf's gaze sharpened. What is the cost of magic, Eragon? Energy. A spell costs the same amount of energy as it would to complete the task through mundane means. Oramis nodded. And where does the energy come from? The spellcaster's body. Does it have to? Eragon's mind raced as he considered the awesome implications of Oramis's question. You mean it can come from other sources? That is exactly what happens whenever Sephira assists you with a spell. Yes, but she and I share a unique connection, protested Aragon. Our bond is the reason I can draw upon her strength. To do that with someone else, I would have to enter... He trailed off as he realized what Oramis was driving at. You would have to enter the consciousness of the being or beings who was going to provide the energy said Oramis, completing Aragon's thought. Today you prove that you can do just that with even the smallest form of life. Now. He stopped and pressed a hand against his chest as he coughed, then continued, I want you to extract a sphere of water from the stream, using only the energy you can glean from the forest around you. Yes, master. As Aragon reached out to the nearby plants and animals, he felt Oramus's mind brush against his own, the elf watching and judging his progress. Frowning with concentration, Aragon endeavoured to eke the needed force from the environment and hold it within himself until he was ready to release the magic. Aragon, do not take it from me. I am weak enough as is. Startled, Aragon realised that he had included Oramus in his search. I'm sorry, master, he said, chastised. He resumed the process, careful to avoid draining the elf's vitality, and when he was ready, commanded, Up! Silent as the night, a sphere of water a foot wide rose from the brook until it floated at eye level across from Aragon, and while Aragon experienced the usual strain that results from intense effort, the spell itself caused him no fatigue. The sphere was only in the air for a moment, when a wave of death rolled through the smaller creatures Aragon was in contact with. 
A line of ants keeled over motionless. A baby mouse gasped and entered the void as it lost the strength to keep its heart beating. Countless plants withered and crumbled and became inert as dust. Eragon flinched, horrified by what he had caused. Given his new respect for the sanctity of life, he found the crime appalling. What made it worse was that he was intimately linked with each being as it ceased to exist. It was as if he himself were dying over and over. He severed the flow of magic, letting the sphere of water splash across the ground, and then whirled on Oromus and growled, You knew that would happen! An expression of profound sorrow engulfed the ancient rider. It was necessary, he replied. Necessary that so many had to die? Necessary that you understand the terrible price of using this type of magic. Mere words cannot convey the feeling of having those whose minds you share die. You had to experience it for yourself. I won't do that again, vowed Aragon. Nor will you have to. If you are disciplined, you can choose to draw the power only from plants and animals that can withstand the loss. It's impractical in battle, but you may do so in your lessons. Oromis gestured at him, and still simmering, Aragon allowed the elf to lean on him as they returned to the hut. You see why this technique was not taught to younger riders. If it were to become known to a spellweaver of evil disposition, he or she could wreak vast amounts of destruction, especially since it would be difficult to stop anyone with access to so much power. Once they were back inside, the elf sighed, lowered himself into his chair, and pressed the tips of his fingers together. Eragon sat as well. Since it's possible to absorb energy from... He waved his hand. From life. Is it also possible to absorb it directly from light or fire, or from any of the other forms of energy? Ah, Eragon, if it were, we could destroy Galbatorix in an instant. We can exchange energy with other living beings. We can use that energy to move our bodies or to fuel a spell, and we can even store that energy in certain objects for later use. But we cannot assimilate the fundamental forces of nature. Reason says that it can be done, but no one has managed to devise a spell that allows it. Nine days later, Eragon presented himself to Oromis and said, Master, it struck me last night that neither you nor the hundreds of elven scrolls I've read have mentioned your religion. What do elves believe? A long sigh was Oromus's first answer. Then, we believe that the world behaves according to certain inviolable rules, and that by persistent effort we can discover those rules and use them to predict events when circumstances repeat. Eragon blinked. That did not tell him what he wanted to know. But who or what do you worship? Nothing. You worship the concept of nothing? No, Eragon, we do not worship at all. The thought was so alien it took Eragon several moments to grasp what Oromis meant. The villagers of Carvajal lacked a single overriding doctrine, but they did share a collection of superstitions and rituals, most of which concerned warding off bad luck. During the course of his training, it had dawned upon Eragon that many of the phenomena that the villagers attributed to supernatural sources were in fact natural processes, such as when he learned in his meditations that maggots hatched from fly eggs 
instead of spontaneously arising from the dirt as he had thought before. Nor did it make sense for him to put out an offering of food to keep sprites from turning the milk sour, when he knew that sour milk was actually caused by a proliferation of tiny organisms in the liquid. Still, Aragon remained convinced that otherworldly forces influenced the world in mysterious ways, a belief that his exposure to the dwarves' religion had bolstered. He said, Where do you think the world came from, then, if it wasn't created by the gods? Which gods, Aragon? Your gods, the dwarf gods, our gods. Someone must have created it. Oromis raised an eyebrow. I would not necessarily agree with you. But be as that may, I cannot prove that gods do not exist. Nor can I prove that the world and everything in it was not created by an entity or entities in the distant past. But I can tell you that in the millennia we elves have studied nature, we have never witnessed an instance where the rules that govern the world have been broken. That is, we have never seen a miracle. Many events have defied our ability to explain, but we are convinced that we failed because we are still woefully ignorant about the universe, and not because a deity altered the workings of nature. A god wouldn't have to alter nature to accomplish his will, asserted Aragon. He could do it within the system that already exists. He could use magic to affect events. Oramis smiled. Very true. But ask yourself this, Aragon. If gods exist... Have they been good custodians of Alagasia? Death, sickness, poverty, tyranny, and countless other miseries stalk the land. If this is the handiwork of divine beings, then they are to be rebelled against and overthrown, not given obeisance, obedience, and reverence. The dwarves believe. Exactly. The dwarves believe. When it comes to certain matters, they rely upon faith rather than reason. They have even been known to ignore proven facts that contradict their dogma. Like what? demanded Aragon. Dwarf priests use coral as proof that stone is alive and can grow, which also corroborates their story that Helsvog formed the race of dwarves out of granite. But we elves discovered that coral is actually an exoskeleton secreted by minuscule animals that live inside the coral. Any magician can sense the animals if he opens his mind. We explained this to the dwarves, but they refused to listen, saying that the life we felt resides in every kind of stone, although their priests are the only ones who are supposed to be able to detect the life in landlocked stones. For a long time, Aragon stared out the window, turning Oramis's words over in his mind. You don't believe in an afterlife, then? From what Gleda said, you already knew that. And you don't put stock in gods? We give credence only to that which we can prove exists, since we cannot find evidence that gods, miracles, and other supernatural things are real. We do not trouble ourselves about them. If that were to change, if Helsvog were to reveal himself to us, then we would accept the new information and revise our position. It seems a cold world without something more. On the contrary, said Oramis, it is a better world, a place where we are responsible for our own actions, where we can be kind to one another because we want to, and because it is the right thing to do, instead of being frightened into behaving by the threat of divine punishment. I won't tell you what to believe, Aragon. 
It is far better to be taught to think critically and then be allowed to make your own decisions than to have someone else's notions thrust upon you. You asked after our religion, and I have answered you true. Make of it what you will. The discussion, coupled with his previous worries, left Aragon so disturbed that he had difficulty concentrating on his studies in the following days. Even when Oramis began to show him how to sing to plants, which Aragon had been eager to learn. Aragon recognized that his own experiences had already led him to adopt a more skeptical attitude. In principle, he agreed with much of what Oramis had said. The problem he struggled with, though, was that if the elves were right, it meant that nearly all the humans and dwarves were deluded. Something Aragon found difficult to accept. That many people can't be mistaken, he insisted to himself. When he asked Zephira about it, she said, It matters little to me, Aragon. Dragons have never believed in higher powers. Why should we, when deer and other prey consider us to be a higher power? He laughed at that. Only do not ignore reality in order to comfort yourself, for once you do, you make it easy for others to deceive you. That night, Aragon's uncertainties burst forth in his waking dreams, which raged like a wounded bear through his mind, tearing disparate images from his memories and mixing them into such a clamour he felt as if he were transported back into the confusion of the battle under Father Ndur. He saw Garrow lying dead in Horst's house, then Brom dead in the lonely sandstone cave, and then the face of Angela the herbalist, who whispered, Beware, Arjatlam, betrayal is clear, and it will come from within your family. Beware, Shade Slayer. Then the crimson sky was torn apart, and Aragon again beheld the two armies from his premonition in the Beor Mountains. The banks of warriors collided upon an orange and yellow field, accompanied by the harsh screams of gorecrows and the whistle of black arrows. The earth itself seemed to burn, green flames belched from scorched holes that dotted the ground, charring the mangled corpses left in the army's wake. He heard the roar of a gigantic beast from above that rapidly ap- Eragon jolted upright in bed and scrabbled at the dwarf necklace which burned at his throat. Using his tunic to protect his hand, he pulled the silver hammer away from his skin and then sat and waited in the dark, his heart thudding from the surprise. He felt his strength ebb as Gannel's spell thwarted whoever was trying to scry him and Sephira. Once again he wondered if Galbatorix himself was behind the spell, or if it was one of the king's pet magicians. Aragon frowned and released the hammer as the metal grew cold again. Something's wrong, I know that much, and I've known it for a while, as has Sephira. Too uneasy to resume the trance-like state that had replaced sleep for him, he crept from their bedroom without waking Sephira and climbed the spiral staircase to the study. There he unshuttered a white lantern and read one of Annalicia's epics until sunrise in an attempt to calm himself. Just as Aragon put away the scroll, Blagden flew through the open portal in the eastern wall and with a flutter of wings landed on the corner of the carved writing desk. The white raven fixed his beady eyes on Aragon and croaked, Weirda! Aragon inclined his head, and may the stars watch over you, Master Blagden. The raven hopped closer. He cocked his head to the side and uttered a barking cough as if he were clearing his throat, then recited in his hoarse voice, My beak and bone, mine blackened stone sees rooks and crooks and bloody brooks. What does that mean? asked Aragon. 
Lugden shrugged and repeated the verse. When Aragon still pressed him for an explanation, the bird ruffled his feathers, appearing displeased, and cackled, Son and father alike, both as blind as bats. Wait, exclaimed Aragon, jolting upright. Do you know my father? Who is he? Lugden cackled again. This time he seemed to be laughing. While two may share two, and one of two is certainly one, one might be two. A name, Blugden, give me a name! When the raven remained silent, Aragon reached out with his mind, intending to wrench the information from the bird's memories. Blugden was too wily, however. He deflected Aragon's probe with a flick of his thoughts. Shrieking, Weirda! He darted forward, plucked a bright glass stopper from an inkwell, and sped away with his trophy clutched in his beak. He dove out of sight before Aragon could cast a spell to bring him back. Aragon's stomach knotted as he tried to decipher Blugden's two riddles. The last thing he had expected was to hear his father mentioned in Ella's mirror. Finally, he muttered, That's it. I'll find Blugden later and wring the truth out of him. But right now, I would have to be a half-wit to ignore these portents. He jumped to his feet and ran down the stairs, waking Sephira with his mind and telling her what had transpired during the night. Retrieving his shaving mirror from the wash closet, Aragon sat between Sephira's two front paws so that she could look over his head and see what he saw. Arya won't appreciate it if we intrude on her privacy, warned Sephira. I have to know if she's safe. Sephira accepted that without argument. How will you find her? You said that after her imprisonment, she erected wards that, like your necklace, prevent anyone from scrying her. If I can scry the people she's with, I might be able to figure out how Arya is. Concentrating on an image of Nasuada, Eragon passed his hand over the mirror and murmured the traditional phrase, Dream stare. The mirror shimmered and turned white, except for nine people clustered around an invisible table. Of them, Aragon was familiar with Nasuada and the Council of Elders, but he could not identify a strange girl hooded in black who lurked behind Nasuada. This puzzled him, for a magician could only scry things that he had already seen, and Aragon was certain he had never laid eyes upon the girl before. He forgot about her, though, as he noticed that the men, and even Nasuada, were armed for battle. Let us hear their words, suggested Sephira. The instant Aragon made the needed alteration to the spell, Nasuada's voice emanated from the mirror. And confusion will destroy us. Our warriors can afford but one commander during this conflict. Decide who it is to be, Orin, and quickly, too. Aragon heard a disembodied sigh. As you wish, the position is yours. But, sir, she is untried. Enough, Erwin, ordered the king. She has more experience in war than anyone in Surda, and the Varden are the only force to have defeated one of Galbatorix's armies. If Nasawada were a Surdan general, which would be peculiar indeed, I admit, you would not hesitate to nominate her for the post. I shall be happy to deal with questions of authority if they arise afterward, for they will mean I'm still on my feet and not lying in a grave. As it is, we are so outnumbered, I fear we are doomed unless Hrothgar can reach us before the end of the week." Now where is that blasted scroll on the supply train? Ah, thank you, Arya. Three more days without... After that, the discussion turned to a shortage of bowstrings, which Aragon could glean nothing useful from, so he ended the spell. 
the mirror cleared and he found himself staring at his own face. She lives, he murmured. His relief was overshadowed, though, by the larger meaning of what they had heard. Zephira looked at him. We are needed. Aye. Why hasn't Doramis told us about this? He must know of it. Maybe he wanted to avoid disrupting our training. Troubled, Aragon wondered what else of import was happening in Alagazia that he was unaware of. Roran! With a pang of guilt, Aragon realized that it had been weeks since he last thought of his cousin, and even longer since he scried him on the way to Elismira. At Aragon's command, the mirror revealed two figures standing against a pure white background. It took Aragon a long moment to recognize the man on the right as Roran. He was garbed in travel-worn clothes, a hammer was stuck under his belt, a thick beard obscured his face, and he bore a haunted expression that bespoke desperation. To the left was Jod. The men surged up and down, accompanied by the thunderous crash of waves, which masked anything they said. After a while, Roran turned and walked along what Aragon assumed was the deck of a ship, bringing dozens of other villages into view. Where are they? And why is Jode with them? demanded Aragon, bewildered. Diverting the magic, he scryed in quick succession, Tirm, shocked to see that the city's wharves had been destroyed, Terensford, Garrow's old farm, and then Carverhall, whereupon Aragon uttered a wounded cry. The village was gone! Every building, including Horst's magnificent house, had been burned to the ground. Carverhall no longer existed except as a sooty blot beside the Anora River. The sole remaining inhabitants were four grey wolves that loped through the wreckage. The mirror dropped from Aragon's hand and shattered across the floor. He leaned against Zephira, tears burning in his eyes as he grieved anew for his lost home. Zephira hummed deep in her chest and brushed his arm with the side of her jaw, enveloping him in a warm blanket of sympathy. Take comfort, little one. At least your friends are still alive. He shuddered and felt a hard core of determination coalesce in his belly. We have remained sequestered from the world for far too long. It's high time we leave Elismira and confront our fate, whatever it may be. For now, Roran must fend for himself. But the Varden, the Varden we can help. Is it time to fight, Aragon? asked Zephira, an odd note of formality in her voice. He knew what she meant. Was it time to challenge the Empire head-on, time to kill and rampage to the limit of their considerable abilities, time to unleash every ounce of their rage until Galbatorix lay dead before them? Was it time to commit themselves to a campaign that could take decades to resolve? It is time. Gifts. Eragon packed his belongings in less than five minutes. He took the saddle Oromis had given them, strapped it onto Sephira, then slung his bags over her back and buckled them down. Sephira tossed her head, nostrils flared, and said, I will wait for you at the field. With a roar, she launched herself from the treehouse, unfolding her blue wings in midair, and flew off, skimming the forest canopy. Quick as an elf, Aragon ran to Tildari Hall, where he found Oric sitting in his usual corner playing a game of runes. The dwarf greeted him with a hearty slap on the arm. Aragon, what brings you here at this time of the morn? 
I thought you'd be off banging swords with Vanner. Sephira and I are leaving, said Aragon. Oryx stopped with his mouth open, then narrowed his eyes, going serious. You've had news? I'll tell you about it later. Do you want to come? To Surda? Aye. A wide smile broke across Oryx's hairy face. You'd have to clap me in irons before I'd stay behind. I've done nothing in Elismira but grow fat and lazy. A bit of excitement will do me good. When do we leave? As soon as possible. Gather your things and meet us at the sparring grounds. Can you scrounge up a week's worth of provisions for the two of us? A week's? But that won't. We're flying on Sephira. The skin above Oryx's beard turned pale. We dwarves don't do well with heights, Aragon. We don't do well at all. It'd be better if we could ride horses, like we did coming here. Aragon shook his head. That would take too long. Besides, it's easy to ride Sephira. She'll catch you if you fall. Oryk grunted, appearing both queasy and unconvinced. Leaving the hall, Aragon sped through the sylvan city until he rejoined Sephira, and then they flew to the crags of Telnair. Oromis was sitting upon Glader's right forearm when they landed in the clearing. The dragon's scales gilded the landscape with countless chips of golden light. Neither elf nor dragon stirred. Descending from Sephira's back, Aragon bowed. Master Glader! Master Oromis! Glader said, You have taken it upon yourself to return to the Varden, have you not? We have, replied Sephira. Aragon's sense of betrayal overcame his self-restraint. Why did you hide the truth from us? Are you so determined to keep us here that you must resort to such underhand trickery? The Varden are about to be attacked, and you didn't even mention it. Calm as ever, Oromis asked, Do you wish to hear why? Very much, master, said Sephira, before Aragon could respond. In private, she scolded him, growling, Be polite. We withheld the tidings for two reasons. Chief among them was that we ourselves did not know until nine days passed that the Varden were threatened, and the true size, location, and movements of the Empire's troops remained concealed from us until three days after that, when Lord Daethoder pierced the spells Galbatorix used to deceive our scrying. That still doesn't explain why you said nothing of this, Aragon scowled. Not only that, but once you discovered that the Varden were in danger, why didn't Islanzadi rouse the elves to fight? Are we not allies? She has roused the elves, Aragon. The forest echoes with the ring of hammers, the tramp of armoured boots, and the grief of those who are about to be parted. For the first time in a century our race is set to emerge from Duweldenwarden and challenge our greatest foe. The time has come for elves to once more walk openly in Alagasia. Gently, Oromis added, You have been distracted of late, Deragon, and I understand why. Now you must look beyond yourself. The world demands your attention. Shamefaced, all Aragon could say was, I am sorry, master. He remembered Blagden's words and allowed himself a bitter smile. I'm as blind as a bat. Hardly, Aragon. You have done well, considering the enormous responsibilities we have asked you to shoulder. Oromis looked at him gravely. 
We expect to receive a missive from Nasuare in the next few days, requesting assistance from Islanzadi, and that you rejoin the Varden. I intended to inform you of the Varden's predicament then, when you would still have enough time to reach Sorda before swords are drawn. If I told you earlier, you would have been honour-bound to abandon your training and rush to the defence of your liege lord. That is why I and Islanzadi held our tongues. My training won't matter if the Varden are destroyed. No, but you may be the only person who can prevent them from being destroyed, for a chance exists, slim but terrible, that Galbatorix will be present at this battle. It is far too late for our warriors to assist the Varden, which means that if Galbatorix is indeed there, you shall confront him alone, without the protection of our spellweavers. Under those circumstances it seemed vital that your training continue for as long as possible. In an instant, Aragon's anger melted away and was replaced with a cold, hard, and brutally practical mindset, as he understood the necessity for Oromus's silence. Personal feelings were irrelevant in a situation as dire as theirs. With a flat voice he said, "'You were right.' My oath of fealty compels me to ensure the safety of Nasuada and the Varden. However, I am not ready to confront Galbatorix, not yet, at least. My suggestion, said Oromis, is that if Galbatorix reveals himself, do everything you can to distract him from the Varden until the battle is decided for good or for ill, and avoid directly fighting him. Before you go, I ask but one thing that you and Sephira vow that once events permit, you will return here to complete your training, for you still have much to learn. We shall return, pledged Sephira, binding herself in the ancient language. We shall return, repeated Aragon, and sealed their fate. Appearing satisfied, Oromus reached behind himself and produced an embroidered red pouch that he tugged open. In anticipation of your departure, I gathered together three gifts for you, Aragon. From the pouch he withdrew a silver bottle. First, some fail nerve I augmented with my own enchantments. This potion can sustain you when all else fails, and you may find its properties useful in other circumstances as well. Drink it sparingly, for I only had time to prepare a few mouthfuls. He handed the bottle to Aragon, then removed a long black and blue sword belt from the pouch. The belt felt unusually thick and heavy to Aragon when he ran it through his hands. It was made of cloth threads, woven together in an interlocking pattern that depicted a coiling liani vine. At Oromus's instruction, Aragon pulled at a tassel at the end of the belt and gasped as a strip in its centre slid back to expose twelve diamonds, each an inch across. Four diamonds were white, four were black, and the remainder were red, blue, yellow, and brown. They glittered, cold and brilliant, like ice in the dawn, casting a rainbow of multicoloured specks onto Aragon's hands. Master! Aragon shook his head at a loss for words for several breaths. Is it safe to give this to me? Guard it well, so that none are tempted to steal it. This is the belt of Beloth the Wise, who you read of in your history of the Year of Darkness, and is one of the great treasures of the Riders. These are the most perfect gems the riders could find. Some we traded for with the dwarves, 
Others we won in battle or mined ourselves. The stones have no magic of their own, but you may use them as repositories for your power and draw upon that reserve when in need. This, in addition to the ruby set in Zarok's pommel, will allow you to amass a store of energy so that you do not become unduly exhausted casting spells in battle or even when confronting enemy magicians. Last, Oramis brought out a thin scroll protected inside a wooden tube that was decorated with a bas-relief sculpture of the Manoa tree. Unfurling the scroll, Aragon saw the poem he had recited at the Agati Blodron. It was lettered in Oramis's finest calligraphy and illustrated with the elf's detailed ink paintings. Plants and animals twined together inside the outline of the first glyph of each quatrain, while delicate scrollwork traced the columns of words and framed the images. I thought, said Oramis, that you would appreciate a copy for yourself. Aragon stood with twelve priceless diamonds in one hand and Oramis's scroll in the other, and he knew that it was the scroll he deemed the most precious. Aragon bowed and, reduced to the simplest language by the depth of his gratitude, said, Thank you, master. Then Oramis surprised Aragon by initiating the elves' traditional greeting and thereby indicating his respect for Aragon. May good fortune rule over you. May the stars watch over you. And may peace live in your heart, finished the silver-haired elf. He repeated the exchange with Sephira. Now go, and fly as fast as the north wind, knowing that you, Sephira Brightscales and Aragon Shadeslayer, Carry the blessing of Oromis, last scion of House Thrandurin, he who is both the morning sage and the cripple who is whole. And mine as well, added Glader. Extending his neck, he touched the tip of his nose to Sephira's, his gold eyes glittering like swirling pools of embers. Remember to keep your heart safe. Safira, she hummed in response. They parted with solemn farewells. Safira soared over the tangled forest, and Oramis and Gleda dwindled behind them, lonely on the crags. Despite the hardships of his stay in Elasmira, Aragon would miss being among the elves, for with them he had found the closest thing to a home since fleeing Palancar Valley. I leave here a changed man, he thought, and closed his eyes, clinging to Sephira. Before going to meet with Oric, they made one more stop, Tildari Hall. Sephira landed in the enclosed gardens, careful not to damage any of the plants with her tail or claws. Without waiting for her to crouch, Eragon leaped straight to the ground, a drop that would have injured him before. A male elf came out, touched his lips with his first two fingers, and asked if he could help them. When Aragon replied that he sought an audience with Islanzadi, the elf said, Please wait here, Silverhand. Not five minutes later, the queen herself emerged from the wooded depths of Tildari Hall. Her crimson tunic like a drop of blood among the white-robed elf lords and ladies who accompanied her. After the appropriate forms of address were observed, she said, Oramis informed me of your intention to leave us. I am displeased by this, but one cannot resist the will of fate. No, your majesty, your majesty, 
We came to pay our respects before departing. You have been most considerate of us, and we thank you and your house for clothing, lodging, and feeding us. We are in your debt. Never in our debt, Ryder. We but repaid a little of what we owe you and the dragons for our miserable failure in the fall. I am gratified, though, that you appreciate our hospitality. She paused. When you arrive in Surda, convey my royal salutations to Lady Naswada and King Orin, and inform them that our warriors will soon attack the northern half of the empire. If fortune smiles upon us, we shall catch Galbatorix off guard, and given time, divide his forces. As you wish. Also, know that I have dispatched twelve of our finest spellweavers to Surda. If you are still alive when they arrive, they will place themselves under your command, and do their best to shield you from danger, both night and day. Thank you, Your Majesty. Islanzadi extended a hand, and one of the elf lords handed her a shallow, unadorned wooden box. Oromis had his gifts for you, and I have mine. Let them remind you of your time spent with us under the dusky pines. She opened the box, revealing a long, dark bow with reflexed limbs and curled tips nestled on a bed of velvet. Silver fittings chased with dogwood leaves decorated the ears and grip of the bow. Beside it lay a quiver of new arrows fletched with white swan feathers. Now that you share our strength, it seems only proper that you should have one of our bows. I sang it myself from a yew tree. The string will never break, and so long as you use these arrows, you will be hard-pressed to miss your target, even if the wind should gust during your shot. Once again Aragon was overwhelmed by the elf's generosity. He bowed. What can I say, my lady? You honour me that you saw fit to give me the labour of your own hands. Islanzadi nodded as if agreeing with him, then stepped past him and said, Safira, I brought you no gifts because I could think of nothing you might need or want. But if there is aught of ours you desire, name it, and it shall be yours. Dragons, said Safira. Do not require possessions to be happy. What use have we for riches when our hides are more glorious than any treasure hoard in existence? No, I am content with the kindness that you have shown Aragon. Then Islanzadi bid them a safe journey. Sweeping around, her red cape billowing from her shoulders, she made to leave the gardens, only to stop at the edge of the pleasance and say, And Aragon? Yes, your majesty. When you meet with Arya, please express my affection to her, and tell her that she is sorely missed in Elasmira. The words were stiff and formal. Without waiting for a reply, she strode away, and disappeared among the shadowed bowls that guarded the interior of Tildari Hall, followed by the elf lords and ladies. It took Saphira less than a minute to fly to the sparring field, where Oryk sat on his bulging pack, tossing his war-axe from one hand to the other and scowling ferociously. "'About time you got here!' he grumbled. He stood and slipped the axe back under his belt. Eragon apologized for the delay, then tied Oryx's pack onto the back of his saddle. The dwarf eyed Saphira's shoulder, which loomed high above him. "'And how by Morgothold's black beard am I supposed to get up there?' 
A cliff has more handholds than you, Sephira. Here, she said. She lay flat on her belly and pushed her right hind leg out as far as she could, forming a knobby ramp. Pulling himself onto her shin with a loud huff, Oric crawled up her leg on hands and knees. A small jet of flame burst from Sephira's nostrils as she snorted, Hurry up! That tickles! Oric paused on the ledge of her haunches, then placed one foot on either side of Sephira's spine and carefully walked his way up her back toward the saddle. He tapped one of the ivory spikes between his legs and said, There be as good a way to lose your manhood as ever I've seen. Aragon grinned. Don't slip. When Oric lowered himself onto the front of the saddle, Aragon mounted Sephira and sat behind the dwarf. To hold Oric in place when Sephira turned or inverted, Aragon loosened the thongs that were meant to secure his arms and had Oric put his legs through them. As Sephira rose to her full height, Oric swayed, then clutched the spike in front of him. Gah! Aragon, don't let me open my eyes until we're in the air, else I fear I'll be sick. This is unnatural, it is. Dwarves aren't meant to ride dragons. It's never been done before. Never? Oric shook his head without answering. Clusters of elves drifted out of Duweldenvarden, gathered along the edge of the field, and with solemn expressions watched Sephira lift her translucent wings in preparation to take off. Aragon tightened his grip as he felt her mighty thews bunch underneath his legs. With a rush of acceleration, Sephira launched herself into the azure sky, flapping swift and hard to rise above the giant trees. She wheeled over the vast forest, spiralling upward as she gained altitude, and then aimed herself south, toward the Hadarak Desert. Though the wind was loud in Aragon's ears, he heard an elf woman in Elismira raise her clear voice in song, as he had when they first arrived. She sang, Away, away, you shall fly away, O'er the peaks and vales to the lands beyond. Away, away, you shall fly away, And never return to me. The Moor of the Ocean The obsidian seas heaved underneath the dragon wing, Propelling the ship high in the air. There it teetered on the precipitous crest of a foam-capped swell before pitching forward and racing down the face of the wave into the black trough below. Billows of stinging mist drove through the frigid air as the wind groaned and howled like a monstrous spirit. Roran clung to the starboard rigging at the waist of the ship and retched over the gunwale. Nothing came up but sour bile. He had prided himself that his stomach never bothered him while on Clovis's barges, but the storm they raced before was so violent that even Uthar's men, seasoned tars each and every one, had difficulty keeping their whiskey down. It felt like a boulder of ice clouted roaring between the shoulder blades as a wave struck the ship crossways, drenching the deck before draining through the scuppers and pouring back into the frothing, furrowed, furious ocean from whence it came. Roran wiped the salty water from his eyes with fingers as clumsy as frozen lumps of wood, and squinted toward the inky horizon to the aft. Maybe this will shake them off our scent. Three black-sailed sloops had pursued them ever since they passed the iron cliffs and rounded what Job dubbed Edur Carthun Gave, and Uther identified as Rathbar's spur. The tailbone and the spine, that's what it be, 
Uthar said, grinning. The sloops were faster than the dragon wing, weighed down with villagers as it was, and had quickly gained upon the merchant ship until they were close enough to exchange volleys of arrows. Worst of all, it seemed that the lead sloop carried a magician, for its arrows were uncannily accurate, splitting ropes, destroying ballistae, and clogging the blocks. From their attacks, Roran deduced that the Empire no longer cared about capturing him, and only wanted to stop him from finding sanctuary with the Varden. He had just been preparing the villagers to repel boarding parties, when the clouds above ripened to a bruised purple, heavy with rain, and a ravening tempest blew in from the northwest. At the present, Uthar had the dragonwing tacked crossways to the wind, heading toward the southern isles, where he hoped to elude the sloops among the shoals and coves of Beerland. A sheet of horizontal lightning flickered between two bulbous thunderheads, and the world became a tableau of pale marble before darkness reigned once more. Every blinding flash imprinted a motionless scene upon Roran's eyes that lingered, pulsing, long after the brazen bolts vanished. Then came another round of forked lightning, and Roran saw, as if in a series of monochrome paintings, the mizzen topmast twist, crack, and topple into the thrashing sea port amidships. Grabbing a lifeline, Roran pulled himself to the quarter-deck, and in unison with Bondon, hacked through the cables that still connected the topmast to the dragon wing, and dragged the stern low in the water. The ropes writhed like snakes as they were cut. Afterward, Roran sank to the deck, his right arm hooked through the gunwale to hold himself in place as the ship dropped twenty, thirty feet between waves. A swell washed over him, leaching the warmth from his bones. Shivers racked his body. Don't let me die here, he pleaded, though whom he addressed he knew not. Not in these cruel waves. My task is yet unfinished. During that long night, he clung to his memories of Katrina, drawing solace from them when he grew weary and hope threatened to desert him. The storm lasted two full days and broke during the wee hours of the night. The following morning brought with it a pale green dawn, clear skies, and three black sails riding the northern horizon. To the southwest, the hazy outline of Beerland lay underneath a shelf of clouds gathered about the ridged mountain that dominated the island. Roran, Jode, and Uthar met in a small forecabin, since the captain's stateroom was given over to the infirm, where Uthar unrolled sea charts on the table and tapped a point above Beerland. This'd be where we are now, he said. He reached for a larger map of Alagazia's coastline and tapped the mouth of the Jeet River. And this'd be our destination, since food won't last us to Reevestone. How we get there, though, without being overtaken is beyond me. Without our mizzen to gallant, those accursed sloops will catch us by noon tomorrow, even if we manage the sails well. Can we replace the mast? asked Jode. Vessels of this size carry spars to make just such repairs. Uthar shrugged. We could, provided we had a proper ship's carpenter among us. Seeing as we don't, I'd rather not let inexperienced hands mount a spar, only to have it crash down on deck and perhaps injure somebody. Roran said, If it weren't for the magician or magicians, I'd say we should stand and fight, since we far outnumber the crews of the sloops. As it is, I'm chary of battle. It seems unlikely that we could prevail, considering how many ships sent to help the Varden have disappeared. Grunting, Uthar drew a circle around their current position. This would be how far we can sail by tomorrow evening, assuming the wind stays with us, 
We could make landfall somewhere on Beerland or near if we wanted, but I can't see how that'd help us. We'd be trapped. The soldiers on those sloops or the Razak or Galbatorix himself could hunt us at his leisure. Roran scowled as he considered their options. A fight with the sloops appeared inevitable. For several minutes the cabin was silent except for the slap of waves against the hull. Then Jode placed his finger on the map between Beerland and Nia, looked at Uther and asked, What about the boar's eye? To Roran's amazement the scarred sailor actually blanched. I'd not risk that, Master Jode, not on my life. I'd rather face the sloops and die in the open sea than go to that doomed place. There has consumed twice as many ships as in Galbatorix's fleet. I seem to recall reading, said Jode, leaning back in his chair, that the passage is perfectly safe at high tide and low tide. Is that not so? With great and evident reluctance, Uthar admitted, Aye, but the eye is so wide it requires the most precise timing to cross without being destroyed. We'd be hard-pressed to accomplish that with the sloops near on our tail. If we could, though, pressed Jode, if we could time it right, the sloops would be wrecked, or, if their nerve failed them, forced to circumvent near. It would give us time to find a place to hide along Beerland. If, if, you'd send us to the crushing deep, you would. Come now, Uthar, your fear is unreasoning. What I propose is dangerous, I admit, but no more than fleeing Tiam was? Or do you doubt your ability to sail the gap? Are you not man enough to do it? Uthar crossed his bare arms. You've never seen the eye, have you, sir? I can't say I have. It's not that I'm not man enough, but that the eye far exceeds the strength of men. It puts to shame our biggest ships, our grandest buildings, and anything else you'd care to name. Tempting it would be like trying to outrun an avalanche. You might succeed, but then you just as well might be ground into dust. What, asked Roran, is this boar's eye? The all-devouring maw of the ocean, proclaimed Uthar. In a milder tone, Jode said, It's a whirlpool, Roran. The eye forms as the result of tidal currents that collide between Beerland and Nia. When the tide waxes, the eye rotates north to west. When the tide wanes, it rotates north to east. That doesn't sound so dangerous. Uthar shook his head, Q whipping the sides of his windburned neck, and laughed. Not so dangerous, he says. Ha! What do you fail to comprehend? continued Jode is the size of the vortex. On average, the centre of the eye is a league in diameter, while the arms of the pool can be anywhere from ten to fifteen miles across. Ships unlucky enough to be snared by the eye are borne down to the floor of the ocean and dashed against the jagged rocks therein. Remnants of the vessels are often found as flotsam on the beaches of the two islands. Would anyone expect us to take this route? Roran queried. No, and for good reason, growled Uthar. Jode shook his head at the same time. Is it even possible for us to cross the eye? It'd be a blasted fool thing to do. Roran nodded. I know it's not something you want to risk, Uthar, but our options are limited. I'm no seaman, so I must rely upon your judgment. Can we cross the eye?
The captain hesitated. Maybe, maybe not. You'd have to be stark raving mad to go nearer than five miles of that monster. Pulling out his hammer, Roran banged it on the table, leaving a dent a half-inch deep. Then I'm stark raving mad. He held Uthar's gaze until the sailor shifted with discomfort. Must I remind you, we've only gotten this far by doing what quibbling worrywart said couldn't or shouldn't be done. We of Carverhall dared to abandon our homes and cross the spine. Jode dared to imagine we could steal the dragon wing. What will you dare, Uthar? If we can brave the eye and live to tell the tale, you shall be hailed as one of the greatest mariners in history. Now answer me, and answer me well and true. Can this be done? Uthar drew a hand over his face. When he spoke, it was in a low voice, as if Roran's outburst had caused him to abandon all bluster. I don't know, Stronghammer. If we wait for the eye to subside, the sloops may be so close to us that if we escape, they'd escape. And if the wind should falter, we'd be caught in the current, unable to break free. As captain, are you willing to attempt it? Neither Jode nor I can command the Dragonwing in your place. Long did Uthar stare down at the charts, one hand clasped over the other. He drew a line or two from their position and worked a table of figures that Roran could make nothing of. At last, he said, I fear we sail to our doom, but I, I'll do my best to see us through. Satisfied, Roran put away his hammer. So be it. Running the Boar's Eye The sloops continued to draw closer to the Dragonwing over the course of the day. Roran watched their progress whenever he could, concerned that they would get near enough to attack before the Dragonwing reached the eye. Still, Uthar seemed able to outrun them, at least for a little while longer. At Uthar's orders, Roran and the other villagers worked to tidy up the ship after the storm and prepare for the ordeal that was to come. Their work ended at nightfall. When they extinguished every light on board in an attempt to confuse their pursuers as to the dragon wing's heading, the ruse succeeded in part, for when the sun rose, Roran saw that the sloops had fallen back to the northwest another mile or so, though they soon made up the lost distance. Late that morning, Roran climbed the mainmast and pulled himself up into the crow's nest, a hundred and thirty feet above the deck, so high that the men below appeared no larger than his little finger. The water and sky seemed to rock perilously about him as the dragon wing heeled from side to side. Taking out the spyglass he had brought with him, Roran put it to his eye and adjusted it until the sloops came into focus, not four miles astern, and approaching faster than he would have liked. They must have realized what we intend to do, he thought. Sweeping the glass around, he searched the ocean for any sign of the boar's eye. He stopped as he described a great disk of foam the size of an island, gyrating from north to east. We're late, he thought, a pit in his stomach. High tide had already passed, and the boar's eye was gathering in speed and strength as the ocean withdrew from land. Roran trained the glass over the edge of the crow's nest, and saw that the knotted rope Uthar had tied to the starboard side of the stern, to detect when they entered the pool of the whirlpool, now floated alongside the dragon wing instead of trailing behind as was usual. The one thing in their favour was that they were sailing with the eye's current and not against it. If it had been the other way around, they would have had no choice but to wait until the tide turned. Below, 
Roran heard Uther shout for the villagers to man the oars. A moment later, the dragon wings sprouted two rows of poles along each side, making the ship look like nothing more than a giant water strider. At the beat of an oxhide drum, accompanied by Bondon's rhythmic chant as he set the tempo, the oars arched forward, dipped into the sea of green, and swept back across the surface of the water, leaving white streaks of bubbles in their wake. The dragon wing accelerated quickly, now moving faster than the sloops, which were still outside the eye's influence. Roran watched with horrified fascination the play that unfolded around him. The essential plot element, the crux upon which the outcome depended, was time. Though they were late, was the dragon wing with its oars and sails combined fast enough to traverse the eye? And could the sloops, which had deployed their own oars now, narrow the gap between them and the dragon wing enough to ensure their own survival? He could not tell. The pounding drum measured out the minutes. Roran was acutely aware of each moment as it trickled by. He was surprised when an arm reached over the edge of the basket, and Baldor's face appeared, looking up at him. "'Give me a hand, won't you? I feel like I'm about to fall!' Bracing himself, Roran helped Baldor into the basket. Baldor handed Roran a biscuit and a dried apple and said, "'Thought you might like some lunch.' With a nod of thanks, Roran tore into the biscuit and resumed gazing through the spyglass. When Baldor asked, "'Can you see the eye?' Roran passed him the glass and concentrated on eating. Over the next half hour, the foam disc increased the speed of its revolutions until it spun like a top. The water around the foam bulged and began to rise, while the foam itself sank from view into the bottom of a gigantic pit that continued to deepen and enlarge. The air over the vortex filled with a cyclone of twisting mist, and from the ebony throat of the abyss came a tortured howl like the cries of an injured wolf. The speed with which the boar's eye formed amazed Roran. "'You'd better go tell Uther,' he said. Baldor climbed out of the nest. "'Tie yourself to the mast, or you may get thrown off.' "'I will.' Roran left his arms free when he secured himself, making sure that if needed he could reach his belt knife to cut himself free. Anxiety filled him as he surveyed the situation. The dragon wing was but a mile past the median of the eye. The sloops were but two miles behind her, and the eye itself was quickly building toward its full fury. Worse, disrupted by the whirlpool, the wind sputtered and gasped, blowing first from one direction and then the other. The sails billowed for a moment, then fell slack, then filled again as the confused wind swirled about the ship. "'Perhaps Uthar was right,' thought Roran. "'Perhaps I've gone too far.' and pitted myself against an opponent that cannot be overcome by sheer determination. Perhaps I am sending the villagers to their deaths. The forces of nature were immune to intimidation. The gaping centre of the boar's eye was now almost nine and a half miles in circumference, and how many fathoms deep no one could say, except for those who had been trapped within it. The sides of the eye slanted inward at a forty-five degree angle, they were striated with shallow grooves, like wet clay being moulded on a potter's wheel. The bass howl grew louder, until it seemed to Roran that the entire world must crumble to pieces from the intensity of the vibrations. A glorious rainbow emerged from the mist over the whirling chasm. The current moved faster than ever, driving the dragon wing at a breakneck pace as it whipped around the rim of the whirlpool and making it more and more unlikely that the ship could break free at the eye's southern edge. So prodigious was her velocity, the dragon wing tilted far to the starboard, suspending Roran out over the rushing water.
Despite the Dragonwing's progress, the sloops continued to gain on her. The enemy ships sailed abreast less than a mile away, their oars moving in perfect accord, two fins of water flying from each prow as they ploughed the ocean. Roran could not help but admire the sight. He tucked the spyglass away in his shirt. He had no need of it now. The sloops were close enough for the naked eye, while the whirlpool was increasingly obscured by the clouds of white vapour thrown off the lip of the funnel. As it was pulled into the deep, the vapour formed a spiral lens over the gulf, mimicking the whirlpool's appearance. Then the dragonwing tacked port, diverging from the current in Uthar's bid for the open sea. The keel chattered across the puckered water, and the ship's speed dropped in half as the dragonwing fought the deadly embrace of the boar's eye. A shudder ran up the mast, jarring Roran's teeth, and the crow's nest swung in the new direction, making him giddy with vertigo. Fear gripped Roran when they continued to slow. He slashed off his bindings, and with reckless disregard for his own safety, swung himself over the edge of the basket, grabbed the ropes underneath, and shinned down the rigging so quickly that he lost his grip once and fell several feet before he could catch himself. He jumped to the deck, ran to the fore hatchway, and descended to the first bank of oars, where he joined Baldor and Albright on an oak pole. They said not a word, but laboured to the sound of their own desperate breathing, the frenzied beat of the drum, Bondon's hoarse shouts, and the roar of the boar's eye. Roran could feel the mighty whirlpool resisting with every stroke of the oar. And yet their efforts could not keep the dragonwing from coming to a virtual standstill. We're not going to make it, thought Roran. His back and legs burned from the exertion, his lungs stabbed. Between the drumbeats, he heard Uthar ordering the hands above deck to trim the sails to take full advantage of the fickle wind. Two places ahead of Roran, Darman and Hammond surrendered their oar to Thane and Ridley, then lay in the middle of the aisle, their limbs trembling. Less than a minute later, someone else collapsed farther down the gallery and was immediately replaced by Burgett and another woman. If we survive, thought Roran, it'll only be because we have enough people to sustain this pace however long is necessary. It seemed an eternity that he worked the oar in the murky, smoky room, first pushing, then pulling, doing his best to ignore the pain mounting within his body. His neck ached from hunching underneath the low ceiling. The dark wood of the pole was streaked with blood where his skin had blistered and torn. He ripped off his shirt dropping the spyglass to the floor, wrapped the cloth around the oar, and continued rowing. At last, Roran could do no more. His legs gave way and he fell on his side, slipping across the aisle because he was so sweaty. Orville took his place. Roran lay still until his breath returned, then pushed himself onto his hands and knees and crawled to the hatchway. Like a fever-mad drunk, he pulled himself up the ladder, swaying with the motion of the ship and often slumping against the wall to rest. When he came out on deck, he took a brief moment to appreciate the fresh air, then staggered aft to the helm, his legs threatening to cramp with every step. How goes it? he gasped to Uthar, who manned the wheel. Uthar shook his head. Peering over the gunwale, Rory espied the three sloops perhaps a half mile away, and slightly more to the west, closer to the centre of the eye. The sloops appeared motionless in relation to the dragonwing. At first, as Roran watched, the positions of the four ships remained unchanged. Then he sensed a shift in the dragonwing's speed, as if the ship had crossed some crucial point and the forces restraining her had diminished. It was a subtle difference and amounted to little more than a few additional feet per minute. 
but it was enough that the distance between the dragon wing and the sloops began to increase. With every stroke of the oars, the dragon wing gained momentum. The sloops, however, could not overcome the whirlpool's dreadful strength. Their oars gradually slowed, until one by one the ships drifted backward and were drawn toward the veil of mist, beyond which waited the gyrating walls of ebony water and the gnashing rocks at the bottom of the ocean floor. They can't keep rowing, realized Roran. Their crews are too small and they're too tired. He could not help but feel a pang of sympathy for the fate of the men on the sloops. At that precise instant, an arrow sprang from the nearest sloop and burst into green flame as it raced toward the dragon wing. The dart must have been sustained by magic to have flown so far. It struck the mizzen sail and exploded into globules of liquid fire that stuck to whatever they touched. Within seconds, twenty small fires burned along the mizzenmast, the mizzen sail and the deck below. We can't put it out, shouted one of the sailors with a panicked expression. Chop off whatever's burning and throw it overboard, roared Uthar in reply. Unsheathing his belt knife, Roran set to work excising a dollop of green fire from the boards by his feet. Several tense minutes elapsed before the unnatural blazes were removed, and it became clear that the conflagrations would not spread to the rest of the ship. Once the cry of All Clear was sounded, Uthar relaxed his grip on the steering wheel. If that was the best their magician can do, then I'd say we've nothing more to fear of him. We're going to get out of the eye, aren't we? asked Roran, eager to confirm his hope. Uthar squared his shoulders and flashed a quick grin, both proud and disbelieving. Not quite this cycle, but we'll be close. We won't make real progress away from that gaping monster until the tide slacks off. Go tell Bondon to lower the tempo a bit. I don't want them fainting at the oars if and I can help it. And so it was. Roran took another shift rowing, and by the time he returned to the deck the whirlpool was subsiding. The vortex's ghastly howl faded into the usual noise of the wind. The water assumed a calm, flat quality that betrayed no hint of the habitual violence visited upon that location, and the contorted fog that had writhed above the abyss melted under the warm rays of the sun, leaving the air as clear as oiled glass. Of the boar's eye itself, as Roran saw when he retrieved the spyglass from among the rowers, nothing remained but the self-same disk of yellow foam rotating upon the water. And in the centre of the foam he thought he could discern just barely three broken masts and a black sail floating round and round and round in an endless circle. But it might have been his imagination, leastways that's what he told himself. Elaine came up beside him, one hand resting on her swollen belly. In a small voice she said, We were lucky, Roran, more lucky than we had reason to expect. Aye, he agreed. To Aberon Underneath Sephira, the pathless forest stretched wide to each white horizon, fading as it did from the deepest green to a hazy, washed-out purple. Martins, rooks, and other woodland birds flitted above the gnarled pines, uttering shrieks of alarm when they beheld Sephira. She flew low to the canopy in order to protect her two passengers from the arctic temperatures in the upper reaches of the sky. 
Except for when Safira fled the Razak into the spine, this was the first time she and Aragon had had the opportunity to fly together over a great stretch of distance without having to stop or hold back for companions on the ground. Safira was especially pleased with the trip, and she delighted in showing Aragon how Gleda's tutelage had enhanced her strength and endurance. After his initial discomfort abated, Oryx said to Aragon, I doubt I could ever be comfortable in the air, but I can understand why you and Safira enjoy it so. Flying makes you feel free and unfettered, like a fierce-eyed hawk hunting his prey. It sets my heart a-pounding, it does. To reduce the tedium of the journey, Oryk played a game of riddles with Safira. Aragon excused himself from the contest, as he had never been particularly adept at riddles. The twist of thought necessary to solve them always seemed to escape him. In this, Safira far exceeded him. As most dragons are, she was fascinated by puzzles, and found them quite easy to unravel. Oryk said, The only riddles I know are in Dwarvish. I will do mine best to translate them, but the results may be rough and unwieldy. Then he asked, Tall I am young, short I am old. While with life I do glow, Uru's breath is my foe. Not fair, growled Safira. I know little of your gods. Aragon had no need to repeat her words, for Oryk had granted permission for her to project them directly into his mind. Oryk laughed. Do you give up? Never. For a few minutes the only sound was the sweep of her wings, until she asked, Is it a candle? Right you are. A puff of hot smoke floated back into Oryx and Aragon's faces as she snorted. I do poorly with such riddles. I've not been inside a house since the day I hatched, and I find enigmas difficult that deal with domestic subjects. Next she offered, What herb cures all ailments? This proved a terrible poser for Oryx. He grumbled and groaned and gnashed his teeth in frustration. Behind him, Aragon could not help but grin, for he saw the answer plain in Sephira's mind. Finally, Oryx said, Well, what is it? You have bested me with this. By the black raven's crime, and by this rhyme, the answer would be time. Now it was Oryx's turn to cry, Not fair! This is not my native tongue! You cannot expect me to grasp such wordplay. Fair is fair. It was a proper riddle. Aragon watched the muscles at the back of Oryx's neck bunch and knot as the dwarf jutted his head forward. If that is your stance, O Iron Tooth, then I'd have you solve this riddle that every dwarf child knows. I am named Morgothal's Forge and Hellsvog's Womb, I veil Nordvig's daughter and bring grey death, and make the world anew with Hellsvog's blood. What be I? And so they went, exchanging riddles of increasing difficulty, while Duweldenvarden sped past below. Gaps in the thatched branches often revealed patches of silver, sections of the many rivers that threaded the forest. Around Sephira, the clouds billowed in a fantastic architecture, Vaulting arches, domes and columns, crenellated ramparts, towers the size of mountains, 
and ridges and valleys suffused with a glowing light that made Aragon feel as if they flew through a dream. So fast was Sephira that when dusk arrived they had already left Duweldenvarden behind and entered the auburn fields that separated the great forest from the Hadarak desert. They made their camp among the grass and hunkered round their small fire, utterly alone upon the flat face of the earth. They were grim-faced and said little, for words only emphasized their insignificance in that bare and empty land. Aragon took advantage of their stop to store some of his energy in the ruby that adorned Zarok's pommel. The gem absorbed all the power he gave it, as well as Sephira's when she lent her strength. It would, concluded Aragon, be a number of days before they could saturate both the ruby and the twelve diamonds concealed within the belt of Beloth the Wise. Weary from the exercise, he wrapped himself in blankets, lay beside Sephira, and drifted into his waking sleep, where his night phantasms played out against the sea of stars above. Soon after they resumed their journey the following morning, the rippling grass gave way to tan scrub, which grew ever more scarce until in turn it was replaced by sun-baked ground, bare of all but the most hardy plants. Reddish gold dunes appeared. From his vantage on Sephira they looked to Aragon like lines of waves forever sailing toward a distant shore. As the sun began its descent he noticed a cluster of mountains in the distant east and knew he beheld Dufel's Nangoroth, where the wild dragons had gone to mate to raise their young and eventually to die. We must visit there some day, said Sephira, following his gaze. Aye. That night Aragon felt their solitude even more keenly than before, for they were camped in the emptiest region of the Hadarak Desert, where so little moisture existed in the air that his lips soon cracked, though he smeared them with Nalgask every few minutes. He sensed little life in the ground, only a handful of miserable plants interspersed with a few insects and lizards. As he had when they fled Gilead through the desert, Aragon drew water from the soil to replenish their water-skins, and before he allowed the water to drain away, he scried Nasuada in the pool's reflection to see if the Varden had been attacked yet. To his relief, they had not. On the third day since leaving Elismira, the wind rose up behind them, and wafted Sephira farther than she could have flown on her own, carrying them entirely out of the Hadarak desert. Near the edge of the waste they passed over a number of horse-mounted nomads who were garbed in flowing robes to ward against the heat. The men shouted in their rough tongue and shook their swords and spears at Sephira, though none of them dared loose an arrow at her. Eragon, Sephira, and Oric bivouacked for the night at the southernmost end of Silverwood Forest, which lay along Lake Tudostin, and was named so because it was composed almost entirely of beeches, willows, and trembling poplars. In contrast to the endless twilight that lay beneath the brooding pines of Duweldenvarden, Silverwood was filled with bright sunshine, larks, and the gentle rustling of green leaves. The trees seemed young and happy to Eragon, and he was glad to be there. And though all signs of the desert had vanished, the weather remained far warmer than he was accustomed to at that time of year. It felt more like summer than spring. From there they flew straight to Aberon, the capital of Serda, guided by directions Aragon gleaned from the memories of birds they encountered. Zephira made no attempt to conceal herself along the way, and they often heard cries of amazement and alarm from the villages she swept over. It was late afternoon when they arrived at Aberon, a low, walled city centred around a bluff in an otherwise flat landscape. 
Borromeo Castle occupied the top of the bluff. The rambling citadel was protected by three concentric layers of walls, numerous towers, and, Aragon noted, hundreds of ballistae made for shooting down a dragon. The rich amber light from the low sun cast Aberon's buildings in sharp relief and illuminated a plume of dust rising from the city's western gate, where a line of soldiers sought entrance. As Sephira descended toward the inner ward of the castle, she brought Aragon into contact with the combined thoughts of the people in the capital. The noise overwhelmed him at first. How was he supposed to listen for foes and still function at the same time, until he realized that, as usual, he was concentrating too much on specifics? All he had to do was sense people's general intentions. He broadened his focus, and the individual voices clamoring for his attention subsided into a continuum of the emotions surrounding him. It was like a sheet of water that lay draped over the nearby landscape, undulating with the rise and fall of people's feelings and spiking whenever someone was racked by extremes of passion. Thus Aragon was aware of the alarm that gripped the people below, as word of Sephira spread. Careful, he told her, we don't want them to attack us. Dirt billowed into the air with each beat of Sephira's powerful wings as she settled in the middle of the courtyard, sinking her claws into the bare ground to steady herself. The horses tethered in the yard, neighed with fear, creating such an uproar that Aragon finally inserted himself in their minds and calmed them with words from the ancient language. Aragon dismounted after Oric, eyeing the many soldiers that lined the parapets and the drawn ballistae they manned. He did not fear the weapons, but he had no desire to become engaged in a fight with his allies. A group of twelve men, some soldiers, hurried out of the keep towards Sephira. They were led by a tall man with the same dark skin as Nasawada, only the third person Aragon had met with such a complexion. Halting ten paces away, the man bowed, as did his followers, then said, Welcome, rider. I am Dahwa, son of Kedar. I am King Orin Seneschal. Aragon inclined his head. And I, Aragon Shadeslayer, son of Nun. And I, Auric Thrifsk's son. And I, Sephira, daughter of Vavada, said Sephira, using Aragon as her mouthpiece. Dahua bowed again. I apologize that no one of higher rank than myself is present to greet guests as noble as you. But King Orin, Lady Naswada, and all the Vardan have long since marched to confront Galbatorix's army. Aragon nodded. He had expected as much. They left orders that if you came here seeking them, you should join them directly, for your prowess is needed if we are to prevail. Can you show us on a map how to find them? asked Aragon. Of course, sir. While I have that fetched, would you care to step out of the heat and partake of some refreshments? Aragon shook his head. We have no time to waste. Besides, it is not I who needs to see the map but Sephira, and I doubt she would fit in your halls. That seemed to catch the Seneschal off guard. He blinked and ran his eyes over Sephira, then said, Quite right, sir. In either case, our hospitality is yours. If there is aught you and your companions desire, you have but to ask. For the first time, Aragon realized that he could issue commands and expect them to be followed. We need a week's worth of provisions. For me, only fruit, vegetables, flour, cheese, bread, things like that. We also need our water skins refilled. He was impressed that Dahua did not question his avoidance of meat. Lorik added his requests then for jerky, bacon, and other such products. Snapping his fingers, 
Dahua sent two servants running back into the keep to collect the supplies. While everyone in the ward waited for the men to return, he asked, May I assume, by your presence here, Shadeslayer, that you completed your training with the elves? My training shall never end, so long as I am alive. I see. Then, after a moment, Dahua said, Please excuse my impertinence, sir, for I am ignorant of the ways of the riders, but are you not human? I was told you were. That he is, growled Oric. He was changed, and you should be glad he was, or our predicament would be far worse than it is. Dahua was tactful enough not to pursue the subject, but from his thoughts Aragon concluded that the Seneschal would have paid a handsome price for further details. Any information about Aragon or Sephira was valuable in Orin's government. The food, water, and map were soon brought by two wide-eyed pages. At Aragon's word they deposited the items beside Sephira, looking terribly frightened as they did, then retreated behind Dahwar. Kneeling on the ground, Dahwar unrolled the map, which depicted Surda and the neighbouring lands, and drew a line northwest from Aberon to Sithri. He said, Last I heard, King Orin and Lady Nasuada stopped here for provender. They did not intend to stay, however, because the Empire is advancing south along the Jeet River, and they wished to be in place to confront Galbatorix's army when it arrives. The Varden could be anywhere between Sithri and the Jeet River. This is only my humble opinion, but I would say the best place to look for them would be the Burning Plains. The Burning Plains? Dahua smiled. You may know them by their old name, then, the name the elves used. Duvola Eldavaria. Ah, yes. Now Aragon remembered. He had read about them in one of the histories Oromis assigned him. The plains, which contained huge deposits of peat, lay along the eastern side of the Jeet River where Sardar's border crossed it, and had been the site of a skirmish between the riders and the Forsworn. During the fight the dragons inadvertently lit the peat with the flames from their mouths, and the fire had burrowed underground, where it remained smouldering ever since. The land had been rendered uninhabitable by the noxious fumes that poured out of the glowing vents in the charred earth. A shiver crawled down Aragon's left side as he recalled his premonition, banks of warriors colliding upon an orange and yellow field, accompanied by the harsh screams of gore-crows and the whistle of black arrows. He shivered again. Fate is converging upon us, he said to Severa. Then, gesturing at the map, Have you seen enough? I have. In short order, he and Oric packed the supplies, remounted Sephira, and from her back thanked Dahua for his service. As Sephira was about to take off again, Eragon frowned. A note of discord had entered the minds he was monitoring. Dahua, two grooms in the stables have gotten into an argument, and one of them, Tathel, intends to commit murder. You can stop him, though, if you send men right away. Dahua widened his eyes in an expression of astonishment, and even Oric twisted round to look at Aragon. The Seneschal asked, How do you know this, Shadeslayer? Aragon merely said, Because I am a rider. Then Sephira unfurled her wings, and everyone on the ground ran back to avoid being battered by the rush of air as she flapped downward and soared into the sky. As Borromeo Castle dwindled behind them, Oric said, Can you hear my thoughts, Aragon? Do you want me to try? I haven't, you know. Try! Frowning, Aragon concentrated his attention on the dwarf's consciousness, 
and was surprised to find Oric's mind well protected behind thick mental barriers. He could sense Oric's presence, but not his thoughts and feelings. Nothing, Oric grinned. Good. I wanted to make sure I hadn't forgotten my old lessons. By unspoken consent, they did not stop for the night, but rather forged onward through the blackened sky. Of the moon and stars, they saw no sign, no flash or pale gleam to breach the oppressive gloom. The dead hours bloated and sagged, and it seemed to Aragon clung to each second as if reluctant to surrender to the past. When the sun finally returned, bringing with it its welcome light, Sephira landed by the edge of a small lake, so Aragon and Oric could stretch their legs, relieve themselves, and eat breakfast without the constant movement they experienced on her back. They had just taken off again, when a long, low, brown cloud appeared on the edge of the horizon, like a smudge of walnut ink on a sheet of white paper. The cloud grew wider and wider as Sephira approached it, until by late morning it obscured the entire land beneath a pall of foul vapours. They had reached the burning plains of Allegasia. The Burning Plains Aragon coughed as Sephira descended through the layers of smoke angling toward the Jeet River which was hidden behind the haze. He blinked and wiped back tears. The fumes made his eyes smart. Closer to the ground the air cleared, giving Aragon an unobstructed view of their destination. The rippling veil of black and crimson smoke filtered the sun's rays in such a way that everything below was bathed in a lurid orange. Occasional rents in the besmirched sky allowed pale bars of light to strike the ground, where they remained like pillars of translucent glass until they were truncated by the shifting clouds. The Jeet River lay before them, as thick and turgid as a gorged snake, its cross-hatched surface reflecting the same ghastly hue that pervaded the burning plains. Even when a splotch of undiluted light happened to fall upon the river, the water appeared chalky white, opaque and opalescent, almost as if it were the milk of some fearsome beast, and seemed to glow with an eerie luminescence all its own. Two armies were arrayed along the eastern banks of the oozing waterway. To the south were the Varden and the men of Surda, entrenched behind multiple layers of defence, where they displayed a fine panoply of woven standards, ranks of proud tents, and the picketed horses of King Orin's cavalry. Strong as they were, their numbers paled in comparison to the size of the force assembled in the north. Galbatorix's army was so large it measured three miles across on its leading edge, and how many in length it was impossible to tell for the individual men melded into a shadowy mass in the distance. Between the mortal foes was an empty span of perhaps two miles. This land, and the land that the armies camped on, was pocked with countless ragged orifices in which danced green tongues of fire. From those sickly torches billowed plumes of smoke that dimmed the sun. Every scrap of vegetation had been scorched from the parched soil, except for growths of black, orange, and chartreuse lichen that from the air gave the earth a scabbed and infected appearance. It was the most forbidding vista Aragon had clapped eyes upon. Sephira emerged over the no-man's land that separated the grim armies, and now she twisted and dove toward the Varden as fast as she dared, for so long as they remained exposed to the Empire, they were vulnerable to attacks from enemy magicians. 
Aragon extended his awareness as far as he could in every direction, hunting for hostile minds that could feel his probing touch and would react to it, the minds of magicians and those trained to fend off magicians. What he felt instead was the sudden panic that overwhelmed the Varden sentinels, many of whom he realized had never before seen Zephyra. Fear made them ignore their common sense, and they released a flock of barbed arrows that arched up to intercept her. Raising his right hand, Aragon cried, Let her Aurea Thorna! The arrows froze in place. With a flick of his wrist and the word Ganga, he redirected them, sending the darts boring toward the no-man's land, where they could bury themselves in the barren soil without causing harm. He missed one arrow, though, which was fired a few seconds after the first volley. Aragon leaned as far to his right as he could, and faster than any normal human, plucked the arrow from the air as Sephira flew past it. Only a hundred feet above the ground, Sephira flared her wings to slow her steep descent, before alighting first on her hind legs and then her front legs, as she came to a running stop among the Varden's tents. Work! growled Oric, loosening the thongs that held his legs in place. I'd rather fight a dozen cull than experience such a fall again. He let himself hang off one side of the saddle, then dropped to Sephira's foreleg below and from there to the ground. Even as Aragon dismounted, dozens of warriors with awestruck expressions gathered around Sephira. From within their midst stood a big bear of a man whom Aragon recognized. Frederick, the Varden's weapon master from Fardendur, still garbed in his hairy oxide armor, "'Come on, you slack-jawed louts!' roared Frederick. "'Don't stand here gawking. Get back to your posts, or I'll have the lot of you chalked up for extra watches!' At his command, the men began to disperse with many a grumbled word and backward glance. Then Frederick drew nearer, and Aragon could tell was startled by the change in Aragon's countenance. The bearded man did his best to conceal the reaction by touching his brow and saying, "'Welcome, Shadeslayer.' You've arrived just in time. I can't tell you how ashamed I am you were attacked. The honour of every man here has been blackened by this mistake. Were the three of you hurt? No. Relief spread across Frederick's face. Well, there's that to be grateful for. I've had the men responsible pulled from duty. They'll each be whipped and reduced in rank. Will that punishment satisfy you, Ryder? I want to see them said Aragon. Sudden concern emanated from Frederick. It was obvious he feared that Aragon wanted to enact some terrible and unnatural retribution on the sentinels. Frederick did not voice his concern, however, but said, If you'd follow me then, sir. He led them through the camp to a striped command tent, where twenty or so miserable-looking men were divesting themselves of their arms and armour under the watchful eye of a dozen guards. At the sight of Aragon and Sephira, the prisoners all went down on one knee and remained there, gazing at the ground. Hail, Shadeslayer! they cried. Aragon said nothing, but walked along the line of men while he studied their minds, his boots sinking through the crust of the baked earth with an ominous crunch. At last he said, You should be proud that you reacted so quickly to our appearance. If Galbatorix attacks, that's exactly what you should do though I doubt arrows would prove any more effective against him than they were against Sephira and me. The sentinels glanced at him with disbelief. Their upturned faces tinted the colour of tarnished brass by the variegated light. I only ask that in the future you take a moment to identify your target before shooting. Next time I might be too distracted to stop your missiles. 
Am I understood? Yes, Shade Slayer! they shouted. Stopping before the second to last man in the line, Eragon held out the arrow he had snared from Sephira's back. I believe this is yours, Harwin. With an expression of wonder, Harwin accepted the arrow from Eragon. So it is! It has the white band I always paint on my shafts so I can find them later. Thank you, Shade Slayer! Eragon nodded and then said to Frederick so all could hear, These are good and true men, and I want no misfortune to befall them because of this event. I will see to it personally, said Frederick, and smiled. Now, can you take us to Lady Nasuada? Yes, sir. As he left the Sentinels, Aragon knew that his kindness had earned him their undying loyalty, and that tidings of his deed would spread throughout the Varden. The path Frederick took through the tents brought Aragon into close contact with more minds than he had ever touched before. Hundreds of thoughts, images, and sensations pressed against his consciousness. Despite his effort to keep them at a distance, he could not help absorbing random details of people's lives. Some revelations he found shocking, some meaningless, others touching, or conversely, disgusting, and many embarrassing. A few people perceived the world so differently, their minds leaped out at him on account of that very difference. How easy it is to view these men as nothing more than objects that I and a few others can manipulate at will. Yet they each possess hopes and dreams, potential for what they might achieve, and memories of what they have already accomplished. And they all feel pain. A handful of the minds he touched were aware of the contact and recoiled from it, hiding their inner life behind defences of varying strength. At first Aragon was concerned, imagining that he had discovered a great many enemies who had infiltrated the Varden. But then he realised from his quick glimpse that they were the individual members of Duvrangorgata. Zafira said, They must be scared out of their wits, thinking that they're about to be assaulted by some strange magician. I can't convince them otherwise while they block me like this. You should meet them in person, and soon too, before they decide to band together and attack. Aye, although I don't think they pose a threat to us. Duvrangorgata. Their very name betrays their ignorance. Properly, in the ancient language, it should be Dugata Vranger. Their trip ended near the back of the Varden, at a large red pavilion flying a pennant embroidered with a black shield and two parallel swords slanting underneath. Frederick pulled back the flap and Aragon and Oric entered the pavilion. Behind them, Sephira pushed her head through the opening and peered over their shoulders. A broad table occupied the centre of the furnished tent. Nasuada stood at one end, leaning on her hands, studying a slew of maps and scrolls. Aragon's stomach clenched as he saw Arya opposite her. Both women were armoured as men for battle. Nasuada turned her almond-shaped face toward him. Aragon? she whispered. He was unprepared for how glad he was to see her. With a broad grin, he twisted his hand over his sternum in the elves' gesture of fealty, and bowed. At your service. Aragon! This time Nasuada sounded delighted and relieved. Arya, too, appeared pleased. How did you get our message so quickly? I didn't. I learned about Galbatorix's army from my scrying, and left Elismira the same day. He smiled at her again. It's good to be back with the Varden. While he spoke, Nasuada studied him with a wondering expression. What has happened to you, Aragon? 
Arya must not have told her, said Sephira. And so Aragorn gave a full account of what had befallen Sephira and him since they left Nasawada in Fardandur so long ago. Much of what he said he sensed that she had already heard, either from the dwarves or from Arya, but she let him speak without interrupting. Aragorn had to be circumspect about his training. He had given his word not to reveal Oromis's existence without permission, and most of his lessons were not to be shared with outsiders. But he did his best to give Nasawada a good idea of his skills and their attendant risks. Of the Agate Blodron he merely said, And during the celebration the dragons worked upon me the change you see, giving me the physical abilities of an elf and healing my back. Your scar is gone then? asked Nasawada. He nodded. A few more sentences served to end his narrative, briefly mentioning the reason they had left Dueldenvarden, and then summarizing their journey thence. She shook her head. What a tale! You and Sephira have experienced so much since you left Farthandur. As have you, he gestured at the tent. It's amazing what you've accomplished. It must have taken an enormous amount of work to get the Varden to Surda. Has the Council of Elders caused you much trouble? A bit, but nothing extraordinary. They seem to have resigned themselves to my leadership. Her mail clinking together, Nasuada seated herself in a large, high-backed chair and turned to Oric, who had yet to speak. She welcomed him and asked if he had aught to add to Aragorn's tale. Oric shrugged and provided a few anecdotes from their stay in Elismira, though Aragorn suspected that the dwarf kept his true observations a secret for his king. When he finished, Nasuada said, I am heartened to know that if we can weather this onslaught, we shall have the elves by our side. Did any of you happen to see Hrothgar's warriors during your flight from Abalon? We are counting on their reinforcements. No, answered Sephira through Aragon. But then it was dark, and I was often above or between clouds. I could have easily missed a camp under those conditions. In any case, I doubt we would have crossed paths, for I flew straight from Abalon, and it seems likely the dwarves would choose a different route, perhaps following established roads rather than march through the wilderness. What, asked Aragon, is the situation here? Nasuada sighed and then told of how she and Orin had learned about Galbatorix's army and the desperate measures they had resorted to since in order to reach the burning plains before the king's soldiers. She finished by saying, The Empire arrived three days ago. Since then we've exchanged two messages. First they asked for our surrender, which we refused, and now we wait for their reply. How many of them are there? growled Oric. It looked like a mighty number from Sephira's back. Aye, we estimate Galbatorix mustered as many as a hundred thousand soldiers. Aragon could not contain himself. A hundred thousand? Where did they come from? It seems impossible that he could find more than a handful of people willing to serve him. They were conscripted. We can only hope that the men who were torn from their homes won't be eager to fight. If we can frighten them badly enough, they may break ranks and flee. Our numbers are greater than in Fardandur, for King Orin has joined forces with us, and we have received a veritable flood of volunteers since we began to spread the word about you, Aragon, although we are still far weaker than the Empire. Then Sephira asked, and Aragon was forced to repeat the dreadful question. What do you think our chances of victory are? That, 
said Nasawada, putting emphasis on the word, depends a great deal upon you and Aragon, and the number of magicians seeded throughout their troops. If you can find and destroy those magicians, then our enemies shall be left unprotected, and you can slay them at will. Outright victory, I think, is unlikely at this point, but we might be able to hold them at bay until their supplies run low, or until Islanzadi can come to our assistance. That is, if Galbatorix doesn't fly into battle himself. In that case, I fear retreat will be our only option. Just then Aragon felt a strange mind approaching, one that knew he was watching, and yet did not shrink from the contact, one that felt cold and hard, calculating. Alert for danger, Aragon turned his gaze toward the rear of the pavilion, where he saw the same black-haired girl who had appeared when he scried Nasuada from Elasmira. The girl stared at him with violet eyes, then said, Welcome, Shade Slayer. Welcome, Sephira. Aragon shivered at the sound of her voice, the voice of an adult. He wet his dry mouth and asked, Who are you? Without answering, the girl brushed back her glossy bangs and exposed a silvery white mark on her forehead, exactly like Aragon's Gedway Ignazia. He knew then whom he faced. No one moved as Aragon went to the girl, accompanied by Sephira, who extended her neck farther into the pavilion. Dropping to one knee, Aragon took the girl's right hand in his own. Her skin burned as if with fever. She did not resist him, but merely left her hand limp in his grip. In the ancient language, and also with his mind, so that she would understand, Aragon said, I am sorry. Can you forgive me for what I did to you? The girl's eyes softened, and she leaned forward and kissed Aragon upon the brow. I forgive you, she whispered, for the first time sounding her age. How could I not? You and Sephira created who I am, and I know you meant no harm. I forgive you, but I shall let this knowledge torture your conscience. You have condemned me to be aware of all the suffering around me. Even now your spell drives me to rush to the aid of a man not three-tenths away who just cut his hand, to help the young flag-carrier who broke his left index finger in the spokes of a wagon-wheel, and to help countless others who have been or are about to be hurt. It costs me dearly to resist those urges, and even more if I consciously cause someone discomfort, as I do by saying this. I cannot even sleep at night for the strength of my compulsion. That is your legacy, O rider. By the end, her voice had regained its bitter, mocking edge. Sephira interposed herself between them, and with her snout touched the girl in the centre of her mark. Peace, changeling! You have much anger in your heart. You don't have to live like this forever said Aragon. The elves taught me how to undo a spell, and I believe I can free you of this curse. It won't be easy, but it can be done. For a moment the girl seemed to lose her formidable self-control. A small gasp escaped her lips, her hand trembled against Aragon's, and her eyes glistened with a film of tears. Then just as quickly she hid her true emotions behind a mask of cynical amusement. Well, we shall see... Either way, you shouldn't try until after this battle. I could save you a great deal of pain. 
It wouldn't do to exhaust you when our survival may depend on your talents. I do not deceive myself. You are more important than me. A sly grin crossed her face. Besides, if you remove your spell now, I won't be able to help any of the Varden if they are threatened. You wouldn't want Nasuada to die because of that, would you? No, admitted Aragon. He paused for a long time, considering the issue, then said, Very well, I will wait. But I swear to you, if we win this fight, I shall right this wrong. The girl tilted her head to one side. I will hold you to your word, Ryder. Rising from her chair, Nasawada said, Elva was the one who saved me from an assassin in Aberon. Did she? In that case, I am in your debt. Elva, for protecting my liege lord. Come now, said Nasawada. I must introduce the three of you to Orin and his nobles. Have you met the king before, Oric? The dwarf shook his head. I've never been this far west. As they left the pavilion, Nasawada in the lead, with Elva by her side, Aragon tried to position himself so he could talk with Arya, but when he neared her, she quickened her pace until she was level with Nasawada. Arya never even looked at him while she walked, a slight that caused him more anguish than any physical wound he had endured. Elva glanced back at him, and he knew that she was aware of his distress. They soon arrived at another large pavilion, this one white and yellow, although it was difficult to determine the exact hue of the colours, given the garish orange that glazed everything on the burning plains. Once they were granted entrance, Aragon was astonished to find the tent crammed with an eccentric collection of beakers, alembics, retorts, and other instruments of natural philosophy. Who would bother toting all this onto a battlefield? he wondered, bewildered. Aragon, said Nasawada, I would like you to meet Orin, son of Larkin, and monarch of the realm of Surda. From the depths of the tangled piles of glass emerged a rather tall, handsome man, with shoulder-length hair held back by the gold coronet resting upon his head. His mind, like Nasuada's, was protected behind walls of iron. It was obvious he had received extensive training in that skill. Orin seemed pleasant enough to Aragon from their discussion. If a bit green and untried when it came to commanding men in war, and more than a little odd in the head. On the whole, Aragon trusted Nasuada's leadership more. After fending off scores of questions from Orin about his stay among the elves, Aragon found himself smiling and nodding politely, as one earl after another paraded past, each of whom insisted on shaking his hand, telling him what an honour it was to meet a rider, and inviting him to their respective estates. Aragon dutifully memorised their many names and titles, as he knew Oromus would expect, and did his best to maintain a calm demeanour, despite his growing frustration. We're about to engage one of the largest armies in history, and here we are, stuck exchanging pleasantries. Patience, counselled Sophira. There aren't that many more. Besides, look at it this way. If we win, they'll owe us an entire year of free dinners, what with all their promises. He stifled a chuckle. I think it would dismay them to know what it takes to feed you. Not to mention that you could empty their cellars of beer and wine in a single night. I would never, she sniffed, then relented. Maybe in two nights. When at last they won free of Orin's pavilion, Aragon asked Nasuada, What shall I do now? How can I serve you? 
Naswada eyed him with a curious expression. How do you think you can best serve me, Aragon? You know your own abilities far better than I do. Even Arya watched him now, waiting to hear his response. Aragon gazed up at the bloody sky while he pondered her question. I shall take control of Duvrangergata, as they once asked me to, and organize them underneath me so I can lead them into battle. Working together will give us the best chance of foiling Galbatorix's magicians. That seems an excellent idea. Is there a place, asked Sephira, where Aragon can leave his bags? I don't want to carry them or this saddle any longer than I have to. When Aragon repeated her question, Nasawada said, Of course, you may leave them in my pavilion, and I will arrange to have a tent erected for you, Aragon, where you can keep them permanently. I suggest, though, that you don your armor before parting with your bags. You might need it at any moment. That reminds me, we have your armor with us, Sephira. I shall have it unpacked and brought to you. And what of me, lady? asked Oric. We have several Nurlan with us from Durgrimstingitum, who have lent their expertise to the construction of our earthen defenses. You may take command of them, if you wish. Oric seemed heartened by the prospect of seeing fellow dwarves, especially ones from his own clan. He clapped his fist to his chest and said, I think I will at that. If you'll excuse me, I'll see to it at once. Without a backward glance, he trundled off through the camp, heading north toward the breastwork. Returning to a pavilion with the four who remained, Nasawada said to Aragon, Report to me once you have settled matters with Duvrangergata. Then she pushed aside the entrance flap to the pavilion and disappeared with Elva through the dark opening. As Arya started to follow, Aragon reached toward her and in the ancient language said, Wait. The elf paused and looked at him, betraying nothing. He held her gaze without wavering, staring deep into her eyes, which reflected the strange light around them. Arya, I won't apologize for how I feel about you. However, I wanted you to know that I am sorry for how I acted during the Blood Oath celebration. I wasn't myself that night, otherwise I would have never been so forward with you. And you won't do it again? He suppressed a humorless laugh. It wouldn't get me anywhere if I did, now would it? When she remained silent, he said, No matter. I don't want to trouble you, even if you... He bit off the end of his sentence before he made a remark he knew he would regret. Arya's expression softened. I'm not trying to hurt you, Aragon. You must understand that. I understand, he said, but without conviction. An awkward pause stretched between them. Your flight went well, I trust? Well enough. You encountered no difficulty in the desert? Should we have? No, I only wondered. Then, in an even gentler voice, Arya asked, What of you, Aragon? How have you been since the celebration? I heard what you said to Naswada, but you mentioned nothing other than your back. I... He tried to lie, not wanting her to know how much he had missed her, but the ancient language stopped the words dead in his mouth and rendered him mute. Finally, he resorted to a technique of the elves, telling only part of the truth in order to create an impression opposite the whole truth. I'm better than before, he said, meaning in his mind the condition of his back. Despite his subterfuge, Arya appeared unconvinced. She did not press him on the subject, though, but rather said, I am glad. 
Aswada's voice emanated from inside the pavilion, and Arya glanced toward it before facing him again. I am needed elsewhere, Aragon. We are both needed elsewhere. A battle is about to take place. Lifting the canvas flap, she stepped halfway into the gloomy tent, then hesitated, and added, Take care, Aragon Shadeslayer. Then she was gone. Dismay rooted Aragon in place. He had accomplished what he wanted to, but it seemed to have changed nothing between him and Arya. He balled his hands into fists and hunched his shoulders and glared at the ground without seeing it, simmering with frustration. He started when Sophia nosed him on the shoulder. Come on, little one, she said gently. You can't stay here forever, and this saddle is beginning to itch. Going to her side, Aragon pulled on her neck strap, muttering under his breath when it caught in the buckle. He almost hoped the leather would break. Undoing the rest of the straps, he let the saddle and everything tied to it fall to the ground in a jumbled heap. It feels good to have that off, said Sophia, rolling her massive shoulders. Digging his armor out of the saddlebags, Aragon outfitted himself in the bright dress of war. First he pulled his hauberk over his elven tunic, then strapped his chaste greaves to his legs and his inlaid braces to his forearms. On his head went his padded leather cap, followed by his quaff of tempered steel, and then his gold and silver helm. Last of all, he replaced his regular gloves with his mail-backed gauntlets. Zarok he hung on his left hip, using the belt of Beloth the Wise. Across his back he placed the quiver of white swan feathers his Lanzadi had given him. The quiver, he was pleased to find, could also hold the bow the elf queen had sung for him, even when it was strung. After depositing his and Oric's belongings into the pavilion, Aragon and Sephira set out together to find Triana, the current leader of Duvranga Gata. They had gone no more than a few paces, when Aragon sensed a nearby mine that was shielded from his view. Assuming that it was one of the Varden's magicians, they veered toward it. Twelve yards from their starting point, they came upon a small green tent with a donkey picketed in front. To the left of the tent, a blackened iron cauldron hung from a metal tripod, placed over one of the malodorous flames birthed deep within the earth. Cords were strung about the cauldron, over which were draped nightshade, hemlock, rhododendron, savon, bark of the yew tree, and numerous mushrooms, such as deathcap and spotted court, all of which Aragon recognized from Oromis's lessons on poison. And standing next to the cauldron, wielding a long wood paddle with which she stirred the brew, was Angela, the herbalist. At her feet sat Solemnbum. The weircat uttered a mournful meow, and Angela looked up from her task, her corkscrew hair forming a billowing thundercloud around her glistening face. She frowned, and her expression became positively ghoulish, for it was lit from beneath by the flickering green flame. "'So you've returned, eh?' "'We have,' said Aragon. "'Is that all you have to say for yourself? "'Have you seen Elva yet? "'Have you seen what you did to that poor girl?' "'Aye.' "'Aye?' cried Angela. "'How inarticulate can a person be? "'All this time in Elismira being tutored by the elves, "'and I is the best you can manage? "'Let me tell you something, blockhead. "'Anyone who is stupid enough to do what you did deserves—' Aragon clasped his hands behind his back and waited, as Angela informed him in many explicit, detailed, and highly inventive terms exactly how great a blockhead he was.
what kind of ancestors he must possess to be such a monumental blockhead. She even went so far as to insinuate that one of his grandparents had mated with an urgle, and the quite hideous punishments he ought to receive for his idiocy. If anyone else had insulted him in that manner, Eragon would have challenged them to a duel. But he tolerated her spleen because he knew he could not judge her behaviour by the same standards as he did others, and because he knew her outrage was justified. He had made a dreadful mistake. When she finally paused for breath, he said, You're quite right, and I'm going to try to remove the spell once the battle is decided. Angela blinked three times, one right after the other, and her mouth remained open for a moment in a small O before she clamped it shut. With a glare of suspicion, she asked, You're not saying that just to placate me, are you? I would never. And you really intend to undo your curse? I thought such things were irrevocable. The elves have discovered many uses of magic. Ah, well then, that's settled, isn't it? She flashed him a wide smile and then strode past him to pat Sephira on her jowls. It's good to see you again, Sephira. You've grown. Well met indeed, Angela. As Angela returned to stirring her concoction, Aragon said, That was an impressive tirade you gave. Thank you. I worked on it for several weeks. It's a pity you didn't get to hear the ending. It's memorable. I could finish it for you if you want. No, that's all right. I can imagine what it's like. Glancing at her out of the corner of his eye, Aragon then said, You don't seem surprised by how I've changed. The herbalist shrugged. I have my sources. It's an improvement, in my opinion. You were a bit... Oh, how shall I say it? Unfinished before. That I was. He gestured at the hanging plants. What do you plan to do with these? Oh, it's just a little project of mine. An experiment, if you will. Hmm. Examining the pattern of colours on a dried mushroom that dangled before him, Aragon asked, Did you ever figure out if toads exist or not? As a matter of fact, I did. It seems that all toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads. So in that sense, toads don't really exist, which means that I was right all along. She stopped her patter abruptly, leaned to the side, grabbed a mug from a bench next to her, and offered it to Aragon. Here, have a cup of tea. Aragon glanced at the deadly plants surrounding them, and then back at Angela's open face before he accepted the mug. Under his breath, so the herbalist would not hear, he muttered three spells to detect poison. Only once he ascertained that the tea was free of contamination did he dare drink. The tea was delicious, though he could not identify the ingredients. At that moment, Solombum padded over to Sephira and began to arch his back and rub himself up against her leg, just as any normal cat would. Twisting her neck, Sephira bent down and with the tip of her nose brushed the weircat the length of his spine. She said, I met someone in Elasmira who knows you. Solombum stopped rubbing and cocked his head. Is that so? Yes, her name was Quickpaw and the Dream Dancer and also Maud. Solombum's golden eyes widened. A deep, throaty purr rumbled in his chest and he rubbed against Sephira with renewed vigour. So, said Angela, I assume you already spoke with Nasawada, Arya, and King Orin? He nodded. And what did you think of dear old Orin? Aragon chose his words with care, for he was aware that they were talking about a king. Well, 
He seems to have a great many interests. Yes, he's as balmy as a moonstruck fool on Midsummer Night Eve. But then everyone is, in one way or another. Amused by her forthrightness, Aragon said, He must be crazy to have carted so much glass all the way from Aberon. Angela raised an eyebrow. What's this now? Haven't you seen the inside of his tent? Unlike some people, she sniffed, I don't ingratiate myself with every monarch I meet. So he described for her the mass of instruments Orin had brought to the burning plains. Angela abandoned her stirring as he spoke, and listened with great interest. The instant he finished, she began bustling around the cauldron, gathering the plants off the lines, often using tongs to do so, and saying, I think I had best pay Orin a visit. The two of you will have to tell me about your trip to Elasmira at a later time. Well, go on, both of you. Be gone. Aragon shook his head as the short little woman drove him and Sephira away from her tent, and he still holding the cup of tea. Talking with her is always... Different, suggested Sephira. Exactly. The Clouds of War From there it took them almost half an hour to locate Triana's tent, which apparently served as the unofficial headquarters of Duvrangergata. They had difficulty finding the tent because few people knew of its existence, and even fewer could tell them where it lay, because the tent was hidden behind a spur of rock that served to conceal it from the gaze of enemy magicians in Galbatorix's army. As Aragon and Sephira approached the black tent, the entrance was thrust open and Triana strode out, her arms bare to the elbow in preparation to use magic. Behind her clustered a group of determined, if frightened-looking, spellcasters, many of whom Aragon had seen during the battle in Fardandur, either fighting or healing the wounded. Aragon watched as Triana and the others reacted with the now-expected surprise at his altered appearance. Lowering her arms, Triana said, Shadeslayer, Sephira, you should have told us sooner that you were here. We've been preparing to confront and battle what we thought was a mighty foe. I didn't mean to upset you said Aragon, but we had to report to Nasuada and King Orin immediately after we landed. And why have you graced us with your presence now? You never deigned to visit us before, we who are more your brethren than any in the Varden. I've come to take command of Duvrangergata. The assembled spellcasters muttered with surprise at his announcement, and Triana stiffened. Aragon felt several magicians probe his consciousness in an attempt to divine his true intentions. Instead of guarding himself, which would blind him to impending attacks, Aragon retaliated by jabbing the minds of the would-be invaders hard enough that they retreated behind their own barriers. As he did, Aragon had the satisfaction of seeing two men and a woman flinch and avert their gazes. By whose order? demanded Triana. By Nasuada's. Ah, said the sorceress with a triumphant smile, but Nasuada has no direct authority over us. We help the Varden of our own free will. Her resistance puzzled Aragon. I'm sure Nasuada would be surprised to hear that, after everything she and her father have done for Duvrangergata. It might give her the impression that you no longer wanted the support and protection of the Varden. He let the threat hang in the air for a moment. Besides, I seem to remember you were willing to give me this post before. Why not now? Triana lifted an eyebrow. You refused my offer, Shadeslayer, or have you forgotten? Composed as she was, a trace of defensiveness coloured her response, and Aragon suspected she knew her position was untenable. She seemed more mature to him than when they last met, 
and he had to remind himself of the hardships she must have endured since, marching across Alagazia to Surda, supervising the magicians of Duvrangorgata and preparing for war. We could not accept them. It was the wrong time. Abruptly changing tack, she asked, Why does Nasuada believe you should command us anyway? Surely you and Safira would be more useful elsewhere. Nasuada wants me to lead you, Duvrangorgata, in the coming battle, and so I shall. Aragon thought it best not to mention that it was his idea. A dark scowl gave Triana a fierce appearance. She pointed at the cluster of spellcasters behind her. We have devoted our lives to the study of our art. You have been casting spells for less than two years. What makes you more qualified for this task than any of us? No matter. Tell me, what is your strategy? How do you plan to employ us? My plan is simple, he said. The lot of you will join mines and search for enemy spellcasters. When you find one, I'll add my strength to yours, and together we can crush the spellcaster's resistance. Then we can slay the troops that previously were protected by his or her wards. And what will you be doing the rest of the time? Fighting alongside Sephira. After an awkward silence, one of the men behind Triana said, It's a good plan. He quailed as Triana cast an angry glare at him. She slowly faced Aragon again. Ever since the twins died, I have led Duvrangorgata. Under my guidance, they have provided the means to fund the Varden's war effort, ferreted out the Black Hand, Galbatorix's network of spies that tried to assassinate Nasawada, as well as performing innumerable other services. I do not boast when I say these are no mean accomplishments, and I am certain I can continue to produce such results. Why, then, does Nasawada want to depose me? How have I displeased her? Everything became clear to Aragon then. She has grown accustomed to power and doesn't want to surrender it. But more than that, she thinks that my replacing her is a criticism of her leadership. You need to resolve this debate, and quickly too, said Sephira. Our time grows short. Aragon racked his brain for a way to establish his authority in Duvrangorgata without further alienating Triana. At last, he said... I didn't come here to stir up trouble. I came to ask for your help. He spoke to the entire congregation, but looked only at the sorceress. I am strong, yes. Sephira and I could probably defeat any number of Galbatorix's pet magicians. But we cannot protect everyone in the Varden. We cannot be everywhere. And if the Empire's battle mages join forces against us, then even we will be hard-pressed to survive. We cannot fight this battle alone. You are quite right, Triana. You have done well with Duvrangorgata, and I'm not here to usurp your authority. It's only that, as a magician, I need to work with Duvrangorgata, and as a rider, I may also need to give you orders, orders that I have to know will be obeyed without question. The chain of command must be established. That said, you will retain the greater part of your autonomy. Most times I'll be too busy to devote my attention to Duvrangorgata nor do I intend to ignore your counsel, for I am aware that you have far more experience than I. So I ask again, will you help us, for the good of the Varden? Triana paused, then bowed. Of course, Shadeslayer, for the good of the Varden. It will be an honour to have you lead Duvrangorgata. Then let us begin. Over the next few hours Aragon talked with every one of the assembled magicians although a fair number were absent, being occupied with one task or another to help the Varden. 
he did his best to acquaint himself with their knowledge of magic. He learned that the majority of men and women in Duvrangurgata had been introduced to their craft by a relative, and usually in profound secrecy, to avoid attracting attention from those who feared magic, and of course Galbatorix himself. Only a handful had received proper apprenticeships. As a result, most of the spellcasters knew little about the ancient language. None could truly speak it fluently. Their beliefs about magic were often distorted by religious superstitions, and they were ignorant of numerous applications of grammar. No wonder the twins were so desperate to extract your vocabulary of the ancient language when they tested you in Fardandur, observed Sephira. With it, they could have easily conquered these lesser magicians. They're all we have to work with, though. True. I hope you can see now I was right about Triana. She places her own desires before the good of the many. You were right, he agreed, but I don't condemn her for it. Triana deals with the world in the best way she can, as do we all. I understand that, even if I don't approve. And understanding, as Oromis said, breeds empathy. A bit more than a third of the spellcasters specialized as healers. Those Aragon sent on their way, after giving them a quintet of new spells to memorize, enchantments that would allow them to treat a greater range of injuries. The remaining spellcasters Aragon worked with to establish a clear chain of command. He appointed Triana his lieutenant, and let her ensure that his orders were carried out, and to weld their disparate personalities into a cohesive fighting unit. Trying to convince magicians to cooperate, he discovered, was like trying to get a pack of dogs to share a meat bone. Nor did it help that they were in evident awe of him, for he could find no way of using his influence to smooth relations among the contentious magicians. In order to gain a better idea of their exact proficiency, Eragon had them cast a series of spells. As he watched them struggle with enchantments that he now considered simple, Eragon became aware of just how far his own powers had advanced. To Sephira he marvelled, and to think I once had trouble lifting a pebble in the air. And to think, she replied, Galbatorix has had over a century to hone his talent. The sun was low in the west, intensifying the fermented orange light until the Vardens' camp, the livid Jeet River, and the entirety of the burning plains glowed in the mad marble effulgence, as if in a scene from a lunatic's dreams. The sun was no more than a finger's breadth above the horizon when a runner arrived at the tent. He told Aragon that Nasawada ordered him to attend her at once. And I think you'd better hurry, Shadeslayer, if you don't mind me saying so. After extracting a promise from Duvrangurgata that they would be ready and willing when he called upon them for assistance, Aragon ran alongside Sephira through the rows of grey tents towards Nasawada's pavilion. A harsh tumult above them caused Aragon to lift his eyes from the treacherous ground long enough to glance overhead. What he saw was a giant flock of birds wheeling between the two armies. He spotted eagles, hawks and falcons, along with countless greedy crows and their larger, dagger-beaked, blue-backed, rapacious cousin, the raven. Each bird shrieked for blood to wet its throat, and enough hot meat to fill its belly and sate its hunger. By experience and instinct, they knew that whenever armies appeared in Alagazia, they could expect to feast on acres of carrion. The clouds of war are gathering, observed Aragon. Nargarjvog Aragon entered the pavilion, Sephira pushing her head through after him. 
he was met by a steely rasp as Jormunda and a half-dozen of Nasuada's commanders drew their swords at the intruders. The men lowered their weapons as Nasuada said, "'Come here, Aragon.' "'What is your bidding?' Aragon asked. "'Our scouts report that a company of some hundred cull approached from the northeast.' Aragon frowned. He had not expected to encounter Urgals in this battle, since Durza no longer controlled them, and so many had been killed in Faldandur. But if they had come, they had come. He felt his bloodlust rise, and allowed himself a savage grin as he contemplated destroying Urgals with his new strength. Clapping his hand to Zarok's hilt, he said, "'It will be a pleasure to eliminate them. Safira and I can handle it by ourselves, if you want.' Nasawada watched his face carefully as she said, "'We can't do that, Aragon. They're flying a white flag.' and they have asked to talk with me. Aragon gaped at her. Surely you don't intend to grant them an audience? I will offer them the same courtesies I would to any foe who arrives under the banner of truce. They're brutes, though! Monsters! It's folly to allow them into the camp! Nasuada, I have seen the atrocities Urgals commit. They relish pain and suffering, and deserve no more mercy than a rabid dog! There is no need for you to waste time over what is surely a trap. Just give the word, and I and every last one of your warriors will be more than willing to kill these foul creatures for you. In this, said Jormund, I agree with Aragon. If you won't listen to us, Nasuada, at least listen to him. First Nasuada said to Aragon in a murmur low enough that no one else could hear, Your training is indeed unfinished if you are so blinded. Then she raised her voice and in it Aragon heard the same adamantine notes of command that her father had possessed. You all forget that I fought in Farthandur the same as you, and that I saw the savagery of the Urgals. However, I also saw our own men commit acts just as heinous. I shall not denigrate what we have endured at the Urgals' hands, but neither shall I ignore potential allies when we are so greatly outnumbered by the Empire. My lady, it is too dangerous for you to meet with a cull. Too dangerous, Nasuada raised an eyebrow. While I am protected by Eragon, Sephira, Elva, and all the warriors around me? I think not. Eragon gritted his teeth with frustration. Say something, Sephira. You can convince her to abandon this harebrained scheme. No, I won't. Your mind is clouded on this issue. You can't agree with her, exclaimed Eragon, aghast. You were there in Yazuak with me. You know what the Urgals did to the villagers. And what about when we left Tirm, my capture at Gilead and Farthandur? Every time we've encountered Urgals, they've tried to kill us, or worse. They're nothing more than vicious animals. The elves believed the same thing about dragons during Dufirnskulblaka. At Nasuada's behest, her guards tied back the front and side panels of the pavilion leaving it open for all to see and allowing Sephira to crouch low next to Aragon. Then Nasuada seated herself in her high-backed chair, and Jormunda and the other commanders arranged themselves in two parallel rows, so that anyone who sought an audience with her had to walk between them. Aragon stood at her right hand, Elva by her left. Less than five minutes later a great roar of anger erupted from the eastern edge of the camp. The storm of jeers and insults grew louder and louder, until a single cull entered their view, walking toward Nasuada while a mob of the Varden peppered him with taunts. The Urgal, or Ram, as Aragon remembered they were called, held his head high and bared his yellow fangs, 
but did not otherwise react to the abuse directed at him. He was a magnificent specimen, eight and a half feet tall, with strong, proud, if grotesque, features, thick horns that spiralled all the way around, and a fantastic musculature that made it seem he could kill a bear with a single blow. His only clothing was a knotted loincloth, a few plates of crude iron armour held together with scraps of mail, and a curved metal disc nestled between his two horns to protect the top of his head. His long black hair was in a queue. Eragon felt his lips tighten in a grimace of hate. He had to struggle to keep from drawing Zarok and attacking. Yet despite himself, he could not help but admire the Urgle's courage in confronting an entire army of enemies alone and unarmed. To his surprise, he found the Cull's mind strongly shielded. When the Urgle stopped before the eaves of the pavilion, not daring to come any closer, Nasuada had her guards shout for quiet to settle the crowd. Everyone looked at the Urgle, wondering what he would do next. The Urgle lifted his bulging arms toward the sky, inhaled a mighty breath, and then opened his maw and bellowed at Nasuada. In an instant, a thicket of swords pointed at the cull, but he paid them no attention and continued his ululation until his lungs were empty. Then he looked at Nasuada, ignoring the hundreds of people who it was obvious longed to kill him, and growled in a thick, guttural accent. What treachery is this, Lady Night Stalker? I was promised safe passage. Do humans break their word so easily? Leaning toward her, one of Nasuada's commanders said, let us punish him, mistress, for his insolence. Once we have taught him the meaning of respect, then you can hear his message, whatever it is. Eragon longed to remain silent, but he knew his duty to Nasawada and the Varden, so he bent down and said in Nasawada's ear, Don't take offence. This is how they greet their war chiefs. The proper response is to then butt heads, but I don't think you want to try that. Did the elves teach you this? she murmured, never taking her eyes off the waiting cull. Aye, what else did they teach you of the Urgles? A great deal, he admitted reluctantly. Then Nasawada said to the Kull and also to her men beyond, The Varden are not liars like Galbatorix and the Empire. Speak your mind. You need fear no danger while we hold counsel under the conditions of truce. The Urgle grunted and raised his bony chin higher, bearing his throat. Eragon recognized it as a gesture of friendship. To lower one's head was a threat in their race, for it meant that an Urgle intended to ram you with his horns. I am Nargarjvog of the Bolvek tribe. I speak for my people. It seemed as if he chewed on each word before spitting it out. Urgles are hated more than any other race. Elves, dwarfs, humans, all hunt us, burn us, and drive us from our halls. Not without good reason, pointed out Nasuada. Garjvog nodded. Not without reason. Our people love war. Yet how often are we attacked just because you'll find us as ugly as we find you? We have thrived since the fall of the riders. Our tribes are now so large, the harsh land we live in can no longer feed us. So you made a pact with Galbatorix? Aye, Lady Nightstalker. He promised us good land if we killed his enemies. He tricked us, though. 
his flame-haired shaman, Durza, bent the minds of our war-chiefs and forced our tribes to work together, as is not our way. When he learned this in the dwarves' hollow mountain, the Herndal, the Dams who rule us, sent my broodmate to Galbatorix to ask why he used us so. Gajvog shook his ponderous head. She did not return. Our finest rams died for Galbatorix, then he abandoned us like a broken sword. He is Drogel, and snake-tongued and a lack-horned betrayer. Lady Night Stalker, we are fewer now, but we will fight with you if you let us. What is the price? asked Nasuada. Your Herndal must want something in return. Blood. Galbatorix's blood. And if the Empire falls, we ask that you give us land. Land for breeding and growing. Land to avoid more battles in the future. Eragon guessed Nasawada's decision by the set of her face even before she spoke. So apparently did Jormunda, for he leaned toward her and said in an undertone, Nasawada, you can't do this. It goes against nature. Nature can't help us defeat the Empire. We need allies. The men will desert before they'll fight with Urgles. That can be worked around. Eragon, will they keep their word? Only so long as we share a common enemy. With a sharp nod, Nasawada again lifted her voice. Very well, Nagajvog. You and your warriors may bivouac along the eastern flank of our army, away from the main body, and we shall discuss the terms of our pact. Agrat Ukmar, growled the Kull, clapping his fists to his brow. You are a wise Herndal, Lady Nightstalker. Why do you call me that? Herndal? No, Nightstalker. Gajvag made a ruck-ruck sound in his throat that Aragon interpreted as laughter. Nightstalker is the name we gave your sire because of how he hunted us in the dark tunnels under the dwarf mountain and because of the color of his hide. As his cub, you are worthy of the same name. With that he turned on his heel and strode out of the camp. Standing, Nasuada proclaimed, Anyone who attacks the Urgles shall be punished, as if he attacked a fellow human. See that word of this is posted in every company. No sooner had she finished than Aragon noticed King Orin approaching at a quick pace, his cape flapping around him. When he was close enough, he cried, Nasuada, is it true you met with an Urgle? What do you mean by it, and why wasn't I alerted sooner? I don't... He was interrupted as a sentry emerged from the ranks of grey tents, shouting, A horseman approaches from the Empire! In an instant, King Orin forgot his argument and joined Nasawada as she hurried toward the vanguard of the army, followed by at least a hundred people. Rather than stay among the crowd, Aragon pulled himself onto Sephira and let her carry him to their destination. When Sephira halted at the ramparts, trenches and rows of sharpened poles that protected the Varden's leading edge, Aragon saw a lone soldier riding at a furious clip across the bleak no-man's land. Above him, the birds of prey swooped low to discover if the first course of their feast had arrived. The soldier reined in his black stallion some thirty yards from the breastwork, keeping as much distance as possible between him and the Varden. He shouted, 
By refusing King Albatorix's generous terms of surrender, you choose death as your fate. No more shall we negotiate. The hand of friendship has turned into the fist of war. If any of you still hold regard for your rightful sovereign, the all-knowing, all-powerful King Albatorix, then flee. None may stand before us once we set forth to cleanse Alagasia of every miscreant, traitor and subversive. And though it pains our Lord, for he knows that most of these rebellious acts are instigated by bitter and misguided leaders, we shall gently chastise the unlawful territory known as Surda and return it to the benevolent rule of King Albatorix, he who sacrifices himself day and night for the good of his people. So flee, I say, or suffer the doom of your herald. With that, the soldier untied a canvas sack and flourished a severed head. He threw it into the air and watched it fall among the Varden, then turned his stallion, dug in his spurs, and galloped back toward the dark mass of Galbatorix's army. Shall I kill him? asked Aragon. Nasawada shook her head. We will have our due soon enough. I won't violate the sanctity of envoys, even if the Empire has. As you... He yelped with surprise, and clutched Sephira's neck to keep from falling as she reared above the ramparts, planting her front legs upon the chartreuse bank. Opening her jaws, Sephira uttered a long, deep roar, much like Garjvog had done. Only this roar was a defiant challenge to their enemies, a warning of the wrath they had roused, and a clarion call to all who hated Galbatorix. The sound of her trumpeting voice frightened the stallion so badly he jinked to the right, slipped on the heated ground, and fell on his side. The soldier was thrown free of the horse and landed in a gout of fire that erupted at that very instant. He uttered a single cry, so horrible it made Aragon's scalp prickle, then was silent and still forevermore. The birds began to descend. The Varden cheered Sephira's accomplishment. Even Nasuada allowed herself a small smile. Then she clapped her hands and said, They will attack at dawn, I think. Eragon, gather Duvrangelgata and prepare yourself for action. I will have orders for you within the hour. Taking Orin by the shoulder, she guided him back toward the centre of the compound, saying, Sire, there are decisions we must make. I have a certain plan, but it will require... Let them come, said Sophira. The tip of her tail twitched like that of a cat stalking a rabbit. They will all burn. Witches Brew Night had fallen on the burning plains. The roof of opaque smoke covered the moon and stars, plunging the land into profound darkness that was broken only by the sullen glow of the sporadic peat-fires, and by the thousands of torches each army lit. From Aragon's position near the fort of the Varden, the Empire looked a dense nest of uncertain orange lights, as large as any city. As Aragon buckled the last piece of Sephira's armour onto her tail, he closed his eyes to maintain better contact with the magicians from Duvrangargata. He had to learn to locate them at a moment's notice. His life would depend on communicating with them in a quick and timely manner. In turn, the magicians had to learn to recognize the touch of his mind, so they did not block him when he needed their assistance. Aragon smiled and said, Hello, Oric. He opened his eyes to see Oric clambering up the low knuckle of rock where he and Sephira sat. The dwarf, who was fully armored, carried his Urgle horn bow in his left hand. Hunkering beside Aragon, 
Oric wiped his brow and shook his head. How'd you know it was me? I was shielding myself. Every consciousness feels different, explained Safira. Just like no two voices sound exactly the same. Ah, Eragon asked. What brings you here? Oric shrugged. It struck me you might appreciate a spot of company in this grim night, especially since Arya's otherwise engaged, and you don't have Murtag with you for this battle. And I wish I did, thought Eragon. Murtag had been the only human who matched Eragon's skill with a sword, at least before the Agate Blodron. Sparring with him had been one of Eragon's few pleasures during their time together. I would have enjoyed fighting with you again, old friend. Remembering how Murtag was killed, dragged underground by Urgles in Fardendur, forced Eragon to confront a sobering truth. No matter how great a warrior you were, as often as not pure chance dictated who lived and who died in war. Oric must have sensed his mood, for he clapped Eragon on the shoulder and said, You'll be fine. Just imagine how the soldiers out there feel, knowing they have to face you before long. Gratitude made Eragon smile again. I'm glad you came. The tip of Oric's nose reddened, and he glanced down, rolling his bow between gnarled hands. Oh, well, he grumbled. Hrothgar wouldn't much like it if I let something happen to you. Besides, we're foster brothers now, eh? Through Aragon, Saphira asked, What about the other dwarves? Aren't they under your command? A twinkle sprang into Oryk's eyes. Why, yes, so they are. And they'll be joining us before long. Seeing as Aragon's a member of Durgrimstingitum, it's only right we fight the Empire together. That way the two of you won't be so vulnerable. You can concentrate on finding Galbatorix's magicians instead of defending yourselves from constant attacks. A good idea, thank you. Oric grunted an acknowledgement. Then Aragon asked, What do you think about Nasuada and the Urgles? She made the right choice. You agree with her? I do. I don't like it any more than you, but I do. Silence enveloped them after that. Eragon sat against Sephira and stared out at the Empire, trying to prevent his growing anxiety from overwhelming him. Minutes dragged by. To him, the interminable waiting before a battle was as stressful as the actual fighting. He oiled Sephira's saddle, polished rust off his hauberk, and then resumed familiarizing himself with the mines of Duvrangergata, anything to pass the time. Over an hour later, he paused as he sensed two beings approaching from across the no-man's land. Angela? Solemn bum? Puzzled and alarmed, he woke Oric, who had dozed off, and told him what he had discovered. The dwarf frowned and drew his war-axe from his belt. I've only met the herbalist a few times, but she didn't seem like the sort who would betray us. She's been welcome among the Varden for decades. We should still find out what she was doing said Aragon. Together they picked their way through the camp to intercept the duo as they approached the fortifications. Angela soon trotted into the light, Solembum at her heels. The witch was muffled in a dark, full-length cloak that allowed her to blend into the mottled landscape. Displaying a surprising amount of alacrity, strength, and flexibility, she clambered over the many rows of breastwork the dwarves had engineered, swinging from pole to pole, leaping over trenches, 
and finally running helter-skelter down the steep face of the last rampart, to stop, panting, by Safira. Throwing back the hood of her cloak, Angela flashed them a bright smile. A welcoming committee. How thoughtful of you. As she spoke, the weircat shivered along his length, fur rippling. Then his outline blurred as if seen through cloudy water, resolving once more into the nude figure of a shaggy-haired boy. Angela dipped her hand into a leather purse at her belt and passed a child's tunic and breeches back to Solombam, along with a small black dagger he fought with. "'What were you doing out there?' asked Oric, peering at them with a suspicious gaze. "'Oh, this and that.' "'I think you'd better tell us,' said Aragon. Her face hardened. "'Is that so?' Don't you trust Solombum and me? The weircat bared his pointed teeth. Not really, admitted Eragon, but with a small smile. That's good, said Angela. She patted him on the cheek. You'll live longer. If you must know, then, I was doing my best to help defeat the Empire. Only my methods don't involve yelling and running around with a sword. And what exactly are your methods? growled Oric. Angela paused to roll up her cloak into a tight bundle, which she stored in her purse. I'd rather not say. I want it to be a surprise. You won't have to wait long to find out. It'll start in a few hours. Oric tugged on his beard. What will start? If you can't give us a straight answer, we'll have to take you to Nasuada. Maybe she can wring some sense out of you. It's no use dragging me off to Nasuada, said Angela. She gave me permission to cross lines. So you say, challenged Doric, ever more belligerent. And so I say, announced Nasawada, walking up to them from behind, as Eragon knew she would. He also sensed that she was accompanied by four cull, one of whom was Garjvog. Scowling, he turned to face them, making no attempt to hide his anger at the Urgle's presence. My lady, muttered Eragon. Doric was not as composed. He jumped back with a mighty oath, grasping his war-axe. He quickly realized that they were not under attack and gave Nasuada a terse greeting. But his hand never left the haft of his weapon, and his eyes never left the hulking Urgles. Angela seemed to have no such inhibitions. She paid Nasuada the respect due to her, then addressed the Urgles in their own harsh language, to which they answered with evident delight. Nasuada drew Aragon off to the side so they could have a measure of privacy. There, she said, I need you to put aside your feelings for a moment and judge what I am about to tell you with logic and reason. Can you do that? He nodded, stiff-faced. Good. I'm doing everything I can to ensure we don't lose tomorrow. It doesn't matter, though, how well we fight or how well I lead the Varden, or even if we rout the Empire, if you, she poked him in the chest, are killed. Do you understand? He nodded again. There's nothing I can do to protect you if Galbatorix reveals himself. If he does, you will face him alone. Duvrangelgatta poses no more of a threat to him than they do to you, and I'll not have them eradicated without reason. I have always known, said Aragon, that I would face Galbatorix alone but for Sephira. A sad smile touched Nasuada's lips. She looked very tired in the flickering torchlight. Well, there's no reason to invent trouble where none exists. It's possible Galbatorix isn't even here. She did not seem to believe her own words, though. In any case, I can at least keep you from dying from a sword in the gut. I heard what the dwarves intend to do, and I thought I could improve upon the concept. 
I asked Kajvag and three of his rams to be your guards, so long as they agreed, which they have, to let you examine their minds for treachery. Aragon went rigid. You can't expect me to fight with those monsters? Besides, I already accepted the dwarves' offer to defend Saphira and me. They would take it poorly if I rejected them in favour of Urgles. Then they can both guard you, retorted Nasuada. She searched his face for a long time, looking for what he could not tell. Oh, Aragon, I'd hoped you could see past your hate. What else would you do in my position? She sighed when he remained silent. If anyone has cause to hold a grudge against the Urgles, it is I. They killed my father. Yet I cannot allow that to interfere with deciding what's best for the Varden. At least ask Saphira's opinion before you say yea or nay. I can order you to accept the Urgles' protection, but I would rather not. You're being foolish, observed Saphira without prompting. Foolish to not want Cull watching my back? No, foolish to refuse help no matter where it comes from in our present situation. Think. You know what Oramis would do, and you know what he would say. Don't you trust his judgment? He can't be right about everything, said Aragon. That's no argument. Search yourself, Aragon, and tell me whether I speak the truth. You know the correct path. I would be disappointed if you could not bring yourself to embrace it. Saphira and Nasuada's cajoling only made Aragon more reluctant to agree. Still, he knew he had no choice. All right, I'll let them guard me, but only if I find nothing suspicious in their minds. Will you promise that after this battle you won't make me work with an Urgle again? Nasuada shook her head. I can't do that, not when it might hurt the Varden. She paused and said, Oh, and Aragon? Yes, my lady. In the event of my death, I have chosen you as my successor. If that should happen, I suggest you rely upon Jormunder's advice. He has more experience than the other members of the Council of Elders, and I would expect you to place the welfare of those underneath you before all else. Am I clear, Aragon? Her announcement caught him by surprise. Nothing meant more to her than the Varden. Offering it to him was the greatest act of trust she could make. Her confidence humbled and touched him. He bowed his head. I would strive to be as good a leader as you and Ajahat have been. You honour me, Nasuada. Yes, I do. Turning away from him, she rejoined the others. Still overwhelmed by Nasuada's revelation and finding his anger tempered by it, Aragon slowly walked back to Zephira. He studied Gajvag and the other Urgles, trying to gauge their mood, but their features were so different from those he was accustomed to, he could discern nothing more than the broadest of emotions. Nor could he find any empathy within himself for the Urgles. To him they were feral beasts that would kill him as soon as not, and were incapable of love, kindness, or even true intelligence. In short, they were lesser beings. Deep within his mind, Sephira whispered, I'm sure Galbatorix is of the same opinion. And for good reason, he growled, intending to shock her. Suppressing his revulsion, he said out loud, Nagajvag, I am told that the four of you agreed to allow me within your minds. That is so, Fire Sword. Lady Nightstalker told us what was required. We are honored to have the chance to battle alongside such a mighty warrior.
and one who has done so much for us. What do you mean? I have killed scores of your kin. Unbidden excerpts from one of Oremus's scrolls rose in Aragon's mind. He remembered reading that Urgles, both male and female, determined their rank in society through combat, and that it was this practice above all else that had led to so many conflicts between Urgles and other races, which meant, he realized, that if they admired his feats in battle, then they may have accorded him the same status as one of their war chiefs. By killing Durza, you freed us from his control. We are in your debt, Fire Sword. None of our rams will challenge you, and if you visit our halls, you and the dragon, Flame Tongue, will be welcomed as no outsiders ever before. Of all the responses Aragon had expected, gratitude was the last, and it was the one he was least prepared to deal with. Unable to think of anything else, he said, I won't forget. He switched his gaze to the other Urgles, and then returned it to Garjvag and his yellow eyes. Are you ready? Aye, Ryder. As Aragon reached toward Garjvag's consciousness, it reminded him of how the twins invaded his mind when he first entered Fardandur. That observation was swept away as he immersed himself in the Urgle's identity. The very nature of his search, looking for malevolent intent perhaps hidden somewhere in Garjvag's past, meant Aragon had to examine years of memories. Unlike the twins, Aragon avoided causing deliberate pain, but he was not overly gentle. He could feel Garjvag flinch with occasional pangs of discomfort. Like dwarves and elves, the mind of an Urgle possessed different elements than a human mind. Its structure emphasized rigidity and hierarchy, a result of the tribes the Urgles organized themselves into, but it felt rough and raw, brutal and cunning, the mind of a wild animal. Though he made no effort to learn more about Garjvag as an individual, Aragon could not help absorbing pieces of the Urgles' life. Garjvag did not resist. Indeed, he seemed eager to share his experiences, to convince Aragon that Urgles were not his born enemies. We cannot afford to have another rider rise up who seeks to destroy us, said Garjvag. Look well, O Fire Sword, and see if we are truly the monsters you call us. So many images and sensations flashed between them, Aragon almost lost track. Garjvag's childhood with the other members of his brood in a ramshackle village built deep in the heart of the spine his dam brushing his hair with an antler comb and singing a soft song, learning to hunt deer and other prey with his bare hands, growing larger and larger until it was apparent that the old blood still flowed in his veins and he would stand over eight feet tall, making him a cull. The dozens of challenges he made, accepted and won, venturing out of the village to gain renown so he might mate and gradually learning to hate, distrust and fear, yes, fear, a world that had condemned his race fighting in Fardandur, discovering they had been manipulated by Durza, and realizing that their only hope of a better life was to put aside old differences, befriend the Varden, and see Galbatorix overthrown. Nowhere was there evidence that Garjvag lied. Aragon could not understand what he had seen. Tearing himself from Garjvag's mind, he dove into each of the three remaining Urgles. Their memories confirmed the facts presented by Garjvag. They made no attempt to conceal that they had killed humans, but it had been done at the command of Durza when the sorcerer controlled them, or when fighting humans over food or land. 
We did what we had to in order to care for our families, they said. When he finished, Aragon stood before Garjvag and knew the Urgul's bloodline was as regal as any princess. He knew that though uneducated, Garjvag was a brilliant commander and as great a thinker and philosopher as Oromis himself. He's certainly brighter than me, admitted Aragon to Sephira. Bearing his throat as a sign of respect, he said out loud, Nar Garjvag, and for the first time he was aware of the lofty origins of the title Nar. I am proud to have you at my side. You may tell the Herndal that so long as the Urgles remain true to their word and do not turn against the Varden, I shall not oppose you. Aragon doubted that he would ever like an Urgle, but the iron certitude of his prejudice only a few minutes before now seemed ignorant, and he could not retain it in good conscience. Sephira flicked him on the arm with her barbed tongue, making the mail clink together. It takes courage to admit you were wrong. Only if you are afraid of looking foolish, and I would have looked far more foolish if I persisted with an erroneous belief. Why, little one, you just said something wise. Despite her teasing, he could sense her warm pride in what he had accomplished. Again, we are in your debt, fire sword, said Garjvag. He and the other Urgles pressed their fists against their jutting brows. Aragon could tell that Nasawada wanted to know the details of what had just transpired, but that she restrained herself. Good. Now that this is settled, I must be off. Aragon, you'll receive my signal from Triana when the time has arrived. With that, she strode away into the darkness. As Aragon settled against Sephira, Oric sidled up to him. It's lucky we dwarves are going to be here, eh? We'll watch the cull like hawks, we will. We won't let them catch you while your back is turned. The moment they attack, we'll cut their legs out from under them. I thought you agreed with Nasawada's accepting the Urgle's offer. That doesn't mean I trust them or want to be right alongside them, now does it? Aragon smiled and did not bother to argue. It would be impossible to convince Auric that the Urgles were not rapacious killers when he himself had refused to consider the possibility until sharing an Urgle's memories. The night lay heavy around them as they waited for dawn. Auric removed a whetstone from his pocket and proceeded to hone the edge of his curved axe. Once they arrived, the six other dwarves did the same, and the rasp of metal on stone filled the air with a grating chorus. The cull sat back to back, chanting death songs under their breaths. Aragon spent the time casting wards about himself, Sephira, Nasawada, Oric, and even Arya. He knew that it was dangerous to protect so many, but he could not bear it if they were harmed. When he finished, he transferred what power he dared into the diamonds embedded within the belt of Beloth the Wise. Aragon watched with interest as Angela clad herself in green and black armor, and then, taking out a carved wood case, assembled her staff sword from two separate handles that attached in the middle and two blades of watered steel that threaded into the ends of the resulting pole. She twirled the completed weapon around her head a few times before seeming satisfied that it would hold up to the shock of battle. The dwarves eyed her with disapproval, and Aragon heard one grumble, Bless for me that any but Durgrimst Quan should wield the Huthvir. After that, the only sound was the discordant music of the dwarves honing their blades. It was near dawn when the cries began. 
Aragon and Safira noticed them first because of their heightened senses, but the agonized screams were soon loud enough for the others to hear. Rising to his feet, Oric looked out toward the Empire where the cacophony originated. What manner of creatures are they torturing to extract such fearsome howls? The sound chills the marrow in my bones, it does. I told you that you wouldn't have to wait very long, said Angela. Her former cheer had deserted her. She looked pale, drawn, and grey in the face, as if she were ill. From his post by Sephira, Aragon asked, You did this? I, I poisoned their stew, their bread, their drink, anything I could get my hands on. Some will die now, others will die later as the various toxins take their toll. I slipped the officers nightshade and other such poisons, so they will hallucinate in battle. She tried to smile, but without much success. Not a very honourable way to fight, I suppose, but I'd rather do this than be killed. Confusion to our enemies and all that. Only a coward or thief uses poison, exclaimed Doric. What glory is there in defeating a sick opponent? The screams intensified even as he spoke. Angela gave an unpleasant laugh. Glory? If you want glory, there are thousands more troops I didn't poison. I'm sure you will have your fill of glory by the end of today. Is this why you needed the equipment in Orin's tent? asked Aragon. He found her deed repugnant, but did not pretend to know whether it was good or evil. It was necessary. Angela had poisoned the soldiers for the same reason Nasuada had accepted the Urgle's offer of friendship, because it might be their only hope of survival. That's right. The soldiers' wails increased in number until Eragon longed to plug his ears and block out the sound. It made him wince and fidget, and it put his teeth on edge. He forced himself to listen, though. This was the cost of resisting the Empire. It would be wrong to ignore it. So he sat with his hands clenched into fists and his jaw forming painful knots, while the burning plains echoed with the disembodied voices of dying men. The Storm Breaks The first horizontal rays of dawn already streaked across the land when Triana said to Aragon, it is time. A surge of energy erased Aragon's sleepiness. Jumping to his feet, he shouted the word to everyone around him, even as he clambered into Sephira's saddle, pulling his new bow from its quiver. The cowl and dwarves surrounded Sephira, and together they hurried down the breastwork until they reached the opening that had been cleared during the night. The Varden poured through the gap, quiet as they could be. Rank upon rank of warriors marched past, their armour and weapons padded with rags, so no sound would alert the empire of their approach. Safira joined the procession when Nasawada appeared on a roan charger in the midst of the men, Arya and Triana by her side. The five of them acknowledged each other with quick glances, nothing more. During the night, the mephitic vapours had accumulated low to the ground, and now the dim morning light gilded the turgid clouds, turning them opaque. Thus the Varden managed to cross three-quarters of the no-man's land before they were seen by the Empire's sentries. As the alarm horns rang out before them, Nasuada shouted, Now, Aragon, tell Orin to strike! To me, men of the Varden, fight to win back your homes, fight to guard your wives and children, fight to overthrow Galbatorix, attack and bathe your blades in the blood of our enemies! Charge! 
She spurred her horse forward, and with a great bellow the men followed, shaking their weapons above their heads. Eragon conveyed Nasawada's order to Barden, the spellcaster who rode with King Orin. A moment later he heard the drumming of hooves, as Orin and his cavalry, accompanied by the rest of the cull who could run as fast as horses, galloped out of the east. They charged into the Empire's flank, pinning the soldiers against the Jeet River and distracting them long enough for the Varden to cross the remainder of the distance between them without opposition. The two armies collided with a deafening roar. Pikes clashed against spears, hammers against shields, swords against helms, and above it all whirled the hungry gore-crows, uttering their harsh croaks, driven into a frenzy by the smell of fresh meat below. Eragon's heart leaped within his chest. I must now kill or be killed. Almost immediately he felt his wards drawing upon his strength as they deflected attacks from Arya, Oric, Nasuada and Sephira. Sephira held back from the leading edge of the battle, for they would be too exposed to Galbatorix's magicians at the front. Taking a deep breath, Aragon began to search for those magicians with his mind, firing arrows all the while. Duvrangargata found the first enemy spellcaster. The instant he was alerted, Eragon reached out to the woman who made the discovery, and from there to the foe she grappled with. Bringing the full power of his will to bear, Eragon demolished the magician's resistance, took control of his consciousness, doing his best to ignore the man's terror, determined which troops the man was guarding, and slew the man with one of the twelve words of death. Without pause, Eragon located the minds of each of the now unprotected soldiers and killed them as well. The Varden cheered as the knot of men went limp. The ease with which he slew them amazed Eragon. The soldiers had had no chance to escape or fight back. How different from Fardandur, he thought. Though he marvelled at the perfection of his skills, the deaths sickened him. But there was no time to dwell on it. Recovering from the Varden's initial assault, the Empire began to man their engines of war, catapults that cast round missiles of hard-baked ceramic, trebuchets armed with barrels of liquid fire, and ballistae that bombarded the attackers with a hail of arrows six feet long. The ceramic balls and the liquid fire caused terrific damage when they landed. One ball exploded against the ground not ten yards from Sephira. As Eragon ducked behind his shield, a jagged fragment spun toward his head, only to be stopped dead in the air by one of his wards. He blinked at the sudden loss of energy. The engine soon stalled the Varden's advance sowing mayhem wherever they aimed. They have to be destroyed if we're going to last long enough to wear down the Empire, realized Eragon. It would be easy for Sephira to dismantle the machines, but she dared not fly among the soldiers for fear of an attack by magic. Breaking through the Varden lines, eight soldiers stormed towards Sephira, jabbing at her with pikes. Before Eragon could draw Zarok, the dwarves and Kull eliminated the entire group. A good fight, roared Garjvog. A good fight, agreed Oric with a bloody grin. Eragon did not use spells against the engines. They would be protected against any conceivable enchantment. Unless, extending himself, he found the mind of a soldier who tended one of the catapults. Though he was sure the soldier was defended by some magician, Eragon was able to gain dominance over him and direct his actions from afar. He guided the man up to the weapon which was being loaded, then had him use his sword to hack at the skein of twisted rope that powered the machine. The rope was too thick to sever before the soldier was dragged away by his comrades, but the damage was already done. With a mighty crack, the partially wound skein broke, sending the arm of the catapult flying backward and injuring several men. 
His lips curled in a grim smile, Aragon proceeded to the next catapult, and in short order disabled the remainder of the engines. Returning to himself, Aragon became aware of dozens of the Varden collapsing around Sephira. One of Duvrangergata had been overwhelmed. He uttered a dreadful curse and flung himself back along the trail of magic as he searched for the man who cast the fatal spell, entrusting the welfare of his body to Sephira and his guards. For over an hour Aragon hunted Galbatorix's magicians, but to little avail, for they were wily and cunning, and did not directly attack him. Their reticence puzzled Aragon until he tore from the mind of one spellcaster, moments before he committed suicide, the thought, Ordered not to kill you or the dragon. Not to kill you or the dragon. That answers my question, he said to Sephira. But why does Galbatorix still want us alive? We've made it clear we support the Varden. Before she could respond, Nasawada appeared before them, her face streaked with filth and gore, her shield covered with dents, blood sheeting down her left leg from a wound on her thigh. Aragon, she gasped, I need you, both of you, to fight, to show yourselves and embolden the men, to frighten the soldiers. Her condition shocked Aragon. Let me heal you first, he cried, afraid she might faint. I should have put more wards around her. No, I can wait, but we are lost unless you stem the tide of soldiers. Her eyes were glazed and empty, blank holes in her face. We need a rider. She swayed in her saddle. Aragon saluted her with Zarok. You have one, my lady. Go, she said, and may what gods there are watch over you. Aragon was too high on Sephira's back to strike his enemies below so he dismounted and positioned himself by her right paw. To Oric and Gajvag he said, Protect Sophia's left side, and whatever you do, don't get in our way. You will be overrun, fire sword. No, said Aragon, I won't. Now take your places. As they did, he put his hand on Sophia's leg and looked her in one clear-cut sapphire eye. Shall we dance, friend of my heart? We shall, little one. Then he and she merged their identities to a greater degree than ever before, vanquishing all differences between them to become a single entity. They bellowed, leaped forward, and forged a path to the front line. Once there, Aragon could not tell from whose mouth emanated the ravenous jet of flame that consumed a dozen soldiers, cooking them in their mail, nor whose arm it was that brought Zarok down in an arc, cleaving a soldier's helm in half. The metallic scent of blood clogged the air, and curtains of smoke wafted over the burning plains, alternately concealing and revealing the knots, clumps, ranks, and battalions of thrashing bodies. Overhead the carrion birds waited for their meal, and the sun climbed in the firmament toward noon. From the minds of those around them, Aragorn and Sephira caught glimpses of how they appeared. Sephira was always noticed first, a great ravening creature with claws and fangs dyed red, who slew all in her path with swipes of her paws and lashes of her tail, and with billowing waves of flame that engulfed entire platoons of soldiers. Her brilliant scales glittered like stars and nearly blinded her foes with their reflected light. Next they saw Aragorn running alongside Sephira. He moved faster than the soldiers could react, and with strength beyond men, splintered shields with a single blow, rent armour, and clove the swords of those who opposed him. Shot and dart cast at him, fell to the pestilent ground ten feet away, stopped by his wards. 
It was harder for Aragon, and by extension Sephira, to fight his own race than it had been to fight the Urgles in Farthendur. Every time he saw a frightened face or looked into a soldier's mind, he thought, This could be me. But he and Sephira could afford no mercy. If a soldier stood before them, he died. Three times they sallied forth, and three times Aragorn and Sephira slew every man in the Empire's first few ranks, before retreating to the main body of the Varden to avoid being surrounded. By the end of their last attack, Aragorn had to reduce or eliminate certain wards around Arya, Oric, Nasuada, Sephira, and himself, in order to keep the spells from exhausting him too quickly. For though his strength was great, so too were the demands of battle. Ready? he asked Sephira, after a brief respite. She growled an affirmative. A cloud of arrows whistled toward Aragon the instant he dove back into combat. Fast as an elf, he dodged the bulk of them, since his magic no longer protected him from such missiles, caught twelve on his shield, and stumbled as one struck his belly and one his side. Neither shaft pierced his armor, but they knocked the wind out of him and left bruises the size of apples. Don't stop! You've dealt with worse pain than this before, he told himself. Rushing a cluster of eight soldiers, Aragon darted from one to the next, knocking aside their pikes and jabbing Zarok like a deadly bolt of lightning. The fighting had dulled his reflexes, though, and one soldier managed to drive his pike through Aragon's hauberk, slicing his left tricep. The soldiers cringed as Sephira roared. Aragon took advantage of the distraction to fortify himself with energy stored within the ruby in Zarok's pommel, and then to kill the three remaining soldiers. Sweeping her tail over him, Sephira knocked a score of men out of his way. In the lull that followed, Aragon looked over at his throbbing arm and said, Weisei heal. He also healed his bruises, relying upon Zarok's ruby, as well as the diamonds in the belt of Beloth the Wise. Then the two of them pressed onward. Aragon and Sephira choked the burning plains with mountains of their enemies, and yet the Empire never faltered or fell back. For every man they killed, another stepped forth to take his place. A sense of hopelessness engulfed Aragon as the mass of soldiers gradually forced the Varden to retreat toward their own camp. He saw his despair mirrored in the faces of Naswada, Arya, King Orin, and even Angela when he passed them in battle. All our training and we still can't stop the Empire, raged Aragon. There are just too many soldiers. We can't keep this up forever, and Zarok and the Belt are almost depleted. You can draw energy from your surroundings if you have to. I won't, not unless I kill another of Galbatorix's magicians and can take it from the soldiers. Otherwise I'll just be hurting the rest of the Varden, since there are no plants or animals here I can use to support us. As the long hours dragged by, Aragon grew sore and weary and stripped of many of his arcane defences, accumulated dozens of minor injuries. His left arm went numb from the countless blows that hammered his mangled shield. A scratch on his forehead kept blinding him with rivulets of hot, sweat-mixed blood. He thought one of his fingers might be broken. Sephira fared no better. The soldier's armour tore the inside of her mouth, dozens of swords and arrows cut her unprotected wings, and a javelin punctured one of her own plates of armour, wounding her in the shoulder. Aragon saw the spear coming and tried to deflect it with a spell, but was too slow. Whenever Sephira moved, she splattered the ground with hundreds of drops of blood. Beside them, three of Oryx's warriors fell and two of the cull, and the sun began its descent toward evening. As Aragon and Sephira prepared for their seventh and final assault, 
A trumpet sounded in the east, loud and clear, and King Orin shouted, The dwarves are here! The dwarves are here! Dwarves? Eragon blinked and glanced around, confused. He saw nothing but soldiers. Then a jolt of excitement raced through him as he understood. The dwarves! He climbed onto Saphira, and she jumped into the air, hanging for a moment on her tattered wings as they surveyed the battlefield. It was true! A great host marched out of the east toward the burning plains. At its head strode King Hrothgar, clad in gold mail, his jeweled helm upon his brow, and Voland, his ancient warhammer, gripped in his iron fist. The dwarf king raised Voland in greeting when he saw Aragorn and Saphira. Aragorn howled at the top of his lungs and returned the gesture, brandishing Zarok in the air. A surge of renewed vigour made him forget his wounds and feel fierce and determined again. Saphira added her voice to his, and the Varden looked to her with hope, while the Empire's soldiers hesitated with fear. "'What did you see?' cried Oric as Saphira dropped back to earth. "'Is it Hrothgar? How many warriors did he bring?' Ecstatic with relief, Aragorn stood in his stirrups and shouted, "'Take heart! King Hrothgar is here, and it looks like every single dwarf is behind him. We'll crush the Empire!' After the men stopped cheering, he added, Now take your swords and remind these flea-bitten cowards why they should fear us. Charge! Just as Saphira leaped toward the soldiers, Aragorn heard a second cry, this one from the west. A ship! A ship is coming up the Jeet River! Blast it! he snarled. We can't let a ship land if it's bringing reinforcements for the Empire. Contacting Triana, he said, Tell Nasawada that Saphira and I will take care of this. We'll sink the ship if it's from Galbatorix. As you wish, Arjadlam, replied the sorceress. Without hesitation, Saphira took flight, circling high over the trampled, smoking plain. As a relentless clamour of combat faded from his ears, Aragorn took a deep breath, feeling his mind clear. Below, he was surprised by how scattered both armies had become. The Empire and the Varden had disintegrated into a series of smaller groups, contending against one another over the entire breadth and width of the burning plains. It was into this confused tumult that the dwarves inserted themselves, catching the Empire from the side, as Orin had done earlier with his cavalry. Aragorn lost sight of the battle when Saphira turned to her left and soared through the clouds in the direction of the Jeet River. A gust of wind blew the peat smoke out of their way, and unveiled a large three-masted ship riding upon the orange water, rowing against the current with two banks of oars. The ship was scarred and damaged, and flew no colours to declare its allegiance. Nevertheless, Aragorn readied himself to destroy the vessel. As Saphira dove toward it, he lifted Zarok overhead and loosed his savage war-cry. Convergence Roran stood at the prow of the dragon-wing and listened to the oars swished through the water. He had just finished a stint rowing, and a cold, jagged ache permeated his right shoulder. "'Will I always have to deal with this reminder of the Razak?' He wiped the sweat from his face and ignored the discomfort, concentrating instead on the river ahead, which was obscured by a bank of sooty clouds. Elaine joined him at the railing. She rested a hand on her swollen belly. The water looks evil, she said. Perhaps we should have stayed in Douth rather than drag ourselves in search of more trouble. He feared she spoke the truth. 
After the Boar's Eye they had sailed east from the Southern Isles back to the coast, and then up the mouth of the Jeet River to Serdra's port city of Douth. By the time they made landfall their stores were exhausted, and the villagers sickly. Roran had every intention of staying in Douth, especially after they received an enthusiastic welcome from its governor, Lady Alaris. But that was before he was told about Galbatorix's army. If the Varden were defeated, he would never see Katrina again. So with the help of Jode, he convinced Horst and many of the other villagers that if they wanted to live in Surda, safe from the Empire, they had to row up the Jeet River and assist the Varden. It was a difficult task, but in the end Roran prevailed. And once they told Lady Alaris about their quest, she gave them all the supplies they wanted. Since then, Roran often wondered if he made the right choice. By now everyone hated living on the dragon wing. People were tense and short-tempered, a situation only aggravated by the knowledge they were sailing toward a battle. Was it all selfishness on my part? wondered Roran. Did I really do this for the benefit of the villagers, or only because it will bring me one step closer to finding Katrina? Perhaps we should have, he said to Elaine. Together they watched as a thick layer of smoke gathered overhead, darkening the sky, obscuring the sun, and filtering the remaining light, so that everything below was coloured a nauseating hue of orange. It produced an eerie twilight the likes of which Roran had never imagined. The sailors on deck looked about fearfully and muttered charms of protection, pulling out stone amulets to ward off the evil eye. Listen, said Elaine. She tilted her head. What is that? Roran strained his ears and caught the faint ring of metal striking metal. That, he said, is the sound of our destiny. Twisting, he shouted back over his shoulder. Captain, there's fighting just ahead. Man the ballisti, roared Uther. Double time on those oars, Bonden, and every able-bodied man jack among you better be ready or you'll be using your guts for pillows. Roran remained where he was as the dragon wing exploded with activity. Despite the increase in noise, he could still hear swords and shields clanging together in the distance. The screams of men were audible now, as were the roars of some giant beast. He glanced over as Jode joined them at the prow. The merchant's face was pale. "'Have you ever been in battle before?' asked Roran. The knob in Jode's throat bobbed as he swallowed and shook his head. I got into plenty of fights along with Bronn, but never anything of this scale. A first for both of us, then. The bank of smoke thinned on the right, providing them with a glimpse of a dark land that belched forth fire and putrid orange vapour and was covered with masses of struggling men. It was impossible to tell who was the Empire and who was the Varden, but it was apparent to Roran that the battle could tip in either direction given the right nudge. We can provide that nudge. Then a voice echoed over the water as a man shouted, A ship! A ship is coming up the Jeet River! You should go below decks, said Roran to Elaine. It won't be safe for you here. She nodded and hurried to the fore hatchway where she climbed down the ladder, closing the opening behind her. A moment later, Horst bounded up to the prow and handed Roran one of Fisk's shields. Thought you might need that, said Horst. Thanks, I... Roran stopped as the air around them vibrated, as if from a mighty concussion. Thud! His teeth jarred together. Thud! His ears hurt from the pressure. Close upon the heels of the second impact came a third thud, and with it a raw-throated yell that Roran recognized. 
for he had heard it many times in his childhood. He looked up and beheld a gigantic sapphire dragon diving out of the shifting clouds, and on the dragon's back at the juncture between its neck and shoulders sat his cousin, Aragon. It was not the Aragon he remembered, but rather as if an artist had taken his cousin's base features and enhanced them, streamlined them, making them both more noble and more feline. This Aragon was garbed like a prince in fine cloth and armour, though tarnished by the grime of war, and in his right hand he wielded a blade of iridescent red. This Aragon Roran knew could kill without hesitation. This Aragon was powerful and implacable. This Aragon could slay the Razak and their mounts and help him to rescue Katrina. Flaring its translucent wings, the dragon pulled up sharply and hung before the ship. Then Aragon met Roran's eyes. Until that moment, Roran had not completely believed Jode's story about Aragon and Brom. Now, as he stared at his cousin, a wave of confused emotions washed over him. Aragon is a rider. It seemed inconceivable that the slight, moody, over-eager boy he grew up with had turned into this fearsome warrior. Seeing him alive again filled Roran with unexpected joy, yet at the same time a terrible, familiar anger welled up inside him over Aragon's role in Garrow's death and the siege of Carvajal. In those few seconds Roran knew not whether he loved or hated Aragon. He stiffened with alarm as a vast and alien being touched his mind. From that consciousness emanated Aragon's voice. Roran? I Think your answers and I'll hear them. Is everyone from Carvajal with you? Just about. How did you... No, we can't go into it. There's no time. Stay where you are until the battle is decided. Better yet, go back farther down the river, where the Empire can't attack you. We have to talk, Aragon. You have much to answer for. Aragon hesitated with a troubled expression, then said, I know, but not now, later. With no visible prompting, the dragon veered away from the ship and flew off to the east, vanishing in the haze over the burning plains. In an awed voice, Horst said, A rider! A real rider! I never thought I'd see the day, much less that it would be Aragon! He shook his head. I guess you told us the truth, eh, Longshanks? Jode grinned in response, looking like a delighted child. Their words sounded muted to Roran as he stared at the deck, feeling like he was about to explode with tension. A host of unanswerable questions assailed him. He forced himself to ignore them. I can't think about Aragon now. We have to fight. The Varden must defeat the Empire. A rising tide of fury consumed him. He had experienced this before, a berserk frenzy that allowed him to overcome nearly any obstacle, to move objects he could not shift ordinarily, to face an enemy in combat and feel no fear. It gripped him now, a fever in his veins, quickening his breath and setting his heart a-pounding. He pushed himself off the railing, ran the length of the ship to the quarter-deck, where Uthar stood by the wheel and said, "'Ground the ship!' "'What? Ground the ship, I say!' Stay here with the rest of the soldiers and use the ballistae to wreak what havoc you can. Keep the dragon wing from being boarded and guard our families with your lives, understand? Uther stared at him with flat eyes, and Roran feared he would not accept the orders. Then the scarred sailor grunted and said, 
Aye, aye, strong hammer. Horst's heavy tread preceded his arrival at the quarterdeck. What do you intend to do, Roran? Do? Roran laughed and spun Widdershins to stand toe-to-toe with the smith. Do? Why, I intend to alter the fate of Allegasia. Eldest Aragon barely noticed as Saphira carried him back into the swirling confusion of the battle. He had known that Roran was at sea, but it never occurred to him that Roran might be heading for Surda, nor that they would reunite in this manner. And Roran's eyes! His eyes seemed to bore into Aragon, questioning, relieved, enraged, accusing. In them, Aragon saw that his cousin had learned of Aragon's role in Garrow's death and had not yet forgiven him. It was only when a sword bounced off his greaves that Aragon returned his attention to his surroundings. He unleashed a hoarse shout and slashed downward, cutting away the soldier who struck him. Cursing himself for being so careless, Aragon reached out to Triana and said, No one on that ship is an enemy. Spread the word that they're not to be attacked. Ask Nasawada if, as a favour to us, she can send a herald to explain the situation to them and see that they stay away from the fighting. As you wish, Arjad Lam. From the western flank of the battle where she alighted, Safira traversed the burning plains in a few giant leaps, stopping before Hrothgar and his dwarves. Dismounting, Aragon went to the king, who said, Hail, Arjad Lam! Hail, Safira! The elves seem to have done more for you than they promised. Beside him stood Oric. No, sir, it was the dragons. Really? I must hear your adventures once our bloody work here is done. I'm glad you accepted my offer to become Durgrimstin Jeetum. It is an honor to have you as mine kin. And you mine. Hrothgar laughed, then turned to Saphira and said, I still haven't forgotten your vow to mend Isidar Mithrim, dragon. Even now our artisans are assembling the star sapphire in the center of Tronchim. I look forward to seeing it whole once again. She bowed her head. As I promised, so it shall be. After Aragon repeated her words, Hrothgar reached out with a gnarled finger and tapped one of the metal plates on her side. I see you wear our armor. I hope it has served you well. Very well, King Hrothgar, said Saphira through Aragon. It has saved me many an injury. Hrothgar straightened and lifted Voland a twinkle in his deep-set eyes. Well then, shall we march out and test it once again in the forge of war? He looked back at his warriors and shouted, Axartos undurgrimst! For Hrothgar's corda! For Hrothgar's corda! Aragon looked at Oric, who translated with a mighty yell, By Hrothgar's hammer! Joining the chant, Aragon ran with the dwarf king toward the crimson ranks of soldiers, Saphira by his side. Now, at last, with the help of the dwarves, the battle turned in favor of the Varden. Together they pushed back the empire dividing them, crushing them, forcing Galbatorix's vast army to abandon positions they had held since morn. Their efforts were helped by the fact that more of Angela's poisons had taken effect. Many of the Empire's officers behaved irrationally, giving orders that made it easier for the Varden to penetrate deeper into the army, sowing chaos as they went.
The soldiers seemed to realize that fortune no longer smiled upon them, for hundreds surrendered or defected outright and turned on their former comrades or threw down their weapons and fled. And the day passed into the late afternoon. Aragon was in the midst of fighting two soldiers when a flaming javelin roared past overhead and buried itself in one of the Empire's command tents twenty yards away, igniting the fabric. Dispatching his opponents, Aragon glanced back and saw dozens of fiery missiles arcing out from the ship on the Jeet River. "'What are you playing at, Roran?' wondered Aragon before charging the next batch of soldiers. Soon afterward, a horn echoed from the rear of the Empire's army, then another and another. Someone began to pound a sonorous drum, the peals of which stilled the field, as everyone looked about for the source of the beat. Even as Aragon watched, an ominous figure detached itself from the horizon in the north and rose up in the lurid sky over the burning plains. The gore crows scattered before the barbed black shadow, which balanced motionless upon the thermals. At first Aragon thought it a leather blacker, one of the Razak's mounts. Then a ray of light escaped the clouds and struck the figure crossways from the west. A red dragon floated above them, glowing and sparkling in the sunbeam like a bed of blood-red coals. His wing membranes were the color of wine held before a lantern. His claws and teeth and the spikes along his spine were white as snow. In his vermilion eyes there gleamed a terrible glee. On his back was fixed a saddle, and in that saddle sat a man garbed in polished steel armor and armed with a hand-and-a-half sword. Dread clutched at Aragon. Galbatorix managed to get another dragon to hatch. Then the man in steel raised his left hand, and a shaft of crackling ruby energy sprang from his palm and smote Hrothgar on the breast. The dwarf spellcasters cried out with agony as the energy from their bodies was consumed, trying to block the attack. They collapsed, dead. Then Hrothgar clutched his heart and toppled to the ground. The dwarves gave a great groan of despair as they saw their king fall. No! cried Aragon, and Sephira roared in protest. He glared with hate at the enemy rider. I'll kill you for that! Aragon knew that as they were, he and Sephira were too tired to confront such a mighty opponent. Glancing around, Aragon spotted a horse lying in the mud, a spear through its side. The stallion was still alive. Aragon put his hand on its neck and murmured, Sleep, brother. Then he transferred the horse's remaining vitality into himself and Sephira. It was not enough energy to restore all their strength, but it soothed their aching muscles and stopped their limbs from shaking. Rejuvenated, Aragon leaped onto Sephira, shouting, Oric, take command of your kinsmen! Across the field he saw Arya gaze at him with concern. He put her out of his mind as he tightened the saddle straps around his legs. Then Sephira launched herself toward the red dragon, pumping her wings at a furious rate to gain the necessary speed. I hope you remember your lessons with Glader, he said. He tightened his grip on his shield. Sephira did not answer him, but roared out with her thoughts at the other dragon. Traitor! Egg-breaker! Oath-breaker! Murderer! Then as one, she and Aragon assaulted the minds of the pair, seeking to overwhelm their defences. The consciousness of the rider felt strange to Aragon, as if it contained multitudes. 
Scores of distinct voices whispered in the caverns of his mind, like imprisoned spirits begging for release. The instant they made contact, the rider retaliated with a blast of pure force greater than any even Oromis was capable of summoning. Eragon retreated deep behind his own barriers, frantically reciting a scrap of doggerel Oromis taught him to use in such predicaments. Under a cold and empty winter sky stood a wee small man with a silver sword. He jumped and stabbed in a fevered frenzy, fighting the shadows massed before him. The siege on Aragon's mind abated as Sephira and the Red Dragon crashed together, two incandescent meteors colliding head-on. They grappled, kicking each other's bellies with their hind legs. Their talons produced hideous screeches as they grated against Sephira's armour and the Red Dragon's flat scales. The Red Dragon was smaller than Sephira, but thicker in his legs and shoulders. He managed to kick her off for a moment, then they closed again, each struggling to get their jaws around the other's neck. It was all Eragon could do to keep hold of Zarok as the dragons tumbled toward the ground, battering one another with terrible blows from their feet and tails. No more than fifty yards above the burning plains, Sephira and the Red Dragon disengaged, struggling to regain altitude. Once she halted her descent, Sephira reared her head like a snake about to strike, and loosed a thick torrent of fire. It never reached its destination. Twelve feet from the red dragon, the fire bifurcated and passed harmlessly on either side. Blast it! thought Aragon. Even as the red dragon opened its maw to retaliate, Aragon cried, Scholar Nosufra Brissinger! He was just in time. The conflagration swirled around them, but did not even scorch Sephira's scales. Now Sephira and the Red Dragon raced up through the striated smoke into the clear, chill sky beyond, darting back and forth as they tried to climb above their opponent. The Red Dragon nipped Sephira's tail, and she and Aragon yelped with shared pain. Panting from the effort, Sephira executed a tight backward loop ending up behind the dragon, who then pivoted to the left and tried to spiral up and over Sephira. While the dragons dueled with increasingly complex acrobatics, Aragon became aware of a disturbance on the burning plains. The spellcasters of Duvrangurgata were beset by two new magicians from the Empire. These magicians were far more powerful than those who had preceded them. They had already killed one of Duvrangurgata and were battering past the barriers of a second. Aragon heard Triana scream with her mind, Shade Slayer, you have to help us! We can't stop them! They'll kill all the Varden! Help us! It's the... Her voice was lost to him as the rider stabbed at his consciousness. This must end, spat Aragon between clenched teeth as he strove to withstand the onslaught. Over Sephira's neck he saw the red dragon dive toward them, angling beneath Sephira. Aragon dared not open his mind enough to talk with Sephira, so he said out loud, Catch me! With two strokes of Zarok, he severed the straps around his legs and jumped off Sephira's back. This is insane! thought Aragon. He laughed with giddy exhilaration as the feeling of weightlessness took hold of him. The rush of air tore off his helm and made his eyes water and sting. Releasing his shield, Aragon spread out his arms and legs, as Oromis had taught him, in order to stabilize his flight. Below, the steel-clad rider noticed Aragon's action. The red dragon shied to Aragon's left, but could not evade him. Aragon lashed out with Zarok as the dragon's flank flashed by, and he felt the blade sink into the creature's hamstring before his momentum carried him past. The dragon roared in agony. 
the impact of the blow sent Aragon spinning up, down, and around. By the time he managed to stop his rotation, he had plummeted through the cloud cover and was heading toward a swift and fatal landing on the burning plains. He could stop himself with magic if he had to, but it would drain his last reserves of energy. He glanced over both his shoulders. Come on, Safira, where are you? As if in answer, she dropped out of the foul smoke, her wings pressed tight against her body. She swooped underneath him and opened her wings a bit to slow her fall. Careful not to impale himself on one of her spikes, Aragon manoeuvred himself back into the saddle, welcoming the return of gravity as she pulled out of the dive. Never do that to me again, she snapped. He surveyed the steaming blood that laced Zarok's blade. It worked, didn't it? His satisfaction disappeared as he realized that his stunt had placed Zephira at the mercy of the red dragon. He hurtled at her from above, harrying her this way and that as he forced her toward the ground. Zephira tried to maneuver out from under him, but every time she did, he dove at her, biting and buffeting her with his wings in order to make her change course. The dragons twisted and lunged until their tongues lolled out of their mouths, their tails drooped, and they gave up flapping and merely glided. His mind once again closed to all contact, friendly or not, Aragon said out loud, Land, Safira, it's no good! I'll fight him on the ground! With a grunt of weary resignation, Safira descended to the nearest flat open area, a small stone plateau set along the western edge of the Jeet River. The water had turned red from the blood pouring into it from the battle. Aragon jumped off Safira once she alighted on the plateau and tested his footing. It was smooth and hard, with nothing to trip on. He nodded, pleased. A few seconds later the red dragon rushed by overhead and settled on the opposite side of the plateau. He held his left hind leg off the ground to avoid aggravating his wound, a long gash that nearly severed the muscle. The dragon trembled his entire length like an injured dog. He tried to hop forward, then stopped and snarled at Aragon. The enemy rider unbuckled his legs and slid down the uninjured side of his dragon. Then he walked around the dragon and examined his leg. Aragon let him. He knew how much pain it would cause the man to see the damage inflicted on his bonded partner. He waited too long, though, for the rider muttered a few indecipherable words, and within the span of three seconds the dragon's injury was healed. Aragon shivered with fear. How could he do that so quickly and with such a short spell? Still, whoever he might be, the new rider certainly was not Galbatorix, whose dragon was black. Aragon clung to that knowledge as he stepped forward to confront the rider. As they met in the centre of the plateau, Saphira and the red dragon circled in the background. The rider grasped his sword with both hands and swung it over his head toward Aragon, who lifted Zarok to defend himself. Their blades collided with a burst of crimson sparks. Then Aragon shoved back his opponent and started a complex series of blows. He stabbed and parried, dancing on light feet as he forced the steel-clad rider to retreat toward the edge of the plateau. When they reached the edge, the rider held his ground, fending off Aragon's attacks no matter how clever. It's as if he can anticipate my every move, thought Aragon, frustrated. If he were rested, it would have been easy for him to defeat the rider but as it was, he could make no headway. The rider did not have the speed and strength of an elf, but his technical skill was better than Vanna's and as good as Aragon's. Aragon felt a touch of panic when his initial surge of energy began to subside. 
and he had accomplished nothing more than a slight scratch across the rider's gleaming breastplate. The last reserves of power stored in Zarok's ruby and the belt of Beloth the Wise were only enough to maintain his exertions for another minute. Then the rider took a step forward, then another, and before Aragon knew it they had returned to the centre of the plateau, where they stood facing each other, exchanging blows. Zarok grew so heavy in his hand Aragon could barely lift it. His shoulder burned, he gasped for breath, and sweat poured off his face. Not even his desire to avenge Hrothgar could help him to overcome his exhaustion. At last Aragon slipped and fell. Determined not to be killed lying down, he rolled back onto his feet and stabbed at the rider, who knocked aside Zarok with a lazy flick of his wrist. The way the rider flourished his sword afterward, spinning it in a quick circle by his side, suddenly seemed familiar to Aragon, as did all his preceding swordsmanship. He stared with growing horror at his enemy's hand-and-a-half sword, then back up at the eye-slits of his mirrored helm, and shouted, I know you! He threw himself at the rider, trapping both swords between their bodies, hooked his fingers underneath the helm, and ripped it off. And there, in the centre of the plateau, on the edge of the burning plains of Alagazia, stood Murtag. Inheritance Murtag grinned. Then he said, Thrysta Vindar, and a hard ball of air coalesced between them and struck Aragon in the middle of his chest, tossing him twenty feet across the plateau. Aragon heard Saphira growl as he landed on his back. His vision flashed red and white, then he curled into a ball and waited for the pain to recede. Any delight he felt in Murtag's reappearance was overwhelmed by the macabre circumstances of their meeting. An unstable mixture of shock, confusion, and anger boiled within him. Lowering his sword, Murtag pointed at Aragon with his steel-encased hand, curling every finger but his index into a spiny fist. You never would give up. A chill crept along Aragon's spine, for he recognized the scene from his premonition while rafting the Ajragni to Hedoth. A man sprawled in the clotted mud with a dented helm and bloody mail, his face concealed behind an upthrown arm. An armoured hand entered Aragon's view and pointed at the downed man with all the authority of fate itself. Past and future had converged. Now Aragon's doom would be decided. Pushing himself to his feet, he coughed and said, Murtag, how can you be alive? I watched the Urgles drag you underground. I tried to scry you, but saw only darkness. Murtag uttered a mirthless laugh. You saw nothing. Just as I saw nothing the times I tried to scry you during my days in Urubain. You died, though! shouted Aragon, almost incoherent. You died under Farden Dur. Arya found your bloody clothes in the tunnels. A shadow darkened Murtag's face. No, I did not die. It was the twins doing, Aragon. They took control of a group of Urgles and arranged the ambush in order to kill Ajihad and capture me. Then they ensorcelled me so I could not escape and spirited me off to Urubain. Aragon shook his head, unable to comprehend what had happened. But why did you agree to serve Galbatorix? You told me you hated him. You told me... Agree! Murtag laughed again, and this time his outburst contained an edge of madness. I did not agree! 
First, Galbatorix punished me for spiting his years of protection during my upbringing in Urubain, for defying his will and running away. Then he extracted everything I knew about you, Sephira, and the Varden. You betrayed us! I was mourning you, and you betrayed us! I had no choice! Ajihad was right to lock you up. He should have let you rot in your cell, then none of this! I had no choice! snarled Murtag. And after Thorn hatched for me, Galbatorix forced both of us to swear loyalty to him in the ancient language. We cannot disobey him now! Pity and disgust welled inside of Aragon. You have become your father. A strange gleam leaped into Murtag's eyes. No, not my father. I'm stronger than Morzan ever was. Galbatorix taught me things about magic you've never even dreamed of. Spells so powerful the elves dare not utter them, cowards that they are. Words in the ancient language that were lost until Galbatorix discovered them. Ways to manipulate energy, secrets, terrible secrets that can destroy your enemies and fulfil all your desires. Aragorn thought back to some of Oromus's lessons and retorted, Things that should remain secrets. If you knew, you would not say that. Brom was a dabbler, nothing more. And the elves, bah! All they can do is hide in their forest and wait to be conquered. Murtag ran his eyes over Aragon. You look like an elf now. Did Islanzadi do that to you? When Aragon remained silent, Murtag smiled and shrugged. No matter. I'll learn the truth soon enough. He stopped, frowned, then looked to the east. Following his gaze, Aragon saw the twins standing at the front of the empire, casting balls of energy into the midst of the Varden and the dwarves. The curtains of smoke made it difficult to tell, but Aragon was sure the hairless magicians were grinning and laughing as they slaughtered the men with whom they once pledged solemn friendship. What the twins failed to notice, and what was clearly visible to Aragon and Murtag from their vantage point, was that Roran was crawling toward them from the side. Aragon's heart skipped a beat as he recognised his cousin. You fool! Get away from them! You'll be killed! Just as he opened his mouth to cast a spell that would transport Roran out of danger, no matter the cost, Murtag said, Wait! I want to see what he'll do. Why? A bleak smile crossed Murtag's face. The twins enjoyed tormenting me when I was their captive. Aragon glanced at him, suspicious. You won't hurt him? You won't warn the twins? Vel ein raden iete shartagal. Upon my word as a rider. Together they watched as Roran hid behind a mound of bodies. Aragon stiffened as the twins looked toward the pile. For a moment it seemed they had spotted him. Then they turned away and Roran jumped up. He swung his hammer and bashed one of the twins in the head, cracking open his skull. The remaining twin fell to the ground convulsing and emitted a wordless scream until he too met his end under Roran's hammer. Then Roran planted his foot upon the corpses of his foes, lifted his hammer over his head and bellowed his victory. "'What now?' demanded Aragon, turning away from the battlefield. "'Are you here to kill me?' "'Of course not. Galbatorix wants you alive.' "'What for?' Murtag's lips quirked. You don't know? Ha! There's a fine jest. It's not because of you. It's because of her. 
He jabbed a finger at Sephira. The dragon inside Galbatorix's last egg, the last dragon egg in the world, is male. Sephira is the only female dragon in existence. If she breeds, she will be the mother of her entire race. Do you see now? Galbatorix doesn't want to eradicate the dragons. He wants to use Sephira to rebuild the riders. He can't kill you, either of you, if his vision is to become reality. And what a vision it is, Aragorn. You should hear him describe it. Then you might not think so badly of him. Is it evil that he wants to unite Alagasia under a single banner, eliminate the need for war, and restore the riders? He's the one who destroyed the riders in the first place. And for good reason, asserted Murtag. They were old, fat, and corrupt. The elves controlled them and used them to subjugate humans. They had to be removed so that we could start anew. The furious scowl contorted Aragorn's features. He paced back and forth across the plateau, his breathing heavy, then gestured at the battle and said, How can you justify causing so much suffering on the basis of a madman's ravings? Galbatorix has done nothing but burn and slaughter and amass power for himself. He lies, he murders, he manipulates. You know this. It's why you refused to work for him in the first place. Aragon paused and adopted a gentler tone. I can understand that you were compelled to act against your will and that you aren't responsible for killing Hrothgar. You can try to escape, though. I'm sure that Arya and I could devise a way to neutralize the bonds Galbatorix has laid upon you. Join me, Murtag. You could do so much for the Varden. With us you would be praised and admired instead of cursed, feared and hated. For a moment, as Murtag gazed down at his notched sword, Aragorn hoped he would accept. Then Murtag said in a low voice, You cannot help me, Aragorn. No one but Galbatorix can release us from our oaths, and he will never do that. He knows our true names, Aragorn. We are his slaves forever. Though he wanted to, Aragorn could not deny the sympathy he felt for Murtag's plight. With the utmost gravity, he said, Then let us kill the two of you. Kill us? Why should we allow that? Aragorn chose his words with care. It would free you from Galbatorix's control, and it would save the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Isn't that a noble enough cause to sacrifice yourself for? Murtag shook his head. Maybe for you, but life is still too sweet for me to part with it so easily. No stranger's life is more important than Thorn's or my own. As much as he hated it, hated the entire situation, in fact, Aragorn knew then what had to be done. Renewing his attack on Murtag's mind, he leaped forward, both feet leaving the ground as he lunged toward Murtag, intending to stab him through the heart. Letter! barked Murtag. Aragorn dropped back to the ground as invisible bands clamped around his arms and legs, immobilizing him. To his right, Sephira discharged a jet of rippling fire and sprang at Murtag like a cat pouncing on a mouse. Risa! commanded Murtag, extending a claw-like hand as if to catch her. Sephira yelped with surprise as Murtag's incantation stopped her in mid-air and held her in place, floating several feet above the plateau. No matter how much she wriggled, 
She could not touch the ground, nor could she fly any higher. How can he still be human and have the strength to do that? wondered Aragon. Even with my new abilities, such a task would leave me gasping for air and unable to walk. Relying upon his experience, counteracting Oromus's spells, Aragon said, Braca du Vanyali semhilda Safira Uneka. Murtag made no attempt to stop him, only gave him a flat stare as if he found Aragon's resistance a pointless inconvenience. Baring his teeth, Aragon redoubled his efforts. His hands went cold, his bones ached, and his pulse slowed as the magic sapped his energy. Without being asked, Safira joined forces with him, granting him access to the formidable resources of her body. Five seconds passed. Twenty seconds. A thick vein pulsed on Murtag's neck. A minute. A minute and a half. Involuntary tremors racked Aragon. His quadriceps and hamstrings fluttered, and his legs would have given way if he were free to move. Two minutes passed. At last, Aragon was forced to release the magic, else he risked falling unconscious and passing into the void. He sagged, utterly spent. He had been afraid before, but only because he thought he might fail. Now he was afraid because he did not know what Murtag was capable of. You cannot hope to compete with me, said Murtag. No one can, except for Galbatorix. Walking up to Aragon, he pointed his sword at Aragon's neck, pricking his skin. Aragon resisted the impulse to flinch. It would be so easy to take you back to Urubain. Aragon gazed deep into his eyes. Don't. Let me go. You just tried to kill me and you would have done the same in my position. When Murtag remained silent and expressionless, Aragon said, We were friends once. We fought together. Galbatorix can't have twisted you so much that you've forgotten. If you do this, Murtag, you'll be lost forever. A long minute passed, where the only sound was the hue and cry of the clashing armies. Blood trickled down Aragon's neck from where the sword point cut him. Safira lashed her tail with helpless rage. Finally, Murtag said, I was ordered to try and capture you and Safira. He paused. I have tried. Make sure we don't cross paths again. Galbatorix will have me swear additional oaths in the ancient language that will prevent me from showing you such mercy when next we meet. He lowered his sword. You're doing the right thing, said Aragon. He tried to step back, but was still held in place. Perhaps. But before I let you go... Reaching out, Murtag pried Zarok from Aragon's fist and unbuckled Zarok's red sheath from the belt of Belloth the Wise. If I have become my father, then I will have my father's blade. Thorn is my dragon, and a thorn he shall be to all our enemies. It is only right, then, that I should also wield the sword Misery. Misery and Thorn, a fit match. Besides, Zarok should have gone to Morzan's eldest son, not his youngest. It is mine, by right of birth. A cold pit formed in Aragon's stomach. It can't be! A cruel smile appeared on Murtag's face. I never told you my mother's name, did I? 
and you never told me yours. I'll say it now. Selina. Selina was my mother and your mother. Morzan was our father. The twins figured out the connection while they were digging around in your head. Galbatorix was quite interested to learn that particular piece of information. You're lying, cried Aragon. He could not bear the thought of being Morzan's son. Did Brom know? Does Oromis know? Why didn't they tell me? He remembered then Angela predicting that someone in his family would betray him. She was right. Murtag merely shook his head and repeated his words in the ancient language, then put his lips to Aragon's ear and whispered, You and I, we are the same Aragon, mirror images of one another. You can't deny it. You're wrong, growled Aragon, struggling against the spell. We're nothing alike. I don't have a scar on my back any more. Murtag recoiled as if he had been stung, his face going hard and cold. He lifted Zarok and held it upright before his chest. So be it. I take my inheritance from you, brother. Farewell. Then he retrieved his helm from the ground and pulled himself onto Thorn. Not once did he look at Aragon as the dragon crouched, raised its wings, and flew off the plateau and into the north. Only after Thorn vanished below the horizon did the web of magic release Aragon and Sephira. Sephira's talons clicked on the stone as she landed. She crawled over to Aragon and touched him on the arm with her snout. Are you all right, little one? I'm fine. But he was not, and she knew it. Walking to the edge of the plateau, Aragon surveyed the burning plains and the aftermath of the battle. For the battle was over. With the death of the twins, the Varden and dwarves regained lost ground and were able to rout the formations of confused soldiers, herding them into the river or chasing them back from whence they came. Though the bulk of their forces remained intact, the Empire had sounded the retreat, no doubt to regroup and prepare for a second attempt to invade Sorda. In their wake they left piles of tangled corpses from both sides of the conflict, enough men and dwarves to populate an entire city. Thick, black smoke roiled off the bodies that had fallen into the peat fires. Now that the fighting had subsided, the hawks and eagles, the crows and ravens, descended like a shroud over the field. Aragon closed his eyes, tears leaking from under the lids. They had won, but he had lost. Reunion Aragon and Sephira picked their way between the corpses that littered the burning plains, moving slowly on account of their wounds and their exhaustion. They encountered other survivors staggering through the scorched battlefield, hollow-eyed men who looked without truly seeing, their gazes focused somewhere in the distance. Now that his bloodlust had subsided, Aragon felt nothing but sorrow. The fighting seemed so pointless to him. What a tragedy that so many must die to thwart a single madman. He paused to sidestep a thicket of arrows planted in the mud and noticed the gash on Sephira's tail where Thorn had bitten her, as well as her other injuries. Here, lend me your strength. I'll heal you. Tend to those in mortal danger first. Are you sure? 
Quite sure, little one. Acquiescing, he bent down and mended a soldier's torn neck before moving on to one of the Varden. He made no distinction between friend and foe, treating both to the limit of his abilities. Aragon was so preoccupied with his thoughts, he paid little attention to his work. He wished he could repudiate Murtag's claim, but everything Murtag had said about his mother, their mother, coincided with the few things Aragon knew about her. Selina left Carvajal twenty-some years ago, returned once to give birth to Aragon, and was never seen again. His mind darted back to when he and Murtag first arrived in Farthandor. Murtag had discussed how his mother had vanished from Morzan's castle while Morzan was hunting Brom, Jode, and Sephira's egg. After Morzan threw Zarok at Murtag and nearly killed him, Mother must have hidden her pregnancy and then gone back to Carvajal in order to protect me from Morzan and Galbatorix. It heartened Aragon to know that Selina had cared for him so deeply. It also grieved him to know she was dead and they would never meet, for he had nurtured the hope, faint as it was, that his parents might still be alive. He no longer harboured any desire to be acquainted with his father, but he bitterly resented that he had been deprived of the chance to have a relationship with his mother. Ever since he was old enough to understand that he was a fosterling, Aragon had wondered who his father was and why his mother left him to be raised by her brother Garrow and his wife Marion. Those answers had been thrust upon him from such an unexpected source and in such an unpropitious setting. It was more than he could make sense of at the moment. It would take months, if not years, to come to terms with the revelation. Aragon always assumed he would be glad to learn the identity of his father. Now that he had, the knowledge revolted him. When he was younger, he often entertained himself by imagining that his father was someone grand and important, though Aragon knew the opposite was far more likely. Still, it never occurred to him, even in his most extravagant daydreams, that he might be the son of a rider, much less one of the Forsworn. It turned a daydream into a nightmare. I was sired by a monster. My father was the one who betrayed the riders to Galbatorix. It left Aragon feeling sullied. But no. As he healed a man's broken spine, a new way of viewing the situation occurred to him, one that restored a measure of his self-confidence. Morzan may be my parent, but he is not my father. Garrow was my father. He raised me. He taught me how to live well and honourably, with integrity. I am who I am because of him. Even Brom and Oromis are more my father than Morzan. And Roran is my brother, not Murtag. Aragon nodded, determined to maintain that outlook. Until then, he had refused to completely accept Garrow as his father. And even though Garrow was dead, doing so relieved Aragon, gave him a sense of closure, and helped to ameliorate his distress over Morzan. You have grown wise, observed Sephira. Wise? He shook his head. No, I've just learned how to think. That much at least Oromis gave me. Aragon wiped a layer of dirt off the face of a fallen banner boy, making sure he really was dead then straightened, wincing as his muscles spasmed in protest. You realise, don't you, that Brom must have known about this. Why else would he choose to hide in Carvajal while he waited for you to hatch? He wanted to keep an eye upon his enemy's son. 
It unsettled him to think that Brom might have considered him a threat. And he was right, too. Look what ended up happening to me. Sephira ruffled his hair with a gust of a hot breath. Just remember, whatever Brom's reasons, he always tried to protect us from danger. He died saving you from the Razak. I know. Do you think he didn't tell me about this because he was afraid I might emulate Morzan, like Murtag has? Of course not. He looked at her, curious. How can you be so certain? She lifted her head high above him and refused to meet his eyes or to answer. Have it your way, then. Kneeling by one of King Orin's men, who had an arrow through the gut, Eragon grabbed his arms to stop him from writhing. Easy now. Water, groaned the man. For pity's sake, water. My throat is as dry as sand. Please, Shade Slayer. Sweat beaded his face. Aragon smiled, trying to comfort him. I can give you a drink now, but it'd be better if you wait until after I heal you. Can you wait? If you do, I promise you can have all the water you want. You promise, Shade Slayer? I promise. The man visibly struggled against another wave of agony before saying, If I must. With the aid of magic, Aragon drew out the shaft. Then he and Sephira worked to repair the man's innards, using some of the warrior's own energy to fuel the spell. It took several minutes. Afterward, the man examined his belly, pressing his hands against the flawless skin, then gazed at Aragon, tears brimming in his eyes. I... Shadeslayer, you... Aragon handed him his waterskin. Here, keep it. You have greater need of it than I. A hundred yards beyond, Aragon and Sephira breached an acrid wall of smoke. There they came upon Oric and ten other dwarves, some women, arrayed around the body of Hrothgar, who lay upon four shields, resplendent in his golden mail. The dwarves tore at their hair, beat their breasts, and wailed their lamentations to the sky. Eragon bowed his head and murmured, Stajja unan muranar, Hrothgar kunungar. After a time, Oric noticed them and rose, his face red from crying and his beard torn free of its usual braid. He staggered over to Eragon and without preempt asked, Did you kill the coward responsible for this? He escaped. Eragon could not bring himself to explain that the rider was Murtag. Oric stamped his fist into his hand. Barzun! But I swear to you upon every stone in Alagasia that as one of Durgrimstingetum I'll do everything I can to avenge Hrothgar's death. Aye, you're the only one beside the elves strong enough to bring this foul murderer to justice. And when you find him... Grind his bones to dust, Aragon. Pull his teeth and fill his veins with molten lead. Make him suffer for every minute of Hrothgar's life that he stole. Wasn't it a good death? Wouldn't Hrothgar have wanted to die in battle, with Voland in his hand? In battle, yes. Facing an honest foe who dared stand and fight like a man not brought low by a magician's trickery. Shaking his head, Oric looked back at Hrothgar, then crossed his arms and tucked his chin against his collarbone. 
He took several ragged breaths. When my parents died of the pox, Hrothgar gave me a life again. He took me into his hall. He made me his heir. Losing him? Oric pinched the bridge of his nose between his thumb and forefinger, covering his face. Losing him is like losing my father again. The grief in his voice was so clear, Aragon felt as if he shared the dwarf's sorrow. I understand, he said. I know you do, Aragon. I know you do. After a moment, Oric wiped his eyes and gestured at the ten dwarves. Before anything else is done, we have to return Hrothgar to Fardendur, so he can be entombed with his predecessors. Dur Grimstingetum must choose a new Grimstborith, and then the thirteen clan chiefs, including the ones you see here, will select our next king from among themselves. What happens next I know not. This tragedy will embolden some clans and turn others against our cause. He shook his head again. Aragon put his hand on Oric's shoulder. Don't worry about that now. You have but to ask, and my arm and my will are at your service. If you want, come to my tent and we can share a cask of mead and toast Hrothgar's memory. I'd like that, but not yet. Not until we finish pleading with the gods to grant Hrothgar safe passage to the afterlife. Leaving Aragon, Oric returned to the circle of dwarves and added his voice to their keening. Continuing on through the burning plains, Saphira said, Hrothgar was a great king. Aye, and a good person. Aragon sighed. We should find Arya and Nasawada. I couldn't even heal a scratch right now, and they need to know about Murtag. Agreed. They angled south toward the Varden's encampment. But before they travelled more than a few yards, Aragon saw Roran approaching from the Jeet River. Trepidation filled him. Roran stopped directly in front of them, planted his feet wide apart, and stared at Aragon, working his jaw up and down as if he wanted to talk, but was unable to get the words past his teeth. Then he punched Aragon on the chin. It would have been easy for Aragon to avoid the blow, but he allowed it to land, rolling away from it a bit so Roran did not break his knuckles. It still hurt. Wincing, Aragon faced his cousin. I guess I deserved that. That you did. We have to talk. Now? It can't wait. The Razak captured Katrina and I need your help to rescue her. They've had her ever since we left Carvajal. So that's it. In an instant, Aragon realised why Roran appeared so grim and haunted, and why he had brought the entire village to Surda. Brom was right. Galbatorik sent the Razak back to Palancar Valley. Aragon frowned, torn between his responsibility to Roran and his duty to report to Nasawada. There's something I need to do first, and then we can talk, all right? You can accompany me if you want. I'll come. As they traversed the pockmarked land, Aragon kept glancing at Roran out of the corner of his eye. Finally, he said in a low voice, I missed you. Roran faltered, then responded with a curt nod. A few steps later, he asked, 
This is Safira, right? Jode said that was her name. Hi. Safira peered at Roran with one of her glittering eyes. He bore her scrutiny without turning away, which was more than most people could do. I have always wanted to meet Aragon's nestmate. She speaks, exclaimed Roran when Aragon repeated her words. This time Safira addressed him directly. What? Did you think I was as mute as a rock lizard? Roran blinked. I beg your pardon. I didn't know that dragons were so intelligent. A grim smile twisted his lips. First Razak and magicians, now dwarves, riders and talking dragons. It seems the whole world has gone mad. It does seem that way. I saw you fight that other rider. Did you wound him? Is that why he fled? Wait, you'll hear. When they reached the pavilion Aragon was searching for, he swept back the flap and ducked inside, followed by Roran and Safira, who pushed her head and neck in after them. In the centre of the tent, Nasawada sat on the edge of the table, letting a maid remove her twisted armour while she carried on a heated discussion with Arya. The cut on her thigh had been healed. Nasawada stopped in the middle of her sentence as she spotted the new arrivals. Running toward them, she threw her arms around Aragon and cried, "'Where were you? We thought you were dead or worse!' Not quite. The candle still burns, murmured Arya. Stepping back, Nasawada said, We couldn't see what happened to you and Safira after you landed on the plateau. When the red dragon left and you didn't appear, Arya tried to contact you but felt nothing, so we assumed... She trailed off. We were just debating the best way to transport Duvrangergata and an entire company of warriors across the river. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to worry you. I was just so tired after the fight I forgot to lower my barriers. Then Aragon brought Roran forward. Nasuada, I would like to introduce my cousin, Roran. Ajihad may have mentioned him to you before. Roran, Lady Nasuada, leader of the Varden, and my liege lord. And this is Arya Svitkona, the elves' ambassador. Roran bowed to each of them in turn. It is an honour to meet Aragon's cousin said Nasawada. Indeed, added Arya. After they finished exchanging greetings, Aragon explained that the entire village of Carverhall had arrived on the dragon wing, and that Roran was the one responsible for killing the twins. Nasawada lifted a dark eyebrow. The Varden are in your debt, Roran, for stopping their rampage. Who knows how much damage the twins would have caused before Aragon or Arya could have confronted them. You helped us to win this battle. I won't forget that. Our supplies are limited, but I will see that everyone on your ship is clothed and fed, and that your sick are treated. Roran bowed even lower. Thank you, Lady Nasuada. If I weren't so pressed for time, I would insist upon knowing how and why you and your village evaded Galbatorix's men, travelled to Surda, and then found us. Even just the bare facts of your trek make an extraordinary tale. I still intend to learn the specifics, especially since I suspect it concerns Aragon, but I must deal with other, more urgent matters at the moment. Of course, Lady Nasuada. You may go, then. Please, Aragon said, let him stay. He should be here for this. Nasuada gave him a quizzical look. Very well, if you want. But enough of this dawdling. 
jump to the meat of the matter and tell us about the rider. Aragon began with a quick history of the three remaining dragon eggs, two of which had now hatched, as well as Morzan and Murtag, so that Roran would understand the significance of his news. Then he proceeded to describe his and Sephira's fight with Thorn and the mysterious rider, paying special attention to his extraordinary powers. As soon as he spun his sword around, I realized we had dueled before, so I threw myself at him and tore off his helm. Aragon paused. It was Murtag, wasn't it? asked Nasuada quietly. How? she sighed. If the twins survived, it only made sense that Murtag had as well. Did he tell you what really happened that day in Farthandur? So Aragon recounted how the twins betrayed the Varden, recruited the Urgles, and kidnapped Murtag. A tear rolled down Nasuada's cheek. It's a pity that this befell Murtag, when he has already endured so much hardship. I enjoyed his company in Trondheim, and believed he was our ally, despite his upbringing. I find it hard to think of him as our enemy. Turning to Roran, she said, It seems I am also personally in your debt for slaying the traitors who murdered my father. Fathers, mothers, brothers, cousins, thought Aragon. It all comes down to family. Summoning his courage, he completed his report with Murtag's theft of Zarok, and then his final terrible secret. It can't be, whispered Nasuada. Aragon saw shock and revulsion cross Roran's face before he managed to conceal his reactions. That, more than anything else, hurt Aragon. Could Murtag have been lying? asked Arya. I don't see how. When I questioned him, he told me the same thing in the ancient language. A long, uncomfortable silence filled the pavilion. Then Arya said, No one else can know about this. The Varden are demoralized enough by the presence of a new rider, and they'll be even more upset when they learn it's Murtag, whom they fought alongside and came to trust in Farthandur. If word spreads that Aragon Shadeslayer is Morzan's son, the men will grow disillusioned, and few people will want to join us. Not even King Orin should be told. Nasuada rubbed her temples. I fear you're right. A new rider. She shook her head. I knew it was possible for this to occur, but I didn't really believe it would, since Galbatorix's remaining eggs had gone so long without hatching. It has a certain symmetry, said Aragon. Our task is doubly hard now. We may have held our own today, but the Empire still far outnumbers us, and now we face not one but two riders, both of whom are stronger than you, Aragon. Do you think you could defeat Murtag with the help of the elves' spellcasters? Maybe, but I doubt he'd be foolish enough to fight them and me together. For several minutes they discussed the effect Murtag could have on their campaign, and strategies to minimize or eliminate it. At last Nasuada said, Enough. We cannot decide this when we are bloody and tired, and our minds are clouded from fighting. Go, rest, and we shall take this up again tomorrow. As Aragon turned to leave, Arya approached and looked him straight in the eye. Do not allow this to trouble you overmuch, Aragon Elder. You are not your father, nor your brother. Bear shame is not yours. 
I, agreed Nasawada, nor imagine that it has lowered our opinion of you. She reached out and cupped his face. I know you, Eragon. You have a good heart. The name of your father cannot change that. Warmth blossomed inside Eragon. He looked from one woman to the next, then twisted his hand over his chest, overwhelmed by their friendship. Thank you. Once they were back out in the open, Aragon put his hands on his hips and took a deep breath of the smoky air. It was late in the day, and the garish orange of noon had subsided into a dusky gold light that suffused the camp and battlefield, giving it a strange beauty. So, now you know, he said. Roran shrugged. Blood always tells. Don't say that, growled Aragon. Don't ever say that. Rorin studied him for several seconds. You're right. It was an ugly thought. I didn't mean it. He scratched his beard and squinted at the bloated sun resting upon the horizon. Nasawada wasn't what I expected. That forced a tired chuckle out of Aragon. The one you were expecting was her father, Arjihad. Still, she's as good a leader as he was, if not better. Her skin. Is it dyed? No, that's the way she is. Just then, Aragon felt Jode, Horst, and a score of other men from Carvajal hurrying toward them. The villagers slowed as they rounded a tent and glimpsed Saphira. Horst! exclaimed Aragon. Stepping forward, he grasped the smith in a bear hug. It's good to see you again! Horst gaped at Aragon. Then a delighted grin spread across his face. Blast if it isn't good to see you as well, Aragon. You've filled out since you left. You mean since I ran away? Meeting the villagers was a strange experience for Aragon. Hardship had altered some of the men so much he barely recognized them, and they treated him differently than before, with a mixture of awe and reverence. It reminded him of a dream where everything familiar is rendered alien. He was disconcerted by how out of place he felt among them. When Aragon came to Jode, he paused. You know about Brom? Arjihad sent me a message, but I'd like to hear what happened directly from you. Aragon nodded, grave. As soon as I have the chance, we'll sit down together and have a long talk. Then Jode moved on to Saphira and bowed to her. I waited my entire life to see a dragon and now I have seen two in the same day. I am indeed lucky. However, you are the dragon I wanted to meet. Bending her neck, Saphira touched Jode on the brow. He shivered at the contact. Give him my thanks for helping to rescue me from Galbatorix. Otherwise I would still be languishing in the king's treasury. He was Brom's friend. And so he is our friend. After Aragon repeated her words, Jode said, Atra esterni ono Thelduin, Saphira Bjartskula, surprising them with his knowledge of the ancient language. Where did you go? Horst asked Roran. We looked high and low for you after you took off in pursuit of those two magicians. Never mind that now. Return to the ship and have everyone disembark. The Varden are sending us food and shelter. We can sleep on solid ground tonight. The men cheered. Aragon watched with interest as Roran issued his commands. 
When at last Jode and the villagers departed, Aragon said, They trust you. Even Horst obeys you without question. Do you speak for all of Carvajal now? I do. Heavy darkness was advancing upon the burning plains by the time they found the small two-man tent the Varden had assigned Aragon. Since Sephira could not fit her head through the opening, she curled up on the ground beside and prepared to keep watch. As soon as I get my strength back, I'll see to your wounds, promised Aragon. I know. Don't stay up too late talking. Inside the tent, Aragon found an oil lantern that he lit with steel and flint. He could see perfectly well without it, but Roran needed the light. They sat opposite each other. Aragon, on the bedding laid out along one side of the tent, Roran on a folding stool he found leaning in a corner. Aragon was uncertain how to begin, so he remained silent and stared at the lamp's dancing flame. Neither of them moved. After uncounted minutes, Roran said, Tell me how my father died. Our father? Aragon remained calm as Roran's expression hardened. In a gentle voice he said, I have as much right to call him that as you. Look within yourself, you know it to be true. Fine. Our father. How did he die? Aragon had recounted the story upon several occasions, but this time he hid nothing. Instead of just listing the events, he described what he had thought and felt ever since he had found Sapphira's egg, trying to make Roran understand why he did what he did. He had never been so anxious before. I was wrong to hide Sapphira from the rest of the family, Aragon concluded, but I was afraid you might insist on killing her, and I didn't realize how much danger she put us in. If I had, after Garrow died, I decided to leave in order to track down the Razak, as well as to avoid putting Carvajal in any more danger. A humorless laugh escaped him. It didn't work, but if I had remained, the soldiers would have come far sooner. And then, who knows? Galbatorix might have even visited Palancar Valley himself. I may be the reason Garrow, father, died, but that was never my intention, nor that you and everyone else in Carvajal should suffer because of my choices. He gestured helplessly. I did the best I could, Roran. And the rest of it. Brom being a rider, rescuing Arya at Gilead, and killing a shade at the dwarf's capital. All that happened. I. As quickly as he could, Aragon summarized what had taken place since he and Sephira set forth with Brom, including their sojourn to Elismira and his own transformation during the Agate Blodron. Leaning forward, Roran rested his elbows on his knees, clasped his hands, and gazed at the dirt between them. It was impossible for Aragon to read his emotions without reaching into his consciousness, which he refused to do, knowing it would be a terrible mistake to invade Roran's privacy. Roran was silent for so long Aragon began to wonder if he would ever respond. Then, you have made mistakes, but they are no greater than my own. Garrow died because you kept Sephira secret. Many more have died because I refused to give myself up to the Empire. We are equally guilty. He looked up, then slowly extended his right hand. Brother? Brother, said Aragon. 
He gripped Roran's forearm, and they pulled each other into a rough embrace, wrestling to and fro as they used to do at home. When they separated, Aragon had to wipe his eyes with the heel of his hand. Galbatoric should surrender now that we're together again,' he joked. "'Who can stand against the two of us?' He lowered himself back onto the bedding. "'Now, you tell me. How did the Razak capture Katrina?' All happiness vanished from Roran's face. He began to speak in a low monotone, and Aragon listened with growing amazement as he wove an epic of attacks, sieges, and betrayal, of leaving Carvajal, crossing the spine, and raising the docks of Tirm, of sailing through a monstrous whirlpool. When at last he finished, Aragon said, "'You are a greater man than I. I couldn't have done half those things. Fight, yes, but not convince everyone to follow me.' I had no choice. When they took Katrina, Roran's voice broke, I could either give up and die, or I could try to escape Galbatorix's trap, no matter the cost. He fixed his burning eyes on Aragon. I have lied and burned and slaughtered to get here. I no longer have to worry about protecting everyone from Carvajal. The Vardam will see to that. Now I have only one goal in life to find and rescue Katrina, if she's not already dead. Will you help me, Aragon? Reaching over, Aragon grabbed his saddlebags from the corner of the tent, where the Varden had deposited them, and removed a wooden bowl and the silver flask of enchanted failnerve Oromis had given him. He took a small sip of the liqueur to revitalize himself, and gasped as it raced down his throat, making his nerves tingle with cold fire. Then he poured Failnerve into the bowl until it formed a shallow pool the width of his hand. Watch. Gathering up his burst of new energy, Aragon said, Dramor Cooper. The liqueur shimmered and turned black. After a few seconds, a thin key of light appeared in the centre of the bowl, revealing Katrina. She lay slumped against an invisible wall. Her hand suspended above her with invisible manacles, and her copper hair splayed like a fan across her back. She's alive. Roran hunched over the bowl, grasping at it as if he thought he could dive through the failnerve and join Katrina. His hope and determination melded with a look of such tender affection. Aragon knew that only death could stop Roran from trying to free her. Unable to sustain the spell any longer, Aragon let the image fade away. He leaned against the wall of the tent for support. Aye, he said wearily. She's alive. And chances are she's imprisoned in Hellgrind, in the Razak's lair. Aragon grasped Roran by the shoulders. The answer to your question, brother, is yes. I will travel to Drasleona with you. I will help you rescue Katrina. And then, together, you and I shall kill the Razak and avenge our father. This is Gerard Doyle. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Eldest, Inheritance, Book Two, by Christopher Paolini. This program was produced and directed by Taro Meyer, executive producer Jacob Bronstein. Text copyright 2005 by Christopher Paolini. Production copyright 2005, Random House Inc. 
all rights reserved. Hello, this is Jim Dale, narrator of the Harry Potter audiobook series. Listening to audiobooks isn't just great entertainment. It's also a great way for your family to experience and enjoy books together. Studies have shown that listening to stories read aloud helps children build vocabulary, improve their reading skills and succeed more readily in school. It's an important step on the road to becoming a good reader and one of the best ways to help ensure a lifelong love of literature for the children you care about. Check your local retailer for the wide selection of audiobooks available from Listening Library. Or if you would like to visit us online for more information, check our website at www.listeninglibrary.com. Thank you and happy listening. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.